This is Audible. Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince by J.K. Rowling, read by Jim Dale. An unabridged performance brought to you by Pottermore from J.K. Rowling. Chapter One. The Other Minister. It was nearing midnight, and the Prime Minister was sitting alone in his office, reading a long memo that was slipping through his brain without leaving the slightest trace of meaning behind. He was waiting for a call from the President of a far distant country, and between wondering when the wretched man would telephone and trying to suppress unpleasant memories of what had been a very long, tiring, and difficult week. There was not much space in his head for anything else. The more he attempted to focus on the print on the page before him, the more clearly the prime minister could see the gloating face of one of his political opponents. This particular opponent had appeared on the news that very day, not only to enumerate all the terrible things that had happened in the last week, as though anyone needed reminding, but also to explain why each and every one of them was the government's fault. The prime minister's pulse quickened at the very thought of these accusations, for they were neither fair nor true. How on earth was his government supposed to have stopped that bridge collapsing? It was outrageous for anybody to suggest that they were not spending enough on bridges. The bridge was fewer than ten years old, and the best experts were at a loss to explain why it had snapped cleanly in two, sending a dozen cars into the watery depths of the river below. And how dare anyone suggest that it was lack of policemen that had resulted in those two very nasty and well-publicized murders, or that the government should have somehow foreseen the freak hurricane in the West Country that had caused so much damage to both people and property? And was it his fault that one of his junior ministers, Herbert Chorley, had chosen this week to act so peculiarly that he was now going to be spending a lot more time with his family? A grim mood has gripped the country," the opponent had concluded, barely concealing his own broad grin. And unfortunately, this was perfectly true. The prime minister felt it himself. People really did seem more miserable than usual. Even the weather was dismal. All this chilly mist in the middle of July—it wasn't right. It wasn't normal. He turned over the second page of the memo, saw how much longer it went on, and gave it up as a bad job. Stretching his arms above his head, he looked around his office mournfully. It was a handsome room with a fine marble fireplace facing the long sash windows, firmly closed against the unseasonable chill. With a slight shiver, the prime minister got up and moved over to the window, looking out at the thin mist that was pressing itself against the glass. It was then, as he stood with his back to the room, that he heard a soft cough behind him. He froze nose to nose with his own scared-looking reflection in the dark glass. He knew that cough. He had heard it before. He turned very slowly to face the empty room. "Hello," he said, trying to sound braver than he felt. For a brief moment, he allowed himself the impossible hope. That nobody would answer him. However, a voice responded at once—a crisp, decisive voice that sounded as though it were reading a prepared statement. It was coming, as the prime minister had known at the first cough, 
from the frog-like little man wearing a long silver wig who was depicted in a small dirty oil painting in the far corner of the room. To the Prime Minister of Muggles, urgent we meet. Kindly respond immediately, sincerely, fudge. The man in the painting looked inquiringly at the Prime Minister. Ah, uh, said the Prime Minister, listen, it's not a very good time for me. I'm waiting for a telephone call, you see, from the President of... That can be rearranged, said the portrait at once. The Prime Minister's heart sank. He had been afraid of that. But I really was rather hoping to speak. We shall arrange for the President to forget to call. He will telephone tomorrow night instead, said the little man. Kindly respond immediately to Mr. Fudge. I, oh, very well, said the Prime Minister weakly. Yes, I'll see, Fudge. He hurried back to his desk, straightening his tie as he went. He had barely resumed his seat and arranged his face into what he hoped was a relaxed and unfazed expression when bright green flames burst into life in the empty grate beneath his marble mantelpiece. He watched, trying not to betray a flicker of surprise or alarm as a portly man appeared within the flames, spinning as fast as a top. Seconds later, he had climbed out onto a rather fine antique rug, brushing ash from the sleeves of his long pinstripe cloak, a lime-green bowler hat in his hand. Ah, oh, Prime Minister, said Cornelius Fudge, striding forward with his hand outstretched. Good to see you again. The Prime Minister could not honestly return this compliment, so said nothing at all. He was not remotely pleased to see Fudge, whose occasional appearances, apart from being downright alarming in themselves, generally meant that he was about to hear some very bad news. Furthermore, Fudge was looking distinctly careworn. He was thinner, balder, and grayer, and his face had a crumpled look. The Prime Minister had seen that kind of look in politicians before, and it never boded well. How can I help you? He said, shaking Fudge's hand very briefly and gesturing toward the hardest of the chairs in front of the desk. Difficult to know where to begin, muttered Fudge, pulling up the chair, sitting down, and placing his green bowler upon his knees. What a week! What a week! Had a bad one, too, have you? asked the Prime Minister stiffly, hoping to convey by this that he had quite enough on his plate already without any extra helpings from Fudge. Yes, of course, said Fudge, rubbing his eyes wearily and looking morosely at the Prime Minister. I've been having the same week you have, Prime Minister. The Brockdale Bridge, the Bones and Vance murders, not to mention the ruckus in the West Country. You were... Your, I mean to say, some of your people were, were involved in those, those things, were they? Fudge fixed the Prime Minister with a rather stern look. Of course they were, he said. Surely you've realized what's going on. I hesitated the Prime Minister. It was precisely this sort of behavior that made him dislike Fudge's visits so much. He was, after all, the Prime Minister and did not appreciate being made to feel like an ignorant schoolboy. But, of course, it had been like this from his very first meeting with Fudge on his very first evening as Prime Minister. He remembered it as though it were yesterday and knew it would haunt him until his dying day.
He had been standing alone in this very office, savoring the triumph that was his after so many years of dreaming and scheming, when he had heard a cough behind him just like tonight, and turned to find that ugly little portrait talking to him, announcing that the Minister of Magic was about to arrive and introduce himself. Naturally, he had thought that the long campaign and the strain of the election had caused him to go mad. He had been utterly terrified to find a portrait talking to him, though this had been nothing to how he felt when a self-proclaimed wizard had bounced out of the fireplace and shaken his hand. He had remained speechless throughout Fudge's kindly explanation that there were witches and wizards still living in secret all over the world, and his reassurances that he was not to bother his head about them as the Ministry of Magic took responsibility for the whole wizarding community and prevented the non-magical population from getting wind of them. It was, said Fudge, a difficult job that encompassed everything from regulations on responsible use of broomsticks to keeping the dragon population under control. The Prime Minister remembered clutching the desk for support at this point. Fudge had then patted the shoulder of the still dumbstruck Prime Minister in a fatherly sort of way. Not to worry, he had said. It starts on, you'll never see me again. I'll only bother you if there's something really serious going on our end, something that's likely to affect the muggles, the non-magical population, I should say. Otherwise, it's live and let live, and I must say you're taking it a lot better than your predecessor. He tried to throw me out the window, thought I was a hoax, planned by the opposition. At this, the Prime Minister had found his voice at last. You're, you're not a hoax, then? It had been his last desperate hope. No, said Fudge gently. No, I'm afraid I'm not. Look. And he had turned the Prime Minister's teacup into a gerbil. But, said the Prime Minister breathlessly, watching his teacup chewing on the corner of his next speech, but why, why has nobody told me? The Minister of Magic only reveals him or herself to the muggle Prime Minister of the day said Fudge, poking his wand back inside his jacket. We find it the best way to maintain secrecy. But then, bleated the Prime Minister, why hasn't a former Prime Minister warned me? That this Fudge had actually laughed. My dear Prime Minister, are you ever going to tell anybody? Still chortling, Fudge had thrown some powder into the fireplace, stepped into the emerald flames, and vanished with a whooshing sound. The Prime Minister had stood there quite motionless and realized that he would never, as long as he lived, dare mention this encounter to a living soul, for who in the wide world would believe him? The shock had taken a little while to wear off. For a time he had tried to convince himself that Fudge had indeed been a hallucination brought on by lack of sleep during his grueling election campaign. In a vain attempt to rid himself of all reminders of this uncomfortable encounter, he had given the gerbil to his delighted niece and instructed his private secretary to take down the portrait of the ugly little man who had announced Fudge's arrival. To the Prime Minister's dismay, however, the portrait had proved impossible to remove. When several carpenters, a builder or two, an art historian, and the Chancellor of the Exchequer had all tried unsuccessfully to prize it from the wall, the Prime Minister had abandoned the attempt and simply resolved to hope that the thing remained motionless and silent for the rest of his term in office.
Occasionally he could have sworn he saw out of the corner of his eye the occupant of the painting yawning, or else scratching his nose, even once or twice simply walking out of his frame and leaving nothing but a stretch of muddy brown canvas behind. However, he had trained himself not to look at the picture very much, and always to tell himself firmly that his eyes were playing tricks on him when anything like this happened. Then, three years ago, on a night very like tonight, the Prime Minister had been alone in his office when the portrait had once again announced the imminent arrival of Fudge, who had burst out of the fireplace sopping wet and in a state of considerable panic. Before the Prime Minister could ask why he was dripping all over the Axminster, Fudge had started ranting about a prison the Prime Minister had never heard of, a man named Sirius Black, something that sounded like Hogwarts, and a boy called Harry Potter, none of which made the remotest sense to the Prime Minister. I've just come from Azkaban, Fudge had panted, tipping a large amount of water out of the rim of his bowler hat into his pocket. Middle of the North Sea, you know, nasty flight. The Dementors are in uproar, he shuddered. They've never had a breakout before. Anyway, I had to come to you, Prime Minister. Black's a known muggle killer and may be planning to rejoin you-know-who. But of course, you don't even know who you-know-who is. He had gazed hopelessly at the Prime Minister for a moment then said, Well, sit down, sit down. I'd better fill you in. Have a whiskey. The Prime Minister rather resented being told to sit down in his own office, let alone offered his own whiskey, but he sat nevertheless. Fudge pulled out his wand, conjured two large glasses full of amber liquid out of thin air, pushed one of them into the Prime Minister's hand, and drew up a chair. Fudge had talked for more than an hour. At one point, he had refused to say a certain name aloud and wrote it instead on a piece of parchment, which he had thrust into the Prime Minister's whiskey-free hand. When at last Fudge had stood up to leave, the Prime Minister had stood up too. So, you think that... He had squinted down at the name in his left hand. Lord Vol... He who must not be named, snarled Fudge. I'm sorry. You think that he who must not be named is still alive, then? Well, Dumbledore says he is, said Fudge, as he had fastened his pinstripe cloak under his chin. But we've never found him. If you ask me, he's not dangerous unless he's got support. So it's black we ought to be worrying about. You'll put out that warning, then. Excellent. Well, I hope we don't see each other again, Prime Minister. Good night. But they had seen each other again. Less than a year later, a harassed-looking fudge had appeared out of thin air in the cabinet room to inform the Prime Minister that there had been a spot of bother at the Kowidditch, or that was what it had sounded like, World Cup, and that several muggles had been involved but that the Prime Minister was not to worry. The fact that you-know-whose mark had been seen again meant nothing. Fudge was sure it was an isolated incident, and the muggle liaison office was dealing with all memory modifications as they spoke. Oh, and I almost forgot, Fudge had added. We're importing three foreign dragons and a sphinx for the Triwizard Tournament. Quite routine, but 
The Department for the Regulation and Control of Magical Creatures tells me that it's down in the rule book that we have to notify you if we're bringing highly dangerous creatures into the country. I'll... What? Dragons? spluttered the Prime Minister. Yes, three, said Fudge, and a sphinx. Well, good day to you. The Prime Minister had hoped beyond hope that dragons and sphinxes would be the worst of it. But no. Less than two years later, Fudge had erupted out of the fire yet again, this time with the news that there had been a mass breakout from Azkaban. A mass breakout? repeated the Prime Minister hoarsely. No need to worry, no need to worry, shouted Fudge, already with one foot in the flames. We'll have them rounded up in no time. Just thought you ought to know. And before the Prime Minister could shout, Now wait just one moment, Fudge had vanished in a shower of green sparks. Whatever the press and the opposition might say, the Prime Minister was not a foolish man. It had not escaped his notice that, despite Fudge's assurances at their first meeting, they were now seeing rather a lot of each other, nor that Fudge was becoming more flustered with each visit. Little though he liked to think about the Minister of Magic, or, as he always called Fudge in his head, the Other Minister, the Prime Minister could not help but fear that the next time Fudge appeared, it would be with graver news still. The sight, therefore, of Fudge stepping out of the fire once more, looking disheveled and fretful, and sternly surprised that the Prime Minister did not know exactly why he was there, was about the worst thing that had happened in the course of this extremely gloomy week. How should I know what's going on in the, uh, wizarding community? snapped the Prime Minister now. I have a country to run and quite enough concerns at the moment without... We have the same concerns, Fudge interrupted. The Brockdale Bridge didn't wear out. That wasn't really a hurricane. Those murders were not the work of muggles. And Herbert Chawley's family would be safer without him. We are currently making arrangements to have him transferred to St. Mungo's Hospital for magical maladies and injuries. The move should be effected tonight. What do you... I'm afraid I... What? blustered the Prime Minister. Fudge took a great deep breath and said, Prime Minister, I'm very sorry to have to tell you that he's back. He who must not be named is back. Back? When you say back, he's alive? I mean... The Prime Minister groped in his memory for the details of that horrible conversation of three years previous, when Fudge had told him about the wizard who was feared above all others, the wizard who had committed a thousand terrible crimes before his mysterious disappearance fifteen years earlier. Yes, alive, said Fudge. That is, I don't know, is a man alive if he can't be killed? I don't really understand it, and Dumbledore won't explain properly, but anyway, he's certainly got a body, and is walking and talking and killing. So, I suppose, for the purposes of our discussion, yes, he's alive. The Prime Minister did not know what to say to this, but a persistent habit of wishing to appear well-informed on any subject that came up made him cast around for any details he could remember of their previous conversations. Is Sirius Black with the, uh, uh, he who must not be named? Black, Black, 
said Fudge distractedly, turning his bowler rapidly in his fingers. Serious black, you mean. Merlin's beard, no. Black's dead. Turns out we were, uh, mistaken about black. He was innocent, after all. And he wasn't in league with he who must not be named either. I mean, he added defensively, spinning the bowler hat still faster. All the evidence pointed. We had more than fifty eyewitnesses, but anyway, as I say, he's dead. Mm. Murdered, as a matter of fact, on Ministry of Magic premises. There's going to be an inquiry, actually. To his great surprise, the Prime Minister felt a fleeting stab of pity for Fudge at this point. It was, however, eclipsed almost immediately by a glow of smugness at the thought that, deficient though he himself might be in the area of materializing out of fireplaces, there had never been a murder in any of the government departments under his charge. Not yet, anyway. While the Prime Minister surreptitiously touched the wood of his desk, Fudge continued, But Black's by the by now. The point is, we're at war, Prime Minister, and steps must be taken. At war? repeated the Prime Minister nervously. Surely that's a little bit of an overstatement. He who must not be named has now been joined by those of his followers who broke out of Azkaban in January said Fudge, speaking more and more rapidly and twirling his bowler so fast that it was a lime-green blur. Since they have moved into the open, they have been wreaking havoc. The Brockdale Bridge, he did it, Prime Minister. He threatened a mass muggle killing unless I stood aside for him and... Good grief! So it's your fault those people were killed. And I'm having to answer questions about rusted rigging and corroded expansion joints and I don't know what else, said the Prime Minister furiously. My fault, said Fudge, coloring up. Are you saying you would have caved into blackmail like that? Maybe not, said the Prime Minister, standing up and striding about the room. But I would have put all my efforts into catching the blackmailer before he committed any such atrocity. Do you really think I wasn't already making every effort? demanded Fudge heatedly. Every auror in the ministry was, and is, trying to find him and round up his followers. But we happened to be talking about one of the most powerful wizards of all time, a wizard who has eluded capture for almost three decades. So, I suppose you're going to tell me he caused the hurricane in the West Country too? said the Prime Minister, his temper rising with every pace he took. It was infuriating to discover the reason for all these terrible disasters and not to be able to tell the public, almost worse than it had been the government's fault after all. That was no hurricane, said Fudge miserably. Excuse me, barked the Prime Minister, now positively stamping up and down. Trees uprooted, roofs ripped off, lampposts bent. Horrible injuries. It was the Death Eaters, said Fudge. He who must not be named followers. And, and, we suspect, giant involvement. The Prime Minister stopped in his tracks, as though he had hit an invisible wall. What involvement? Fudge grimaced. He used giants last time, when he wanted to go for the grand effect, 
he said. The Office of Misinformation has been working around the clock. We've had teams of obliviators out trying to modify the memories of all the muggles who saw what really happened. We've got most of the Department for the Regulation and Control of Magical Creatures running around Somerset. But we can't find the giant. It's been a disaster. You don't say, said the Prime Minister furiously. I won't deny that morale is pretty low at the Ministry, said Fudge. What with all that, and then losing Amelia Bones. Losing who? Amelia Bones, head of the Department of Magical Law Enforcement. We think he who must not be named may have murdered her in person because she was a very gifted witch, and, and all the evidence was that she put up a real fight. Fudge cleared his throat and, with an effort, it seemed, stopped spinning his bowler hat. But that murder was in the newspapers, said the Prime Minister, momentarily diverted from his anger. Our newspapers. Amelia Bones, it just said she was a middle-aged woman who lived alone. It was a, a nasty killing, wasn't it? It's had rather a lot of publicity. The police are baffled, you see. Fudge sighed. Well, of course they are he said. Killed in a room that was locked from the inside, wasn't she? We, on the other hand, know exactly who did it. Not that that gets us any further towards catching him. And then there was Emmeline Vance. Maybe you didn't hear about that one. Oh, yes, I did, said the Prime Minister. It happened just around the corner from here, as a matter of fact. The papers had a field day with it. Breakdown of law and order in the Prime Minister's backyard. And as if all that wasn't enough, said Fudge, barely listening to the Prime Minister, we've got Dementors swarming all over the place, attacking people left, right, and center. Once upon a happier time, this sentence would have been unintelligible to the Prime Minister, but he was wiser now. I thought Dementors guard the prisoners in Azkaban, he said cautiously. They did, said Fudge wearily, but not any more. They've deserted the prison and joined he who must not be named. I won't pretend that wasn't a blow. But, said the Prime Minister with a sense of dawning horror, didn't you tell me they're the creatures that drain hope and happiness out of people? That's right, and they're breeding. That's what's causing all this mist. The Prime Minister sank weak-kneed into the nearest chair. The idea of invisible creatures swooping through the towns and countryside, spreading despair and hopelessness in his voters, made him feel quite faint. Now, see here, Fudge. You've got to do something. It's your responsibility as Minister of Magic. My dear Prime Minister, you can't honestly think I'm still Minister of Magic after all this. I was sacked three days ago. The whole wizarding community has been screaming for my resignation for a fortnight. I've never known them so united in my whole term of office, said Fudge, with a brave attempt at a smile. The Prime Minister was momentarily lost for words. Despite his indignation at the position into which he had been placed, he still rather felt for the shrunken-looking man sitting opposite him. I'm very sorry, he said finally. If there's anything I can do. It's very kind of you, Prime Minister, but there is nothing. 
I was sent here tonight to bring you up to date on recent events and to introduce you to my successor. I rather thought he'd be here by now, but of course he's very busy at the moment with so much going on. Fudge looked around at the portrait of the ugly little man wearing the long curly silver wig, who was digging in his ear with a point of a quill. Catching Fudge's eye, the portrait said, He'll be here in a moment. He's just finishing a letter to Dumbledore. I wish him luck, said Fudge, sounding bitter for the first time. I've been writing to Dumbledore twice a day for the past fortnight, but he won't budge. If he'd just been prepared to persuade the boy, I might still be... Well, maybe Scrimjaw will have more success. Fudge subsided into what was clearly an aggrieved silence, but it was broken almost immediately by the portrait, which suddenly spoke in its crisp official voice. To the Prime Minister of Muggles, requesting a meeting. Urgent. Kindly respond immediately. Rufus Scrimjaw, Minister of Magic. Yes, yes, fine, said the Prime Minister distractedly, and he barely flinched as the flames in the grate turned emerald green again, rose up, and revealed a second spinning wizard in their heart, disgorging him moments later onto the antique rug. Fudge got to his feet, and after a moment's hesitation, the Prime Minister did the same, watching the new arrival straighten up, dust down his long black robes, and look around. The Prime Minister's first foolish thought was that Rufus Scrimjaw looked rather like an old lion. There were streaks of grey in his mane of tawny hair and his bushy eyebrows. He had keen yellowish eyes behind a pair of wire-rimmed spectacles and a certain rangy, loping grace even though he walked with a slight limp. There was an immediate impression of shrewdness and toughness. The Prime Minister thought he understood why the wizarding community prefers Scrimjaw to Fudge as a leader in these dangerous times. How do you do? said the Prime Minister politely, holding out his hand. Scrimjaw grasped it briefly, his eyes scanning the room, then pulled out a wand from under his robes. Fudge told you everything? he asked, striding over to the door and tapping the keyhole with his wand. The Prime Minister heard the lock click. Uh, yes, said the Prime Minister, and if you don't mind, I'd rather that door remained unlocked. I'd rather not be interrupted, said Scrimjaw shortly, or watched, he added, pointing his wand at the windows so that the curtains swept across them. Right, well, I'm a busy man, so let's get down to business. First of all, we need to discuss your security. The Prime Minister drew himself up to his fullest height and replied, I am perfectly happy with the security I've already got. Thank you very— Well, we're not, Scrimjaw cut in. It'll be a poor lookout for the muggles if their prime minister gets put under the imperious curse. The new secretary in your outer office— I am not getting rid of Kingsley Shacklebolt, if that's what you're suggesting, said the prime minister hotly. He's highly efficient, gets through twice the work the rest of them— That's because he's a wizard said Scrimjaw, without a flicker of a smile. A highly trained Auror who has been assigned to you for your protection. Now, wait a moment, declared the Prime Minister. You can't just put your people into my office. I decide who works for me. I thought you were happy with Shacklebolt, said Scrimjaw coldly. I am. That's to say, I, I was. Then there's no problem, is there? 
said Scrimjaw. I... well, as long as Shacklebolt's work continues to be, uh, excellent, said the Prime Minister lamely, but Scrimjaw barely seemed to hear him. Now, about Herbert Chorley, your junior minister, he continued, the one who's been entertaining the public by impersonating a duck. What about him? asked the Prime Minister. He has clearly reacted to a poorly performed imperious curse, said Scrimjaw. It saddled his brains, but it could still be dangerous. He's only quacking, said the Prime Minister weakly. Surely a bit of a rest. Maybe go easy on the drink. A team of healers from St. Mungo's Hospital for Magical Maladies and Injuries are examining him as we speak. So far, he has attempted to strangle three of them, said Scrimjaw. I think it best that we remove him from Muggle society for a while. I, well, he'll be all right, won't he? said the Prime Minister anxiously. Scrimjaw merely shrugged, already moving back toward the fireplace. Well, that's really all I had to say. I will keep you posted of developments, Prime Minister, or at least I shall probably be too busy to come personally, in which case I shall send Fudge here. He has consented to stay on in an advisory capacity. Fudge attempted to smile, but was unsuccessful. He merely looked as though he had a toothache. Scrimjaw was already rummaging in his pocket for the mysterious powder that turned the fire green. The Prime Minister gazed hopelessly at the pair of them for a moment, then the words he had fought to suppress all evening burst from him at last. But for heaven's sake, you're wizards! You can do magic! Surely you can sort out, well, anything! Scrimjaw turned slowly on the spot and exchanged an incredulous look with Fudge, who really did manage a smile this time as he said kindly, The trouble is, the other side can do magic too, Prime Minister. And with that, the two wizards stepped, one after the other, into the bright green fire and vanished. Chapter Two Spinner's End Many miles away, the chilly mist that had pressed against the Prime Minister's windows drifted over a dirty river that wound between overgrown, rubbish-strewn banks. An immense chimney, relic of a disused mill, reared up, shadowy and ominous. There was no sound apart from the whisper of the black water, and no sign of life apart from a scrawny fox that had slunk down the bank to nose hopefully at some old fish and chip wrappings in the tall grass. But then, with a very faint pop, a slim hooded figure appeared out of thin air on the edge of the river. The fox froze, wary eyes fixed upon this strange new phenomenon. The figure seemed to take its bearings for a few moments, then set off with light, quick strides, its long cloak rustling over the grass. With a second and louder pop, another hooded figure materialized. Wait! The harsh cry startled the fox, now crouching almost flat in the undergrowth. It leapt from its hiding place and up the bank. There was a flash of green light, a yelp, and the fox fell back to the ground, dead. The second figure turned over the animal with its toe. Just a fox, said a woman's voice dismissively from under the hood. I thought perhaps an aura. Sissy, wait! But her quarry, who had paused and looked back at the flash of light, was already scrambling up the bank the fox had just fallen down. Sissy! Narcissa! Listen to me! 
The second woman caught the first and seized her arm, but the other wrenched it away. Go back, Bella. You must listen to me. I've listened already. I've made my decision. Leave me alone. The woman named Narcissa gained the top of the bank, where a line of old railings separated the river from a narrow cobbled street. The other woman, Bella, followed at once. Side by side they stood looking across the road at the rows and rows of dilapidated brick houses, their windows dull and blind in the darkness. He lives here, asked Bella in a voice of contempt. Here? In this muggle dunghill? We must be the first of our kind ever to set foot. But Narcissa was not listening. She had slipped through a gap in the rusty railings and was already hurrying across the road. Sissy, wait! Bella followed, her cloak streaming behind, and saw Narcissa darting through an alley between the houses into a second almost identical street. Some of the street lamps were broken. The two women were running between patches of light and deep darkness. The pursuer caught up with her prey just as she turned another corner, this time succeeding in catching hold of her arm and swinging her around so that they faced each other. Sissy, you must not do this. You can't trust him. The Dark Lord trusts him, doesn't he? The Dark Lord is, I believe, mistaken, Bella panted, and her eyes gleamed momentarily under her hood as she looked around to check that they were indeed alone. In any case, we were told not to speak of the plan to anyone. This is a betrayal of the Dark Lord's... Let go, Bella, snarled Narcissa, and she drew a wand from beneath her cloak, holding it threateningly in the other's face. Bella merely laughed. Sissy, your own sister, you wouldn't... There is nothing I wouldn't do anymore, Narcissa breathed, a note of hysteria in her voice, and then she brought down the wand like a knife. There was another flash of light. Bella let go of her sister's arm, as though burned. Narcissa! But Narcissa had rushed ahead. Rubbing her hand, her pursuer followed again, keeping her distance now as they moved deeper into the deserted labyrinth of brick houses. At last Narcissa hurried up a street named Spinner's End, over which the towering mill chimney seemed to hover like a giant admonitory finger. Her footsteps echoed on the cobbles as she passed boarded and broken windows, until she reached the very last house, where a dim light glimmered through the curtains in a downstairs room. She had knocked on the door before Bella, cursing under her breath, had caught up. Together they stood, waiting, panting slightly, breathing in the smell of the dirty river that was carried to them on the night breeze. After a few seconds, they heard movement behind the door, and it opened a crack. A sliver of a man could be seen looking out at them, a man with long black hair parted in curtains around a sallow face and black eyes. Narcissa threw back her hood. She was so pale that she seemed to shine in the darkness, the long blonde hair streaming down her back gave her the look of a drowned person. Narcissa, said the man, opening the door a little wider, so that the light fell upon her and her sister, too. What a pleasant surprise. Severus, she said in a strained whisper. May I speak to you? It's urgent. But of course. He stood back to allow her to pass him into the house. Her still-hooded sister followed without invitation. Snape, she said curtly as she passed him. Bellatrix, he replied, his thin mouth curling into a slightly mocking smile as he closed the door with a snap behind them. 
They had stepped directly into a tiny sitting room, which had the feeling of a dark padded cell. The walls were completely covered in books, most of them bound in old black or brown leather. A threadbare sofa, an old armchair, and a rickety table stood grouped together in a pool of dim light cast by a candle-filled lamp hung from the ceiling. The place had an air of neglect, as though it was not usually inhabited. Snape gestured Narcissa to the sofa. She threw off her cloak, cast it aside, and sat down, staring at her white and trembling hands clasped in her lap. Bellatrix lowered her hood more slowly. Dark as her sister was fair, with heavily-lidded eyes and a strong jaw, she did not take her gaze from Snape as she moved to stand behind Narcissa. So, what can I do for you? Snape asked, settling himself in the armchair opposite the two sisters. We... we are alone, aren't we? Narcissa asked quietly. Yes, of course. Well, Wormtail's here, but we're not counting vermin, are we? He pointed his wand at the wall of books behind him, and with a bang, a hidden door flew open, revealing a narrow staircase upon which a small man stood frozen. As you have clearly realized, Wormtail, we have guests, said Snape lazily. The man crept hunchbacked down the last few steps and moved into the room. He had small, watery eyes, a pointed nose, and wore an unpleasant simper. His left hand was caressing his right, which looked as though it was encased in a bright silver glove. Narcissa, he said in a squeaky voice, and Bellatrix, how charming. Wormtail will get us drinks, if you'd like them, said Snape, and then he will return to his bedroom. Wormtail winced as though Snape had thrown something at him. I am not your servant, he squeaked, avoiding Snape's eye. Really? I was under the impression that the Dark Lord placed you here to assist me. To assist, yes, but not to make you drinks and clean your house. I had no idea, Wormtail, that you were craving more dangerous assignments, said Snape silkily. This can be easily arranged. I shall speak to the Dark Lord. I can speak to him myself if I want to. Of course you can, said Snape, sneering. But in the meantime, bring us drinks. Some of the elf-made wine will do. Wormtail hesitated for a moment, looking as though he might argue, but then turned and headed through a second hidden door. They heard banging and a clinking of glasses. Within seconds he was back, bearing a dusty bottle and three glasses upon a tray. He dropped these on the rickety table and scurried from their presence, slamming the book-covered door behind him. Snape poured out three glasses of blood-red wine and handed two of them to the sisters. Narcissa murmured a word of thanks, whilst Bellatrix said nothing but continued to glower at Snape. This did not seem to discompose him. On the contrary, he looked rather amused. The Dark Lord, he said, raising his glass and draining it. The sisters copied him. Snape refilled their glasses. As Narcissa took her second drink, she said in a rush, Severus, I'm sorry to come here like this, but I had to see you. I think you are the only one who can help me. Snape held up a hand to stop her, then pointed his wand again at the concealed staircase door. There was a loud bang and a squeal, followed by the sound of Wormtail scurrying back up the stairs. 
My apologies, said Snape. He has lately taken to listening at doors. I don't know what he means by it. You were saying, Narcissa. She took a great shuddering breath and started again. Severus, I know I ought not to be here. I have been told to say nothing to anyone, but... Then you ought to hold your tongue, snarled Bellatrix, particularly in present company. Present company, repeated Snape sardonically. And what am I to understand by that, Bellatrix? That I don't trust you, Snape, as you very well know. Narcissa let out a noise that might have been a dry sob and covered her face with her hands. Snape set his glass down upon the table and sat back again, his hands upon the arms of his chair, smiling into Bellatrix's glowering face. Narcissa, I think we ought to hear what Bellatrix is bursting to say. It will save tedious interruptions. Well, continue, Bellatrix, said Snape. Why is it that you do not trust me? A hundred reasons, she said loudly, striding out from behind the sofa to slam her glass upon the table. Where to start? Where were you when the Dark Lord fell? Why did you never make any attempt to find him when he vanished? What have you been doing all these years that you've lived in Dumbledore's pocket? Why did you stop the Dark Lord procuring the Sorcerer's Stone? Why did you not return at once when the Dark Lord was reborn? Where were you a few weeks ago when we battled to retrieve the prophecy for the Dark Lord? And why, Snape, is Harry Potter still alive when you have had him at your mercy for five years? She paused, her chest rising and falling rapidly, the color high in her cheeks. Behind her, Narcissa sat motionless, her face still hidden in her hands. Snape smiled. Before I answer you, oh yes, Bellatrix, I am going to answer. You can carry my words back to the others who whisper behind my back and carry false tales of my treachery to the Dark Lord. Before I answer you, I say, let me ask a question in turn. Do you really think that the Dark Lord has not asked me each and every one of those questions? And do you really think that had I not been able to give satisfactory answers, I would be sitting here talking to you? She hesitated. I know he believes you, but you think he is mistaken? Or that I have somehow hoodwinked him? Fooled the Dark Lord? The greatest wizard? The most accomplished legilimens the world has ever seen? Bellatrix said nothing, but looked for the first time a little discomforted. Snape did not press the point. He picked up his drink again, sipped it, and continued, You ask where I was when the Dark Lord fell. I was where he had ordered me to be, at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, because he wished me to spy upon Albus Dumbledore. You know, I presume that it was on the Dark Lord's orders that I took up the post. She nodded almost imperceptibly, and then opened her mouth, but Snape forestalled her. You ask why I did not attempt to find him when he vanished— for the same reason that Avery, Yaxley, and Carrows, Greyback, Lucius, he inclined his head slightly to Narcissa, and many others 
did not attempt to find him. I believed him finished. I am not proud of it. I was wrong, but there it is. If he had not forgiven we who lost faith at that time, he would have had very few followers left. He'd have me, said Bellatrix passionately. I who spent many years in Azkaban for him. Yes, indeed, most admirable, said Snape in a bored voice. Of course, you weren't a lot of use to him in prison, but the gesture was undoubtedly fine. Gesture, she shrieked. In her fury, she looked slightly mad. While I endured the Dementors, you remained at Hogwarts, comfortably playing Dumbledore's pet. Not quite, said Snape calmly. He wouldn't give me the defense against the Dark Arts job, you know. Seemed to think it might uh, bring about a relapse. Tempt me into my old ways. This was your sacrifice for the Dark Lord, not to teach your favorite subject, she jeered. Why did you stay there all that time, Snape, still spying on Dumbledore for a master you believed dead? Hardly, said Snape, although the Dark Lord is pleased that I never deserted my post. I had sixteen years of information on Dumbledore to give him when he returned, a rather more useful welcome back present than endless reminiscences of how unpleasant Azkaban is. But you stayed. Yes, Bellatrix, I stayed, said Snape, betraying a hint of impatience for the first time. I had a comfortable job that I preferred to a stint in Azkaban. They were rounding up the Death Eaters, you know. Dumbledore's protection kept me out of jail. It was most convenient, and I used it. I repeat, the Dark Lord does not complain that I stayed. So I do not see why you do. I think you next wanted to know... He pressed on a little more loudly, for Bellatrix showed every sign of interrupting. Why I stood between the Dark Lord and the Sorcerer's Stone, that is easily answered. He did not know whether he could trust me. He thought, like you, that I had turned from faithful Death Eater to Dumbledore Stooge. He was in a pitiable condition, very weak, sharing the body of a mediocre wizard. He did not dare reveal himself to a former ally, if that ally might turn him over to Dumbledore or the Ministry. I deeply regret that he did not trust me. He would have returned to power three years sooner. As it was, I saw only greedy and unworthy Quirrell attempting to steal the stone, and, I admit, I did all I could to thwart him. Bellatrix's mouth twisted as though she had taken an unpleasant dose of medicine. But you didn't return when he came back. You didn't fly back to him at once when you felt the dark mark burn, correct? I returned two hours later. I returned on Dumbledore's orders. On Dumbledore's? She began in tones of outrage. Think, said Snape, impatient again. Think. By waiting two hours. Just two hours, I ensured that I could remain at Hogwarts as a spy, by allowing Dumbledore to think that I was only returning to the Dark Lord's side because I was ordered to, I have been able to pass information on Dumbledore and the Order of the Phoenix ever since. 
consider, Bellatrix. The dark mark had been growing stronger for months. I knew he must be about to return. All the Death Eaters knew. I had plenty of time to think about what I wanted to do. To plan my next move. To escape like Karkaroff, didn't I? The Dark Lord's initial displeasure at my lateness vanished entirely, I assure you, when I explained that I remained faithful, although Dumbledore thought I was his man. Yes, the Dark Lord thought that I had left him forever, but he was wrong. But what use have you been? sneered Bellatrix. What useful information have we had from you? My information has been conveyed directly to the Dark Lord said Snape, if he chooses not to share it with you. He shares everything with me, said Bellatrix, firing up at once. He calls me his most loyal, his most faithful. Does he? said Snape, his voice delicately inflected to suggest his disbelief. Does he still, after the fiasco at the Ministry? That was not my fault, said Bellatrix, flushing. The Dark Lord has, in the past, entrusted me with his most precious. If Lucius hadn't... Don't you dare! Don't you dare blame my husband, said Narcissa in a low and deadly voice, looking up at her sister. There is no point apportioning blame, said Snape smoothly. What is done is done. But not by you! said Bellatrix furiously. No, you were once again absent while the rest of us ran dangers, were you not, Snape? My orders were to remain behind, said Snape. Perhaps you disagree with the Dark Lord. Perhaps you think that Dumbledore would not have noticed if I had joined forces with the Death Eaters to fight the Order of the Phoenix, and, forgive me, you speak of dangers. You were facing six teenagers, were you not? They were joined, as you very well know, by half of the Order before long, snarled Bellatrix. And while we are on the subject of the Order, you still claim you cannot reveal the whereabouts of their headquarters, don't you? I am not the secret keeper. I cannot speak the name of the place. You understand how the enchantment works, I think? The Dark Lord is satisfied with the information I have passed him on the Order. It led, as perhaps you have guessed, to the recent capture and murder of Emmeline Vance. And it certainly helped dispose of Sirius Black, though I give you full credit for finishing him off. He inclined his head and toasted her. Her expression did not soften. You are avoiding my last question, Snape. Harry Potter, you could have killed him at any point in the past five years. You have not done it. Why? Have you discussed this matter with the Dark Lord? Asked Snape. He, lately we... I am asking you, Snape. If I had murdered Harry Potter, the Dark Lord could not have used his blood to regenerate, making him invincible. You claim you foresaw his use of the boy? She jeered. I do not claim it. I had no idea of his plans. I have already confessed that I thought the Dark Lord dead. I am merely trying to explain why the Dark Lord is not sorry that Potter survived, at least until a year ago. But why did you keep him alive? Have you not understood me? 
It was only Dumbledore's protection that was keeping me out of Azkaban. Do you disagree that murdering his favorite student might have turned him against me? But there was more to it than that. I should remind you that when Potter first arrived at Hogwarts, there were still many stories circulating about him, rumors that he himself was a great dark wizard, which was how he had survived the Dark Lord's attack. Indeed, many of the Dark Lord's old followers thought Potter might be a standard around which we could all rally once more. I was curious, I admit it, and not at all inclined to murder him the moment he set foot in the castle. Of course, it became apparent to me very quickly that he had no extraordinary talent at all. He has fought his way out of a number of tight corners by a simple combination of sheer luck and more talented friends. He is mediocre to the last degree, though as obnoxious and self-satisfied as was his father before him. I have done my utmost to have him thrown out of Hogwarts, where I believe he scarcely belongs. But kill him, or allow him to be killed in front of me... I would have been a fool to risk it with Dumbledore close at hand. And through all this we are supposed to believe Dumbledore has never suspected you? asked Bellatrix. He has no idea of your true allegiance? He trusts you implicitly still? I have played my part well, said Snape. And you overlook Dumbledore's greatest weakness. He has to believe the best of people. I spun him a tale of deepest remorse when I joined his staff, fresh from my Death Eater days, and he embraced me with open arms, though, as I say, never allowing me nearer the dark arts than he could help. Dumbledore has been a great wizard. Oh, yes, he has. For Bellatrix had made a scathing noise. The Dark Lord acknowledges it. I am pleased to say, however, that Dumbledore is growing old. The duel with the Dark Lord last month shook him. He has since sustained a serious injury because his reactions are slower than they once were. But through all these years, he has never stopped trusting Severus Snape. And therein lies my great value to the Dark Lord. Bellatrix still looked unhappy, though she appeared unsure how best to attack Snape next. Taking advantage of her silence, Snape turned to her sister. Now, you came to ask me for help, Narcissa? Narcissa looked up at him, her face eloquent with despair. Yes, Severus. I, I think you are the only one who can help me. I have nowhere else to turn. Lucius is in jail and... She closed her eyes, and two large tears seeped from beneath her eyelids. The Dark Lord has forbidden me to speak of it, Narcissa continued, her eyes still closed. He wishes none to know of the plan. It is very secret, but if he has forbidden it, you ought not to speak, said Snape at once. The Dark Lord's word is law. Narcissa gasped as though he had doused her with cold water. Bellatrix looked satisfied for the first time since she had entered the house. There, she said triumphantly to her sister, even Snape says so. You were told not to talk, so hold your silence. 
But Snape had gotten to his feet and strode to the small window, peered through the curtains at the deserted street, then closed them again with a jerk. He turned around to face Narcissa, frowning. It so happens that I know of the plan, he said in a low voice. I am one of the few the Dark Lord has told. Nevertheless, had I not been in on the secret, Narcissa, you would have been guilty of great treachery to the Dark Lord. I thought you must know about it, said Narcissa, breathing more freely. He trusts you so, Severus. You know about the plan, said Bellatrix, her fleeting expression of satisfaction replaced by a look of outrage. You know? Certainly, said Snape. But what help do you require, Narcissa? If you are imagining I can persuade the Dark Lord to change his mind, I'm afraid there is no hope. None at all. Severus, she whispered, tears sliding down her pale cheeks. My son, my only son. Draco should be proud, said Bellatrix indifferently. The Dark Lord is granting him a great honor, and I will say this for Draco. He isn't shrinking away from his duty. He seems glad of a chance to prove himself, excited at the prospect. Narcissa began to cry in earnest, gazing beseechingly all the while at Snape. That's because he is sixteen and has no idea what lies in store. Why, Severus? Why, my son? It is too dangerous. This is vengeance for Lucius's mistake. I know it. Snape said nothing. He looked away from the sight of her tears as though they were indecent, but he could not pretend not to hear her. That's why he's chosen Draco, isn't it? She persisted. To punish Lucius. If Draco succeeds, said Snape, still looking away from her, he will be honored above all others. But he won't succeed, sobbed Narcissa. How can he when the Dark Lord himself? Bellatrix gasped. Narcissa seemed to lose her nerve. I only meant that nobody has yet succeeded. Severus, please, you are, you have always been Draco's favorite teacher. You are Lucius's old friend. I beg you, you are the Dark Lord's favorite, his most trusted advisor. Will you speak to him, persuade him? The Dark Lord will not be persuaded, and I am not stupid enough to attempt it, said Snape flatly. I cannot pretend that the Dark Lord is not angry with Lucius. Lucius was supposed to be in charge. He got himself captured, along with how many others, and failed to retrieve the prophecy into the bargain. Yes, the Dark Lord is angry, Narcissa. Very angry indeed. Then I am right. He has chosen Draco in revenge, choked Narcissa. He does not mean him to succeed. He wants him to be killed, trying. When Snape said nothing, Narcissa seemed to lose what little self-restraint she still possessed. Standing up, she staggered to Snape and seized the front of his robes. Her face close to his, her tears falling onto his chest, she gasped, You could do it! You could do it instead of Draco Severus. You would succeed, of course you would, and he would reward you beyond all of us. Snape caught hold of her wrists and removed her clutching hands. Looking down into her tear-stained face, he said slowly, He intends me to do it in the end, I think. But he is determined that Draco should try first. You see, in the unlikely event that Draco succeeds, I shall be able to remain at Hogwarts a little longer, fulfilling my useful role as spy. In other words, 
It doesn't matter to him if Jaco is killed. The Dark Lord is very angry, repeated Snape quietly. He failed to hear the prophecy. You know as well as I do, Narcissa, that he does not forgive easily. She crumpled, falling at his feet, sobbing and moaning on the floor. My only son, my only son. You should be proud, said Bellatrix ruthlessly. If I had sons, I would be glad to give them up to the service of the Dark Lord. Narcissa gave a little scream of despair and clutched at her long blonde hair. Snape stooped, seized her by the arms, lifted her up, and steered her back onto the sofa. He then poured her more wine and forced the glass into her hand. Narcissa, that's enough. Drink this. Listen to me. She quieted a little, slopping wine down herself. She took a shaky sip. It might be possible for me to help Draco. She sat up, her face paper white, her eyes huge. Severus, oh, Severus, you would help him. Would you look after him, see he comes to no harm? I can try. She flung away her glass. It skidded across the table as she slid off the sofa into a kneeling position at Snape's feet, seized his hand in both of hers, and pressed her lips to it. If you are there to protect him, Severus, will you swear it? Will you make the unbreakable vow? The unbreakable vow? Snape's expression was blank, unreadable. Bellatrix, however, let out a cackle of triumphant laughter. Aren't you listening, Narcissa? Oh, he'll try, I'm sure. The usual empty words, the usual slithering out of action, or on the Dark Lord's orders, of course. Snape did not look at Bellatrix. His black eyes were fixed upon Narcissa's tear-filled blue ones as she continued to clutch his hand. Certainly, Narcissa, I shall make the unbreakable vow, he said quietly. Perhaps your sister will consent to be our bonder. Bellatrix's mouth fell open. Snape lowered himself so that he was kneeling opposite Narcissa. Beneath Bellatrix's astonished gaze, they grasped right hands. You will need your wand, Bellatrix, said Snape coldly. She drew it, still looking astonished. And you will need to move a little closer, he said. She stepped forward so that she stood over them and placed the tip of her wand on their linked hands. Narcissa spoke. Will you, Severus, watch over my son Draco as he attempts to fulfill the Dark Lord's wishes? I will, said Snape. A thin tongue of brilliant flame issued from the wand and wound its way around their hands like a red-hot wire. And will you, to the best of your ability, protect him from harm? I will, said Snape. A second tongue of flame shot from the wand and interlinked with the first, making a fine glowing chain. And should it prove necessary, if it seems Draco will fail, whispered Narcissa, Snape's hand twitched within hers, but he did not draw away. Will you carry out the deed that the Dark Lord has ordered Draco to perform? There was a moment's silence. Bellatrix watched, her wand upon their clasped hands, her eyes wide. I will, said Snape. Bellatrix's astounded face glowed red in the blaze of a third tongue of flame, which shot from the wand, twisted with the others, 
and bound itself thickly around their clasped hands, like a rope, like a fiery snake. Chapter 3 Will and Won't Harry Potter was snoring loudly. He had been sitting in a chair beside his bedroom window for the best part of four hours, staring out at the darkening street, and had finally fallen asleep with one side of his face pressed against the cold window pane, his glasses askew and his mouth wide open. The misty fug his breath had left on the window sparkled in the orange glare of the street lamp outside, and the artificial light drained his face of all color so that he looked ghostly beneath his shock of untidy black hair. The room was strewn with various possessions and a good smattering of rubbish. Owl feathers, apple cores, and sweet wrappers littered the floor. A number of spell books lay higgledy-piggledy among the tangled robes on his bed, and a mess of newspapers sat in a puddle of light on his desk. The headline of one blared, Harry Potter, the Chosen One. Rumors continued to fly about the mysterious recent disturbance at the Ministry of Magic, during which he who must not be named was cited once more. We're not allowed to talk about it. Don't ask me anything, said one agitated obliviator, who refused to give his name as he left the ministry last night. Nevertheless, highly placed sources within the ministry have confirmed that the disturbance centered on the fabled Hall of Prophecy. Though ministry spokeswizards have hitherto refused even to confirm the existence of such a place, a growing number of the wizarding community believe that the Death Eaters now serving sentences in Azkaban for trespass and attempted theft were attempting to steal a prophecy. The nature of that prophecy is unknown, although speculation is rife that it concerns Harry Potter, the only person ever known to have survived the killing curse, and who is also known to have been at the ministry on the night in question. Some are going so far as to call Potter the Chosen One, believing that the prophecy names him as the only one who will be able to rid us of he who must not be named. The current whereabouts of the prophecy, if it exists, are unknown, although, continued page 2, column 5. A second newspaper lay beside the first. This one bore the headline, Scrimjaw Succeeds Fudge. Most of this front page was taken up with a large black-and-white picture of a man with a lion-like mane of thick hair and a rather ravaged face. The picture was moving. The man was waving at the ceiling. Rufus Scrimjaw, previously head of the Auror office in the Department of Magical Law Enforcement, has succeeded Cornelius Fudge as Minister of Magic. The appointment has largely been greeted with enthusiasm by the wizarding community, though rumors of a rift between the new minister and Albus Dumbledore, newly reinstated chief warlock of the Wizengamot, surfaced within hours of Scrimjaw taking office. Scrimjaw's representatives admitted that he had met with Dumbledore at once upon taking possession of the top job, but refused to comment on the topics under discussion. Albus Dumbledore is known to... Continued page 3, column 2. To the left of this paper sat another, which had been folded so that a story bearing the title Ministry Guarantees Student Safety was visible. Newly appointed Minister of Magic Rufus Scrimjaw spoke today of the tough new measures taken by his ministry to ensure the safety of students returning to Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry this autumn. 
For obvious reasons, the ministry will not be going into detail about its stringent new security plans, said the minister, although an insider confirmed that measures include defensive spells and charms, a complex array of counter-curses, and a small task force of aurors dedicated solely to the protection of Hogwarts School. Most seem reassured by the new minister's tough stand on student safety, said Mrs. Augusta Longbottom. My grandson Neville, a good friend of Harry Potter's, incidentally, who fought the Death Eaters alongside him at the ministry in June, and... But the rest of the story was obscured by the large birdcage standing on top of it. Inside it was a magnificent snowy owl. Her amber eyes surveyed the room imperiously, her head swiveling occasionally to gaze at her snoring master. Once or twice she clicked her beak impatiently, but Harry was too deeply asleep to hear her. A large trunk stood in the very middle of the room. Its lid was open. It looked expectant. Yet it was almost empty, but for a residue of old underwear, sweets, empty ink bottles, and broken quills that coated the very bottom. Nearby on the floor lay a purple leaflet emblazoned with the words, Issued on behalf of the Ministry of Magic, protecting your home and family against dark forces. The wizarding community is currently under threat from an organization calling itself the Death Eaters. Observing the following simple security guidelines will help protect you, your family, and your home from attack. 1. You are advised not to leave the house alone. 2. Particular care should be taken during the hours of darkness. Wherever possible, arrange to complete journeys before night has fallen. 3. Review the security arrangements around your house, making sure that all family members are aware of emergency measures such as shield and disillusionment charms, and, in the case of underage family members, side-along apparition. 4. Agree on security questions with close friends and family so as to detect Death Eaters masquerading as others by use of the Polyjuice Potion. See page 2. 5. Should you feel that a family member, colleague, friend, or neighbor is acting in a strange manner, contact the Magical Law Enforcement Squad at once. They may have been put under the Imperious Curse. See page 4. 6. Should the dark mark appear over any dwelling place or other building, do not enter, but contact the Auror office immediately. 7. Unconfirmed sightings suggest that the Death Eaters may now be using Inferi. See page 10. Any sightings of an Inferius or encounter with same should be reported to the Ministry immediately. Harry grunted in his sleep, and his face slid down the window an inch or so, making his glasses still more lopsided, but he did not wake up. An alarm clock repaired by Harry several years ago ticked loudly on the sill, showing one minute to eleven. Beside it, held in place by Harry's relaxed hand, was a piece of parchment covered in thin, slanting writing. Harry had read this letter so often since its arrival three days ago that although it had been delivered in a tightly furled scroll— it now lay quite flat. Dear Harry, if it is convenient to you, I shall call at number four Privet Drive this coming Friday at 11 p.m. to escort you to the Burrow, where you have been invited to spend the remainder of your school holidays. If you are agreeable, I should also be glad of your assistance in a matter to which I hope to attend on the way to the Burrow. I shall explain this more fully when I see you. 
Kindly send your answer by return of this owl. Hoping to see you this Friday, I am yours most sincerely, Albus Dumbledore. Though he already knew it by heart, Harry had been stealing glances at this missive every few minutes since seven o'clock that evening, when he had first taken up his position beside his bedroom window, which had a reasonable view of both ends of Privet Drive. He knew it was pointless to keep rereading Dumbledore's words. Harry had sent back his yes with a delivering owl as requested, and all he could do now was wait. Either Dumbledore was going to come, or he was not. But Harry had not packed. It just seemed too good to be true that he was going to be rescued from the Dursleys after a mere fortnight of their company. He could not shrug off the feeling that something was going to go wrong. His reply to Dumbledore's letter might have gone astray. Dumbledore could be prevented from collecting him. The letter might turn out not to be from Dumbledore at all, but a trick or joke or trap. Harry had not been able to face packing and then being let down and having to unpack again. The only gesture he had made to the possibility of a journey was to shut his snowy owl Hedwig safely in her cage. The minute hand on the alarm clock reached the number twelve, and, at that precise moment, the street lamp outside the window went out. Harry awoke as though the sudden darkness were an alarm. Hastily straightening his glasses and unsticking his cheek from the glass, he pressed his nose against the window instead and squinted down at the pavement. A tall figure in a long, billowing cloak was walking up the garden path. Harry jumped up as though he had received an electric shock, knocked over his chair, and started snatching anything and everything within reach from the floor and throwing it into the trunk. Even as he lobbed a set of robes, two spellbooks, and a packet of crisps across the room, the doorbell rang. Downstairs in the living room, his Uncle Vernon shouted, Who the blazes is calling at this time of night? Harry froze with a brass telescope in one hand and a pair of trainers in the other. He had completely forgotten to warn the Dursleys that Dumbledore might be coming. Feeling both panicky and close to laughter, he clambered over the trunk and wrenched open his bedroom door in time to hear a deep voice say, Good evening. You must be Mr. Dursley. I dare say Harry has told you I would be coming for him. Harry ran down the stairs two at a time, coming to an abrupt halt several steps from the bottom, as long experience had taught him to remain out of arm's reach of his uncle whenever possible. There in the doorway stood a tall, thin man with waist-length silver hair and beard. Half-moon spectacles were perched on his crooked nose, and he was wearing a long black traveling cloak and a pointed hat. Vernon Dursley, whose moustache was quite as bushy as Dumbledore's, though black, and who was wearing a puce dressing gown, was staring at the visitor as though he could not believe his tiny eyes. Judging by your look of stunned disbelief, Harry did not warn you that I was coming, said Dumbledore pleasantly. However, let us assume that you have invited me warmly into your house. It is unwise to linger over long on doorsteps in these troubled times. He stepped smartly over the threshold and closed the front door behind him. It is a long time since my last visit, said Dumbledore, peering down his crooked nose at Uncle Vernon. I must say your agapanthus are flourishing. Vernon Dursley said nothing at all. Harry did not doubt that speech would return to him, and soon the vein pulsing in his uncle's temple was reaching danger point, but something about Dumbledore seemed to have robbed him temporarily of breath. 
It might have been the blatant wizardishness of his appearance, but it might too have been that even Uncle Vernon could sense that here was a man whom it would be very difficult to bully. Ah, good evening, Harry, said Dumbledore, looking up at him through his half-moon glasses with a most satisfied expression. Excellent, excellent. These words seemed to rouse Uncle Vernon. It was clear that as far as he was concerned, any man who could look at Harry and say excellent was a man with whom he could never see eye to eye. I don't mean to be rude, he began in a tone that threatened rudeness in every syllable. Yet, sadly, accidental rudeness occurs alarmingly often. Dumbledore finished the sentence gravely. Best to say nothing at all, my dear man. Ah, and this must be Petunia. The kitchen door had opened, and there stood Harry's aunt, wearing rubber gloves and a housecoat over her nightdress, clearly halfway through her usual pre-bedtime wipe-down of all the kitchen surfaces. Her rather horsey face registered nothing but shock. Albus Dumbledore, said Dumbledore, when Uncle Vernon failed to effect an introduction. We have corresponded, of course. Harry thought this an odd way of reminding Aunt Petunia that he had once sent her an exploding letter, but Aunt Petunia did not challenge the term. And this must be your son, Dudley. Dudley had at that moment peered round the living room door, his large, blonde head rising out of the stripy collar of his pajamas looked oddly disembodied, his mouth gaping in astonishment and fear. Dumbledore waited a moment or two, apparently, to see whether any of the Dursleys were going to say anything, but as the silence stretched on, he smiled. Shall we assume that you have invited me into your sitting room? Dudley scrambled out of the way as Dumbledore passed him. Harry, still clutching the telescope and trainers, jumped the last few stairs and followed Dumbledore, who had settled himself in the armchair nearest the fire and was taking in the surroundings with an expression of benign interest. He looked quite extraordinarily out of place. Aunt, aren't we leaving, sir? Harry asked anxiously. Yes, indeed we are. But there are a few matters we need to discuss first said Dumbledore, and I would prefer not to do so in the open. We shall trespass upon your aunt and uncle's hospitality only a little longer. You will, will you? Vernon Dursley had entered the room, Petunia at his shoulder, and Dudley skulking behind them both. Yes, said Dumbledore simply. I shall. He drew his wand so rapidly that Harry barely saw it. With a casual flick, the sofa zoomed forward and knocked the knees out from under all three of the Dursleys, so that they collapsed upon it in a heap. Another flick of the wand and the sofa zoomed back to its original position. We may as well be comfortable, said Dumbledore pleasantly. As he replaced his wand in his pocket, Harry saw that his hand was blackened and shriveled. It looked as though his flesh had been burned away. Sir, what happened to your... Later, Harry, said Dumbledore. Please sit down. Harry took the remaining armchair, choosing not to look at the Dursleys, who seemed stunned into silence. I would assume that you were going to offer me refreshment, Dumbledore said to Uncle Vernon. But the evidence so far suggests that that would be optimistic to the point of foolishness. A third twitch of the wand and a dusty bottle and five glasses appeared in midair. 
The bottle tipped and poured a generous measure of honey-colored liquid into each of the glasses, which then floated to each person in the room. Madame Rosmerta's finest oak-matured mead, said Dumbledore, raising his glass to Harry, who caught hold of his own and sipped. He had never tasted anything like it before, but enjoyed it immensely. The Dursleys, after quick, scared looks at one another, tried to ignore their glasses completely, a difficult feat as they were nudging them gently on the sides of their heads. Harry could not suppress a suspicion that Dumbledore was rather enjoying himself. Well, Harry, said Dumbledore, turning toward him, a difficulty has arisen which I hope you will be able to solve for us. By us, I mean the Order of the Phoenix. But first of all, I must tell you that Sirius's will was discovered a week ago and that he left you everything he owned. Over on the sofa, Uncle Vernon's head turned, but Harry did not look at him, nor could he think of anything to say except, Oh, right. This is, in the main, fairly straightforward, Dumbledore went on. You add a reasonable amount of gold to your account at Gringotts, and you inherit all of Sirius's personal possessions. The slightly problematic part of the legacy... His godfather's dead, said Uncle Vernon loudly from the sofa. Dumbledore and Harry both turned to look at him. The glass of mead was now knocking quite insistently on the side of Vernon's head. He attempted to beat it away. He's dead? His godfather? Yes, said Dumbledore. He did not ask Harry why he had not confided in the Dursleys. Our problem, he continued to Harry as if there had been no interruption, is that Sirius also left you number twelve Grimald Place. He's been left a house, said Uncle Vernon greedily, his small eyes narrowing, but nobody answered him. You can keep using it as headquarters, said Harry. I don't care, you can have it, I don't really want it. Harry never wanted to set foot in Number 12 Grimoire Place again if he could help it. He thought he would be haunted forever by the memory of Sirius prowling its dark, musty rooms alone, imprisoned within the place he had wanted so desperately to leave. That is generous, said Dumbledore. We have, however, vacated the building temporarily. Why? Well, said Dumbledore, ignoring the mutterings of Uncle Vernon, who was now being wrapped smartly over the head by the persistent glass of mead. Black family tradition decreed that the house was handed down the direct line to the next male with the name of Black. Sirius was the very last of the line, as his younger brother Regulus predeceased him, and both were childless. While his will makes it perfectly plain that he wants you to have the house, it is nevertheless possible that some spell or enchantment has been set upon the place to ensure that it cannot be owned by anyone other than a pure blood. A vivid image of the shrieking, spitting portrait of Sirius's mother that hung in the hall of Number 12 Grimald Place flashed into Harry's mind. I bet there has, he said. Quite said Dumbledore, and if such an enchantment exists, then the ownership of the house is most likely to pass to the eldest of Sirius's living relatives, which would mean his cousin, Bellatrix Lestrange. Without realizing what he was doing, Harry sprang to his feet. The telescope and trainers in his lap rolled across the floor. Bellatrix Lestrange, Sirius's killer, inherit his house? No, he said. Well, obviously we would prefer that she didn't get it either, said Dumbledore calmly. 
The situation is fraught with complications. We do not know whether the enchantments we ourselves have placed upon it, for example, making it unplottable, will hold now that ownership has passed from Sirius's hands. It might be that Bellatrix will arrive on the doorstep at any moment. Naturally, we had to move out until such time as we have clarified the position. But how are you going to find out if I'm allowed to own it? Fortunately, said Dumbledore, there is a simple test. He placed his empty glass on a small table beside his chair, but before he could do anything else, Uncle Vernon shouted, Will you get these ruddy things off us? Harry looked around. All three of the Dursleys were cowering with their arms over their heads as their glasses bounced up and down on their skulls, their contents flying everywhere. Oh, I'm so sorry, said Dumbledore politely, and he raised his wand again. All three glasses vanished. But it would have been better manners to drink it, you know. It looked as though Uncle Vernon was bursting with any number of unpleasant retorts, but he merely shrank back into the cushions with Aunt Petunia and Dudley and said nothing, keeping his small, piggy eyes on Dumbledore's wand. You see, Dumbledore said, turning back to Harry, and again speaking as though Uncle Vernon had not uttered, If you have indeed inherited the house, you have also inherited... He flicked his wand for a fifth time. There was a loud crack, and a house-elf appeared with a snout for a nose, giant bat's ears, and enormous bloodshot eyes, crouching on the Dursley's shag carpet and covered in grimy rags. Aunt Petunia let out a hair-raising shriek. Nothing this filthy had entered her house in living memory. Dudley drew his large bare pink feet off the floor and sat with them raised almost above his head, as though he thought the creature might run up his pajama trousers, and Uncle Vernon bellowed, what the hell is that? Creature, finished Dumbledore. Creature won't, creature won't, creature won't, croaked the house elf quite as loudly as Uncle Vernon, stamping his long gnarled feet and pulling his ears. Creature belongs to Miss Bellatrix. Oh, yes, creature belongs to the blacks. Creature wants his new mistress. Creature won't go to the pot of brack. Creature won't, won't, won't. As you can see, Harry, said Dumbledore loudly over Creature's continued croaks of won't, won't, won't. Creature is showing a certain reluctance to pass into your ownership. I don't care, said Harry again, looking with disgust at the writhing, stamping house elf. I don't want him. Won't, 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 won't. You would prefer him to pass into the ownership of Bellatrix Lestrange, bearing in mind that he has lived at the headquarters of the Order of the Phoenix for the past year? Won't, 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 won't. Harry stared at Dumbledore. He knew that Creature could not be permitted to go and live with Bellatrix Lestrange, but the idea of owning him, of having responsibility for the creature that had betrayed Sirius, was repugnant. Give him an order, said Dumbledore. If he has passed into your ownership, he will have to obey. If not, then we shall have to think of some other means of keeping him from his rightful mistress. Won't, 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 won't! Creature's voice had risen to a scream. Harry could think of nothing to say except, Creature, shut up! It looked for a moment as though Creature was going to choke. He grabbed his throat, his mouth still working furiously, his eyes bulging. 
After a few seconds of frantic gulping, he threw himself face forward onto the carpet, Aunt Petunia whimpered, and beat the floor with his hands and feet, giving himself over to a violent but entirely silent tantrum. Well, that simplifies matters, said Dumbledore cheerfully. It seems that Sirius knew what he was doing. You are the rightful owner of number twelve, Grimald Place, and of Creature. Do I... Do I have to keep him with me? Harry asked, aghast as Creature thrashed around at his feet. Not if you don't want to, said Dumbledore. If I might make a suggestion, you could send him to Hogwarts to work in the kitchen there. In that way, the other house elves could keep an eye on him. Yeah, said Harry in relief. Yeah, I'll do that. Uh, Creature, I want you to go to Hogwarts and work in the kitchen there with the other house elves. Creature, who was now lying flat on his back with his arms and legs in the air, gave Harry one upside-down look of deepest loathing and, with another loud crack, vanished. Good, said Dumbledore. There is also the matter of the hippogriff Buckbeak. Hagrid has been looking after him since Sirius died, but Buckbeak is yours now. So if you would prefer to make different arrangements... No, said Harry at once. He can stay with Hagrid. I think Buckbeak would prefer that. Hagrid will be delighted, said Dumbledore, smiling. He was thrilled to see Buckbeak again. Incidentally, we have decided in the interests of Buckbeak's safety to rechristen him Witherwings for the time being, though I doubt that the Ministry would ever guess he is the hippogriff they once sentenced to death. Now, Harry, is your trunk packed? Um, doubtful that I would turn up, Dumbledore suggested shrewdly. I'll just go and uh, finish off, said Harry hastily, hurrying to pick up his fallen telescope and trainers. It took him a little over ten minutes to track down everything he needed. At last he had managed to extract his invisibility cloak from under the bed, screwed the top back on his jar of color-change ink, and forced the lid of his trunk shut on his cauldron. Then, heaving his trunk in one hand and holding Hedwig's cage in the other, he made his way back downstairs. He was disappointed to discover that Dumbledore was not waiting in the hall, which meant that he had to return to the living room. Nobody was talking. Dumbledore was humming quietly, apparently quite at his ease, but the atmosphere was thicker than cold custard, and Harry did not dare look at the Dursleys as he said, Professor, I'm ready now. Good, said Dumbledore. Just one last thing, then. And he turned to speak to the Dursleys once more. As you will no doubt be aware, Harry comes of age in a year's time. No, said Aunt Petunia, speaking for the first time since Dumbledore's arrival. I'm sorry, said Dumbledore politely. No, he doesn't. He's a month younger than Dudley, and Dudley doesn't turn eighteen until the year after next. Ah, said Dumbledore pleasantly. But in the wizarding world, we come of age at seventeen. Uncle Vernon muttered, Preposterous! But Dumbledore ignored him. Now, as you already know, the wizard called Lord Voldemort has returned to this country. The wizarding community is currently in a state of open warfare. Harry, whom Lord Voldemort has already attempted to kill on a number of occasions, is in even greater danger now than the day when I left him upon your doorstep fifteen years ago with a letter explaining about his parents' murder and expressing the hope that you would care for him as though he were your own. 
Dumbledore paused, and although his voice remained light and calm, and he gave no obvious sign of anger, Harry felt a kind of chill emanating from him, and noticed that the Dursleys drew very slightly closer together. You did not do as I asked. You have never treated Harry as a son. He has known nothing but neglect, and often cruelty, at your hands. The best that can be said is that he has at least escaped the appalling damage you have inflicted upon the unfortunate boy sitting between you. Both Aunt Petunia and Uncle Vernon looked around instinctively, as though expecting to see someone other than Dudley squeeze between them. Us! Mistreat Dudders! What do you— began Uncle Vernon furiously, but Dumbledore raised his finger for silence, a silence which fell as though he had struck Uncle Vernon dumb. The magic I evoked fifteen years ago means that Harry has powerful protection while he can still call this house home. However miserable he has been here, however unwelcome, however badly treated, you have at least grudgingly allowed him house room. This magic will cease to operate the moment that Harry turns seventeen. In other words, at the moment he becomes a man. I ask only this, that you allow Harry to return once more to this house before his seventeenth birthday, which will ensure that the protection continues until that time. None of the Dursleys said anything. Dudley was frowning slightly as though he was still trying to work out when he had ever been mistreated. Uncle Vernon looked as though he had something stuck in his throat. Aunt Petunia, however, was oddly flushed. Well, Harry, time for us to be off, said Dumbledore at last, standing up and straightening his long black cloak. Until we meet again he said to the Dursleys, who looked as though that moment could wait forever as far as they were concerned, and after doffing his hat, he swept from the room. Bye, said Harry hastily to the Dursleys, and followed Dumbledore, who paused beside Harry's trunk, upon which Hedwig's cage was perched. We do not want to be encumbered by these just now, he said, pulling out his wand again. I shall send them to the burrow to await us there. However, I would like you to bring your invisibility cloak, just in case. Harry extracted his cloak from his trunk with some difficulty, trying not to show Dumbledore the mess within. When he had stuffed it into an inside pocket of his jacket, Dumbledore waved his wand, and the trunk, cage, and headwig vanished. Dumbledore then waved his wand again, and the front door opened onto cool, misty darkness. And now, Harry, let us step out into the night and pursue that flighty temptress adventure. Chapter 4 Horace Slughorn Despite the fact that he had spent every waking moment of the past few days hoping desperately that Dumbledore would indeed come to fetch him, Harry felt distinctly awkward as they set off down Privet Drive together. He had never had a proper conversation with the headmaster outside of Hogwarts before. There was usually a desk between them. The memory of their last face-to-face -face encounter kept intruding, too, and it rather heightened Harry's sense of embarrassment. He had shouted a lot on that occasion, not to mention done his best to smash several of Dumbledore's most prized possessions. Dumbledore, however, seemed completely relaxed. Keep your wand at the ready, Harry, he said brightly. But I thought I'm not allowed to use magic outside school, sir. If there is an attack, 
said Dumbledore. I give you permission to use any counter-jinx or curse that might occur to you. However, I do not think you need worry about being attacked tonight. Why not, sir? You are with me, said Dumbledore simply. This will do, Harry. He came to an abrupt halt at the end of Privet Drive. You have not, of course, passed your apparition test, he said. No, said Harry. I thought you had to be seventeen. You do, said Dumbledore. So you will need to hold on to my arm very tightly. My left, if you don't mind. As you have noticed, my wand arm is a little fragile at the moment. Harry gripped Dumbledore's proffered forearm. Very good, said Dumbledore. Well, here we go. Harry felt Dumbledore's arm twist away from him and redoubled his grip. The next thing he knew, everything went black. He was being pressed very hard from all directions. He could not breathe. There were iron bands tightening around his chest. His eyeballs were being forced back into his head. His eardrums were being pushed deeper into his skull, and then... He gulped great lungfuls of cold night air and opened his streaming eyes. He felt as though he had just been forced through a very tight rubber tube. It was a few seconds before he realized that Privet Drive had vanished. He and Dumbledore were now standing in what appeared to be a deserted village square, in the center of which stood an old war memorial and a few benches. His comprehension catching up with his senses, Harry realized that he had just apparated for the first time in his life. Are you all right? asked Dumbledore, looking down at him solicitously. The sensation does take some getting used to. I'm fine, said Harry, rubbing his ears, which felt as though they had left Privet Drive rather reluctantly. But I think I might prefer brooms. Dumbledore smiled, drew his traveling cloak a little more tightly around his neck, and said, This way. He set off at a brisk pace past an empty inn and a few houses. According to a clock on a nearby church, it was almost midnight. So, tell me, Harry said Dumbledore. Your scar, has it been hurting at all? Harry raised a hand unconsciously to his forehead and rubbed the lightning-shaped mark. No, he said. And I've been wondering about that. I thought it would be burning all the time now Voldemort's getting so powerful again. He glanced up at Dumbledore and saw that he was wearing a satisfied expression. I, on the other hand, thought otherwise, said Dumbledore. Lord Voldemort has finally realized the dangerous access to his thoughts and feelings you have been enjoying. It appears that he is now employing occlumency against you. Well, I'm not complaining, said Harry, who missed neither the disturbing dreams nor the startling flashes of insight into Voldemort's mind. They turned a corner, passing a telephone box and a bus shelter. Harry looked sideways at Dumbledore again. Professor? Harry? Uh, where exactly are we? This, Harry, is the charming village of Budley Babberton. And what are we doing here? Ah, yes, of course, I haven't told you, said Dumbledore. Well, I have lost count of the number of times I have said this in recent years, but we are, once again, one member of Staff Short. We are here to persuade an old colleague of mine to come out of retirement and return to Hogwarts. How can I help with that, sir? Oh, I think we'll find a use for you, said Dumbledore vaguely. Left here, Harry. They proceeded up a steep, narrow street lined with houses. All the windows were dark. The odd chill that had lain over Privet Drive for two weeks persisted here, too. 
Thinking of Dementors, Harry cast a look over his shoulder and grasped his wand reassuringly in his pocket. Professor, why couldn't we just apparate directly into your old colleague's house? Because it would be quite as rude as kicking down the front door, said Dumbledore. Courtesy dictates that we offer fellow wizards the opportunity of denying us entry. In any case, most wizarding dwellings are magically protected from unwanted apparators. At Hogwarts, for instance, you can't apparate anywhere inside the buildings or grounds, said Harry quickly. Hermione Granger told me. And she is quite right. We turn left again. The church clock chimed midnight behind them. Harry wondered why Dumbledore did not consider it rude to call on his old colleague so late, but now that conversation had been established, he had more pressing questions to ask. Sir, I saw in the Daily Prophet that Fudge has been sacked. Correct, said Dumbledore, now turning up a steep side street. He has been replaced, as I am sure you also saw, by Rufus Scrimgeour, who used to be head of the Auror office. Is he... Do you think he's good? asked Harry. An interesting question, said Dumbledore. He is able, certainly. A more decisive and forceful personality than Cornelius. Yes, but I meant... I know what you meant. Rufus is a man of action and, having fought dark wizards for most of his working life, does not underestimate Lord Voldemort. Harry waited, but Dumbledore did not say anything about the disagreement with Scrimgeour that the Daily Prophet had reported, and he did not have the nerve to pursue the subject, so he changed it. And, sir, I saw about Madame Bones. Yes, said Dumbledore quietly, a terrible loss. She was a great witch. Just up here, I think. Ouch! He had pointed with his injured hand. Professor, what happened to your... I have no time to explain now, said Dumbledore. It is a thrilling tale. I wish to do it justice. He smiled at Harry, who understood that he was not being snubbed and that he had permission to keep asking questions. Sir, I got a Ministry of Magic leaflet by Owl about security measures we should all take against the Death Eaters. Yes, I received one myself, said Dumbledore, still smiling. Did you find it useful? Not really. No, I thought not. You have not asked me, for instance, what is my favorite flavor of jam, to check that I am indeed Professor Dumbledore and not an imposter. I didn't, Harry began, not entirely sure whether he was being reprimanded or not. For future reference, Harry, it is raspberry. Although, of course, if I were a Death Eater, I would have been sure to research my own jam preferences before impersonating myself. Uh, right said Harry. Well, on that leaflet, it said something about inferi. What exactly are they? The leaflet wasn't very clear. They are corpses, said Dumbledore calmly. Dead bodies that have been bewitched to do a dark wizard's bidding. Inferi have not been seen for a long time, however, not since Voldemort was last powerful. He killed enough people to make an army of them, of course. This is the place, Harry. Just here. They were nearing a small, neat stone house set in its own garden. Harry was too busy digesting the horrible idea of Inferi to have much attention left for anything else, but as they reached the front gate, Dumbledore stopped dead, and Harry walked into him. Oh, dear! Oh, dear! Dear, dear! Harry followed his gaze up the carefully tended front path and felt his heart sink. 
the front door was hanging off its hinges. Dumbledore glanced up and down the street. It seemed quite deserted. Wand out, and follow me, Harry, he said quietly. He opened the gate and walked swiftly and silently up the garden path, Harry at his heels, then pushed the front door very slowly, his wand raised and at the ready. Lumos! Dumbledore's wand tip ignited, casting its light up a narrow hallway. To the left, another door stood open. Holding his illuminated wand aloft, Dumbledore walked into the sitting room with Harry right behind him. A scene of total devastation met their eyes. A grandfather clock lay splintered at their feet, its face cracked, its pendulum lying a little further away like a dropped sword. A piano was on its side, its keys strewn across the floor. The wreckage of a fallen chandelier glittered nearby. Cushions lay deflated, feathers oozing from slashes in their sides. Fragments of glass and china lay like powder over everything. Dumbledore raised his wand even higher so that its light was thrown upon the walls, where something darkly red and glutinous was spattered over the wallpaper. Harry's small intake of breath made Dumbledore look around. Not pretty, is it? he said heavily. Yes, something horrible has happened here. Dumbledore moved carefully into the middle of the room, scrutinizing the wreckage at his feet. Harry followed, gazing around, half scared of what he might see hidden behind the wreck of the piano or the overturned sofa. But there was no sign of a body. Maybe there was a fight, and, and they dragged him off, Professor, Harry suggested, trying not to imagine how badly wounded a man would have to be to leave those stains spattered halfway up the walls. I don't think so, said Dumbledore quietly, peering behind an overstuffed armchair lying on its side. You mean he's still here somewhere? Yes. And without warning, Dumbledore swooped, plunging the tip of his wand into the seat of the overstuffed armchair, which yelled, Ouch! Good evening, Horace, said Dumbledore, straightening up again. Harry's jaw dropped. Where a split second before there had been an armchair, there now crouched an enormously fat, bald old man who was massaging his lower belly and squinting up at Dumbledore with an aggrieved and watery eye. There was no need to stick the wand in that hard, he said gruffly, clambering to his feet. It hurt. The wand light sparkled on his shiny pate, his prominent eyes, his enormous silver walrus-like moustache, and the highly polished buttons on the maroon velvet jacket he was wearing over a pair of lilac silk pajamas. The top of his head barely reached Dumbledore's chin. What gave it away? He grunted as he staggered to his feet, still rubbing his lower belly. He seemed remarkably unabashed for a man who had just been discovered pretending to be an armchair. My dear Horace, said Dumbledore, looking amused, if the Death Eaters really had come to call, the dark mark would have been set over the house. The wizard clapped a pudgy hand to his vast forehead. The dark mark, he muttered. Knew there was something. Ah, oh, well, wouldn't have had time anyway. I'd only just put the finishing touches to my upholstery when you entered the room. He heaved a great sigh that made the ends of his moustache flutter. Would you like my assistance clearing up? asked Dumbledore politely. Please, said the other. They stood back to back, the tall, thin wizard and the short, round one, and waved their wands in one identical sweeping motion. 
The furniture flew back to its original places. Ornaments reformed in midair, feathers zoomed into their cushions, torn books repaired themselves as they landed upon their shelves, oil lanterns soared onto side tables and reignited. A vast collection of splintered silver picture frames flew glittering across the room and alighted whole and untarnished upon a desk. Rips, cracks, and holes healed everywhere, and the walls wiped themselves clean. What kind of blood was that, incidentally? asked Dumbledore loudly over the chiming of the newly unsmashed grandfather clock. On the walls, dragon, shouted the wizard, called Horace, as with a deafening grinding and tinkling, the chandelier screwed itself back into the ceiling. There was a final plunk from the piano and silence. Yes, dragon, repeated the wizard conversationally. My last bottle, and prices are sky high at the moment. Still, it might be reusable. He stumped over to a small crystal bottle standing on top of a sideboard and held it up to the light, examining the thick liquid within. Mmm, bit dusty. He set the bottle back on the sideboard and sighed. It was then that his gaze fell upon Harry. Oh-ho, he said, his large round eyes flying to Harry's forehead and the lightning-shaped scar it bore. Oh-ho! This, said Dumbledore, moving forward to make the introduction, is Harry Potter. Harry, this is an old friend and colleague of mine, Horace Slughorn. Slughorn turned on Dumbledore, his expression shrewd. So that's how you thought you'd persuade me, is it? Well, the answer's no, Albus. He pushed past Harry, his face turned resolutely away with the air of a man trying to resist temptation. I suppose we can have a drink at least, asked Dumbledore, for old time's sake. Slughorn hesitated. All right, then. One drink he said ungraciously. Dumbledore smiled at Harry and directed him toward a chair, not unlike the one that Slughorn had so recently impersonated, which stood right beside the newly burning fire and a brightly glowing oil lamp. Harry took the seat with a distinct impression that Dumbledore, for some reason, wanted to keep him as visible as possible. Certainly when Slughorn, who had been busy with decanters and glasses, turned to face the room again, his eyes fell immediately upon Harry. Hmm he said, looking away quickly as though frightened of hurting his eyes. Here! He gave a drink to Dumbledore, who had sat down without invitation, thrust the tray at Harry, and then sank into the cushions of the repaired sofa and a disgruntled silence. His legs were so short they did not touch the floor. Well, how have you been keeping, Horace? Dumbledore asked. Not so well, said Slughorn at once. Weak chest, wheezy. Rheumatism, too. Can't move like I used to. Well, that's to be expected. Old age, fatigue. And yet you must have moved fairly quickly to prepare such a welcome for us at such short notice, said Dumbledore. You can't have had more than three minutes' warning. Slughorn said half irritably, half proudly, True. Didn't hear my intruder charm go off. I was taking a bath. Still, he added sternly, seeming to pull himself back together again, the fact remains that I'm an old man, Albus. Tired old man who's earned the right to a quiet life and a few creature comforts. He certainly had those, thought Harry, looking around the room. 
It was stuffy and cluttered, yet nobody could say it was uncomfortable. There were soft chairs and footstools, drinks and books, boxes of chocolates and plump cushions. If Harry had not known who lived there, he would have guessed at a rich, fussy old lady. You're not yet as old as I am, Horace, said Dumbledore. Huh. Well, maybe you ought to think about retirement yourself, said Slughorn bluntly. His pale gooseberry eyes had found Dumbledore's injured hand. Reactions not what they were, I see. You're quite right, said Dumbledore serenely, shaking back his sleeve to reveal the tips of those burned and blackened fingers. The sight of them made the back of Harry's neck prickle unpleasantly. I am undoubtedly slower than I was, but on the other hand... He shrugged and spread his hands wide as though to say that age had its compensations, and Harry noticed a ring on his uninjured hand that he had never seen Dumbledore wear before. It was large, rather clumsily made of what looked like gold, and was set with a heavy black stone that had cracked down the middle. Slughorn's eyes lingered for a moment on the ring, too, and Harry saw a tiny frown momentarily crease his wide forehead. So, all these precautions against intruders, Horace, are they for the Death Eater's benefit or mine? asked Dumbledore. What would the Death Eaters want with a poor, broken-down old buffer like me? demanded Slughorn. I imagine that they would want you to turn your considerable talents to coercion, torture, and murder, said Dumbledore. Are you really telling me that they haven't come recruiting yet? Slughorn eyed Dumbledore balefully for a moment, then muttered, I haven't given them the chance. I've been on the move for a year. Never stay in one place more than a week. Move from Muggle House to Muggle House. The owners of this place are on holiday in the Canary Islands. It's been very pleasant. I'll be sorry to leave. It's quite easy, once you know how. One simple freezing charm on those absurd burglar alarms they use instead of sneakoscopes, and make sure the neighbors don't spot you bringing in the piano. Ingenious, said Dumbledore. But it sounds a rather tiring existence for a broken-down old buffer in search of a quiet life. Now, if you were to return to Hogwarts, if you're going to tell me my life would be more peaceful at that pestilential school, you can save your breath, Albus. I might have been in hiding, but some funny rumors have reached me since Dolores Umbridge left. If that's how you treat teachers these days... Professor Umbridge ran afoul of our centaur herd, said Dumbledore. I think you, Horace, would have known better than to stride into the forest and call a horde of angry centaurs filthy half-breeds. That's what she did, did she? said Slughorn. Idiotic woman. Never liked her. Harry chuckled, and both Dumbledore and Slughorn looked round at him. Sorry, Harry said hastily. It's just... I didn't like her either. Dumbledore stood up rather suddenly. Are you leaving? asked Slughorn at once, looking hopeful. No, I was wondering whether I might use your bathroom, said Dumbledore. Oh, said Slughorn, clearly disappointed. Second on the left, down the hall. Dumbledore strode from the room. Once the door had closed behind him, there was silence. After a few moments, Slughorn got to his feet, but seemed uncertain what to do with himself. 
He shot a furtive look at Harry, then crossed to the fire and turned his back on it, warming his wide behind. Don't think I don't know why he's brought you, he said abruptly. Harry merely looked at Slughorn. Slughorn's watery eyes slid over Harry's scar, this time taking in the rest of his face. You look very like your father. Yeah, I've been told, said Harry. Except for your eyes. You've got... My mother's eyes, yeah. Harry had heard it so often he found it a bit wearing. <clears throat> yes, well... You shouldn't have favourites as a teacher, of course, but she was one of mine. Your mother, Slughorn added, in answer to Harry's questioning look. Lily Evans, one of the brightest I ever taught. Vivacious, you know, charming girl. I used to tell her she ought to have been in my house. Very cheeky answers I used to get back to. Which was your house? I was head of Slytherin, said Slughorn. Oh, now, he went on quickly, seeing the expression on Harry's face and wagging a stubby finger at him. Don't go holding that against me. You'll be Gryffindor like her, I suppose. Yes, it usually goes in families. Not always, though. Ever heard of Sirius Black? You must have done. Been in the papers for the last couple of years. Died a few weeks ago. It was as though an invisible hand had twisted Harry's intestines and held them tight. Well, anyway, he was a big pal of your father's at school. The whole black family had been in my house, but Sirius ended up in Gryffindor. Shame. He was a talented boy. I got his brother Regulus when he came along, but I'd have liked the set. He sounded like an enthusiastic collector who had been outbid at auction. Apparently lost in memories, he gazed at the opposite wall, turning idly on the spot to ensure an even heat on his backside. Your mother was muggle-born, of course. Couldn't believe it when I found out. Thought she must have been pure blood. She was so good. One of my best friends is muggle-born, said Harry, and she's the best in our year. Funny how that sometimes happens, isn't it? said Slughorn. Not really, said Harry coldly. Slughorn looked down at him in surprise. You mustn't think I'm prejudiced, he said. No, no, no. Haven't I just said your mother was one of my all-time favorite students? And there was Dirk Cresswell in the year after her, too. Now head of the Goblin Liaison Office, of course. Another muggle-born, a very gifted student, and still gives me excellent inside information on the goings-on at Gringotts. He bounced up and down a little, smiling in a self-satisfied way, and pointed at the many glittering photograph frames on the dresser, each peopled with tiny moving occupants. All ex-students, all signed. You'll notice Barnabas Cuff, editor of the Daily Prophet. He's always interested to hear my take on the day's news. And Ambrosius Flume of Honeydukes, a hamper every birthday. And all because I was able to give him an introduction to Ciceron Harkis, who gave him his first job. And at the back, you'll see her if you just crane your neck. That's Gwenog Jones, who? of course, captains the Holy Head Harpies.
People are always astonished to hear I'm on first-name terms with the harpies and free tickets whenever I want them. This thought seemed to cheer him up enormously. And all these people know where to find you? To send you stuff? asked Harry, who could not help wondering why the Death Eaters had not yet tracked down Slughorn if hampers of sweets, Quidditch tickets, and visitors craving his advice and opinions could find him. The smile slid from Slughorn's face as quickly as the blood from his walls. Of course not, he said, looking down at Harry. I have been out of touch with everybody for a year. Harry had the impression that the words shocked Slughorn himself. He looked quite unsettled for a moment. Then he shrugged. Still, the prudent wizard keeps his head down in such times. All very well for Dumbledore to talk, but taking up a post at Hogwarts just now would be tantamount to declaring my public allegiance to the Order of the Phoenix. And while I'm sure they're very admirable and brave and all the rest of it, I don't personally fancy the mortality rate. You don't have to join the Order to teach at Hogwarts, said Harry, who could not quite keep a note of derision out of his voice. It was hard to sympathize with Slughorn's cosseted existence when he remembered Sirius crouching in a cave and living on rats. Most of the teachers aren't in it, and none of them has ever been killed. Well, unless you count Quirrell, and he got what he deserved, seeing as he was working with Voldemort. Harry had been sure Slughorn would be one of those wizards who could not bear to hear Voldemort's name spoken aloud, and was not disappointed. Slughorn gave a shudder and a squawk of protest, which Harry ignored. I reckon the staff are safer than most people while Dumbledore's headmaster. He's supposed to be the only one Voldemort ever feared, isn't he? Harry went on. Slughorn gazed into space for a moment or two. He seemed to be thinking over Harry's words. Well, yes, it is true that he who must not be named has never sought a fight with Dumbledore, he muttered grudgingly. And I suppose one could argue that, as I have not joined the Death Eaters, he who must not be named can hardly count me a friend, in which case I might well be safer a little closer to Albus. I cannot pretend that Amelia Bones's death did not shake me, if she, with all her ministry contacts and protection... Dumbledore re-entered the room, and Slughorn jumped as though he had forgotten he was in the house. Oh, there you are, Albus, he said. You've been a very long time. Upset stomach. No, I was merely reading the Muggle magazines, said Dumbledore. I do love knitting patterns. Well, Harry, we have trespassed upon Horace's hospitality quite long enough. I think it is time for us to leave. Not at all reluctant to obey, Harry jumped to his feet. Slughorn seemed taken aback. You're leaving? Yes, indeed. I think I know a lost cause when I see one. Lost? Slughorn seemed agitated. He twiddled his fat thumbs and fidgeted as he watched Dumbledore fasten his traveling cloak and Harry zip up his jacket. Well, I'm sorry you don't want the job, Horace, said Dumbledore, raising his uninjured hand in a farewell salute. Hogwarts would have been glad to see you back again. Our greatly increased security notwithstanding, you will always be welcome to visit should you wish to. Yes, well, very gracious, as I say. Goodbye, then. Bye, said Harry.
They were at the front door when there was a shout from behind them. All right, all right, I'll do it. Dumbledore turned to see Slughorn standing breathless in the doorway to the sitting room. You will come out of retirement? Yes, yes, said Slughorn impatiently. I must be mad, but yes. Wonderful, said Dumbledore, beaming. Then, Horace, we shall see you on the 1st of September. Yes, I dare say you will, grunted Slughorn. As they set off down the garden path, Slughorn's voice floated after them. I'll want a pay rise, Dumbledore. Dumbledore chuckled. The garden gate swung shut behind them, and they set off back down the hill through the dark and the swirling mist. Well done, Harry, said Dumbledore. I didn't do anything, said Harry in surprise. Oh, yes, you did. You showed Horace exactly how much he stands to gain by returning to Hogwarts. Did you like him? Uh, Harry wasn't sure whether he liked Slughorn or not. He supposed he had been pleasant in his way, but he had also seemed vain, and, whatever he said to the contrary, much too surprised that a muggle-born should make a good witch. Horace, said Dumbledore, relieving Harry of the responsibility to say any of this, likes his comfort. He also likes the company of the famous, the successful, and the powerful. He enjoys the feeling that he influences these people. He has never wanted to occupy the throne himself. He prefers the back seat. More room to spread out, you see. He used to handpick favorites at Hogwarts, sometimes for their ambition or their brains, sometimes for their charm or their talent, and he had an uncanny knack for choosing those who would go on to become outstanding in their various fields. Horace formed a kind of club of his favorites with himself at the center, making introductions, forging useful contacts between members, and always reaping some kind of benefit in return. Whether a free box of his favorite crystallized pineapple, or the chance to recommend the next junior member of the Goblin Liaison Office. Harry had a sudden and vivid mental image of a great swollen spider spinning a web around it, twitching a thread here and there to bring its large and juicy flies a little closer. I tell you all this, Dumbledore continued. Not to turn you against Horace, or, as we must now call him, Professor Slughorn, but to put you on your guard. He will undoubtedly try to collect you, Harry. You would be the jewel of his collection, the boy who lived, or, as they call you these days, the chosen one. At these words, a chill that had nothing to do with the surrounding mist stole over Harry. He was reminded of words he had heard a few weeks ago, words that had a horrible and particular meaning to him. Neither can live while the other survives. Dumbledore had stopped walking level with the church they had passed earlier. This will do, Harry. If you will grasp my arm. Braced this time, Harry was ready for the apparition, but still found it unpleasant. When the pressure disappeared and he found himself able to breathe again, he was standing in a country lane beside Dumbledore and looking ahead to the crooked silhouette of his second favorite building in the world, the burrow. In spite of the feeling of dread that had just swept through him, his spirits could not help but lift at the sight of it. Ron was in there, and so was Mrs. Weasley, who could cook better than anyone he knew. If you don't mind, Harry, said Dumbledore, as they passed through the gate, 
I'd like a few words with you before we part. In private, perhaps in here. Dumbledore pointed toward a run-down stone outhouse where the Weasleys kept their broomsticks. A little puzzled, Harry followed Dumbledore through the creaking door into a space a little smaller than the average cupboard. Dumbledore illuminated the tip of his wand so that it glowed like a torch and smiled down at Harry. I hope you will forgive me for mentioning it, Harry, but I am pleased and a little proud at how well you seem to be coping after everything that happened at the Ministry. Permit me to say that I think Sirius would have been proud of you. Harry swallowed. His voice seemed to have deserted him. He did not think he could stand to discuss Sirius. It had been painful enough to hear Uncle Vernon say, His godfather's dead! And even worse, to hear Sirius's name thrown out casually by Slughorn. It was cruel, said Dumbledore softly, that you and Sirius had such a short time together. A brutal ending to what should have been a long and happy relationship. Harry nodded, his eyes fixed resolutely on the spider now climbing Dumbledore's hat. He could tell that Dumbledore understood, that he might even suspect that until his letter arrived, Harry had spent nearly all his time at the Dursleys lying on his bed, refusing meals and staring at the misted window, full of the chill emptiness that he had come to associate with Dementors. It's just hard, Harry said finally in a low voice to realize he won't write to me again. His eyes burned suddenly and he blinked. He felt stupid for admitting it, but the fact that he had had someone outside Hogwarts who cared what happened to him, almost like a parent, had been one of the best things about discovering his godfather. And now the post-owls would never bring him that comfort again. Sirius represented much to you that you had never known before said Dumbledore gently. Naturally, the loss is devastating. But while I was at the Dursleys, interrupted Harry, his voice growing stronger, I realized I can't shut myself away or, or crack up. Sirius wouldn't have wanted that, would he? And anyway, life's too short. Look at Madame Bones. Look at Emmeline Vance. It could be me next, couldn't it? But if it is, he said fiercely, now looking straight into Dumbledore's blue eyes gleaming in the wand light, I'll make sure I take as many Death Eaters with me as I can, and Voldemort, too, if I can manage it. Spoken both like your mother and father's son, and Sirius's true godson, said Dumbledore, with an approving pat on Harry's back. I take my hat off to you, or I would if I were not afraid of showering you in spiders. And now, Harry, on a closely related subject... I gather that you have been taking the daily profit over the last two weeks. Yes, said Harry, and his heart beat a little faster. Then you will have seen that there have been not so much leaks as floods concerning your adventure in the Hall of Prophecy. Yes, said Harry again, and now everyone knows that I'm the one... No, they do not, interrupted Dumbledore. There are only two people in the whole world who know the full contents of the prophecy made about you and Lord Voldemort, and they are both standing in this smelly, spidery broomshed. It is true, however, that many have guessed correctly that Voldemort sent his Death Eaters to steal a prophecy, and that the prophecy concerned you. Now, I think I am correct in saying that you have not told anybody that you know what the prophecy said. No, said Harry. 
A wise decision on the whole, said Dumbledore, although I think you ought to relax it in favor of your friends, Mr. Ronald Weasley and Miss Hermione Granger. Yes, he continued when Harry looked startled. I think they ought to know. You do them a disservice by not confiding something this important to them. I didn't want to worry or frighten them, said Dumbledore, surveying Harry over the top of his half-moon spectacles, or perhaps to confess that you yourself are worried and frightened. You need your friends, Harry. As you so rightly said, Sirius would not have wanted you to shut yourself away. Harry said nothing, but Dumbledore did not seem to require an answer. He continued, On a different, the related subject, it is my wish that you take private lessons with me this year. Private? With you? said Harry, surprised out of his preoccupied silence. Yes, I think it is time that I took a greater hand in your education. What will you be teaching me, sir? Oh, a little of this, a little of that, said Dumbledore airily. Harry waited hopefully, but Dumbledore did not elaborate, so he asked something else that had been bothering him slightly. If I'm having lessons with you, I won't have to do occlumency lessons with Snape, will I? Professor Snape, Harry, and no, you will not. Good, said Harry in relief, because they were a... He stopped, careful not to say what he really thought. I think the word fiasco would be a good fun here, said Dumbledore, nodding. Harry laughed. Well, that means I won't see much of Professor Snape from now on, he said, because he won't let me carry on potions unless I get outstanding in my OWL, which I know I haven't. Don't count your owls before they are delivered, said Dumbledore gravely, which, now I think of it, ought to be some time later today. Now, two more things, Harry, before we part. Firstly, I wish you to keep your invisibility cloak with you at all times from this moment onward, even within Hogwarts itself, just in case. You understand me? Harry nodded. And lastly, while you stay here, the burrow has been given the highest security the Ministry of Magic can provide. These measures have caused a certain amount of inconvenience to Arthur and Molly. All their posts, for instance, is being searched at the Ministry before being sent on. They do not mind in the slightest, for their only concern is your safety. However, it would be poor repayment if you risked your neck while staying with them. I understand, said Harry quickly. Very well, then, said Dumbledore, pushing open the broom shed and stepping out into the yard. I see a light in the kitchen. Let us not deprive Molly any longer of the chance to deplore how thin you are. Chapter 5 An Excess of Phlegm Harry and Dumbledore approached the back door of the burrow, which was surrounded by the familiar litter of old Wellington boots and rusty cauldrons. Harry could hear the soft clucking of sleepy chickens coming from a distant shed. Dumbledore knocked three times, and Harry saw a sudden movement behind the kitchen window. Who's there? said a nervous voice he recognized as Mrs. Weasley's. Declare yourself. It is I, Dumbledore, bringing Harry. The door opened at once. There stood Mrs. Weasley, short, plump, and wearing an old green dressing gown. Harry 
dear. Gracious Albus, you gave me a fright. You said not to expect you before morning. We were lucky, said Dumbledore, ushering Harry over the threshold. Slughorn proved much more persuadable than I had expected. Harry's doing, of course. Ah, hello, Nymphadora. Harry looked around and saw that Mrs. Weasley was not alone, despite the lateness of the hour. A young witch with a pale, heart-shaped face and mousy brown hair was sitting at the table, clutching a large mug between her hands. Hello, Professor, she said. Whatcha, Harry? Hi, Tonks. Harry thought she looked drawn, even ill, and there was something forced in her smile. Certainly her appearance was less colorful than usual without her customary shade of bubblegum pink hair. I'd better be off, she said quickly, standing up and pulling her cloak around her shoulders. Thanks for the tea and sympathy, Molly. Please don't leave on my account, said Dumbledore courteously. I cannot stay. I have urgent matters to discuss with Rufus Scrimjaw. No, no, I need to get going said Tonks, not meeting Dumbledore's eyes. Night. Dear, why not come to dinner at the weekend? Remus and Mad-Eye are coming. No, really, Molly, thanks anyway. Good night, everyone. Tonks hurried past Dumbledore and Harry into the yard. A few paces beyond the doorstep, she turned on the spot and vanished into thin air. Harry noticed that Mrs. Weasley looked troubled. Well, I shall see you at Hogwarts, Harry said Dumbledore. Take care of yourself, Molly, your servant. He made Mrs. Weasley a bow and followed Tonks, vanishing at precisely the same spot. Mrs. Weasley closed the door on the empty yard and then steered Harry by the shoulders into the full glow of the lantern on the table to examine his appearance. You're like Ron, she sighed, looking him up and down. Both of you look as though you've had stretching jinxes put on you. I swear Ron's grown four inches since I last brought him school robes. Are you hungry, Harry? Yeah, I am, said Harry, suddenly realizing just how hungry he was. Sit down, dear. I'll knock something up. As Harry sat down, a furry ginger cat with a squash face jumped onto his knees and settled there, purring. So Hermione's here? he asked happily as he tickled Crookshanks behind the ears. Oh, yes, she arrived the day before yesterday said Mrs. Weasley, wrapping a large iron pot with her wand. It bounced onto the stove with a loud clang and began to bubble at once. Everyone's in bed, of course. We didn't expect you for hours. Here you are. She tapped the pot again. It rose into the air, flew toward Harry, and tipped over. Mrs. Weasley slid a bowl neatly beneath it, just in time to catch the stream of thick, steaming onion soup. Bread, dear? Thanks, Mrs. Weasley. She waved her wand over her shoulder. A loaf of bread and a knife soared gracefully onto the table. As the loaf sliced itself and the soup pot dropped back onto the stove, Mrs. Weasley sat down opposite him. So, you persuaded Horace Slughorn to take the job? Harry nodded, his mouth so full of hot soup that he could not speak. He taught Arthur and me, said Mrs. Weasley. He was at Hogwarts for ages. Started around the same time as Dumbledore, I think. Did you like him? His mouth now full of bread, Harry shrugged and gave a non-committal jerk of the head. I know what you mean, said Mrs. Weasley, nodding wisely. Of course, he can be charming when he wants to be, but Arthur's never liked him much. The ministry's littered with Slughorn's old favorites. 
He was always good at giving leg-ups, but he never had much time for Arthur. Didn't seem to think he was enough of a high-flyer. Well, that just shows you, even Slughorn makes mistakes. I don't know whether Ron's told you in any of his letters. It's only just happened, but Arthur's been promoted. It could not have been clearer that Mrs. Weasley had been bursting to say this. Harry swallowed a large amount of very hot soup and thought he could feel his throat blistering. That's great, he gasped. You are sweet, beamed Mrs. Weasley, possibly taking his watering eyes for emotion at the news. Yes, Rufus Scrimgeour has set up several new offices in response to the present situation, and Arthur's heading the office for the detection and confiscation of counterfeit defensive spells and protective objects. It's a big job. He's got ten people reporting to him now. What exactly? Well, you see, in all the panic about you-know-who, odd things have been cropping up for sale everywhere. Things that are supposed to guard against you-know-who and the Death Eaters. You can imagine the kind of thing, so-called protective potions that are really gravy with a bit of boobo-tuba pus added, or instructions for defensive jinxes that actually make your ears fall off. Well, in the main, the perpetrators are just people like Mundungus Fletcher, who've never done an honest day's work in their lives and are taking advantage of how frightened everybody is. But every now and then, something really nasty turns up. The other day, Arthur confiscated a box of cursed sneakerscopes that were almost certainly planted by a Death Eater. So, you see, it's a very important job, and I tell him it's just silly to miss dealing with spark plugs and toasters and all the rest of that muggle rubbish. Mrs. Weasley ended her speech with a stern look, as if it had been Harry suggesting that it was natural to miss spark plugs. Is Mr. Weasley still at work? Harry asked. Yes, he is. As a matter of fact, he's a tiny bit late. He said he'd be back around midnight. She turned to look at a large clock that was perched awkwardly on top of a pile of sheets in the washing basket at the end of the table. Harry recognized it at once. It had nine hands, each inscribed with the name of a family member, and usually hung on the Weasley's sitting-room wall, though its current position suggested that Mrs. Weasley had taken to carrying it around the house with her. Every single one of its nine hands was now pointing at mortal peril. It's been like that for a while now, said Mrs. Weasley, in an unconvincingly casual voice, ever since you-know-who came back into the open. I suppose everybody's in mortal danger now. I don't think it can be just our family, but I don't know anyone else who's got a clock like this, so I can't check. Oh! With a sudden exclamation, she pointed at the clock's face. Mr. Weasley's hand had switched to travelling. He's coming. And sure enough, a moment later there was a knock on the back door. Mrs. Weasley jumped up and hurried to it. With one hand on the doorknob and her face pressed against the wood, she called softly, Arthur, is that you? Yes, came Mr. Weasley's weary voice. But I would say that even if I were a Death Eater, dear. Ask the question. Oh, honestly, Molly? All right, all right. What is your dearest ambition? To find out how airplanes stay up. Mrs. Weasley nodded and turned the doorknob, but apparently Mr. Weasley was holding tight to it on the other side because the door remained firmly shut. Molly, I've got to ask you your question first.
Arthur, really, this is just silly. What do you like me to call you when we're alone together? Even by the dim light of the lantern, Harry could tell that Mrs. Weasley had turned bright red. He himself felt suddenly warm around the ears and neck, and hastily gulped soup, clattering his spoon as loudly as he could against the bowl. Molly Wobbles, whispered a mortified Mrs. Weasley into the crack at the edge of the door. Correct, said Mr. Weasley. Now you can let me in. Mrs. Weasley opened the door to reveal her husband, a thin, balding, red-haired wizard, wearing horn-rimmed spectacles and a long and dusty traveling cloak. I still don't see why we have to go through that every time you come home, said Mrs. Weasley, still pink in the face as she helped her husband out of his cloak. I mean, a Death Eater might have forced the answer out of you before impersonating you. I know, dear, but it's ministry procedure and I have to set an example. Something smells good. Onion soup? Mr. Weasley turned, hopefully, in the direction of the table. Harry, we didn't expect you until morning. They shook hands, and Mr. Weasley dropped into the chair beside Harry as Mrs. Weasley set a bowl of soup in front of him, too. Thanks, Molly. It's been a tough night. Some idiots started selling metamorph medals. Just sling them around your neck, and you'll be able to change your appearance at will. A hundred thousand disguises, all for ten galleons. And what really happens when you put them on? Mostly you just turn a fairly unpleasant orange color, but a couple of people have also sprouted tentacle-like warts all over their bodies, as if St. Mungo's didn't have enough to do already. It sounds like the sort of thing Fred and George would find funny, said Mrs. Weasley hesitantly. Are you sure? Of course I am, said Mr. Weasley. The boys wouldn't do anything like that now, not when people are desperate for protection. So is that why you're late? Metamorph metals? No, we got wind of a nasty backfiring jinx down in Elephant and Castle. But luckily the magical law enforcement squad has sorted it out by the time we got there. Harry stifled a yawn behind his hand. Bed, said an undeceived Mrs. Weasley at once. I've got Fred and George's room all ready for you. You'll have it to yourself. Why? Where are they? Oh, they're in Diagon Alley, sleeping in the little flat over their joke shop as they're so busy, said Mrs. Weasley. I must say I didn't approve at first, but they do seem to have a bit of a flair for business. Come on, dear, your trunk's already up there. Night, Mr. Weasley, said Harry, pushing back his chair. Crookshanks leapt lightly from his lap and slunk out of the room. Good night, Harry, said Mr. Weasley. Harry saw Mrs. Weasley glance at the clock in the washing basket as they left the kitchen. All the hands were once again at mortal peril. Fred and George's bedroom was on the second floor. Mrs. Weasley pointed her wand at a lamp on the bedside table, and it ignited at once, bathing the room in a pleasant golden glow. Though a large vase of flowers had been placed on a desk in front of the small window, their perfume could not disguise the lingering smell of what Harry thought was gunpowder. A considerable amount of floor space was devoted to a vast number of unmarked sealed cardboard boxes, amongst which stood Harry's school trunk. The room looked as though it was being used as a temporary warehouse. Hedwig hooted happily at Harry from her perch on top of a large wardrobe, then took off through the window. 
Harry knew she had been waiting to see him before going hunting. Harry bade Mrs. Weasley good night, put on pajamas, and got into one of the beds. There was something hard inside the pillowcase. He groped inside it and pulled out a sticky purple and orange sweet, which he recognized as a puking pastille. Smiling to himself, he rolled over and was instantly asleep. Seconds later, or so it seemed to Harry, he was awakened by what sounded like cannon fire as the door burst open. Sitting bolt upright, he heard the rasp of the curtains being pulled back. The dazzling sunlight seemed to poke him hard in both eyes. Shielding them with one hand, he groped hopelessly for his glasses with the other. What's going on? We didn't know you were here already, said a loud and excited voice, and he received a sharp blow to the top of the head. Ron, don't hit him, said a girl's voice reproachfully. Harry's hand found his glasses, and he shoved them on, though the light was so bright he could hardly see anyway. A long, looming shadow quivered in front of him for a moment. He blinked, and Ron Weasley came into focus, grinning down at him. All right. Never been better, said Harry, rubbing the top of his head and slumping back onto his pillows. You? Not bad, said Ron, pulling over a cardboard box and sitting on it. When did you get here? Mum's only just told us. About one o'clock this morning. Were the muggles all right? Did they treat you okay? Same as usual, said Harry, as Hermione perched herself on the edge of his bed. They didn't talk to me much, but I like it better that way. How are you, Hermione? Oh, I'm fine, said Hermione, who was scrutinizing Harry as though he was sickening for something. He thought he knew what was behind this, and as he had no wish to discuss Sirius's death or any other miserable subject at the moment, he said, What's the time? Have I missed breakfast? Don't worry about that. Mum's bringing you up a tray. She reckons you look underfed, said Ron, rolling his eyes. So what's been going on? Nothing much. I've just been stuck at my aunt and uncle's, haven't I? Come off it, said Ron. You've been off with Dumbledore. It wasn't that exciting. He just wanted me to help him persuade this old teacher to come out of retirement. His name's Horace Slughorn. Oh, said Ron, looking disappointed. We thought... Hermione flashed a warning look at Ron, and Ron changed tack at top speed. We thought it'd be something like that. You did, said Harry, amused. Yeah, yeah, now Ambridge has left. Obviously, we need a new defense against the Dark Arts teacher, don't we? So, uh, what's he like? He looks a bit like a walrus, and he used to be head of Slytherin, said Harry. Something wrong, Hermione? She was watching him as though expecting strange symptoms to manifest themselves at any moment. She rearranged her features hastily in an unconvincing smile. No, of course not. So, um, did Slughorn seem like he'll be a good teacher? Dunno, said Harry. He can't be worse than Umbridge, can he? I know someone who's worse than Umbridge, said a voice from the doorway. Ron's younger sister slouched into the room, looking irritable. Hi, Harry. What's up with you? Ron asked. It's her, said Ginny, plonking herself down on Harry's bed. She's driving me mad. What's she done now? asked Hermione sympathetically. It's the way she talks to me. You'd think I was about three. I know, said Hermione, dropping her voice. She's so full of herself. 
Harry was astonished to hear Hermione talking about Mrs. Weasley like this, and could not blame Ron for saying angrily, Can't you two lay off her for five seconds? Oh, that's right, defend her, snapped Ginny. We all know you can't get enough of her. This seemed an odd comment to make about Ron's mother. Starting to feel that he was missing something, Harry said, Who are you? But his question was answered before he could finish it. The bedroom door flew open again, and Harry instinctively yanked the bed covers up to his chin so hard that Hermione and Ginny slid off the bed onto the floor. A young woman was standing in the doorway, a woman of such breathtaking beauty that the room seemed to have become strangely airless. She was tall and willowy, with long blonde hair, and appeared to emanate a faint silvery glow. To complete this vision of perfection, she was carrying a heavily laden breakfast tray. Ari, she said in a throaty voice, it has been too long. As she swept over the threshold toward him, Mrs. Weasley was revealed, bobbing along in her wake, looking rather cross. There was no need to bring up the tray. I was just about to do it myself. It was no trouble, said Fleur Delacour, setting the tray across Harry's knees and then swooping to kiss him on each cheek. He felt the places where her mouth had touched him burn. I have been longing to see him. You remember my sister, Gabrielle. She never stops talking about Harry Potter. She will be delighted to see you again. Oh, is she here too? Harry croaked. No, no, silly boy, said Fleur with a tinkling laugh. I mean next summer when we... But do you not know? Her great blue eyes widened, and she looked reproachfully at Mrs. Weasley, who said, We hadn't got around to telling him yet. Fleur turned back to Harry, swinging her silvery sheet of hair so that it whipped Mrs. Weasley across the face. Bill and I are going to be married? Oh, said Harry blankly. He could not help noticing how Mrs. Weasley, Hermione, and Ginny were all determinedly avoiding one another's gaze. Wow, uh, congratulations. She swooped down upon him and kissed him again. Bill is very busy at the moment, working very hard, and I only work part-time at Gringotts for my English, so he brought me here for a few days to get to know his family properly. I was so pleased to hear you would be coming. There isn't much to do here unless you like cooking and chickens. Well, enjoy your breakfast, Harry. With these words, she turned gracefully and seemed to float out of the room, closing the door quietly behind her. Mrs. Weasley made a noise that sounded like, Tch! Mum hates her, said Ginny quietly. I do not hate her, said Mrs. Weasley in a cross whisper. I just think they've hurried into this engagement, that's all. They've known each other a year, said Ron, who looked oddly groggy and was staring at the closed door. Well, that's not very long. I know why it's happened, of course. It's all this uncertainty with you-know-who coming back. People think they might be dead tomorrow, so they're rushing all sorts of decisions they'd normally take time over. It was the same last time he was powerful. People eloping left, right, and center. Including you and Dad, said Ginny slyly. Yes. Well, your father and I were made for each other. What was the point in waiting? said Mrs. Weasley. 
Whereas Bill and Fleur, well, what have they really got in common? He's a hard-working, down-to-earth sort of person, whereas she's a cow, said Ginny, nodding. But Bill's not that down-to-earth. He's a curse-breaker, isn't he? He likes a bit of adventure, a bit of glamour. I expect that's why he's gone for phlegm. Stop calling her that, Ginny, said Mrs. Weasley sharply as Harry and Hermione laughed. Well, I'd better get on. Eat your eggs while they're warm, Harry. Looking careworn, she left the room. Ron still seemed slightly punch-drunk. He was shaking his head experimentally like a dog trying to rid its ears of water. Don't you get used to her if she's staying in the same house? Harry asked. Well, you do, said Ron. But if she jumps out at you unexpectedly, like then... It's pathetic, said Hermione furiously, striding away from Ron as far as she could go and turning to face him with her arms folded once she had reached the wall. You don't really want her around forever? Ginny asked Ron incredulously. When he merely shrugged, she said, Well, Mum's going to put a stop to it if she can, I bet you anything. How's she going to manage that? asked Harry. She keeps trying to get Tonks round for dinner. I think she's hoping Bill will fall for Tonks instead. I hope he does. I'd much rather have her in the family. Yeah, that'll work, said Ron sarcastically. Listen, no bloke in his right mind's going to fancy Tonks when Fleur's around. I mean, Tonks is okay looking when she isn't doing stupid things to her hair and nose, but she's a damn sight nicer than Flem, said Ginny. And she's more intelligent. She's an auror, said Hermione from the corner. Fleur's not stupid. She was good enough to enter the Triwizard Tournament, said Harry. Not you as well, said Hermione bitterly. I suppose you like the way Flem says, Ari, do you? asked Ginny scornfully. No, said Harry, wishing he hadn't spoken. I was just saying Flem. I mean, Fleur. I'd much rather have Tonks in the family, said Ginny. At least she's a laugh. She hasn't been much of a laugh lately, said Ron. Every time I've seen her, she's looked more like Moaning Myrtle. That's not fair, snapped Hermione. She still hasn't got over what happened, you know. I mean, he was her cousin. Harry's heart sank. They had arrived at Sirius. He picked up a fork and began shoveling scrambled eggs into his mouth, hoping to deflect any invitation to join in this part of the conversation. Tonks and Sirius barely knew each other, said Ron. Sirius was in Azkaban half her life, and before that their families never met. That's not the point, said Hermione. She thinks it was her fault he died. How does she work that one out? asked Harry, in spite of himself. Well, she was fighting Bellatrix Lestrange, wasn't she? I think she feels that if only she had finished her off, Bellatrix couldn't have killed Sirius. That's stupid, said Ron. It's survivor's guilt, said Hermione. I know Lupin's tried to talk her round, but she's still really down. She's actually having trouble with her metamorphosing. With her, she can't change her appearance like she used to, explained Hermione. I think her powers must have been affected by shock or something. I didn't know that could happen, said Harry. Nor did I, said Hermione. But I suppose if you're really depressed... The door opened again and Mrs. Weasley popped her head in. Ginny, she whispered, come downstairs and help me with the lunch. I'm talking to this lot, said Ginny, outraged. Now, 
said Mrs. Weasley, and withdrew. She only wants me there so she doesn't have to be alone with Flem, said Ginny crossly. She swung her long red hair around in a very good imitation of Fleur, and pranced across the room with her arms held aloft like a ballerina. You lot had better come down quickly, too, she said as she left. Harry took advantage of the temporary silence to eat more breakfast. Hermione was peering into Fred and George's boxes, though every now and then she cast sideways looks at Harry. Ron, who was now helping himself to Harry's toast, was still gazing dreamily at the door. What's this? Hermione asked eventually, holding up what looked like a small telescope. Dunno, said Ron. But if Fred and George have left it here, it's probably not ready for the joke shop yet, so be careful. Your mum said the shop's going well, said Harry. Said Fred and George have got a real flair for business. That's an understatement, said Ron. They're raking in the galleons. I can't wait to see the place. We haven't been to Diagon Alley yet. Because mum says dad's got to be there for extra security, and he's been really busy at work. But it sounds excellent. And what about Percy? asked Harry. The third eldest Weasley brother had fallen out with the rest of the family. Is he talking to your mum and dad again? Nope, said Ron. But he knows your dad was right all along now about Voldemort being back. Dumbledore says people find it far easier to forgive others for being wrong than being right, said Hermione. I heard him telling your mum, Ron. Sounds like the sort of mental thing Dumbledore would say, said Ron. He's going to be giving me private lessons this year, said Harry conversationally. Ron choked on his bit of toast, and Hermione gasped. You kept that quiet, said Ron. I only just remembered, said Harry honestly. He told me last night in your broom shed. Blimey! Private lessons with Dumbledore, said Ron, looking impressed. I wonder why he's... His voice trailed away. Harry saw him and Hermione exchange looks. Harry laid down his knife and fork, his heart beating rather fast, considering that all he was doing was sitting in bed. Dumbledore had said to do it. Why not now? He fixed his eyes on his fork, which was gleaming in the sunlight streaming into his lap, and said, I don't know exactly why he's going to be giving me lessons, but I think it must be because of the prophecy. Neither Ron nor Hermione spoke. Harry had the impression that both had frozen. He continued, still speaking, to his fork. You know, the one they were trying to steal at the ministry. Nobody knows what it said, though, said Hermione quickly. It got smashed. Although the prophet says, began Ron, but Hermione said, shh. The prophets got it right, said Harry, looking up at them both with a great effort. Hermione seemed frightened and Ron amazed. That glass ball that smashed wasn't the only record of the prophecy. I heard the whole thing in Dumbledore's office. He was the one the prophecy was made to, so he could tell me. From what it said, Harry took a deep breath, it looks like I'm the one who's got to finish off Voldemort. At least, it said neither of us could live while the other survives. The three of them gazed at one another in silence for a moment. Then there was a loud bang, and Hermione vanished behind a puff of black smoke. Hermione! shouted Harry and Ron. The breakfast tray slid to the floor with a crash. Hermione emerged, coughing out of the smoke, clutching the telescope and sporting a brilliantly purple black eye. I squeezed it, and it... it punched me, she gasped. 
And sure enough, they now saw a tiny fist on a long spring protruding from the end of the telescope. Don't worry, said Ron, who was plainly trying not to laugh. Mum will fix that. She's good at healing minor injuries. Oh, well, never mind that now, said Hermione hastily. Harry, oh, Harry. She sat down on the edge of his bed again. We wondered after we got back from the ministry. Obviously, we didn't want to say anything to you, but from what Lucius Malfoy said about the prophecy, how it was about you and Voldemort, well, we thought it might be something like this. Oh, Harry. She stared at him, then whispered, Are you scared? Not as much as I was, said Harry. When I first heard it, I was, but now it seems as though I always knew I'd have to face him in the end. When we heard Dumbledore was collecting you in person, we thought he might be telling you something or showing you something to do with the prophecy, said Ron eagerly. And we were kind of right, weren't we? He wouldn't be giving you lessons if he thought you were a goner, wouldn't waste his time. He must think you've got a chance. That's true, said Hermione. I wonder what he'll teach you, Harry. Really advanced defensive magic, probably. Powerful counter-curses, anti-jinxes. Harry did not really listen. A warmth was spreading through him that had nothing to do with the sunlight. A tight obstruction in his chest seemed to be dissolving. He knew that Ron and Hermione were more shocked than they were letting on, but the mere fact that they were still there on either side of him, speaking bracing words of comfort, not shrinking from him as though he were contaminated or dangerous, was worth more than he could ever tell them. And evasive enchantments generally, concluded Hermione. Well, at least you know one lesson you'll be having this year. That's one more than Ron and me. I wonder when our OWL results will come. Can't be long now. It's been a month, said Ron. Hang on, said Harry, as another part of last night's conversation came back to him. I think Dumbledore said our OWL results would be arriving today. Today, shrieked Hermione. Today? But why didn't you? Oh, my God. You should have said... She leapt to her feet. I'm going to see whether any owls have come. But when Harry arrived downstairs ten minutes later, fully dressed and carrying his empty breakfast tray, it was to find Hermione sitting at the kitchen table in great agitation, while Mrs. Weasley tried to lessen her resemblance to half a panda. It just won't budge, Mrs. Weasley was saying anxiously, standing over Hermione with her wand in her hand and a copy of the healer's helpmate open at bruises, cuts, and abrasions. This has always worked before. I just can't understand it. It'll be Fred and George's idea of a funny joke, making sure it can't come off, said Ginny. But it's got to come off squeaked Hermione. I can't go round looking like this forever. You won't, dear. We'll find an antidote. Don't worry, said Mrs. Weasley soothingly. Bill told me Alfred and George are very amusing, said Fleur, smiling serenely. Yes, I can hardly breathe for laughing, snapped Hermione. She jumped up and started walking round and round the kitchen, twisting her fingers together. Mrs. Weasley... You're quite, quite sure no owls have arrived this morning? Yes, dear, I'd have noticed, said Mrs. Weasley patiently. But it's barely nine. There's still plenty of time. I know I messed up ancient runes, muttered Hermione feverishly. I definitely made at least one serious mistranslation. And the defense against the dark arts practical was no good at all. I thought transfiguration went all right at the time, but looking back, 
Hermione, will you shut up? You're not the only one who's nervous, barked Ron. And when you've got your eleven outstanding OWLs... Don't, 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 said Hermione, flapping her hands hysterically. I know I've failed everything. What happens if we fail? Harry asked the room at large. But it was again Hermione who answered. We discuss our options with our head of house. I asked Professor McGonagall at the end of last term. Harry's stomach squirmed. He wished he had eaten less breakfast. At Beaubaton, said Fleur complacently, we had a different way of doing things. I think it was better. We sat our examinations after six years of study, not five, and then... Fleur's words were drowned in a scream. Hermione was pointing through the kitchen window. Three black specks were clearly visible in the sky, growing larger all the time. They're definitely owls, said Ron hoarsely, jumping up to join Hermione at the window. And there are three of them, said Harry, hastening to her other side. One for each of us, said Hermione in a terrified whisper. Oh no, oh no, oh no. She gripped both Harry and Ron tightly around the elbows. The owls were flying directly at the burrow, three handsome tawnies, each of which, it became clear as they flew lower over the path leading up to the house, was carrying a large square envelope. Oh, no, squealed Hermione. Mrs. Weasley squeezed past them and opened the kitchen window. One, two, three, the owls soared through it and landed on the table in a neat line. All three of them lifted their right legs. Harry moved forward. The letter addressed to him was tied to the leg of the owl in the middle. He untied it with fumbling fingers. To his left, Ron was trying to detach his own results. To his right, Hermione's hands were shaking so much she was making her whole owl tremble. Nobody in the kitchen spoke. At last, Harry managed to detach the envelope. He slit it open quickly and unfolded the parchment inside. Ordinary wizarding level results. Pass grades. Outstanding, O. Exceeds expectations, E. Acceptable, A. Fail grades. Poor, P. Dreadful, D. Troll, T. Harry James Potter has achieved Astronomy, acceptable. Care of magical creatures exceeds expectations. Charms exceeds expectations. Defense against the dark arts, outstanding. Divination, poor. Herbology, exceeds expectations. History of magic, dreadful. Potions, exceeds expectations. Transfiguration, exceeds expectations. Harry read the parchment through several times, his breathing becoming easier with each reading. It was all right. He had always known that he would fail divination, and he had had no chance of passing history of magic, given that he had collapsed halfway through the examination, but he had passed everything else. He ran his finger down the grades. He had passed well in transfiguration and herbology. He had even exceeded expectations at potions. And, best of all, he had achieved outstanding at defense against the dark arts. He looked around. Hermione had her back to him and her head bent, but Ron was looking delighted. Only failed divination and history of magic, and who cares about them? He said happily to Harry. Here, swap. Harry glanced down Ron's grades. There were no outstandings there. Knew you'd be top at defense against the dark arts, 
said Ron, punching Harry on the shoulder. We've done all right, haven't we? Well done, said Mrs. Weasley proudly, ruffling Ron's hair. Seven OWLs. That's more than Fred and George got together. Hermione, said Ginny tentatively, for Hermione still hadn't turned around. How did you do? I, not bad, said Hermione in a small voice. Oh, come off it, said Ron, striding over to her and whipping her results out of her hand. Yep, ten outstandings, and one exceeds expectations at Defense Against the Dark Arts. He looked down at her, half amused, half exasperated. You're actually disappointed, aren't you? Hermione shook her head, but Harry laughed. Well, we're N.E.W.T. students now, grinned Ron. Mom, are there any more sausages? Harry looked back down at his results. They were as good as he could have hoped for. He felt just one tiny twinge of regret. This was the end of his ambition to become an Auror. He had not secured the required potions grade. He had known all along that he wouldn't, but he still felt a sinking in his stomach as he looked again at that small black E. It was odd, really, seeing that it had been a Death Eater in disguise who had first told Harry he would make a good Auror. But somehow the idea had taken hold of him, and he couldn't really think of anything else he would like to be. Moreover, it had seemed the right destiny for him, since he had heard the prophecy a few weeks ago, neither can live while the other survives. Wouldn't he be living up to the prophecy and giving himself the best chance of survival if he joined those highly trained wizards whose job it was to find and kill Voldemort? Chapter 6 Draco's Detour Harry remained within the confines of the burrow's garden over the next few weeks. He spent most of his days playing two-a-side Quidditch in the Weasley's orchard, he and Hermione against Ron and Ginny. Hermione was dreadful and Ginny good, so they were reasonably well-matched. And his evenings, eating triple helpings of everything Mrs. Weasley put in front of him. It would have been a happy, peaceful holiday had it not been for the stories of disappearances, odd accidents, even of deaths now appearing almost daily in The Prophet. Sometimes Bill and Mr. Weasley brought home news before it even reached the paper. To Mrs. Weasley's displeasure, Harry's sixteenth birthday celebrations were marred by grisly tidings brought to the party by Remus Lupin, who was looking gaunt and grim, his brown hair streaked liberally with grey, his clothes more ragged and patched than ever. There have been another couple of Dementor attacks, he announced, as Mrs. Weasley passed him a large slice of birthday cake. And they found Igor Karkaroff's body in a shack up north. The dark mark had been set over it. Well, frankly, I'm surprised he stayed alive for even a year after deserting the Death Eaters. Sirius's brother, Regulus, only managed a few days, as far as I can remember. Yes, well, said Mrs. Weasley, frowning, perhaps we should talk about something diff. Did you hear about Florian Fortescue, Remus? asked Bill, who was being plied with wine by Fleur. The man who ran... The ice cream place in Diagon Alley, Harry interrupted with an unpleasant hollow sensation in the pit of his stomach. He used to give me free ice creams. What's happened to him? Dragged off by the look of his place. Why? asked Ron, while Mrs. Weasley pointedly glared at Bill. Who knows? He must have upset them somehow. 
He was a good man, Florian. Talking of diagonally, said Mr. Weasley, looks like Ollivander's gone too. The wand maker, said Ginny, looking startled. That's the one. Shop's empty, no sign of a struggle. No one knows whether he left voluntarily or was kidnapped. But wands, what'll people do for wands? They'll make do with other makers, said Lupin. But Ollivander was the best, and if the other side has got him, it's not so good for us. The day after this rather gloomy birthday tea, their letters and book lists arrived from Hogwarts. Harry's included a surprise. He had been made Quidditch captain. That gives you equal status with prefects, cried Hermione happily. You can use our special bathroom now and everything. Wow! I remember when Charlie wore one of these said Ron, examining the badge with glee. Harry, this is so cool. You're my captain, if you let me back on the team, I suppose. Uh -huh. Well, I don't suppose we can put off a trip to Diagon Alley much longer now you've got these, sighed Mrs. Weasley, looking down Ron's book list. We'll go on Saturday, as long as your father doesn't have to go into work again. I'm not going there without him. Mom, do you honestly think you know who's going to be hiding behind a bookshelf in Flourish and Blots? sniggered Ron. Fortescue and Ollivander went on holiday, did they? said Mrs. Weasley, firing up at once. If you think security is a laughing matter, you can stay behind and I'll get your things myself. No, I want to come. I want to see Fred and Georgie's shop, said Ron hastily. Then you just buck up your ideas, young man, before I decide you're too immature to come with us, said Mrs. Weasley angrily, snatching up her clock, all nine hands of which were still pointing at mortal peril, and balancing it on top of a pile of just laundered towels. And that goes for returning to Hogwarts as well. Ron turned to stare incredulously at Harry as his mother hoisted the laundry basket and the teetering clock into her arms and stormed out of the room. Blimey, you can't even make a joke round here any more. But Ron was careful not to be flippant about Voldemort over the next few days. Saturday dawned without any more outbursts from Mrs. Weasley, though she seemed very tense at breakfast. Bill, who would be staying at home with Fleur, much to Hermione and Ginny's pleasure, passed a full money bag across the table to Harry. Where's mine? demanded Ron at once, his eyes wide. That's already Harry's, idiot said Bill. I got it out of your vault for you, Harry, because it's taking about five hours for the public to get to their gold at the moment. The goblins have tightened security so much. Two days ago, Archie Philpot had a probity probe stuck up his... <laughs> well, trust me, this way's easier. Thanks, Bill, said Harry, pocketing his gold. He is always so thoughtful, purred Fleur adoringly, stroking Bill's nose. Ginny mimed, vomiting into her cereal behind Fleur. Harry choked over his cornflakes, and Ron thumped him on the back. It was an overcast, murky day. One of the special Ministry of Magic cars, in which Harry had ridden once before, was awaiting them in the front yard when they emerged from the house, pulling on their cloaks. It's good Dad can get us these again, said Ron appreciatively, stretching luxuriously as the car moved smoothly away from the burrow, Bill and Fleur waving from the kitchen window. He, Harry, Hermione, and Ginny were all sitting in roomy comfort in the wide back seat. Don't get used to it. It's only because of Harry, said Mr. Weasley over his shoulder. He and Mrs. Weasley were in front with a ministry driver. 
The front passenger seat had obligingly stretched into what resembled a two-seater sofa. He's been given top-grade security status, and will be joining up with additional security at the Leaky Cauldron, too. Harry said nothing. He did not much fancy doing his shopping while surrounded by a battalion of Aurors. He had sewed his invisibility cloak in his backpack and felt that, if it was good enough for Dumbledore, it ought to be good enough for the Ministry. Though now he came to think of it, he was not sure the Ministry knew about his cloak. "'Here you are, then!' said the driver, a surprisingly short while later, speaking for the first time as he slowed in Charing Cross Road and stopped outside the leaky cauldron. I'm to wait for you. Any idea how long you'll be? A couple of hours, I expect, said Mr. Weasley. Ah, good, he's here. Harry imitated Mr. Weasley and peered through the window. His heart leapt. There were no Aurors waiting outside the inn, but instead the gigantic, black-bearded form of Rubeus Hagrid, the Hogwarts gamekeeper, wearing a long beaver-skin coat, beaming at the sight of Harry's face and oblivious to the startled stares of passing muggles. Harry, he boomed, sweeping Harry into a bone-crushing hug the moment Harry had stepped out of the car. Buckbeak, with the wings, I mean. You should see him. Harry, he's so happy to be back in the open air. Glad he's pleased, said Harry, grinning as he massaged his ribs. We didn't know security meant you. I know, just like old times, innit? You see, the Ministry wanted to send a bunch of Aurors, but Dumbledore said I'd do, said Hagrid proudly, throwing out his chest and tucking his thumbs into his pockets. Let's get going, then. After you, Molly, Arthur. The leaky cauldron was, for the first time in Harry's memory, completely empty. Only Tom, the landlord, wizened and toothless, remained of the old crowd. He looked up hopefully as they entered. But before he could speak, Hagrid said, importantly, Just passing through today, Tom. Sure you understand? Hogwarts business, you know. Tom nodded gloomily and returned to wiping glasses. Harry, Hermione, Hagrid, and the Weasleys walked through the bar and out into the chilly little courtyard at the back where the dustbins stood. Hagrid raised his pink umbrella and wrapped a certain brick in the wall, which opened at once to form an archway onto a winding cobbled street. They stepped through the entrance and paused, looking around. Diagon Alley had changed. The colorful, glittering window displays of spellbooks, potion ingredients, and cauldrons were lost to view, hidden behind the large Ministry of Magic posters that had been pasted over them. Most of these somber purple posters carried blown-up versions of the security advice on the Ministry pamphlets that had been sent out over the summer, but others bore moving black-and-white photographs of Death Eaters known to be on the loose. Bellatrix Lestrange was sneering from the front of the nearest apothecary. A few windows were boarded up, including those of Florian Fortescue's ice cream parlor. On the other hand, a number of shabby-looking stalls had sprung up along the street. The nearest one, which had been erected outside Flourish and Blots, under a striped, stained awning, had a cardboard sign pinned to its front. Amulets, effective against werewolves, dementors, and inferi. A seedy-looking little wizard was rattling armfuls of silver symbols on chains at passers-by. "'One for your little girl, madam,' he called at Mrs. Weasley as they passed, leering at Ginny. "'Protect her pretty neck!' 
If I were on duty, said Mr. Weasley, glaring angrily at the amulet cellar. Yes, but don't go arresting anyone now, dear. We're in a hurry, said Mrs. Weasley, nervously consulting a list. I think we'd better do Madame Malkin's first. Hermione wants new dress robes, and Ron's showing much too much ankle in his school robes. You must need new ones too, Harry. You've grown so much. Come on, everyone. Molly, it doesn't make sense for all of us to go to Madame Malkin's, said Mr. Weasley. Why don't those three go with Hagrid, and we can go to Flourish and Blots and get everyone's school books? I don't know, said Mrs. Weasley anxiously, clearly torn between a desire to finish the shopping quickly and the wish to stick together in a pack. Hagrid, do you think... Don't fret, they'll be fine with me, Molly, said Hagrid soothingly, waving an airy hand the size of a dustbin lid. Mrs. Weasley did not look entirely convinced, but allowed the separation, scurrying off toward Flourish and Blots with her husband and Ginny, while Harry, Ron, Hermione, and Hagrid set off for Madame Malkin's. Harry noticed that many of the people who passed them had the same harried, anxious look as Mrs. Weasley, and that nobody was stopping to talk any more. The shoppers stayed together in their own tightly knit groups, moving intently about their business. Nobody seemed to be shopping alone. Might be a bit of a squeeze in there with all of us, said Hagrid, stopping outside Madame Malkin's and bending down to peer through the window. I'll stand guard outside, all right? So Harry, Ron, and Hermione entered the little shop together. It appeared at first glance to be empty, but no sooner had the door swung shut behind them than they heard a familiar voice issuing from behind a rack of dress robes in spangled green and blue. Not a child, in case you haven't noticed, Mother. I'm perfectly capable of doing my shopping alone. There was a clucking noise, and a voice Harry recognized as that of Madame Malkin, the owner, said, Now, dear, your mother's quite right. None of us is supposed to go wandering around on our own anymore. It's nothing to do with being a child. Watch where you're sticking that pin, will you? A teenage boy with a pale, pointed face and white blonde hair appeared from behind the rack, wearing a handsome set of dark green robes that glittered with pins around the hem and the edges of the sleeves. He strode to the mirror and examined himself. It was a few moments before he noticed Harry, Ron, and Hermione reflected over his shoulder. His light gray eyes narrowed. If you're wondering what the smell is, Mother, a mudblood just walked in said Draco Malfoy. I don't think there's any need for language like that, said Madame Malkin, scurrying out from behind the clothes rack, holding a tape measure and a wand. And I don't want wands drawn in my shop either, she added hastily, for a glance toward the door had shown her Harry and Ron both standing there with their wands out and pointing at Malfoy. Hermione, who was standing slightly behind them, whispered, No, don't. Honestly, it's not worth it. Yeah, like you dare do magic out of school, sneered Malfoy. Who blacked your eye, Granger? I want to send them flowers. That's quite enough, said Madame Malkin sharply, looking over her shoulder for support. Madam, please. Narcissa Malfoy strolled out from behind the clothes rack. Put those away, she said coldly to Harry and Ron. If you attack my son again, I shall ensure that it is the last thing you ever do.
Really? said Harry, taking a step forward and gazing into the smoothly arrogant face that, for all its pallor, still resembled her sister's. He was as tall as she was now. Going to get a few Death Eater pals to do us in, are you? Madame Malkin squealed and clutched at her heart. Really, you shouldn't accuse. Dangerous thing to say. Wands away, please. But Harry did not lower his wand. Narcissa Malfoy smiled unpleasantly. I see that being Dumbledore's favorite has given you a false sense of security, Harry Potter. But Dumbledore won't always be there to protect you. Harry looked mockingly all around the shop. Wow, look at that. He's not here now, so why not have a go? They might be able to find you a double cell in Azkaban with your loser of a husband. Malfoy made an angry movement toward Harry, but stumbled over his overlong robe. Ron laughed loudly. Don't you dare talk to my mother like that, Potter, Malfoy snarled. It's all right, Draco, said Narcissa, restraining him with her thin white fingers upon his shoulder. I expect Potter will be reunited with dear Sirius before I am reunited with Lucius. Harry raised his wand higher. Harry, no, moaned Hermione, grabbing his arm and attempting to push it down by his side. Think, you mustn't. You'll be in such trouble. Madame Malking dithered for a moment on the spot, then seemed to decide to act as though nothing was happening in the hope that it wouldn't. She bent toward Malfoy, who was still glaring at Harry. I think this left sleeve should come up a little bit more, dear. Let me just... Ouch! bellowed Malfoy, slapping her hand away. Watch where you're putting your pins, woman. Mother, I don't think I want these anymore. He pulled the robes over his head and threw them onto the floor at Madame Malkin's feet. You're right, Draco, said Narcissa with a contemptuous glance at Hermione. Now I know the kind of scum that shops here. We'll do better at Twilfit and Tattings. And with that, the pair of them strode out of the shop. Malfoy taking care to bang as hard as he could into Ron on the way out. Well, really, said Madame Malkin, snatching up the fallen robes and moving the tip of her wand over them like a vacuum cleaner so that it removed all the dust. She was distracted all through the fitting of Ron's and Harry's new robes, tried to sell Hermione wizard's dress robes instead of witches, and when she finally bowed them out of the shop, it was with an air of being glad to see the back of them. Got everything? asked Hagrid brightly when they reappeared at his side. Just about, said Harry. Did you see the Malfoys? Yeah, said Hagrid, unconcerned. But they wouldn't dare make trouble in the middle of Diagon Alley, Harry. Don't worry about them. Harry, Ron, and Hermione exchanged looks. But before they could disabuse Hagrid of this comfortable notion, Mr. and Mrs. Weasley and Ginny appeared, all clutching heavy packages of books. Everyone all right? said Mrs. Weasley. Got your robes? Right then. We can pop in at the apothecary and Ilops on the way to Fred and George's. Sit close now. Neither Harry nor Ron brought any ingredients at the apothecary, seeing that they were no longer studying potions, but both bought large boxes of owl nuts for Hedwig and Pigwidgeon at Ilops Owl Emporium. Then, with Mrs. Weasley checking her watch every minute or so, they headed farther along the street in search of Weasley's Wizard Wheezes, the joke shop run by Fred and George. We really haven't got too long, 
Mrs. Weasley said. So we'll just have a quick look around and then back to the car. We must be close. That's number 92, 94. Oh, said Ron, stopping in his tracks. Set against the dull, poster-muffled shop fronts around them, Fred and George's windows hit the eye like a firework display. Casual passers-by were looking back over their shoulders at the windows, and a few rather stunned-looking people had actually come to a halt, transfixed. The left-hand window was dazzlingly full of an assortment of goods that revolved, popped, flashed, bounced, and shrieked. Harry's eyes began to water just looking at it. The right-hand window was covered with a gigantic poster, purple like those of the Ministry, but emblazoned with flashing yellow letters. Why are you worrying about you-know-who? You should be worrying about you-know-poo. The constipation sensation that's gripping the nation. Harry started to laugh. He heard a weak sort of moan beside him and looked around to see Mrs. Weasley gazing, dumbfounded at the poster. Her lips moved silently, mouthing the name You-Know-Poo. They'll be murdered in their beds, she whispered. No, they won't, said Ron, who, like Harry, was laughing. This is brilliant. And he and Harry led the way into the shop. It was packed with customers. Harry could not get near the shelves. He stared around, looking up at the boxes piled to the ceiling. Here were the skiving snack boxes that the twins had perfected during their last unfinished year at Hogwarts. Harry noticed that the nosebleed nougat was most popular, with only one battered box left on the shelf. There were bins full of trick ones, the cheapest merely turning into rubber chickens or pairs of briefs when waved, the most expensive beating the unwary user around the head and neck, and boxes of quills which came in self-inking, spell-checking, and smart-answer varieties. A space cleared in the crowd, and Harry pushed his way toward the counter, where a gaggle of delighted ten-year-olds was watching a tiny little wooden man slowly ascending the steps to a real set of gallows, both perched on a box that read, Reusable Hangman! Spell it, or he'll swing! Patented Daydream Charms! Hermione had managed to squeeze through to a large display near the counter and was reading the information on the back of a box bearing a highly colored picture of a handsome youth and a swooning girl who was standing on the deck of a pirate ship. One simple incantation and you will enter a top quality, highly realistic, 30-minute daydream, easy to fit into the average school lesson and virtually undetectable. Side effects include vacant expression and minor drooling. Not for sale to under-sixteens. You know, said Hermione, looking up at Harry, that really is extraordinary magic. For that, Hermione, said a voice behind them, you can have one for free. A beaming Fred stood before them, wearing a set of magenta robes that clashed magnificently with his flaming hair. How are you, Harry? They shook hands. And what's happened to your eye, Hermione? Your punching telescope, she said ruefully. Oh, blimey! I forgot about those, said Fred. Here! He pulled a tub out of his pocket and handed it to her. She unscrewed it gingerly to reveal a thick yellow paste. Just dab it on. That bruise will be gone within the hour, said Fred. We had to find a decent bruise remover. We're testing most of our products on ourselves. Hermione looked nervous. 
It is safe, isn't it? She asked. Course it is, said Fred bracingly. Come on, Harry, I'll give you a tour. Harry left Hermione dabbing her black eye with paste and followed Fred toward the back of the shop where he saw a stand of card and rope tricks. Muggle magic tricks, said Fred happily, pointing them out. For freaks like Dad, you know, who love muggle stuff. It's not a big earner, but we do fairly steady business. They're great novelties. Oh, here's George. Fred's twin shook Harry's hand energetically. Giving him the tour? Come through the back, Harry. That's where we're making the real money. Pocket anything, you. And you'll pay in more than galleons? He added warningly to a small boy who hastily whipped his hand out of a tub labeled Edible Dark Marks, They'll Make Anyone Sick. George pushed back a curtain beside the muggle tricks, and Harry saw a darker, less crowded room. The packaging on the products lining these shelves was more subdued. We've just developed this more serious line, said Fred. Funny how it happened. You wouldn't believe how many people, even people who work at the ministry, can't do a decent shield charm, said George. Course, they didn't have you teaching them, Harry. That's right. Well, we thought shield hats were a bit of a laugh. You know, challenge your mate to jinx you while wearing it and watch his face when the jinx just bounces off. But the ministry bought 500 for all its support staff and we're still getting massive orders. So we've expanded into a range of shield cloaks, shield gloves. I mean, they wouldn't help much against the unforgivable curses, but for minor to moderate hexes or jinxes, and then we thought we'd get into the whole area of defense against the dark arts, because it's such a money spinner, continued George enthusiastically. This is cool. Look, instant darkness powder. We're importing it from Peru. Handy if you want to make a quick escape. And our decoy detonators are just walking off the shelves. Look, said Fred, pointing at a number of weird-looking blackhorn-type objects that were indeed attempting to scurry out of sight. You just drop one surreptitiously and it'll run off and make a nice loud noise out of sight, giving you a diversion if you need one. Handy, said Harry, impressed. Here, said George, catching a couple and throwing them to Harry. A young witch with short blonde hair poked her head around the curtain. Harry saw that she too was wearing magenta staff robes. There's a customer out here looking for a joke cauldron, Mr. Weasley and Mr. Weasley, she said. Harry found it very odd to hear Fred and George called Mr. Weasley, but they took it in their stride. Right you are, Verity. I'm coming, said George promptly. Harry, you help yourself to anything you want, all right? No charge. I can't do that, said Harry, who had already pulled out his money bag to pay for the decoy detonators. You don't pay here, said Fred, firmly waving away Harry's gold. You gave us our start-up loan. We haven't forgotten, said George sternly. Take whatever you like and just remember to tell people where you got it, if they ask. George swept off through the curtain to help with the customers, and Fred led Harry back into the main part of the shop to find Hermione and Ginny still poring over the patented daydream charms. Haven't you girls found our special Wonder Witch products yet? asked Fred. Follow me, ladies. Near the window was an array of violently pink products around which a cluster of excited girls was giggling enthusiastically. Hermione and Ginny both hung back, looking wary. There you go, 
said Fred proudly. Best range of love potions you'll find anywhere. Ginny raised an eyebrow skeptically. Do they work? she asked. Certainly they work, for up to twenty-four hours at a time, depending on the weight of the boy in question. And the attractiveness of the girl, said George, reappearing suddenly at their side. But we're not selling them to our sister, he added, becoming suddenly stern. Not when she's already got about five boys on the go from what we've... Whatever you've heard from Ron is a big, fat lie, said Ginny calmly, leaning forward to take a small pink pot off the shelf. What's this? Guaranteed ten-second pimple vanisher, said Fred. Excellent on everything from boils to blackheads. But don't change the subject. Are you or are you not currently going out with a boy called Dean Thomas? Yes, I am, said Ginny. And last time I looked, he was definitely one boy, not five. What are those? She was pointing at a number of round balls of fluff in shades of pink and purple, all rolling around the bottom of a cage and emitting high-pitched squeaks. Pygmy puffs, said George. Miniature puff skeins. We can't breed them fast enough. So what about Michael Corner? I dumped him. He was a bad loser, said Ginny, putting a finger through the bars of the cage and watching the pygmy puffs crowd around it. They're really cute. They're fairly cuddly, yes conceded Fred. But you're moving through boyfriends a bit fast, aren't you? Ginny turned to look at him, her hands on her hips. There was such a Mrs. Weasley-ish glare on her face that Harry was surprised Fred didn't recoil. It's none of your business, and I'll thank you, she added angrily to Ron, who had just appeared at George's elbow, laden with merchandise, not to tell tales about me to these two. That's, uh, three galleons, nine sickles, and a canut said Fred, examining the many boxes in Ron's arms. Cough up. I'm your brother. And that's our stuff you're nicking. Three galleons, nine sickles. I'll knock off the canut. But I haven't got three galleons, nine sickles. You'd better put it back then, and mind you put it on the right shelves. Ron dropped several boxes, swore, and made a rude hand gesture at Fred that was unfortunately spotted by Mrs. Weasley, who had chosen that moment to appear. If I see you do that again, I'll jinx your fingers together, she said sharply. Mom, can I have a pygmy puff, said Ginny at once. A what? said Mrs. Weasley warily. Look, they're so sweet. Mrs. Weasley moved aside to look at the pygmy puffs, and Harry, Ron, and Hermione momentarily had an unimpeded view out of the window. Draco Malfoy was hurrying up the street alone. As he passed Weasley's wizard wheezes, he glanced over his shoulder. Seconds later, he moved beyond the scope of the window, and they lost sight of him. Wonder where his mummy is, said Harry, frowning. Give another slip by the looks of it, said Ron. Why, though, said Hermione. Harry said nothing. He was thinking too hard. Narcissa Malfoy would not have let her precious son out of her sight willingly— Malfoy must have made a real effort to free himself from her clutches. Harry, knowing and loathing Malfoy, was sure the reason could not be innocent. He glanced around. Mrs. Weasley and Ginny were bending over the pygmy puffs. Mr. Weasley was delightedly examining a pack of muggle-marked playing cards. Fred and George were both helping customers. On the other side of the glass, Hagrid was standing with his back to them, looking up and down the street. 
Get under here, quick, said Harry, pulling his invisibility cloak out of his bag. Oh, I don't know, Harry, said Hermione, looking uncertainly toward Mrs. Weasley. Come on, said Ron. She hesitated for a second longer, then ducked under the cloak with Harry and Ron. Nobody noticed them vanish. They were all too interested in Fred and George's products. Harry, Ron, and Hermione squeezed their way out of the door as quickly as they could, but by the time they gained the street, Malfoy had disappeared just as successfully as they had. He was going in that direction, murmured Harry as quietly as possible, so that the humming Hagrid would not hear them. Come on! They scurried along, peering left and right through shop windows and doors, until Hermione pointed ahead. That's him, isn't it? she whispered, turning left. Big surprise, whispered Ron, for Malfoy had glanced around, then slid into Nocturne Alley and out of sight. Quick, or we'll lose him, said Harry, speeding up. Our feet'll be seen, said Hermione anxiously, as the cloak flapped a little around their ankles. It was much more difficult hiding all three of them under the cloak nowadays. It doesn't matter, said Harry impatiently. Just hurry. But Nocturne Alley, the side street devoted to the dark arts, looked completely deserted. They peered into windows as they passed, but none of the shops seemed to have any customers at all. Harry supposed it was a bit of a giveaway in these dangerous and suspicious times to buy dark artifacts, or at least to be seen buying them. Hermione gave his arm a hard pinch. Ouch! Shh! Look! He's in there! She breathed in Harry's ear. They had drawn level with the only shop in Nocturne Alley that Harry had ever visited, Borgin and Burke's, which sold a wide variety of sinister objects. There, in the midst of the cases full of skulls and old bottles, stood Draco Malfoy with his back to them, just visible beyond the very same large black cabinet in which Harry had once hidden to avoid Malfoy and his father. Judging by the movements of Malfoy's hands, he was talking animatedly. The proprietor of the shop, Mr. Borgin, an oily-haired, stooping man, stood facing Malfoy. He was wearing a curious expression of mingled resentment and fear. If only we could hear what they're saying, said Hermione. We can, said Ron excitedly. Hang on. Damn. He dropped a couple more of the boxes he was still clutching as he fumbled with the largest. Extendable ears. Look, fantastic, said Hermione, as Ron unraveled the long, flesh-colored strings and began to feed them toward the bottom of the door. Oh, I hope the door isn't imperturbable. No, said Ron gleefully. Listen. They put their heads together and listened intently to the ends of the strings through which Malfoy's voice could be heard loud and clear, as though a radio had been turned on. You know how to fix it. Possibly, said Borgen in a tone that suggested he was unwilling to commit himself. I'll need to see it, though. Why don't you bring it into the shop? I can't, said Malfoy. It's got to stay put. I just need you to tell me how to do it. Harry saw Borgin lick his lips nervously. Well, without seeing it, I must say it will be a very difficult job. Perhaps impossible. I couldn't guarantee anything. No, said Malfoy, and Harry knew just by his tone that Malfoy was sneering. Perhaps this will make you more confident. He moved toward Borgin and was blocked from view by the cabinet. 
Harry, Ron, and Hermione shuffled sideways to try and keep him in sight, but all they could see was Borgin looking very frightened. Tell anyone, said Malfoy, and there will be retribution. You know Fenrir Greyback? He's a family friend. He'll be dropping in from time to time to make sure you're giving the problem your full attention. There will be no need for... I'll decide that, said Malfoy. Well, I'd better be off, and don't forget to keep that one safe. I'll need it. Perhaps you'd like to take it now? No, of course I wouldn't, you stupid little man. How would I look carrying that down the street? Just don't sell it. Of course not, sir. Borgin made a bow as deep as the one Harry had once seen him give Lucius Malfoy. Not a word to anyone, Borgin, and that includes my mother, understand? Naturally, naturally, murmured Borgin, bowing again. Next moment the bell over the door tinkled loudly as Malfoy stalked out of the shop, looking very pleased with himself. He passed so close to Harry, Ron, and Hermione that they felt the cloak flutter around their knees again. Inside the shop, Borgin remained frozen. His anxious smile had vanished. He looked worried. What was that about? whispered Ron, reeling in the extendable ears. Dunno, said Harry, thinking hard. He wants something mended, and he wants to reserve something in there. Could you see what he pointed at when he said, that one? No, he was behind that cabinet. You two stay here, whispered Hermione. What are you? But Hermione had already ducked out from under the cloak. She checked her hair in the reflection in the glass, then marched into the shop, setting the bell tinkling again. Ron hastily fed the extendable ears back under the door and passed one of the strings to Harry. Hello. Horrible morning, isn't it? Hermione said brightly to Borgin, who did not answer, but cast her a suspicious look. Humming cheerily, Hermione strolled through the jumble of objects on display. Is this necklace for sale? she asked, pausing beside a glass-fronted case. If you've got one and a half thousand galleons, said Mr. Borgin coldly. Oh, ah, uh, no, I haven't got quite that much, said Hermione, walking on, and... What about this lovely, um, skull? Sixteen galleons. So, it's for sale, then. It isn't being kept for anyone. Mr. Borgin squinted at her. Harry had the nasty feeling he knew exactly what Hermione was up to. Apparently, Hermione felt she had been rumbled, too, because she suddenly threw caution to the winds. The thing is, that... A boy who was in here just now, Draco Malfoy. Well, he's a friend of mine, and I want to get him a birthday present. But if he's already reserved anything, I obviously don't want to get him the same thing. So, um... It was a pretty lame story in Harry's opinion, and apparently Borgin thought so too. Out! He said sharply. Get out! Hermione did not wait to be asked twice, but hurried to the door with Borgin at her heels. As the bell tinkled again, Borgin slammed the door behind her and put up the closed sign. Ah, well, said Ron, throwing the cloak back over Hermione. Worth a try, but you were a bit obvious. Well, next time you can show me how it's done, master of mystery, she snapped. 
Ron and Hermione bickered all the way back to Weasley's Wizard Wheezes, where they were forced to stop so that they could dodge undetected around a very anxious-looking Mrs. Weasley and Hagrid, who had clearly noticed their absence. Once in the shop, Harry whipped off the invisibility cloak, hid it in his bag, and joined in with the other two when they insisted, in answer to Mrs. Weasley's accusations, that they had been in the back room all along, and that she could not have looked. Properly. Chapter 7 The Slug Club Harry spent a lot of the last week of the holidays pondering the meaning of Malfoy's behavior in Nocturne Alley. What disturbed him most was the satisfied look on Malfoy's face as he had left the shop. Nothing that made Malfoy look that happy could be good news. To his slight annoyance, however, neither Ron nor Hermione seemed quite as curious about Malfoy's activities as he was, or at least they seemed to get bored of discussing it after a few days. Yes, I've already agreed it was fishy, Harry, said Hermione a little impatiently. She was sitting on the windowsill in Fred and George's room with her feet up on one of the cardboard boxes and had only grudgingly looked up from her new copy of Advanced Rune Translation. But haven't we agreed there could be a lot of explanations? Maybe he's broken his hand of glory, said Ron vaguely, as he attempted to straighten his broomstick's bent tail twigs. Remember that shriveled-up arm Malfoy had? But what about when he said, Don't forget to keep that one safe, asked Harry for the umpteenth time. That sounded to me like Borgin's got another one of the broken objects, and Malfoy wants both. You reckon? said Ron now trying to scrape some dirt off his broom handle. Yeah, I do, said Harry. When neither Ron nor Hermione answered, he said, Malfoy's father's in Azkaban. Don't you think Malfoy'd like revenge? Ron looked up, blinking. Malfoy? Revenge? What can he do about it? That's my point. I don't know, said Harry, frustrated. But he's up to something, and I think we should take it seriously. His father's a Death Eater, and... Harry broke off, his eyes fixed on the window behind Hermione, his mouth open. A startling thought had just occurred to him. Harry, said Hermione in an anxious voice, what's wrong? Your scar's not hurting again, is it? asked Ron nervously. He's a Death Eater, said Harry slowly. He's replaced his father as a Death Eater. There was a silence. Then Ron erupted in laughter. <laughs> Malfoy? He's sixteen, Harry. You think you know who would let Malfoy join? It seems very unlikely, Harry, said Hermione in a repressive sort of voice. What makes you think? In Madame Malkins. She didn't touch him, but he yelled and jerked his arm away from her when she went to roll up his sleeve. It was his left arm. He's been branded with the dark mark. Ron and Hermione looked at each other. Well, said Ron, sounding thoroughly unconvinced. I think he just wanted to get out of there, Harry, said Hermione. He showed Borgin something we couldn't see, Harry pressed on stubbornly. Something that seriously scared Borgin. It was the mark. I know it. He was showing Borgin who he was dealing with. You saw how seriously Borgin took him? Ron and Hermione exchanged another look. I'm not sure, Harry. Yeah, I still don't reckon you know who would let Malfoy join. 
Annoyed but absolutely convinced he was right, Harry snatched up a pile of filthy Quidditch robes and left the room. Mrs. Weasley had been urging them for days not to leave their washing and packing until the last moment. On the landing, he bumped into Ginny, who was returning to her room, carrying a pile of freshly laundered clothes. I wouldn't go in the kitchen just now, she warned him. There's a lot of phlegm around. I'll be careful not to slip in it, Harry smiled. Sure enough, when he entered the kitchen, it was to find Fleur sitting at the kitchen table in full flow about plans for her wedding to Bill, while Mrs. Weasley kept watch over a pile of self-peeling sprouts, looking bad-tempered. Bill and I have almost decided on only two bridesmaids. Jeannie and Gabrielle will look very sweet together. I am thinking of dressing them in pale gold. Pink would, of course, be horrible with Jeannie's air. Ah, Harry, said Mrs. Weasley loudly, cutting across Fleur's monologue. Good. I wanted to explain about the security arrangements for the journey to Hogwarts tomorrow. We've got ministry cars again, and there will be Aurors waiting at the station. Is Tonks going to be there? asked Harry, handing over his Quidditch things. No, I don't think so. She's been stationed somewhere else, from what Arthur said. She has let herself go, that Tonks, Fleur mused, examining her own stunning reflection in the back of a teaspoon. A big mistake, if you ask. Yes, thank you, said Mrs. Weasley tartly, cutting across Fleur again. You'd better get on, Harry. I want the trunks ready tonight, if possible, so we don't have the usual last-minute scramble. And, in fact, their departure the following morning was smoother than usual. The ministry cars glided up to the front of the burrow to find them waiting, trunks packed, Hermione's cat, Crookshanks, safely enclosed in his travelling basket, and Hedwig, Ron's owl, Pigwidgeon, and Ginny's new purple pygmy puff, Arnold, in cages. Au revoir, Harry, said Fleur throatily, kissing him goodbye. Ron hurried forward, looking hopeful, but Ginny stuck out her foot, and Ron fell, sprawling in the dust at Fleur's feet. Furious, red-faced, and dirt-spattered, he hurried into the car without saying goodbye. There was no cheerful Hagrid waiting for them at King's Cross Station. Instead, two grim-faced, bearded Aurors in dark muggle suits moved forward the moment the car stopped, and, flanking the party, marched them into the station without speaking. Quick, quick, through the barrier, said Mrs. Weasley, who seemed a little flustered by this austere efficiency. Harry had better go first, with— She looked inquiringly at one of the Aurors, who nodded briefly seized Harry's upper arm and attempted to steer him toward the barrier between platforms nine and ten. I can walk, thanks, said Harry irritably, jerking his arm out of the Auror's grip. He pushed his trolley directly at the solid barrier, ignoring his silent companion, and found himself a second later standing on platform nine and three quarters, where the scarlet Hogwarts Express stood belching steam over the crowd. Hermione and the Weasleys joined him within seconds. Without waiting to consult his grim-faced Auror, Harry motioned to Ron and Hermione to follow him up the platform, looking for an empty compartment. We can't, Harry, said Hermione, looking apologetic. Ron and I've got to go to the prefect's carriage first, and then patrol the corridors for a bit. Oh, yeah, I forgot, said Harry. 
You'd better get straight on the train, all of you. You've only got a few minutes to go, said Mrs. Weasley, consulting her watch. Well, have a lovely term, Ron. Mr. Weasley, can I have a quick word? said Harry, making up his mind on the spur of the moment. Of course, said Mr. Weasley, who looked slightly surprised but followed Harry out of earshot of the others nevertheless. Harry had thought it through carefully and come to the conclusion that, if he was to tell anyone, Mr. Weasley was the right person. Firstly, because he worked at the Ministry and was therefore in the best position to make further investigations, and secondly, because he thought that there was not too much risk of Mr. Weasley exploding with anger. He could see Mrs. Weasley and the grim-faced Auror casting the pair of them suspicious looks as they moved away. When we were in Diagon Alley, Harry began, but Mr. Weasley forestalled him with a grimace. Am I about to discover where you, Ron, and Hermione disappeared to while you were supposed to be in the back room of Fred and George's shop? How did you... Harry, please. You're talking to the man who raised Fred and George. Uh, yeah. All right, we weren't in the back room. Very well, then. Let's hear the worst. Well, we followed Draco Malfoy. We used my invisibility cloak. Did you have any particular reason for doing so, or was it a mere whim? Because I thought Malfoy was up to something, said Harry, disregarding Mr. Weasley's look of mingled exasperation and amusement. He'd given his mother the slip, and I wanted to know why. Of course you did, said Mr. Weasley, sounding resigned. Well, did you find out why? He went into Borgin and Burke's, said Harry, and started bullying the bloke in there, Borgin, to help him fix something, and he said he wanted Borgin to keep something else for him. He made it sound like it was the same kind of thing that needed fixing, like they were a pair, and... Harry took a deep breath. There's something else. We saw Malfoy jump about a mile when Madame Malkin tried to touch his left arm. I think he's been branded with the dark mark. I think he's replaced his father as a Death Eater. Mr. Weasley looked taken aback. After a moment, he said, Harry, I doubt whether you know who would allow a sixteen-year-old... Does anyone really know what you-know-who would or wouldn't do? asked Harry angrily. Mr. Weasley, I'm sorry, but isn't it worth investigating? If Malfoy wants something fixed, and he needs to threaten Borgin to get it done, it's probably something dark or dangerous, isn't it? I doubt it, to be honest, Harry, said Mr. Weasley slowly. You see... When Lucius Malfoy was arrested, we raided his house. We took away everything that might have been dangerous. I think you missed something, said Harry stubbornly. Well, maybe, said Mr. Weasley. But Harry could tell that Mr. Weasley was humoring him. There was a whistle behind them. Nearly everyone had boarded the train, and the doors were closing. You'd better hurry, said Mr. Weasley, as Mrs. Weasley cried, Harry, quickly! He hurried forward, and Mr. and Mrs. Weasley helped him load his trunk onto the train. Now, dear, you're coming to us for Christmas. It's all fixed with Dumbledore. So we'll see you quite soon, said Mrs. Weasley through the window, as Harry slammed the door shut behind him and the train began to move. You make sure you look after yourself, and... 
The train was gathering speed. Be good and... She was jogging to keep up now. Stay safe. Harry waved until the train had turned a corner and Mr. and Mrs. Weasley were lost to view, then turned to see where the others had got to. He supposed Ron and Hermione were cloistered in the prefect's carriage, but Ginny was a little way along the corridor, chatting to some friends. He made his way toward her, dragging his trunk. People stared shamelessly as he approached. They even pressed their faces against the windows of their compartments to get a look at him. He had expected an upswing in the amount of gaping and gawping he would have to endure this term after all the chosen one rumors in the Daily Prophet, but he did not enjoy the sensation of standing in a very bright spotlight. He tapped Ginny on the shoulder. Fancy trying to find a compartment? I can't, Harry. I said I'd meet Dean, said Ginny brightly. See you later. Right, said Harry. He felt a strange twinge of annoyance as she walked away, her long red hair dancing behind her. He had become so used to her presence over the summer that he had almost forgotten that Ginny did not hang around with him, Ron and Hermione, while at school. Then he blinked and looked around. He was surrounded by mesmerized girls. Hi, Harry, said a familiar voice from behind him. Neville, said Harry in relief, turning to see a round-faced boy struggling toward him. Hello, Harry, said a girl with long hair and large misty eyes who was just behind Neville. Luna, hi, how are you? Very well, thank you, said Luna. She was clutching a magazine to her chest. Large letters on the front announced that there was a pair of free spectre specs inside. Quibbler, still going strong then? asked Harry, who felt a certain fondness for the magazine, having given it an exclusive interview the previous year. Oh, yes, circulation's well up, said Luna happily. Let's find seats, said Harry, and the three of them set off along the train through hordes of silently staring students. At last they found an empty compartment, and Harry hurried inside gratefully. They're even staring at us! said Neville, indicating himself and Luna, because we're with you. They're staring at you because you were at the ministry too, said Harry as he hoisted his trunk into the luggage rack. Our little adventure there was all over the Daily Prophet. You must have seen it. Yes, I thought Gran would be angry about all the publicity, said Neville, but she was really pleased. Says I'm starting to live up to my dad at long last. She bought me a new wand, look. He pulled it out and showed it to Harry. Cherry and unicorn hair, he said proudly. We think it was one of the last Ollivander ever sold. He vanished next day. Oi, come back here, Trevor! And he dived under the seat to retrieve his toad as it made one of its frequent bids for freedom. Are we still doing DA meetings this year, Harry? asked Luna, who was detaching a pair of psychedelic spectacles from the middle of the quibbler. No point now we've got rid of Umbridge, is there? said Harry, sitting down. Neville bumped his head against the seat as he emerged from under it. He looked most disappointed. I liked the DA. I learned loads with you. I enjoyed the meetings too, said Luna serenely. It was like having friends. This was one of those uncomfortable things Luna often said and which made Harry feel a squirming mixture of pity and embarrassment. Before he could respond, however, there was a disturbance outside their compartment door. 
A group of fourth-year girls was whispering and giggling together on the other side of the glass. You ask him. No, you. I'll do it. And one of them, a bold-looking girl with large, dark eyes, a prominent chin, and long black hair, pushed her way through the door. Hi, Harry. I'm Romilda. Romilda Vane, she said loudly and confidently. Why don't you join us in our compartment? You don't have to sit with them, she added in a stage whisper, indicating Neville's bottom, which was sticking out from under the seat again as he groped around for Trevor, and Luna, who was now wearing her free spectre specs, which gave her the look of a demented, multicolored owl. They're friends of mine, said Harry coldly. Oh, said the girl, looking very surprised. Oh, okay and she withdrew, sliding the door closed behind her. People expect you to have cooler friends than us, said Luna, once again displaying her knack for embarrassing honesty. You are cool, said Harry shortly. None of them was at the ministry. They didn't fight with me. That's a very nice thing to say, beamed Luna. Then she pushed her spectre specs farther up on her nose and settled down to read the quibbler. We didn't face him, though, said Neville, emerging from under the seat with fluff and dust in his hair and a resigned-looking Trevor in his hand. You did. You should hear my grand talk about you. That Harry Potter's got more backbone than the whole Ministry of Magic put together. She'd give anything to have you as a grandson. Harry laughed uncomfortably and changed the subject to OWL results as soon as he could. While Neville recited his grays and wondered aloud whether he would be allowed to take a transfiguration NEWT with only an acceptable, Harry watched him without really listening. Neville's childhood had been blighted by Voldemort just as much as Harry's had, but Neville had no idea how close he had come to having Harry's destiny— the prophecy could have referred to either of them, yet, for his own inscrutable reasons, Voldemort had chosen to believe that Harry was the one meant. Had Voldemort chosen Neville, it would be Neville sitting opposite Harry, bearing the lightning-shaped scar and the weight of the prophecy. Or would it? Would Neville's mother have died to save him, as Lily had died for Harry? Surely she would, but... What if she had been unable to stand between her son and Voldemort? Would there then have been no chosen one at all? An empty seat where Neville now sat, and a scarless Harry who would have been kissed goodbye by his own mother, not Ron's? You all right, Harry? You look funny, said Neville. Harry started. Sorry, I... Raxbert got you? asked Luna sympathetically, peering at Harry through her enormous colored spectacles. I... What? A Raxbert. They're invisible. They float in through your ears and make your brain go fuzzy, she said. I thought I felt one zooming around in here. She flapped her hands at thin air, as though beating off large invisible moths. Harry and Neville caught each other's eyes and hastily began to talk of Quidditch. The weather beyond the train windows was as patchy as it had been all summer. They passed through stretches of the chilling mist, then out into weak, clear sunlight. It was during one of the clear spells, when the sun was visible almost directly overhead, that Ron and Hermione entered the compartment at last. "'Wish the lunch trolley would hurry up. I'm starving,' said Ron longingly, 
slumping into the seat beside Harry and rubbing his stomach. Hi, Neville. Hi, Luna. Guess what? He added, turning to Harry. Malfoy's not doing prefect duty. He's just sitting in his compartment with the other Slytherins. We saw him when we passed. Harry sat up straight, interested. It was not like Malfoy to pass up the chance to demonstrate his power as prefect, which he had happily abused all the previous year. What did he do when he saw you? The usual, said Ron indifferently, demonstrating a rude hand gesture. Not like him, though, is it? Well, that is. He did the hand gesture again. But why isn't he out there bullying first years? Dunno, said Harry, but his mind was racing. Didn't this look as though Malfoy had more important things on his mind than bullying younger students? Maybe he preferred the inquisitorial squad, said Hermione. Maybe being a prefect seems a bit tame after that. I don't think so, said Harry. I think he's... But before he could expound on his theory, the compartment door slid open again and a breathless third-year girl stepped inside. I'm supposed to deliver these to Neville Longbottom and Harry Potter, she faltered as her eyes met Harry's and she turned scarlet. She was holding out two scrolls of parchment tied with violet ribbon. Perplexed, Harry and Neville took the scroll addressed to each of them and the girl stumbled back out of the compartment. What is it? Ron demanded as Harry unrolled his. An invitation, said Harry. Harry, I would be delighted if you would join me for a bite of lunch in compartment C. Sincerely, Professor H.E.F. Slughorn. Who's Professor Slughorn? asked Neville, looking perplexedly at his own invitation. New teacher, said Harry. Well? I suppose we'll have to go, won't we? But what does he want me for? asked Neville nervously, as though he was expecting detention. No idea, said Harry, which was not entirely true, though he had no proof yet that his hunch was correct. Listen, he added, seized by a sudden brainwave. Let's go under the invisibility cloak, then we might get a look at Malfoy on the way, see what he's up to. This idea, however, came to nothing. The corridors, which were packed with people on the lookout for the lunch trolley, were impossible to negotiate while wearing the cloak. Harry stowed it regretfully back in his bag, reflecting that it would have been nice to wear it just to avoid all the staring, which seemed to have increased in intensity even since he had last walked down the train. Every now and then, students would hurtle out of their compartments to get a better look at him. The exception was Cho Chang, who darted into her compartment when she saw Harry coming. As Harry passed the window, he saw her deep in determined conversation with her friend Marietta, who was wearing a very thick layer of makeup that did not entirely obscure the odd formation of pimples still etched across her face. Smirking slightly, Harry pushed on. When they reached compartment C, they saw at once that they were not Slughorn's only invitees. Although, judging by the enthusiasm of Slughorn's welcome, Harry was the most warmly anticipated. Harry, my boy, said Slughorn, jumping up at the sight of him so that his great velvet-covered belly seemed to fill all the remaining space in the compartment. His shiny bald head and great silvery moustache gleamed as brightly in the sunlight as the golden buttons on his waistcoat. 
Good to see you, good to see you. And you must be Mr. Longbottom. Neville nodded, looking scared. At a gesture from Slughorn, they sat down opposite each other in the only two empty seats which were nearest the door. Harry glanced around at their fellow guests. He recognized a Slytherin from their year, a tall black boy with high cheekbones and long slanting eyes. There were also two seventh-year boys Harry did not know, and, squashed in the corner beside Slughorn and looking as though she was not entirely sure how she had got there, Ginny. Now, do you know everyone? Slughorn asked Harry and Neville. Blaze Zabini is in your year, of course. Zabini did not make any sign of recognition or greeting, nor did Harry or Neville. Gryffindor and Slytherin students loathed each other on principle. This is Cormac McLagan. Perhaps you've come across each other. No? McLagan, a large, wiry-haired youth, raised a hand, and Harry and Neville nodded back at him. And this is Marcus Belby. I don't know whether... Belby, who was thin and nervous-looking, gave a strange smile. And this charming young lady tells me she knows you, Slughorn finished. Ginny grimaced at Harry and Neville from behind Slughorn's back. Well, now, this is most pleasant, said Slughorn cosily. A chance to get to know you all a little better. Here, take a napkin. I've packed my own lunch. The trolley, as I remember it, is heavy on licorice wands, and a poor old man's digestive system isn't quite up to such things. Pheasant, Belby? Belby started and accepted what looked like half a cold pheasant. I was just telling young Marcus here that I had the pleasure of teaching his uncle Damocles. Slughorn told Harry and Neville, now passing around a basket of rolls. Outstanding, wizard, outstanding. And his order of Merlin most well-deserved. Do you see much of your uncle, Marcus? Unfortunately, Belby had just taken a large mouthful of pheasant. In his haste to answer Slughorn, he swallowed too fast, turned purple, and began to choke. An apneo, said Slughorn calmly, pointing his wand at Belby, whose airway seemed to clear at once. Not, not much of him, no, gasped Belby, his eyes streaming. Well, of course, I dare say he's busy, said Slughorn, looking questioningly at Belby. I doubt he invented the wolf's bane potion without considerable hard work. I suppose, said Belby, who seemed afraid to take another bite of pheasant until he was sure that Slughorn had finished with him. Uh, he and my dad don't get on very well, you see, so I don't really know much about. His voice trailed away as Slughorn gave him a cold smile and turned to McLagan instead. Now you, Cormac, said Slughorn, I happen to know you see a lot of your Uncle Tiberius, because he has a rather splendid picture of the two of you hunting nogtails in, I think, Norfolk? Oh yeah, that was fun, that was, said McLagan. We went with Bertie Hicks and Rufus Scrimgeour. This was before he became minister, obviously. Ah, oh, you know Bertie and Rufus, too? 
beamed Slughorn, now offering around a small tray of pies. Somehow, Belby was missed out. Now, tell me. It was as Harry had suspected. Everyone here seemed to have been invited because they were connected to somebody well-known or influential. Everyone except Ginny. Sabini, who was interrogated after McLagan, turned out to have a famously beautiful witch for a mother. From what Harry could make out, she had been married seven times, each of her husbands dying mysteriously and leaving her mounds of gold. It was Neville's turn next. This was a very uncomfortable ten minutes, for Neville's parents, well-known aurors, had been tortured into insanity by Bellatrix Lestrange and a couple of Death Eater cronies. At the end of Neville's interview, Harry had the impression that Slughorn was reserving judgment on Neville, yet to see whether he had any of his parents' flair. And now, said Slughorn, shifting massively in his seat with the air of a compere introducing his star act, Harry Potter, where to begin? I feel I barely scratched the surface when we met over the summer. He contemplated Harry for a moment as though he was a particularly large and succulent piece of pheasant, then said, The chosen one they're calling you now. Harry said nothing. Belby, McLagan, and Zabini were all staring at him. Of course, said Slughorn, watching Harry closely. There have been rumors for years. I remember when, well, after that terrible night... Lily, James, and you survived, and the word was that you must have powers beyond the ordinary. Zabini gave a tiny little cough that was clearly supposed to indicate amused skepticism. An angry voice burst out from behind Slughorn. Yeah, Zabini, because you're so talented at posing. Oh, dear chuckled Slughorn comfortably, looking around at Ginny, who was glaring at Zabini around Slughorn's great belly. You want to be careful, please. I saw this young lady perform the most marvelous bat-bogey hex as I was passing her carriage. I wouldn't cross her. Zabini merely looked contemptuous. Anyway, said Slughorn, turning back to Harry, such rumors this summer. Of course, one doesn't know what to believe. The prophet has been known to print inaccuracies, make mistakes, but there seems little doubt, given the number of witnesses, that there was quite a disturbance at the ministry, and that you were there in the thick of it all. Harry, who could not see any way out of this without flatly lying, nodded, but still said nothing. Slughorn beamed at him. So modest, so modest. No wonder Dumbledore is so fond. You were there, then? But the rest of the stories, so sensational, of course. One doesn't quite know what to believe. This fabled prophecy, for instance. We never heard a prophecy, said Neville, turning geranium pink as he said it. That's right, said Ginny staunchly. Neville and I were both there, too, and all this chosen one rubbish is just the prophet making things up as usual. You were both there, too, were you? said Slughorn with great interest, looking from Ginny to Neville, but both of them sat clam-like before his encouraging smile. 
Yes, well, it is true that the prophet often exaggerates, of course, Slughorn said, sounding a little disappointed. I remember dear Gwenog telling me, Gwenog Jones, I mean, of course, captain of the Holy Head Harpies. He meandered off into a long-winded reminiscence, but Harry had the distinct impression that Slughorn had not finished with him, and that he had not been convinced by Neville and Ginny. The afternoon wore on with more anecdotes about illustrious wizards Slughorn had taught, all of whom had been delighted to join what he called the Slug Club at Hogwarts. Harry could not wait to leave, but couldn't see how to do so politely. Finally, the train emerged from yet another long, misty stretch into a red sunset, and Slughorn looked around, blinking in the twilight. Good gracious, it's getting dark already. <laughs> I didn't notice that they'd lit the lamps. You'd better go and change into your robes, all of you. McLagan, you must drop by and borrow that book on Nogtails. Harry, please, any time you're passing. Same goes for you, miss. He twinkled at Ginny. Well, off you go, off you go. As he pushed past Harry into the darkening corridor, Zabini shot him a filthy look that Harry returned with interest. He, Ginny, and Neville followed Zabini back along the train. I'm glad that's over, muttered Neville. Strange man, isn't he? Yeah, he is a bit, said Harry, his eyes on Zabini. How come you ended up in there, Ginny? He saw me, Hex Zachariah Smith, said Ginny. You remember that idiot from Hufflepuff who was in the TA? He kept on and on asking about what happened at the ministry, and in the end he annoyed me so much I hexed him. When Slughorn came in, I thought I was going to get detention, but he just thought it was a really good hex and invited me to lunch. Mad, eh? Better reason for inviting someone than because their mother's famous, said Harry, scowling at the back of Zabini's head, or because their uncle... But he broke off. An idea had just occurred to him, a reckless but potentially wonderful idea. In a minute's time, Zabini was going to re-enter the Slytherin sixth-year compartment, and Malfoy would be sitting there thinking himself unheard by anybody except fellow Slytherins. If Harry could only enter, unseen, behind him, what might he not see or hear? True, there was little of the journey left. Hogsmeade's station had to be less than half an hour away, judging by the wildness of the scenery flashing by the windows. But nobody else seemed prepared to take Harry's suspicions seriously. So it was down to him to prove them. I'll see you two later, said Harry under his breath, pulling out his invisibility cloak and flinging it over himself. But what are you... asked Neville. Later, whispered Harry darting after Zabini as quietly as possible, though the rattling of the train made such caution almost pointless. The corridors were almost completely empty now. Nearly everyone had returned to their carriages to change into their school robes and pack up their possessions. Though he was as close as he could get to Zabini without touching him, Harry was not quick enough to slip into the compartment when Zabini opened the door. Zabini was already sliding it shut when Harry hastily stuck out his foot to prevent it closing. What's wrong with this thing? said Zabini angrily as he smashed the sliding door repeatedly into Harry's foot. 
Harry seized the door and pushed it open hard. Zabini, still clinging onto the handle, toppled over sideways into Gregory Goyle's lap, and in the ensuing ruckus, Harry darted into the compartment, leapt onto Zabini's temporarily empty seat, and hoisted himself up into the luggage rack. It was fortunate that Goyle and Zabini were snarling at each other, drawing all eyes onto them, for Harry was quite sure his feet and ankles had been revealed as the cloak had flapped around them. Indeed, for one horrible moment, he thought he saw Malfoy's eyes follow his trainer as it whipped upward out of sight. But then Goyle slammed the door shut and flung Zabini off him. Zabini collapsed into his own seat, looking ruffled. Vincent Crabbe returned to his comic, and Malfoy, sniggering, lay back down across two seats with his head in Pansy Parkinson's lap. Harry lay curled uncomfortably under the cloak to ensure that every inch of him remained hidden, and watched Pansy stroke the sleek blonde hair off Malfoy's forehead, smirking as she did so, as though anyone would have loved to have been in her place. The lanterns swinging from the carriage ceiling cast a bright light over the scene. Harry could read every word of Crabbe's comic directly below him. So, Sabini, said Malfoy, what did Slughorn want? Just trying to make up to well-connected people, said Sabini, who was still glowering at Goyle. Not that he managed to find many. This information did not seem to please Malfoy. Who else had he invited? he demanded. McLagan from Gryffindor, said Sabini. Oh, yeah, his uncle's big in the ministry, said Malfoy. Someone else called Belby from Ravenclaw? Not him, he's a prat, said Pansy. And Longbottom, Potter, and that Weasley girl, finished Zabini. Malfoy sat up very suddenly, knocking Pansy's hand aside. He invited Longbottom? Well, I assume so, as Longbottom was there, said Zabini indifferently. What's Longbottom got to interest Slughorn? Sabini shrugged. Potter, precious Potter, obviously he wanted a look at the Chosen One, sneered Malfoy. But that Weasley girl, what's so special about her? A lot of boys like her, said Pansy, watching Malfoy out of the corner of her eyes for his reaction. Even you think she's good-looking, don't you, Blaze? And we all know how hard you are to please. I wouldn't touch a filthy little blood traitor like her, whatever she looked like, said Zabini coldly, and Pansy looked pleased. Malfoy sank back across her lap and allowed her to resume the stroking of his hair. Well, I pity Slughorn's taste. Maybe he's going a bit senile. Shame. My father always said he was a good wizard in his day. My father used to be a bit of a favorite of his. Slughorn probably hasn't heard I'm on the train, or... I wouldn't bank on an invitation, said Zabini. He asked me about Knott's father when I first arrived. They used to be old friends, apparently, but when he heard he'd been caught at the ministry, he didn't look happy. And Knott didn't give an invitation, did he? I don't think Slughorn's interested in Death Eaters. Malfoy looked angry, but forced out a singularly humorless laugh. Well, who cares what he's interested in? What is he when you come down to it? Just some stupid teacher. Malfoy yawned ostentatiously. I mean, I might not even be at Hogwarts next year. What's it matter to me if some fat old has-been likes me or not? 
What do you mean? You might not be at Hogwarts next year, said Pansy indignantly, ceasing grooming Malfoy at once. Well, you never know, said Malfoy with the ghost of a smirk. I might have, uh, moved on to bigger and better things. Crouched in the luggage rack under his cloak, Harry's heart began to race. What would Ron and Hermione say about this? Crabbe and Goyle were gawping at Malfoy. Apparently they had no inkling of any plans to move on to bigger and better things. Even Zabini had allowed a look of curiosity to mar his haughty features. Pansy resumed the slow stroking of Malfoy's hair, looking dumbfounded. Do you mean him? Malfoy shrugged. Mother wants me to complete my education, but personally I don't see it as that important these days. I mean, think about it. When the Dark Lord takes over, is he going to care how many OWLs or any WTs anyone's got? Of course he isn't. It'll be all about the kind of service he received, the level of devotion he was shown. And you think you'll be able to do something for him? asked Zabini scathingly, sixteen years old and not even fully qualified yet. I've just said, haven't I? Maybe he doesn't care if I'm qualified. Maybe the job he wants me to do isn't something that you need to be qualified for, said Malfoy quietly. Crab and Goyle were both sitting with their mouths open like gargoyles. Pansy was gazing down at Malfoy as though she had never seen anything so awe-inspiring. I can see Hogwarts, said Malfoy, clearly relishing the effect he had created as he pointed out of the blackened window. We'd better get our robes on. Harry was so busy staring at Malfoy he did not notice Goyle reaching up for his trunk. As he swung it down, it hit Harry hard on the side of the head. He let out an involuntary gasp of pain and Malfoy looked up at the luggage rack, frowning. Harry was not afraid of Malfoy, but he still did not much like the idea of being discovered hiding under his invisibility cloak by a group of unfriendly Slytherins. Eyes still watering and head still throbbing, he drew his wand, careful not to disarrange the cloak, and waited, breath held. To his relief, Malfoy seemed to decide that he had imagined the noise. He pulled on his robes like the others, locked his trunk, and as the train slowed to a jerky crawl, fastened a thick new traveling cloak around his neck. Harry could see the corridors filling up again, and hoped that Hermione and Ron would take his things out onto the platform for him. He was stuck where he was until the compartment had quite emptied. At last, with a final lurch, the train came to a complete halt. Goyle threw the door open and muscled his way out into a crowd of second years, punching them aside. Crabbe and Zabini followed. You go on, Malfoy told Pansy, who was waiting for him with her hand held out as though hoping he would hold it. I just want to check something. Pansy left. Now Harry and Malfoy were alone in the compartment. People were filing past, descending onto the dark platform. Malfoy moved over to the compartment door and let down the blinds so that people in the corridor beyond could not peer in. He then bent down over his trunk and opened it again. Harry peered down over the edge of the luggage rack, his heart pumping a little faster. What had Malfoy wanted to hide from Pansy? Was he about to see the mysterious broken object it was so important to mend? Petrificus Totalus! 
Without warning, Malfoy pointed his wand at Harry, who was instantly paralyzed. As though in slow motion, he toppled out of the luggage rack and fell with an agonizing, floor-shaking crash at Malfoy's feet, the invisibility cloak trapped beneath him, his whole body revealed with his legs still curled absurdly into the cramped kneeling position. He couldn't move a muscle. He could only gaze up at Malfoy, who smiled broadly. I thought so he said jubilantly. I heard Goyle's trunk hit you, and I thought I saw something white flash through the air after Zabini came back. His eyes lingered for a moment upon Harry's trainers. You didn't hear anything I care about, Potter. But while I've got you here... And he stamped hard on Harry's face. Harry felt his nose break. Blood spurted everywhere. That's from my father. Now, let's see. Malfoy dragged the cloak out from under Harry's immobilized body and threw it over him. I don't reckon they'll find you till the train's back in London, he said quietly. See you around, Potter. Or not. And, taking care to tread on Harry's fingers, Malfoy left the compartment. Chapter 8 Snape Victorious Harry could not move a muscle. He lay there beneath the invisibility cloak, feeling the blood from his nose flow hot and wet over his face, listening to the voices and footsteps in the corridor beyond. His immediate thought was that someone surely would check the compartments before the train departed again but at once came the dispiriting realization that even if somebody looked into the compartment, he would be neither seen nor heard. His best hope was that somebody else would walk in and step on him. Harry had never hated Malfoy more than as he lay there like an absurd turtle on its back, blood dripping sickeningly into his open mouth. What a stupid situation to have landed himself in! And now the last few footsteps were dying away. Everyone was shuffling along the dark platform outside. He could hear the scraping of trunks and the loud babble of talk. Ron and Hermione would think that he had left the train without them. Once they arrived at Hogwarts and took their places in the Great Hall, looked up and down the Gryffindor table a few times, and finally realized that he was not there, he, no doubt, would be halfway back to London. He tried to make a sound, even a grunt, but it was impossible. Then he remembered that some wizards, like Dumbledore, could perform spells without speaking. So he tried to summon his wand, which had fallen out of his hand by saying the words, Asio wand, over and over again in his head. But nothing happened. He thought he could hear the rustling of the trees that surrounded the lake, and the far-off hoot of an owl but no hint of a search being made, or even, he despised himself slightly for hoping it, panicked voices wondering where Harry Potter had gone. A feeling of hopelessness spread through him as he imagined the convoy of thestral-drawn carriages trundling up to the school and the muffled yells of laughter issuing from whichever carriage Malfoy was riding in, where he could be recounting his attack on Harry to Crabbe, Goyle, Zabini, and Pansy Parkinson. The train lurched, causing Harry to roll over onto his side. Now he was staring at the dusty underside of the seats instead of the ceiling. 
The floor began to vibrate as the engine roared to life. The express was leaving, and nobody knew he was still on it. Then he felt his invisibility cloak fly off him, and a voice overhead said, Watcha, Harry! There was a flash of red light, and Harry's body unfroze. He was able to push himself into a more dignified sitting position, hastily wipe the blood off his bruised face with the back of his hand, and raise his head to look up at Tonks, who was holding the invisibility cloak she had just pulled away. We'd better get out of here quickly, she said as the train windows became obscured with steam and they began to move out of the station. Come on, we'll jump. Harry hurried after her into the corridor. She pulled open the train door and leapt onto the platform, which seemed to be sliding underneath them as the train gathered momentum. He followed her, staggered a little on landing, then straightened up in time to see the gleaming scarlet steam engine pick up speed, round the corner, and disappear from view. The cold night air was soothing on his throbbing nose. Tonks was looking at him. He felt angry and embarrassed that he had been discovered in such a ridiculous position. Silently, she handed him back the invisibility cloak. Who did it? Draco Malfoy, said Harry bitterly. Thanks for, well. No problem, said Tonks without smiling. From what Harry could see in the darkness, she was as mousy-haired and miserable-looking as she had been when he had met her at the burrow. I can fix your nose if you stand still. Harry did not think much of this idea. He had been intending to visit Madame Pomfrey, the matron, in whom he had a little more confidence when it came to healing spells. But it seemed rude to say this, so he stayed stock still and closed his eyes. Episky, said Tonks. Harry's nose felt very hot and then very cold. He raised a hand and felt it gingerly. It seemed to be mended. Thanks a lot. You'd better put that cloak back on and we can walk up to the school, said Tonks, still unsmiling. As Harry swung his cloak back over himself, she waved her wand. An immense silvery four-legged creature erupted from it and streaked off into the darkness. Was that a Patronus? asked Harry, who had seen Dumbledore send messages like this. Yes, I'm sending word to the castle that I've got you or they'll worry. Come on, we'd better not dawdle. They set off toward the lane that led to the school. How did you find me? I noticed you hadn't left the train, and I knew you had that cloak. I thought you might be hiding for some reason. When I saw the blinds were drawn down on that compartment, I thought I'd check. But what are you doing here anyway? Harry asked. I'm stationed in Hogsmeade now to give the school extra protection, said Tonks. Is it just you who's stationed up here, or... No, Proudfoot, Savage, and Dawlish are here too. Dawlish? That Auror Dumbledore attacked last year? That's right. They trudged up the dark, deserted lane, following the freshly made carriage tracks. Harry looked sideways at Tonks under his cloak. Last year she had been inquisitive, to the point of being a little annoying at times. She had laughed easily, she had made jokes. Now she seemed older and much more serious and purposeful. Was this all the effect of what had happened at the Ministry? He reflected uncomfortably that Hermione would have suggested he say something consoling about Sirius to her, that it hadn't been her fault at all, but he couldn't bring himself to do it. He was far from blaming her for Sirius's death. It was no more her fault than anyone else's, and much less than his. 
but he did not like talking about Sirius if he could avoid it. And so they tramped on through the cold night in silence, Tonks's long cloak whispering on the ground behind them. Having always travelled there by carriage, Harry had never before appreciated just how far Hogwarts was from Hogsmeade Station. With great relief, he finally saw the tall pillars on either side of the gates, each top with a winged boar. He was cold, he was hungry, and he was quite keen to leave this new, gloomy Tonks behind. But when he put out a hand to push open the gates, he found them chained shut. Aloha, Mora, he said confidently, pointing his wand at the padlock. But nothing happened. That won't work on these, said Tonks. Dumbledore bewitched them himself. Harry looked around. I could climb a wall, he suggested. No, you couldn't, said Tonks flatly. Anti-intruder jinxes on all of them. Security's been tightened a hundredfold this summer. Well then, said Harry, starting to feel annoyed at her lack of helpfulness. I suppose I'll just have to sleep out here and wait for morning. Someone's coming down for you, said Tonks. Look! A lantern was bobbing at the distant foot of the castle. Harry was so pleased to see it, he felt he could even endure Filch's wheezy criticisms of his tardiness and rants about how his timekeeping would improve with the regular application of thumbscrews. It was not until the glowing yellow light was ten feet away from them, and Harry had pulled off his invisibility cloak so that he could be seen, that he recognized with a rush of pure loathing the uplit hook nose and long black greasy hair of Severus Snape. Well, 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 sneers Snape, taking out his wand and tapping the padlock once so that the chains snaked backward and the gates creaked open. Nice of you to turn up, Potter, although you have evidently decided that the wearing of school robes would detract from your appearance. I couldn't change. I didn't have my... Harry began, but Snape cut across him. There is no need to wait, Nymphadora. Potter is quite, uh, safe in my hands. I meant Hagrid to get the message, said Tonks, frowning. Hagrid was late for the start of term feast, just like Potter here, so I took it instead. And incidentally, said Snape, standing back to allow Harry to pass him, I was interested to see your new Patronus. He shut the gates in her face with a loud clang and tapped the chains with his wand again so that they slithered, clinking, back into place. I think you were better off with the old one, said Snape, the malice in his voice unmistakable. The new one looks weak. As Snape swung the lantern about, Harry saw fleetingly a look of shock and anger on Tonks's face. Then she was covered in darkness once more. Good night. Harry called to her over his shoulder as he began the walk up to the school with Snape. Thanks for everything. See you, Harry. Snape did not speak for a minute or so. Harry felt as though his body was generating waves of hatred so powerful that it seemed incredible that Snape could not feel them burning him. He had loathed Snape from their first encounter— but Snape had placed himself forever and irrevocably beyond the possibility of Harry's forgiveness by his attitude towards Sirius. Whatever Dumbledore said, 
Harry had had time to think over the summer and had concluded that Snape's snide remarks to Sirius about remaining safely hidden while the rest of the Order of the Phoenix were off fighting Voldemort had probably been a powerful factor in Sirius rushing off to the Ministry the night that he had died. Harry clung to this notion because it enabled him to blame Snape which felt satisfying, and also because he knew that if anyone was not sorry that Sirius was dead, it was the man now striding next to him in the darkness. Fifty points from Gryffindor for lateness, I think, said Snape, and, let me see, another twenty for your muggle attire. You know, I don't believe any house has ever been in negative figures this early in the term. We haven't even started pudding. You might have set a record, Potter. The fury and hatred bubbling inside Harry seemed to blaze white-hot, but he would rather have been immobilized all the way back to London than tell Snape why he was late. I suppose you wanted to make an entrance, did you? Snape continued. And with no flying car available, you decided that bursting into the Great Hall halfway through the feast ought to create a dramatic effect. Still Harry remained silent, though he thought his chest might explode. He knew that Snape had come to fetch him for this, for the few minutes when he could needle and torment Harry without anyone else listening. They reached the castle steps at last, and as the great oaken front doors swung open into the vast flagged entrance hall, a burst of talk and laughter and of tinkling plates and glasses greeted them through the doors, standing open into the great hall. Harry wondered whether he could slip his invisibility cloak back on, thereby gaining his seat at the long Gryffindor table, which, inconveniently, was the farthest from the entrance hall, without being noticed. As though he had read Harry's mind, however, Snape said, No cloak. You can walk in so that everyone sees you, which is what you wanted, I'm sure. Harry turned on the spot and marched straight through the open doors, anything to get away from Snape. The great hall, with its four long house tables and its staff tables set at the top of the room, was decorated as usual with floating candles that made the plates below glitter and glow. It was all a shimmering blur to Harry, however, who walked so fast that he was passing the Hufflepuff table before people really started to stare, and by the time they were standing up to get a good look at him, he had spotted Ron and Hermione, sped along the benches toward them, and forced his way in between them. "'Where have you—' "'Blimey! What have you done to your face?' said Ron, goggling at him along with everyone else in the vicinity. "'Why, what's wrong with it?' said Harry, grabbing a spoon and squinting at his distorted reflection. You're covered in blood, said Hermione. Come here. She raised her wand, said, Tergio, and siphoned off the dried blood. Thanks, said Harry, feeling his now clean face. How's my nose looking? Normal, said Hermione anxiously. Why shouldn't it? Harry, what happened? We've been terrified. I'll tell you later said Harry curtly. He was very conscious that Ginny, Neville, Dean, and Seamus were listening in. Even nearly headless Nick, the Gryffindor ghost, had come floating along the bench to eavesdrop. But, said Hermione, not now, Hermione, said Harry in a darkly significant voice. 
He hoped very much that they would all assume he had been involved in something heroic, preferably involving a couple of Death Eaters and a Dementor. Of course, Malfoy would spread the story as far and wide as he could, but there was always a chance it wouldn't reach too many Gryffindor ears. He reached across Ron for a couple of chicken legs and a handful of chips, but before he could take them, they vanished to be replaced with puddings. You missed the sorting anyway, said Hermione as Ron dived for a large chocolate gatto. Hat, say anything interesting, asked Harry, taking a piece of treacle tart. More of the same, really, advising us all to unite in the face of our enemies, you know. Dumbledore mentioned Voldemort at all? Not yet, but he always saves his proper speech for after the feast, doesn't he? It can't be long now. Snape said Hagrid was late for the feast. You've seen Snape? How come? said Ron between frenzied mouthfuls of gâteau. Bumped into him, said Harry evasively. Hagrid was only a few minutes late, said Hermione. Look, he's waving at you, Harry. Harry looked up at the staff table and grinned at Hagrid, who was indeed waving at him. Hagrid had never quite managed to comport himself with the dignity of Professor McGonagall, head of Gryffindor House, the top of whose head came up to somewhere between Hagrid's elbow and shoulder as they were sitting side by side, and who was looking disapprovingly at this enthusiastic greeting. Harry was surprised to see the divination teacher, Professor Trelawney, sitting on Hagrid's other side. She rarely left her tower room, and he had never seen her at the start of term feast before. She looked as odd as ever, glittering with beads and trailing shawls, her eyes magnified to enormous size by her spectacles. Having always considered her a bit of a fraud, Harry had been shocked to discover at the end of the previous term that it had been she who had made the prediction that caused Lord Voldemort to kill Harry's parents and attack Harry himself. The knowledge had made him even less eager to find himself in her company, but thankfully this year he would be dropping divination. Her great beacon-like eyes swiveled in his direction. He hastily looked away toward the Slytherin table. Draco Malfoy was miming the shattering of a nose to raucous laughter and applause. Harry dropped his gaze to his treacle tart, his insides burning again. What he would not give to fight Malfoy one on one. So what did Professor Slughorn want? Hermione asked. To know what really happened at the Ministry, said Harry. Him and everyone else here, sniffed Hermione. People were interrogating us about it on the train, weren't they, Ron? Yeah, said Ron. All wanted to know if you really are the Chosen One. There has been much talk on that very subject, even amongst the ghosts interrupted nearly headless Nick, inclining his barely connected head toward Harry so that it wobbled dangerously on its ruff. I am considered something of a Potter authority. It is widely known that we are friendly. I have assured the spirit community that I will not pester you for information, however. Harry Potter knows that he can confide in me with complete confidence. I told them I would rather die than betray his trust. That's not saying much, seeing as you're already dead, Ron observed. Once again, you show all the sensitivity of a blunt axe, said nearly headless Nick in affronted tones, and he rose into the air and glided back toward the far end of the Gryffindor table, just as Dumbledore got to his feet at the staff table. The talk and laughter echoing around the hall died away almost instantly. 
The very best of evenings to you, he said, smiling broadly, his arms opened wide as though to embrace the whole room. What happened to his hand? gasped Hermione. She was not the only one who had noticed. Dumbledore's right hand was as blackened and dead-looking as it had been on the night he had come to fetch Harry from the Dursleys. Whispers swept the room. Dumbledore, interpreting them correctly, merely smiled and shook his purple and gold sleeve over his injury. Nothing to worry about, he said airily. Now, to our new students, welcome. To our old students, welcome back. Another year full of magical education awaits you. His hand was like that when I saw him over the summer, Harry whispered to Hermione. I thought he'd have cured it by now, though, or Madame Pomfrey would have done. It looks as if it's died, said Hermione with a nauseated expression. But there are some injuries you can't cure, old curses, and there are poisons without antidotes. And Mr. Filch, our caretaker, has asked me to say that there is a blanket ban on any choke items bought at the shop called Weasley's Wizard Wheezes. Those wishing to play for their house Quidditch teams should give their names to their heads of house as usual. We are also looking for new Quidditch commentators who should do likewise. We are pleased to welcome a new member of staff this year. Professor Slughorn. Slughorn stood up, his bald head gleaming in the candlelight, his big waistcoated belly casting the table below into shadow. Is a former colleague of mine who has agreed to resume his old post of potions master. Potions? Potions? The word echoed all over the hall as people wondered whether they had heard right. Potions? said Ron and Hermione together, turning to stare at Harry. But you said... Professor Snape, meanwhile, said Dumbledore, raising his voice so that it carried over all the muttering, will be taking over the position of defense against the dark arts teacher. No, said Harry, so loudly that many heads turned in his direction. He did not care. He was staring up at the staff table, incensed. How could Snape be given the defense against the dark arts job after all this time? Hadn't it been widely known for years that Dumbledore did not trust him to do it? But Harry, you said that Slughorn was going to be teaching defense against the dark arts, said Hermione. I thought he was, said Harry, racking his brains to remember when Dumbledore had told him this. But now that he came to think of it, he was unable to recall Dumbledore ever telling him what Slughorn would be teaching. Snape, who was sitting on Dumbledore's right, did not stand up at the mention of his name. He merely raised a hand in lazy acknowledgement of the applause from the Slytherin table. Yet Harry was sure he could detect a look of triumph on the features he loathed so much. Well, that's one good thing, he said savagely. Snape will be gone by the end of the year. What do you mean? asked Ron. That job's jinxed. No one's lasted more than a year. Quirrell actually died doing it. Personally, I'm going to keep my fingers crossed for another death. Harry, said Hermione, shocked and reproachful. He might just go back to teaching potions at the end of the year, said Ron reasonably. That slughorn bloke might not want to say long term. Moody didn't. Dumbledore cleared his throat. Harry, Ron and Hermione were not the only ones who had been talking. 
The whole hall had erupted in a buzz of conversation at the news that Snape had finally achieved his heart's desire. Seemingly oblivious to the sensational nature of the news he had just imparted, Dumbledore said nothing more about staff appointments, but waited a few seconds to ensure that the silence was absolute before continuing. Now, as everybody in this hall knows, Lord Voldemort and his followers are once more at large and gaining in strength. The silence seemed to torten and strain as Dumbledore spoke. Harry glanced at Malfoy. Malfoy was not looking at Dumbledore, but making his fork hover in midair with his wand, as though he found the headmaster's words unworthy of his attention. I cannot emphasize strongly enough how dangerous the present situation is, and how much care each of us at Hogwarts must take to ensure that we remain safe. The castle's magical fortifications have been strengthened over the summer. We are protected in new and more powerful ways, but we must still guard scrupulously against carelessness on the part of any student or member of staff. I urge you, therefore, to abide by any security restrictions that your teachers might impose upon you, however irksome you might find them, in particular the rule that you are not to be out of bed after hours. I implore you, should you notice anything strange or suspicious within or outside the castle, to report it to a staff member immediately. I trust you to conduct yourselves always with the utmost regard for your own and others' safety. Dumbledore's blue eyes swept over the students before he smiled once more. But now your beds await as warm and comfortable as you could possibly wish, and I know that your top priority is to be well-rested for your lessons tomorrow. Let us therefore say good night. Pip-pip. With the usual deafening scraping noise, the benches were moved back and the hundreds of students began to file out of the great hall toward their dormitories. Harry, who was in no hurry at all to leave with the gawping crowd, nor to get near enough to Malfoy to allow him to retell the story of the nose stamping, lagged behind, pretending to retie the lace on his trainer, allowing most of the Gryffindors to draw ahead of him. Hermione had darted ahead to fulfill her prefect's duty of shepherding the first years, but Ron remained with Harry. What really happened to your nose? he asked, once they were at the very back of the throng pressing out of the hall and out of earshot of anyone else. Harry told him. It was a mark of the strength of their friendship that Ron did not laugh. I saw Malfoy miming something to do with the nose, he said darkly. Yeah, well, never mind that, said Harry bitterly. Listen to what he was saying before he found out I was there. Harry had expected Ron to be stunned by Malfoy's boasts. With what Harry considered pure pig-headedness, however, Ron was unimpressed. Come on, Harry. He was just showing off for Parkinson. What kind of mission would you-know-who have given him? How do you know Voldemort doesn't need someone at Hogwarts? It wouldn't be the first... I wish you'd stop saying that name, Harry, said a reproachful voice behind them. Harry looked over his shoulder to see Hagrid shaking his head. Dumbledore uses that name, said Harry stubbornly. Yeah, well, that's Dumbledore, innit, said Hagrid mysteriously. So, how come you were late, Harry? I was worried. Got held up on the train, 
said Harry. Why were you late? I was with Grop, said Hagrid happily. Lost track of the time. He's got a new home up in the mountains now. Dumbledore fixed it. Nice big cave. He's much happier than he was in the forest. We were having a good chat. Really? said Harry, taking care not to catch Ron's eye. The last time he had met Hagrid's half-brother, a vicious giant with a talent for ripping up trees by the roots, his vocabulary had comprised five words, two of which he was unable to pronounce properly. Oh, yeah, he's really come on, said Hagrid proudly. You'll be amazed. I'm thinking of training him up as me assistant. Ron snorted loudly, but managed to pass it off as a violent sneeze. They were now standing beside the oak front doors. Anyway, I'll see you tomorrow, first lesson straight after lunch. Come early, and you can say hello to Buck. I mean, wither wings. Raising an arm in cheery farewell, he headed out of the front doors into the darkness. Harry and Ron looked at each other. Harry could tell that Ron was experiencing the same sinking feeling as himself. You're not taking care of magical creatures, are you? Ron shook his head. And you're not either, are you? Harry shook his head too. And Hermione, said Ron. She's not, is she? Harry shook his head again. Exactly what Hagrid would say when he realized his three favorite students had given up his subject. He did not like to think. Chapter 9 The Half-Blood Prince Harry and Ron met Hermione in the common room before breakfast next morning. Hoping for some support for his theory, Harry lost no time in telling Hermione what he had overheard Malfoy saying on the Hogwarts Express. But he was obviously showing off for Parkinson, wasn't he? interjected Ron quickly, before Hermione could say anything. Well, she said uncertainly, I don't know. It would be like Malfoy to make himself seem more important than he is, but that's a big lie to tell. Exactly, said Harry. But he could not press the point, because so many people were trying to listen into his conversation, not to mention staring at him and whispering behind their hands. It's rude to point! Ron snapped at a particularly minuscule first-year boy as they joined the queue to climb out of the portrait hole. The boy, who had been muttering something about Harry behind his hand to his friend, promptly turned scarlet and toppled out of the hole in alarm. Ron sniggered. I love being a sixth year, and we're going to be getting free time this year. Whole periods when we can just sit up here and relax. We're going to need that time for studying, Ron said Hermione as they set off down the corridor. Yeah, but not today, said Ron. Today's gonna be a real doss, I reckon. Hold it, said Hermione, throwing out an arm and halting a passing fourth year, who was attempting to push past her with a lime-green disc clutched tightly in his hand. Fanged frisbees are banned. Hand it over, she told him sternly. The scowling boy handed over the snarling frisbee, ducked under her arm, and took off after his friends. Ron waited for him to vanish, then tugged the frisbee from Hermione's grip. Excellent! I've always wanted one of these. Hermione's remonstration was drowned by a loud giggle. Lavender Brown had apparently found Ron's remark highly amusing. She continued to laugh as she passed them, glancing back at Ron over her shoulder. Ron looked rather pleased with himself.
The ceiling of the great hall was serenely blue and streaked with frail, wispy clouds, just like the squares of sky visible through the high mullioned windows. While they tucked into porridge and eggs and bacon, Harry and Ron told Hermione about their embarrassing conversation with Hagrid the previous evening. But he can't really think we'd continue care of magical creatures, she said, looking distressed. I mean, when has any of us expressed, you know, any enthusiasm? That's it, though, isn't it? said Ron, swallowing an entire fried egg whole. We were the ones who made the most effort in classes because we like Hagrid. But he thinks we like the stupid subject. Do you reckon anyone's going to go on to the N.E.W.T.? Neither Harry nor Hermione answered. There was no need. They knew perfectly well that nobody in their year would want to continue care of magical creatures. They avoided Hagrid's eye and returned his cheery wave only half-heartedly when he left the staff table ten minutes later. After they had eaten, they remained in their places, awaiting Professor McGonagall's descent from the staff table. The distribution of class schedules was more complicated than usual this year, for Professor McGonagall needed first to confirm that everybody had achieved the necessary OWL grades to continue with their chosen NEWTs. Hermione was immediately cleared to continue with charms, defense against the dark arts, transfiguration, herbology, arithmancy, ancient runes, and potions, and shot off to a first-period ancient runes class without further ado. Neville took a little longer to sort out. His round face was anxious as Professor McGonagall looked down his application and then consulted his OWL results. Herbology, fine, she said. Professor Sprout will be delighted to see you back with an outstanding OWL. And you qualify for defense against the dark arts with exceeds expectations. But the problem is transfiguration. I'm sorry, Longbottom, but an acceptable really isn't good enough to continue to N.E.W.T. level. I just don't think you'd be able to cope with the coursework. Neville hung his head. Professor McGonagall peered at him through her square spectacles. Why do you want to continue with transfiguration, anyway? I've never had the impression that you particularly enjoyed it. Neville looked miserable and muttered something about, My grandmother once. Hmm, snorted Professor McGonagall. It's high time your grandmother learnt to be proud of the grandson she's got, rather than the one she thinks she ought to have, particularly after what happened at the ministry. Neville turned very pink and blinked confusedly. Professor McGonagall had never paid him a compliment before. I'm sorry, Longbottom, but I cannot let you into my N.E.W.T. class. I see that you have an exceeds expectations in charms, however. Why not try for a N.E.W.T. in charms? My grandmother thinks charms is a soft option, mumbled Neville. Take charms, said Professor McGonagall. And I shall drop Augusta a line, reminding her that just because she failed her charms, O.W.L., the subject is not necessarily worthless. Smiling slightly at the look of delighted incredulity on Neville's face, Professor McGonagall tapped a blank schedule with the tip of her wand and handed it, now carrying details of his new classes, to Neville. Professor McGonagall turned next to Pavati Patil, whose first question was whether Ferenzi, the handsome centaur, was still teaching divination. He and Professor Trelawney are dividing classes between them this year, 
said Professor McGonagall, a hint of disapproval in her voice. It was common knowledge that she despised the subject of divination. The sixth year is being taken by Professor Trelawney. Parvati set off for divination five minutes later, looking slightly crestfallen. So, Potter, Potter, said Professor McGonagall, consulting her notes as she turned to Harry. Charms, defense against the dark arts, herbology, transfiguration, all fine, I must say. I was pleased with your transfiguration, Mark Potter, very pleased. Now, why haven't you applied to continue with potions? I thought it was your ambition to become an auror. It was, but you told me I had to get an outstanding in my OWL, Professor. And so you did when Professor Snape was teaching the subject— Professor Slughorn, however, is perfectly happy to accept any WT students with exceeds expectations at OWL. Do you wish to proceed with potions? Yes, said Harry, but I didn't buy the books or any ingredients or anything. I'm sure Professor Slughorn will be able to lend you some, said Professor McGonagall. Very well, Potter, here is your schedule. Oh, by the way... Twenty hopefuls have already put down their names for the Gryffindor Quidditch team. I shall pass the list to you in due course, and you can fix up trials at your leisure. A few minutes later, Ron was cleared to do the same subjects as Harry, and the two of them left the table together. Look, said Ron delightedly, gazing at his schedule. We've got a free period now, and a free period after break, and after lunch. Excellent! They returned to the common room, which was empty, apart from a half-dozen seventh years, including Katie Bell, the only remaining member of the original Gryffindor Quidditch team that Harry had joined in his first year. I thought you'd get that. Well done, she called over, pointing at the captain's badge on Harry's chest. Tell me when you call trials. Don't be stupid, said Harry. You don't need to try out. I've watched you play for five years. You mustn't start off like that, she said warningly. For all you know, there's someone much better than me out there. Good teams have been ruined before now because captains just kept playing the old faces or letting in their friends. Ron looked a little uncomfortable and began playing with the fanged frisbee Hermione had taken from the fourth-year student. It zoomed around the common room, snarling and attempting to take bites of the tapestry. Crookshank's yellow eyes followed it, and he hissed when it came too close. An hour later, they reluctantly left the sunlit common room for the defense against the dark arts classroom four floors below. Hermione was already queuing outside, carrying an armful of heavy books and looking put upon. We got so much homework for runes, she said anxiously when Harry and Ron joined her. A fifteen-inch essay, two translations, and I've got to read these by Wednesday. Shame, yawned Ron. You wait, she said resentfully. I bet Snape gives us loads. The classroom door opened as she spoke, and Snape stepped into the corridor, his sallow face framed as ever by two curtains of greasy black hair. Silence fell over the queue immediately. Inside, he said. Harry looked around as they entered. Snape had imposed his personality upon the room already. It was gloomier than usual, as curtains had been drawn over the windows and was lit by candlelight. 
New pictures adorned the walls, many of them showing people who appeared to be in pain, sporting grisly injuries or strangely contorted body parts. Nobody spoke as they settled down, looking around at the shadowy, gruesome pictures. I have not asked you to take out your books, said Snape, closing the door and moving to face the class from behind his desk. Hermione hastily dropped her copy of Confronting the Faceless back into her bag and stowed it under her chair. I wish to speak to you, and I want your fullest attention. His black eyes roved over their upturned faces, lingering for a fraction of a second longer on Harry's than anyone else's. You have had five teachers in this subject so far, I believe. You believe, like you haven't watched them all come and go, Snape, hoping you'd be next, thought Harry scathingly. Naturally, these teachers will all have had their own methods and priorities. Given this confusion, I am surprised so many of you scraped an OWL in this subject. I shall be even more surprised if all of you manage to keep up with the NEWT work which will be much more advanced. Snape set off around the edge of the room, speaking now in a lower voice. The class craned their necks to keep him in view. The dark arts, said Snape, are many, varied, ever-changing, and eternal. Fighting them is like fighting a many-headed monster, which, each time a neck is severed, sprouts a head even fiercer and cleverer than before. You are fighting that which is unfixed, mutating, indestructible. Harry stared at Snape. It was surely one thing to respect the Dark Arts as a dangerous enemy, another to speak of them as Snape was doing with a loving caress in his voice. Your defenses, said Snape a little louder, must therefore be as flexible and inventive as the arts you seek to undo. These pictures, he indicated a few of them as he swept past, give a fair representation of what happens to those who suffer. For instance, the Cruciatus Curse. He waved a hand toward a witch who was clearly shrieking in agony. Feel the Dementor's kiss. A wizard lying, huddled and blank-eyed, slumped against a wall. Or provoke the aggression of the Inferius, a bloody mass upon the ground. Has an Inferius been seen, then? said Parvati Patil in a high-pitched voice. Is it definite? Is he using them? The Dark Lord has used Inferi in the past, said Snape which means you would be well advised to assume he might use them again. Now. He set off again around the other side of the classroom toward his desk, and again they watched him as he walked, his dark robes billowing behind him. You are, I believe, complete novices in the use of nonverbal spells. What is the advantage of a nonverbal spell? Hermione's hand shot into the air. Snape took his time looking around at everybody else, making sure he had no choice, before saying curtly, Very well, Miss Granger. Your adversary has no warning about what kind of magic you're about to perform, said Hermione, which gives you a split-second advantage. An answer copied almost word for word from the standard book of spells, grade six, said Snape dismissively, 
Over in the corner, Malfoy sniggered. But correct in essentials. Yes, those who progress to using magic without shouting incantations gain an element of surprise in their spellcasting. Not all wizards can do this, of course. It is a question of concentration and mind power, which some... His gaze lingered maliciously upon Harry once more. Lack. Harry knew Snape was thinking of their disastrous occlumency lessons of the previous year. He refused to drop his gaze, but glowered at Snape until Snape looked away. You will now divide. Snape went on into pairs. One partner will attempt to jinx the other without speaking. The other will attempt to repel the jinx in equal silence. Carry on. Although Snape did not know it, Harry had taught at least half the class, everyone who had been a member of the DA, how to perform a shield charm the previous year. None of them had ever cast the charm without speaking, however. A reasonable amount of cheating ensued. Many people were merely whispering the incantation instead of saying it aloud. Typically, ten minutes into the lesson, Hermione managed to repel Neville's muttered jelly-legs jinx without uttering a single word, a feat that would surely have earned her twenty points for Gryffindor from any reasonable teacher, thought Harry bitterly, but which Snape ignored. He swept between them as they practiced, looking just as much like an overgrown bat as ever, lingering to watch Harry and Ron struggling with the task. Ron, who was supposed to be jinxing Harry, was purple in the face, his lips tightly compressed to save himself from the temptation of muttering the incantation. Harry had his wand raised, waiting on tenterhooks to repel a jinx that seemed unlikely ever to come. Pathetic Weasley, said Snape after a while. Here, let me show you. He turned his wand on Harry so fast that Harry reacted instinctively. All thought of nonverbal spells forgotten, he yelled, Protego! His shield charm was so strong, Snape was knocked off balance and hit a desk. The whole class had looked around and now watched as Snape righted himself, scowling. Do you remember me telling you we are practicing nonverbal spells, Potter? Yes, said Harry stiffly. Yes, sir. There's no need to call me sir, Professor. The words had escaped him before he knew what he was saying. Several people gasped, including Hermione. Behind Snape, however, Ron, Dean, and Seamus grinned appreciatively. Detention! Saturday night, my office, said Snape. I do not take cheek from anyone, Potter, not even the chosen one. That was brilliant, Harry, chortled Ron, once they were safely on their way to break a short while later. You really shouldn't have said it, said Hermione, frowning at Ron. What made you? He tried to jinx me, in case you didn't notice, fumed Harry. I had enough of that during those occlumency lessons. Why doesn't he use another guinea pig for a change? What's Dumbledore playing at anyway, letting him teach defense? Did you hear him talking about the dark arts? He loves them. All that unfixed, indestructible stuff. Well, said Hermione, I thought he sounded a bit like you. Like me? Yes, when you were telling us what it's like to face Voldemort. 
You said it wasn't just memorizing a bunch of spells. You said it was just you and your brains and your guts. Well, wasn't that what Snape was saying, that it really comes down to being brave and quick-thinking? Harry was so disarmed that she had thought his words as well worth memorizing as the standard book of spells that he did not argue. Harry! Hey, Harry! Harry looked around. Jack Sloper, one of the beaters on last year's Gryffindor Quidditch team, was hurrying toward him holding a roll of parchment. For you? panted Sloper. Listen, I heard you're the new captain. When are you holding trials? I'm not sure yet, said Harry, thinking privately that Sloper would be very lucky to get back on the team. I'll let you know. Oh, right. I was hoping it'd be this weekend. But Harry was not listening. He had just recognized the thin, slanting writing on the parchment. Leaving Sloper in mid-sentence, he hurried away with Ron and Hermione, unrolling the parchment as he went. Dear Harry, I would like to start our private lessons this Saturday. Kindly come along to my office at 8 p.m. I hope you are enjoying your first day back at school. Yours sincerely, Albus Dumbledore. P.S. I enjoy acid pops. He enjoys acid pops, said Ron, who had read the message over Harry's shoulder and was looking perplexed. It's the password to get past the gargoyle outside his study, said Harry in a low voice. Ha! Snape's not going to be pleased. I won't be able to do his detention. He, Ron and Hermione spent the whole of break speculating on what Dumbledore would teach Harry. Ron thought it most likely to be spectacular jinxes and hexes of the type the Death Eaters would not know. Hermione said such things were illegal, and thought it much more likely that Dumbledore wanted to teach Harry advanced defensive magic. After break, she went off to arithmancy while Harry and Ron returned to the common room, where they grudgingly started Snape's homework. This turned out to be so complex that they still had not finished when Hermione joined them for their after-lunch free period, though she considerably speeded up the process. They had only just finished when the bell rang for the afternoon's double potions, and they beat the familiar path down to the dungeon classroom that had, for so long, been Snape's. When they arrived in the corridor, they saw that there were only a dozen people progressing to any WT level. Crab and Goyle had evidently failed to achieve the required OWL grade, but four Slytherins had made it through, including Malfoy. Four Ravenclaws were there, and one Hufflepuff, Ernie Macmillan, whom Harry liked, despite his rather pompous manner. Harry, Ernie said portentously, holding out his hand as Harry approached. Didn't get a chance to speak in defense against the Dark Arts this morning. Good lesson, I thought. But shield charms are old hat, of course, for us old D.A. lags. <laughs> and how are you, Ron, Hermione? Before they could say more than, fine, the dungeon door opened and Slughorn's belly preceded him out of the door. As they filed into the room, his great walrus moustache curved above his beaming mouth, and he greeted Harry and Zabini with particular enthusiasm. The dungeon was, most unusually, already full of vapors and odd smells. Harry, Ron, and Hermione sniffed interestedly as they passed large, bubbling cauldrons. The four Slytherins took a table together, as did the four Ravenclaws. This left Harry, Ron, and Hermione to share a table with Ernie. 
They chose the one nearest the gold-colored cauldron that was emitting one of the most seductive scents Harry had ever inhaled. Somehow it reminded him simultaneously of treacle tart, the woody smell of a broomstick handle, and something flowery he thought he might have smelled at the burrow. He found that he was breathing very slowly and deeply, and that the potion's fumes seemed to be filling him up like drink. A great contentment stole over him. He grinned across at Ron, who grinned back lazily. Now then, now then, now then, said Slughorn, whose massive outline was quivering through the many shimmering vapors. Scales out, everyone, and potion kits, and don't forget your copies of Advanced Potion Making. Sir, said Harry, raising his hand. Harry, my boy? I haven't got a book or scales or anything, nor has Ron. We didn't realize we'd be able to do the N-E-W-T, you see. Ah, yes, Professor McGonagall did mention. Not to worry, my dear boy, not to worry at all. You can use ingredients from the store cupboard today, and I'm sure we can lend you some scales. And we've got a small stock of old books here. They'll do until you can write to flourish and blots. Slughorn strode over to a corner cupboard, and after a moment's foraging, emerged with two very battered-looking copies of advanced potion-making by Libatius Borage, which he gave to Harry and Ron, along with two sets of tarnished scales. Now then, said Slughorn, returning to the front of the class and inflating his already bulging chest so that the buttons on his waistcoat threatened to burst off. I've prepared a few potions for you to have a look at, just out of interest, you know. These are the kind of thing you ought to be able to make after completing your N.E.W.T.s. You ought to have heard of them, even if you haven't made them yet. Anyone tell me what this one is? He indicated the cauldron nearest the Slytherin table. Harry raised himself slightly in his seat and saw what looked like plain water boiling away inside it. Hermione's well-practiced hand hit the air before anybody else's. Slughorn pointed at her. It's Veritas Serum, a colorless, odorless potion that forces the drinker to tell the truth, said Hermione. Very good, very good, said Slughorn happily. Now he continued, pointing at the cauldron nearest the Ravenclaw table. This one here is pretty well known, featured in a few ministry leaflets lately, too. Who can... Hermione's hand was fastest once more. It's Polyjuice Potion, sir, she said. Harry, too, had recognized the slow, bubbling, mud-like substance in the second cauldron, but did not resent Hermione getting the credit for answering the question. She, after all, was the one who had succeeded in making it back in their second year. Excellent, excellent. Now, this one here... Yes, my dear, said Slughorn, now looking slightly bemused as Hermione's hand punched the air again. It's Amortentia. It is indeed. It seems almost foolish to ask, said Slughorn, who was looking mightily impressed. But I assume you know what it does? It's the most powerful love potion in the world, said Hermione. Quite right. You recognized it, I suppose, by its distinctive mother of pearl sheen. 
And the steam rising in characteristic spirals, said Hermione enthusiastically. And it's supposed to smell differently to each of us, according to what attracts us. And I can smell freshly mown grass, a new parchment, and... But she turned slightly pink and did not complete the sentence. May I ask your name, my dear, said Slughorn, ignoring Hermione's embarrassment. Hermione Granger, sir. Granger. Granger. Can you possibly be related to Hector Dagworth Granger, who founded the most extraordinary society of potioneers? No, I don't think so, sir. I'm muggle-born, you see. Harry saw Malfoy lean close to Knot and whisper something. Both of them sniggered, but Slughorn showed no dismay. On the contrary, he beamed and looked from Hermione to Harry, who was sitting next to her. Oh, ho, ho! One of my best friends is muggle-born, and she's the best in our year. I'm assuming this is the very friend of whom you spoke, Harry. Yes, sir, said Harry. Well, well, take twenty well-earned points for Gryffindor, Miss Granger, said Slughorn genially. Malfoy looked rather as he had done the time Hermione had punched him in the face. Hermione turned to Harry with a radiant face and whispered, Did you really tell him I'm the best in the year? Oh, Harry. Well, what's so impressive about that? whispered Ron, who for some reason looked annoyed. You are the best in the year. I'd have told him so if he'd asked me. Hermione smiled but made a shing gesture so that they could hear what Slughorn was saying. Ron looked slightly disgruntled. Amortentia doesn't really create love, of course. It is impossible to manufacture or imitate love. No, this will simply cause a powerful infatuation or obsession. It is probably the most dangerous and powerful potion in this room. Oh, yes, he said, nodding gravely at Malfoy and Knot, both of whom were smirking skeptically. When you have seen as much of life as I have, you will not underestimate the power of obsessive love. And now, said Slughorn, it is time for us to start work. Sir, you haven't told us what's in this one, said Ernie Macmillan, pointing at a small black cauldron standing on Slughorn's desk. The potion within was splashing about merrily. It was the color of molten gold, and large drops were leaping like goldfish above the surface, though not a particle had spilled. Oh-ho! said Slughorn again. Harry was sure that Slughorn had not forgotten the potion at all, but had waited to be asked for dramatic effect. Yes, that! Well, that one, ladies and gentlemen, is a most curious little potion called Felix Felicis. I take it, he turned, smiling, to look at Hermione, who had let out an audible gasp, that you know what Felix Felicis does, Miss Granger. It's liquid luck, said Hermione excitedly. It makes you lucky. The whole class seemed to sit up a little straighter. Now all Harry could see of Malfoy was the back of his sleek blonde head, because he was at last giving Slughorn his full and undivided attention.
Quite right. Take another ten points for Gryffindor. Yes, it's a funny little potion, Felix Felicis, said Slughorn. Desperately tricky to make and disastrous to get wrong. However, if brewed correctly, as this has been, you will find that all your endeavors tend to succeed, at least until the effects wear off. Why don't people drink it all the time, sir? said Terry Boot eagerly. Because, if taken in excess, it causes giddiness, recklessness, and dangerous overconfidence, said Slughorn. Too much of a good thing, you know. Highly toxic in large quantities, but taken sparingly and very occasionally. Have you ever taken it, sir? asked Michael Corner with great interest. Twice in my life, said Slughorn. Once when I was twenty-four, once when I was fifty-seven. Two tablespoonfuls taken with breakfast, two perfect days. He gazed dreamily into the distance. Whether he was play-acting or not, thought Harry, the effect was good. And that, said Slughorn, apparently coming back to earth, is what I shall be offering as a prize in this lesson. There was silence in which every bubble and gurgle of the surrounding potions seemed magnified tenfold. One tiny bottle of Felix Felicis, said Slughorn, taking a minuscule glass bottle with a cork in it out of his pocket and showing it to them all. Enough for twelve hours' luck. From dawn till dusk, you will be lucky in everything you attempt. Now... I must give you warning that Felix Felicis is a banned substance in organized competitions, sporting events, for instance, examinations or elections. So the winner is to use it on an ordinary day only, and watch how that ordinary day becomes extraordinary. So, said Slughorn, suddenly brisk, how are you to win my fabulous prize? Well, by turning to page ten of Advanced Potion Making. We have a little over an hour left to us, which should be time for you to make a decent attempt at the draft of living death. I know it is more complex than anything you have attempted before, and I do not expect a perfect potion from anybody. The person who does best, however, will win little Felix here. Off you go! There was a scraping as everyone drew their cauldrons toward them, and some loud clunks as people began adding weights to their scales. But nobody spoke. The concentration within the room was almost tangible. Harry saw Malfoy riffling feverishly through his copy of Advanced Potion Making. It could not have been clearer that Malfoy really wanted that lucky day. Harry bent swiftly over the tattered book Slughorn had lent him. To his annoyance, he saw that the previous owner had scribbled all over the pages so that the margins were as black as the printed portions. Bending low to decipher the ingredients... Even here the previous owner had made annotations and crossed things out. Harry hurried off toward the store cupboard to find what he needed. As he dashed back to his cauldron, he saw Malfoy cutting up valerian roots as fast as he could. Everyone kept glancing around at what the rest of the class was doing. This was both an advantage and a disadvantage of potions. That it was hard to keep your work private— Within ten minutes, the whole place was full of bluish steam. 
Hermione, of course, seemed to have progressed furthest. Her potion already resembled the smooth blackcurrant-colored liquid mentioned as the ideal halfway stage. Having finished chopping his roots, Harry bent low over his book again. It was really very irritating having to try and decipher the directions under all the stupid scribbles of the previous owner, who for some reason had taken issue with the order to cut up the sopophorous bean and had written in the alternative instruction. Crush with flat side of silver dagger releases juice better than cutting. Sir, I think you knew my grandfather, Abraxas Malfoy. Harry looked up. Slughorn was just passing the Slytherin table. Yes, said Slughorn, without looking at Malfoy. I was sorry to hear he had died, although, of course, it wasn't unexpected. Dragon pox at his age. And he walked away. Harry bent back over his cauldron, smirking. He could tell that Malfoy had expected to be treated like Harry or Zabini, perhaps even hoped for some preferential treatment of the type he had learned to expect from Snape. It looked as though Malfoy would have to rely on nothing but talent to win the bottle of Felix Felicis. The sopophorous bean was proving very difficult to cut up. Harry turned to Hermione. Can I borrow your silver knife? She nodded impatiently, not taking her eyes off her potion, which was still deep purple, though, according to the book, ought to be turning a light shade of lilac by now. Harry crushed his bean with the flat side of the dagger. To his astonishment, it immediately exuded so much juice, he was amazed the shriveled bean could have held it all. Hastily scooping it all into the cauldron, he saw, to his surprise, that the potion immediately turned exactly the shade of lilac described by the textbook. His annoyance with the previous owner vanishing on the spot, Harry now squinted at the next line of instructions. According to the book, he had to stir counterclockwise until the potion turned clear as water. According to the addition the previous owner had made, however, he ought to add a clockwise stir after every seventh counterclockwise stir. Could the old owner be right twice? Harry stirred counterclockwise, held his breath, and stirred once clockwise. The effect was immediate. The potion turned palest pink. How are you doing that? demanded Hermione, who was red-faced and whose hair was growing bushier and bushier in the fumes from her cauldron. Her potion was still resolutely purple. Add a clockwise stir. No, no, the book says counterclockwise, she snapped. Harry shrugged and continued what he was doing. Seven stirs counterclockwise, one clockwise. Pause, seven stirs counterclockwise, one stir clockwise. Across the table, Ron was cursing fluently under his breath. His potion looked like liquid licorice. Harry glanced around. As far as he could see, no one else's potion had turned as pale as his. He felt elated, something that had certainly never happened before in this dungeon. And time's up, called Slughorn. Stop stirring, please. Slughorn moved slowly among the tables, peering into cauldrons. He made no comment, but occasionally gave the potions a stir or a sniff. At last he reached the table where Harry, Ron, Hermione, and Ernie were sitting. He smiled ruefully at the tar-like substance in Ron's cauldron. He passed over Ernie's navy concoction. Hermione's potion he gave an approving nod. And then he saw Harry's, 
and a look of incredulous delight spread over his face. The clear winner! he cried to the dungeon. Excellent, excellent, Harry! Good lord! It's clear you've inherited your mother's talent. She was a dab-hand at potions, Lily was. Here you are, then, here you are. One bottle of Felix Felicis, as promised, and use it well. Harry slipped the tiny bottle of golden liquid into his inner pocket, feeling an odd combination of delight at the furious looks on the Slytherins' faces and guilt at the disappointed expression on Hermione's. Ron looked simply dumbfounded. How did you do that? He whispered to Harry as they left the dungeon. Got lucky, I suppose, said Harry, because Malfoy was within earshot. Once they were securely ensconced at the Gryffindor table for dinner, however, he felt safe enough to tell them. Hermione's face became stonier with every word he uttered. I suppose you think I cheated, he finished, aggravated by her expression. Well, it wasn't exactly your own work, was it? She said stiffly. He only followed different instructions to ours, said Ron. Could have been a catastrophe, couldn't it? But he took a risk, and it paid off. He heaved a sigh. Slughorn could have handed me that book, but no. I get the one no one's ever written on. Puked on, by the look of page 52, but hang on said a voice close by Harry's left ear, and he caught a sudden waft of that flowery smell he had picked up in Slughorn's dungeon. He looked around and saw that Ginny had joined them. Did I hear right? You've been taking orders from something someone wrote in a book, Harry? She looked alarmed and angry. Harry knew what was on her mind at once. It's nothing, he said reassuringly, lowering his voice. It's not like, you know, Riddle's diary. It's just an old textbook someone scribbled on. But you're doing what it says. I just tried a few of the tips written in the margins. Honestly, Ginny, there's nothing funny. Ginny's got a point, said Hermione, perking up at once. We ought to check out that there's nothing odd about it. I mean, all these funny instructions. Who knows? Hey! said Harry indignantly as she pulled his copy of advanced potion-making out of his bag and raised her wand. Specialis Revelio, she said, wrapping it smartly on the front cover. Nothing whatsoever happened. The book simply lay there, looking old and dirty and dog-eared. Finished? said Harry irritably. Or do you want to wait and see if it does a few backflips? It seems all right said Hermione, still staring at the book suspiciously. I mean, it really does seem to be just a textbook. Good, then I'll have it back, said Harry, snatching it off the table, but it slipped from his hand and landed open on the floor. Nobody else was looking. Harry bent low to retrieve the book, and, as he did so, he saw something scribbled along the bottom of the back cover, in the same small, cramped handwriting as the instructions that had won him his bottle of Felix Felicis, now safely hidden inside a pair of socks in his trunk upstairs. This book is the property of the Half-Blood Prince. Chapter 10 The House of Gaunt for the rest of the week's potions lessons, Harry continued to follow the Half-Blood Prince's instructions wherever they deviated from libaceous borages, with the result that by their fourth lesson, Slughorn was raving about Harry's abilities, saying that he had rarely taught anyone so talented. 
Neither Ron nor Hermione was delighted by this. Although Harry had offered to share his book with both of them, Ron had more difficulty deciphering the handwriting than Harry did, and could not keep asking Harry to read aloud, or it might look suspicious. Hermione, meanwhile, was resolutely plowing on with what she called the official instructions, but becoming increasingly bad-tempered as they yielded poorer results than the prince's. Harry wondered vaguely who the half-blood prince had been. Although the amount of homework they had been given prevented him from reading the whole of his copy of advanced potion-making, he had skimmed through it sufficiently to see that there was barely a page on which the prince had not made additional notes, not all of them concerned with potion-making. Here and there were directions for what looked like spells that the prince had made up himself. Or herself, said Hermione irritably, overhearing Harry pointing some of these out to Ron in the common room on Saturday evening. It might have been a girl. I think the handwriting looks more like a girl's than a boy's. The half-blood prince, he was called, Harry said. How many girls have been princes? Hermione seemed to have no answer to this. She merely scowled and twitched her essay on the principles of rematerialization away from Ron, who was trying to read it upside down. Harry looked at his watch and hurriedly put the old copy of Advanced Potion Making back into his bag. It's five to eight. I'd better go. I'll be late for Dumbledore. Oh, gasped Hermione, looking up at once. Good luck. We'll wait up. We want to hear what he teaches you. Hope it goes okay, said Ron, and the pair of them watched Harry leave through the portrait hole. Harry proceeded through deserted corridors, though he had to step hastily behind a statue when Professor Trelawney appeared around a corner, muttering to herself as she shuffled a pack of dirty-looking playing cards, reading them as she walked. Two of spades, conflict, she murmured as she passed the place where Harry crouched, hidden. Seven of spades, an illumined. Ten of spades, violence, knave of spades, a dark young man possibly troubled, one who dislikes the questioner. She stopped dead right on the other side of Harry's statue. Well, that can't be right, she said, annoyed, and Harry heard her reshuffling vigorously as she set off again, leaving nothing but a whiff of cooking sherry behind her. Harry waited until he was quite sure she had gone, then hurried off again until he reached the spot in the seventh-floor corridor where a single gargoyle stood against the wall. Acid pops, said Harry, and the gargoyle leapt aside. The wall behind it slid apart, and a moving spiral stone staircase was revealed, onto which Harry stepped, so that he was carried in smooth circles up to the door with a brass knocker that led to Dumbledore's office. Harry knocked. Come in! said Dumbledore's voice. Good evening, sir, said Harry, walking into the headmaster's office. Ah, oh, good evening, Harry. Sit down, said Dumbledore, smiling. I hope you've had an enjoyable first week back at school. Yes, thanks, sir, said Harry. You must have been busy. A detention under your belt already? Ah, uh, began Harry awkwardly, but Dumbledore did not look too stern. I have arranged with Professor Snape that you will do your detention next Saturday instead. Right, said Harry, who had more pressing matters on his mind than Snape's detention, and now looked around surreptitiously for some indication of what Dumbledore was planning to do with him this evening. The circular office looked just as it always did. 
The delicate silver instruments stood on spindle-legged tables, puffing smoke and whirring. Portraits of previous headmasters and headmistresses dozed in their frames, and Dumbledore's magnificent phoenix, Fawkes, stood on his perch behind the door, watching Harry with bright interest. It did not even look as though Dumbledore had cleared a space for dueling practice. So, Harry, said Dumbledore in a businesslike voice, you have been wondering, I am sure, what I have planned for you during these, for want of a better word, lessons. Yes, sir. Well, I have decided that it is time, now that you know what prompted Lord Voldemort to try and kill you fifteen years ago, for you to be given certain information. There was a pause. You said at the end of last term you were going to tell me everything, said Harry. It was hard to keep a note of accusation from his voice. Sir, he added. And so I did, said Dumbledore placidly. I told you everything I know. From this point forth, we shall be leaving the firm foundation of fact and journeying together through the murky marshes of memory into thickets of wildest guesswork. From here on in, Harry, I may be as woefully wrong as Humphrey Belcher, who believed the time was ripe for a cheese cauldron. But you think you're right, said Harry. Naturally I do. But as I have already proven to you, I make mistakes like the next man. In fact, being, forgive me, rather cleverer than most men, my mistakes tend to be correspondingly huger. Sir, said Harry tentatively, does what you're going to tell me have anything to do with the prophecy? Will it help me survive? It has a very great deal to do with the prophecy said Dumbledore, as casually as if Harry had asked him about the next day's weather, and I certainly hope that it will help you to survive. Dumbledore got to his feet and walked around the desk past Harry, who turned eagerly in his seat to watch Dumbledore bending over the cabinet beside the door. When Dumbledore straightened up, he was holding a familiar shallow stone basin etched with odd markings around its rim. He placed the pensive on the desk in front of Harry. You look worried. Harry had indeed been eyeing the pensive with some apprehension. His previous experiences with the odd device that stored and revealed thoughts and memories, though highly instructive, had also been uncomfortable. The last time he had disturbed its contents, he had seen much more than he would have wished. But Dumbledore was smiling. This time you enter the pensive with me, and even more unusually, with permission. Where are we going, sir? For a trip down Bob Ogden's memory lane, said Dumbledore, pulling from his pocket a crystal bottle containing a swirling silvery-white substance. Who was Bob Ogden? He was employed by the Department of Magical Law Enforcement, said Dumbledore. He died some time ago, but not before I tracked him down and persuaded him to confide these recollections to me. We are about to accompany him on a visit he made in the course of his duties. If you will stand, Harry. But Dumbledore was having difficulty pulling out the stopper of the crystal bottle. His injured hand seemed stiff and painful. Shall, shall I, sir? No matter, Harry. Dumbledore pointed his wand at the bottle, and the cork flew out. Sir, how did you injure your hand? Harry asked again, looking at the blackened fingers with a mixture of revulsion and pity. Now is not the moment for that story, Harry. Not yet. We have an appointment with Bob Ogden.
Dumbledore tipped the silvery contents of the bottle into the pensive, where they swirled and shimmered, neither liquid nor gas. After you, said Dumbledore, gesturing toward the bowl. Harry bent forward, took a deep breath, and plunged his face into the silvery substance. He felt his feet leave the office floor. He was falling, falling through whirling darkness, and then, quite suddenly, he was blinking in dazzling sunlight. Before his eyes had adjusted, Dumbledore landed beside him. They were standing in a country lane bordered by high, tangled hedgerows, beneath a summer sky as bright and blue as a forget-me-not. Some ten feet in front of them stood a short, plump man, wearing enormously thick glasses that reduced his eyes to mole-like specks. He was reading a wooden signpost that was sticking out of the brambles on the left-hand side of the road. Harry knew this must be Ogden. He was the only person in sight, and he was also wearing the strange assortment of clothes so often chosen by inexperienced wizards trying to look like muggles. In this case, a frock coat and spats over a striped one-piece bathing costume. Before Harry had time to do more than register his bizarre appearance, however, Ogden had set off at a brisk walk down the lane. Dumbledore and Harry followed. As they passed the wooden sign, Harry looked up at its two arms. The one pointing back the way they had come read, Great Hangleton, five miles. The arm pointing after Ogden said, Little Hangleton, one mile. They walked a short way with nothing to see but the hedgerows, the wide blue sky overhead, and the swishing, frock-coated figure ahead. Then the lane curved to the left and fell away, sloping steeply down a hillside, so that they had a sudden, unexpected view of a whole valley laid out in front of them. Harry could see a village, undoubtedly Little Hangleton, nestled between two steep hills, its church and graveyard clearly visible. Across the valley, set on the opposite hillside, was a handsome manor house, surrounded by a wide expanse of velvety green lawn. Ogden had broken into a reluctant trot due to the steep downward slope. Dumbledore lengthened his stride, and Harry hurried to keep up. He thought Little Hangleton must be their final destination, and wondered— as he had done on the night they had found Slughorn, why they had to approach it from such a distance. He soon discovered that he was mistaken in thinking that they were going to the village, however. The lane curved to the right, and when they rounded the corner, it was to see the very edge of Ogden's frock coat vanishing through a gap in the hedge. Dumbledore and Harry followed him onto a narrow dirt track bordered by higher and wilder hedgerows than those they had left behind. The path was crooked, rocky, and potholed, sloping downhill like the last one, and it seemed to be heading for a patch of dark trees a little below them. Sure enough, the track soon opened up at the copse, and Dumbledore and Harry came to a halt behind Ogden, who had stopped and drawn his wand. Despite the cloudless sky, the old trees ahead cast deep, dark, cool shadows, and it was a few seconds before Harry's eyes discerned the building, half-hidden amongst the tangle of trunks. It seemed to him a very strange location to choose for a house, or else an odd decision to leave the trees growing nearby, blocking all light and the view of the valley below. He wondered whether it was inhabited. Its walls were mossy, and so many tiles had fallen off the roof that the rafters were visible in places. Nettles grew all around it, their tips reaching the windows, which were tiny and thick with grime. Just as he had concluded that nobody could possibly live there, however, one of the windows was thrown open with a clatter, and a thin trickle of steam or smoke issued from it, as though somebody was cooking. 
Ogden moved forward quietly and, it seemed to Harry, rather cautiously. As the dark shadows of the trees slid over him, he stopped again, staring at the front door, to which somebody had nailed a dead snake. Then there was a rustle and a crack, and a man in rags dropped from the nearest tree, landing on his feet right in front of Ogden, who leapt backwards so fast he stood on the tails of his frock coat and stumbled. You're not welcome. The man standing before them had thick hair so matted with dirt it could have been any color. Several of his teeth were missing. His eyes were small and dark and stared in opposite directions. He might have looked comical, but he did not. The effect was frightening, and Harry could not blame Ogden for backing away several more paces before he spoke. Uh, good morning. I'm from the Ministry of Magic. You're not welcome. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't understand you, said Ogden nervously. Harry thought Ogden was being extremely dim. The stranger was making himself very clear in Harry's opinion, particularly as he was brandishing a wand in one hand and a short and rather bloody knife in the other. You understand him, I'm sure, Harry, said Dumbledore quietly. Yes, of course, said Harry, slightly nonplussed. Why can't Ogden? But as his eyes found the dead snake on the door again, he suddenly understood. He's speaking Parseltongue? Very good, said Dumbledore, nodding and smiling. The man in rags was now advancing on Ogden, knife in one hand, wand in the other. Now, look, Ogden began, but too late. There was a bang, and Ogden was on the ground, clutching his nose, while a nasty yellowish goo squirted from between his fingers. Morphin, said a loud voice. An elderly man had come hurrying out of the cottage, banging the door behind him so that the dead snake swung pathetically. This man was shorter than the first and oddly proportioned. His shoulders were very broad and his arms overlong, which, with his bright brown eyes, short scrubby hair and wrinkled face, gave him the look of a powerful, aged monkey. He came to a halt beside the man with the knife, who was now cackling with laughter at the sight of Ogden on the ground. Ministry, is it? said the older man, looking down at Ogden. Correct, said Ogden angrily, dabbing his face. And you, I take it, are Mr. Gaunt. That's right, said Gaunt. Got you in the face, did he? Yes, he did, snapped Ogden. Should have made your presence known, shouldn't you? said Gaunt aggressively. This is private property. Can't I just walk in here and not expect my son to defend himself? Defend himself against what, man? said Ogden, clambering back to his feet. Busybodies, intruders, muggles and filth. Ogden pointed his wand at his own nose, which was still issuing large amounts of what looked like yellow pus, and the flow stopped at once. Mr. Gaunt spoke out of the corner of his mouth to Morphin. Get in the house. Don't argue. This time, ready for it, Harry recognized Parcel Tongue. Even while he could understand what was being said, he distinguished the weird hissing noise that was all Ogden could hear. Morphin seemed to be on the point of disagreeing, but when his father cast him a threatening look, he changed his mind, lumbering away to the cottage with an odd rolling gait and slamming the front door behind him so that the snake swung sadly again. It's your son I'm here to see, Mr. Gaunt, said Ogden, as he mopped the last of the pus from the front of his coat. That was Morphin, wasn't it? Ah, that was Morphin, said the old man indifferently. 
Are you pure blood? he asked, suddenly aggressive. That's neither here nor there, said Ogden coldly, and Harry felt his respect for Ogden rise. Apparently Gaunt felt rather differently. He squinted into Ogden's face and muttered, in what was clearly supposed to be an offensive tone, Now I come to think about it, I've seen noses like yours down in the village. I don't doubt it, if your son's been let loose on them, said Ogden. Perhaps we could continue this discussion inside. Inside? Yes, Mr. Gaunt. I've already told you I'm here about Morfin. We sent an owl. I've no use for owls, said Gaunt. I don't open letters. Then you can hardly complain that you get no warning of visitors, said Ogden tartly. I am here following a serious breach of wizarding law, which occurred here in the early hours of this morning. All right, all right, all right, bellowed Gorn. Come in the bleeding house, then, and much good it'll do you. The house seemed to contain three tiny rooms. Two doors led off the main room, which served as kitchen and living room combined. Morfin was sitting in a filthy armchair beside the smoking fire, twisting a live adder between his thick fingers and crooning softly at it in parcel tongue. Hissy, hissy, little snaky, slither on the floor. You be good to Morfin or he'll nail you to the door. There was a scuffling noise in the corner beside the open window, and Harry realized that there was somebody else in the room, a girl whose ragged grey dress was the exact colour of the dirty stone wall behind her. She was standing beside a steaming pot on a grimy black stove and was fiddling around with a shelf of squalid-looking pots and pans above it. Her hair was lank and dull, and she had a plain, pale, rather heavy face. Her eyes, like her brother's, stared in opposite directions. She looked a little cleaner than the two men, but Harry thought he had never seen a more defeated-looking person. My daughter, Merope, said Gaunt, grudgingly, as Ogden looked inquiringly toward her. Good morning, said Ogden. She did not answer, but with a frightened glance at her father, turned her back on the room and continued shifting the pots on the shelf behind her. Well, Mr. Gaunt, said Ogden, to get straight to the point, we have reason to believe that your son, Morfin, performed magic in front of a muggle late last night. There was a deafening clang. Merope had dropped one of the pots. Pick it up, Gaunt bellowed at her. That's it, grub on the floor like some filthy muggle. What's your want for, you useless sack of muck? Mr. Gaunt, please, said Ogden in a shocked voice, as Merope, who had already picked up the pot, flushed blotchily scarlet, lost her grip on the pot again, drew her wand shakily from her pocket, pointed it at the pot, and muttered a hasty, inaudible spell that caused the pot to shoot across the floor away from her, hit the opposite wall, and crack in two. Morfin let out a mad cackle of laughter. Gaunt screamed, Mend it, you pointless lump, mend it! Merope stumbled across the room, but before she had time to raise her wand, Ogden had lifted his own and said firmly, Ripero! The pot mended itself instantly. Gaunt looked for a moment as though he was going to shout at Ogden, but seemed to think better of it. Instead, he jeered at his daughter. Lucky the nice man from the ministry's here, isn't it? Perhaps he'll take you off my hands. Perhaps he doesn't mind dirty squibs. 
Without looking at anybody or thanking Ogden, Merope picked up the pot and returned it, hands trembling to its shelf. She then stood quite still, her back against the wall, between the filthy window and the stove, as though she wished for nothing more than to sink into the stone and vanish. Mr. Gaunt, Ogden began again, as I've said, the reason for my visit... I urge you the first time, snapped Gaunt. So what? Morphine gave a muggle a bit of what was coming to him. What about it, then? Morphine has broken wizarding law, said Ogden sternly. Morphine has broken wizarding law, Gaunt imitated Ogden's voice, making it pompous and sing-song. Morphine cackled again. He taught a filthy muggle a lesson. That's illegal now, is it? Yes, said Ogden. I'm afraid it is. He pulled from an inside pocket a small scroll of parchment and unrolled it. What's that, then? His sentence? said Gaunt, his voice rising angrily. It is a summons to the Ministry for a hearing. Summons? Summons? Who do you think you are, summoning my son anywhere? I'm head of the magical law enforcement squad, said Ogden. And you think we're scum, do you? screamed Gaunt, advancing on Ogden now with a dirty yellow-nailed finger pointing at his chest. Scum who come running when the Ministry tells them to. You know who you're talking to, you filthy little mudblood, do you? I was under the impression that I was speaking to Mr. Gaunt, said Ogden, looking wary, but standing his ground. That's right, roared Gaunt. For a moment, Harry thought Gaunt was making an obscene hand gesture, but then realized that he was showing Ogden the ugly black stone ring he was wearing on his middle finger, waving it before Ogden's eyes. See this? See this? Know what it is? Know where it came from? Centuries it's been in our family. That's how far back we go, and pure blood all the way. Know how much I've been offered for this? with a pepperol coat of arms engraved on a stone. I've really no idea, said Ogden, blinking as the ring sailed within an inch of his nose. And it's quite beside the point, Mr. Gaunt. Your son has committed. With a howl of rage, Gaunt ran toward his daughter. For a split second, Harry thought he was going to throttle her as his hand flew to her throat. Next moment, he was dragging her toward Ogden by a gold chain around her neck. See this? He bellowed at Ogden, shaking a heavy gold locket at him, while Merope spluttered and gasped for breath. I see it, I see it, said Ogden hastily. Slytherins, yelled Gaunt. Salazar Slytherins, we're his last living descendants. What do you say to that, eh? Mr. Gaunt, your daughter, said Ogden in alarm, but Gaunt had already released Merope. She staggered away from him, back to her corner, massaging her neck and gulping for air. So, said Gaunt triumphantly, as though he had just proved a complicated point beyond all possible dispute. Don't you go talking to us as if we're dirt on your shoes. Generations of pure bloods, wizards all. More than you can say, I don't doubt. And he spat on the floor at Ogden's feet. Morfin cackled again. Merope huddled beside the window, her head bowed and her face hidden by her lank hair, said nothing. Mr. Gaunt said Ogden doggedly. I am afraid that neither your ancestors nor mine have anything to do with the matter in hand. I am here because of Morfin. Morfin and the muggle he accosted late last night. 
Our information, he glanced down at his scroll of parchment, is that Morfin performed a jinx or hex on the said muggle, causing him to erupt in highly painful hives. Morfin giggled. Be quiet, boy, snarled Gaunt in parcel tongue, and Morfin fell silent again. And so what if he did then? Gaunt said defiantly to Ogden. I expect you've wiped the muggle's filthy face clean for him, and his memory to boot. That's hardly the point, is it, Mr. Gaunt? said Ogden. This was an unprovoked attack on a defenceless... Ah, uh, I had you marked out as a muggle lover the moment I saw you, sneered Gaunt, and he spat on the floor again. This discussion is getting us nowhere, said Ogden firmly. It is clear from your son's attitude that he feels no remorse for his actions. He glanced down at his scroll of parchment again. Morfin will attend a hearing on the 14th of September to answer the charges of using magic in front of a muggle and causing harm and distress to that same mug. Ogden broke off. The jingling, clopping sounds of horses and loud laughing voices were drifting in through the open window. Apparently the winding lane to the village passed very close to the copse where the house stood. Gaunt froze, listening, his eyes wide. Morfin hissed and turned his face toward the sounds, his expression hungry. Merope raised her head. Her face, Harry saw, was starkly white. My God, what an eyesore! rang out a girl's voice, as clearly audible through the open window as if she had stood in the room beside them. Couldn't your father have that hovel cleared away, Tom? It's not ours, said a young man's voice. Everything on the other side of the valley belongs to us, but that cottage belongs to an old tramp called Gaunt and his children. The sun's quite mad. You should hear some of the stories they tell in the village. The girl laughed. The jingling, clopping noises were growing louder and louder. Morfin made to get out of his armchair. Keep your seat, said his father warningly in parcel tongue. Tom, said the girl's voice again, now so close they were clearly right beside the house. I might be wrong, but has somebody nailed a snake to that door? Good Lord, you're right, said the man's voice. That'll be the sun. I told you he's not right in the head. Don't look at it, Cecilia, darling. The jingling and clopping sounds were now growing fainter again. Darling, whispered Morfin in tongue, looking at his sister. Darling, he called her, so he wouldn't have you anyway. Merope was so white, Harry felt sure she was going to faint. What's that? said Gaunt sharply, also in tongue, looking from his son to his daughter. What did you say, Morfin? She likes looking at that muggle said Morfin, a vicious expression on his face as he stared at his sister, who now looked terrified. Always in the garden when he passes, peering through the hedge at him, isn't she? And last night... Merope shook her head jerkily, imploringly, but Morfin went on ruthlessly. Hanging out of the window, waiting for him to ride home, wasn't she? Hanging out of the window to look at a muggle, said Gaunt quietly. All three of the Gaunts seemed to have forgotten Ogden, who was looking both bewildered and irritated at this renewed outbreak of incomprehensible hissing and rasping. Is it true, 
said Gaunt in a deadly voice, advancing a step or two toward the terrified girl. My daughter, pure blood descendant of Salazar Slytherin, hankering after a filthy dirt-veined muggle. Merope shook her head frantically, pressing herself into the wall, apparently unable to speak. But I got him, father, cackled Morfin. I got him as he went by, and he didn't look so pretty with hives all over him, did he, Merope? You disgusting little squib, you filthy little blood traitor, roared Gaunt, losing control, and his hands closed around his daughter's throat. Both Harry and Ogden yelled, No! at the same time. Ogden raised his wand and cried, Relatio! Gaunt was thrown backward away from his daughter. He tripped over a chair and fell flat on his back. With a roar of rage, Morfin leapt out of his chair and ran at Ogden, brandishing his bloody knife and firing hexes indiscriminately from his wand. Ogden ran for his life. Dumbledore indicated that they ought to follow, and Harry obeyed, Merope's screams echoing in his ears. Ogden hurtled up the path and erupted onto the main lane, his arms over his head, where he collided with the glossy chestnut horse ridden by a very handsome, dark-haired young man. Both he and the pretty girl riding beside him on a grey horse roared with laughter at the sight of Ogden, who bounced off the horse's flank and set off again, his frock coat flying, covered from head to foot in dust, running pell-mell up the lane. I think that will do, Harry, said Dumbledore. He took Harry by the elbow and tugged. Next moment they were both soaring weightlessly through darkness, until they landed squarely on their feet back in Dumbledore's now twilit office. What happened to the girl in the cottage? said Harry at once, as Dumbledore lit extra lamps with a flick of his wand. Merope, or whatever her name was. Oh, she survived, said Dumbledore, reseating himself behind his desk and indicating that Harry should sit down too. Ogden apparated back to the ministry and returned with reinforcements within fifteen minutes. Morfin and his father attempted to fight, but both were overpowered, removed from the cottage, and subsequently convicted by the Wizengamot. Morfin, who already had a record of muggle attacks, was sentenced to three years in Azkaban. Marvolo, who had injured several ministry employees, in addition to Ogden, received six months. Marvolo, Harry repeated wonderingly. That's right, said Dumbledore, smiling in approval. I'm glad to see you're keeping up. That old man was Voldemort's grandfather. Yes, said Dumbledore. Marvolo, his son Morfin, and his daughter Merope were the last of the Gaunts a very ancient wizarding family noted for a vein of instability and violence that flourished through the generations due to their habit of marrying their own cousins. Lack of sense coupled with a great liking for grandeur meant that the family gold was squandered several generations before Marvolo was born. He, as you saw, was left in squalor and poverty, with a very nasty temper, a fantastic amount of arrogance and pride, and a couple of family heirlooms that he treasured just as much as his son, and rather more than his daughter. So, Merope, said Harry, leaning forward in his chair and staring at Dumbledore, so Merope was... Sir, does that mean she was Voldemort's mother? Does, said Dumbledore. 
And it so happens that we also had a glimpse of Voldemort's father. I wonder whether you noticed. The muggle Morphin attacked. The man on the horse. Very good indeed, said Dumbledore, beaming. Yes, that was Tom Riddle Sr., the handsome muggle who used to go riding past the Gaunt Cottage, and for whom Merope Gaunt cherished a secret, burning passion. And they ended up married? Harry said in disbelief, unable to imagine two people less likely to fall in love. I think you are forgetting, said Dumbledore, that Merope was a witch. I do not believe that her magical powers appeared to their best advantage when she was being terrorized by her father. Once Marvolo and Morphine were safely in Azkaban, once she was alone and free for the first time in her life, then, I am sure, she was able to give full rein to her abilities and to plot her escape from the desperate life she had led for eighteen years. Can you not think of any measure Merope could have taken to make Tom Riddle forget his muggle companion and fall in love with her instead? The Imperious Curse? Harry suggested, or a love potion? Very good. Personally, I am inclined to think that she used a love potion. I am sure it would have seemed more romantic to her, and I do not think it would have been very difficult some hot day when Riddle was riding alone to persuade him to take a drink of water. In any case, within a few months of the scene we have just witnessed, the village of Little Hangleton enjoyed a tremendous scandal. You can imagine the gossip it caused when the squire's son ran off with the tramp's daughter, Merope. But the villager's shock was nothing to Marvolo's. He returned from Azkaban, expecting to find his daughter dutifully awaiting his return with a hot meal ready on his table. Instead, he found a clear inch of dust and her note of farewell, explaining what she had done. From all that I have been able to discover, he never mentioned her name or existence from that time forth. The shock of her desertion may have contributed to his early death, or perhaps he had simply never learned to feed himself. Azkaban had greatly weakened Marvolo, and he did not live to see Morfin return to the cottage. And Merope? She, she died, didn't she? Wasn't Voldemort brought up in an orphanage? Yes, indeed, said Dumbledore. We must do a certain amount of guessing here, although I do not think it is difficult to deduce what happened. You see, within a few months of their runaway marriage, Tom Riddle reappeared at the manor house in Little Hangleton without his wife. The rumor flew around the neighborhood that he was talking of being hoodwinked and taken in. What he meant, I am sure, is that he had been under an enchantment that had now lifted, though I dare say he did not dare use those precise words for fear of being thought insane. When they heard what he was saying, however, the villagers guessed that Merope had lied to Tom Riddle, pretending that she was going to have his baby, and that he had married her for this reason. But she did have his baby but not until a year after they were married. Tom Riddle left her while she was still pregnant. What went wrong? asked Harry. Why did the love potion stop working? Again, this is guesswork, said Dumbledore. But I believe that Merope, who was deeply in love with her husband, could not bear to continue enslaving him by magical means. I believe that she made the choice to stop giving him the potion, 
Perhaps, besotted as she was, she had convinced herself that he would by now have fallen in love with her in return. Perhaps she thought he would stay for the baby's sake. If so, she was wrong on both counts. He left her, never saw her again, and never troubled to discover what became of his son. The sky outside was inky black, and the lamps in Dumbledore's office seemed to glow more brightly than before. I think that will do for tonight, Harry, said Dumbledore after a moment or two. Yes, sir, said Harry. He got to his feet, but did not leave. Sir, is it important to know all this about Voldemort's past? Very important, I think, said Dumbledore. And it, it's got something to do with the prophecy. It has everything to do with the prophecy. Right, said Harry, a little confused, but reassured all the same. He turned to go. Then another question occurred to him, and he turned back again. Sir, am I allowed to tell Ron and Hermione everything you've told me? Dumbledore considered him for a moment, then said, Yes, I think Mr. Weasley and Miss Granger have proved themselves trustworthy. But Harry... I am going to ask you to ask them not to repeat any of this to anybody else. It would not be a good idea if word got around how much I know or suspect about Lord Voldemort's secrets. No, sir. I'll make sure it's just Ron and Hermione. Good night. He turned away again and was almost at the door when he saw it. Sitting on one of the little spindle-legged tables that supported so many frail-looking silver instruments, was an ugly gold ring set with a large, cracked black stone. Sir, said Harry, staring at it, that ring. Yes, said Dumbledore. You were wearing it when we visited Professor Slughorn that night. So I was, Dumbledore agreed. But isn't it, sir, isn't it the same ring Marvolo Gaunt showed Ogden? Dumbledore bowed his head. The very same. But how come... Have you always had it? No, I acquired it very recently, said Dumbledore. A few days before I came to fetch you from your aunt and uncle's, in fact. That would be around the time you injured your hand then, sir. Around that time, yes, Harry. Harry hesitated. Dumbledore was smiling. Sir, how exactly? Too late, Harry. You shall hear the story another time. Good night. Good night, sir. Chapter 11 Hermione's Helping Hand As Hermione had predicted, the sixth year's free periods were not the hours of blissful relaxation Ron had anticipated, but times in which to attempt to keep up with the vast amount of homework they were being set. Not only were they studying as though they had exams every day, but the lessons themselves had become more demanding than ever before. Harry barely understood half of what Professor McGonagall said to them these days. Even Hermione had had to ask her to repeat instructions once or twice. Incredibly, and to Hermione's increasing resentment, Harry's best subject had suddenly become potions, thanks to the half-blood prince. Non-verbal spells were now expected, not only in defense against the dark arts, but in charms and transfiguration, too. Harry frequently looked over at his classmates in the common room or at mealtimes to see them purple in the face and straining as though they had overdosed on you-know-poo. 
but he knew that they were really struggling to make spells work without saying incantations aloud. It was a relief to get outside into the greenhouses. They were dealing with more dangerous plants than ever in herbology, but at least they were still allowed to swear loudly if the venomous tentacula seized them unexpectedly from behind. One result of their enormous workload and the frantic hours of practicing nonverbal spells was that Harry, Ron, and Hermione had so far been unable to find time to go and visit Hagrid. He had stopped coming to meals at the staff table, an ominous sign, and on the few occasions when they had passed him in the corridors or out in the grounds, he had mysteriously failed to notice them or hear their greetings. We got to go and explain, said Hermione, looking up at Hagrid's huge empty chair at the staff table the following Saturday at breakfast. We've got Quidditch tryouts this morning said Ron, and we're supposed to be practicing the Aguamenti charm from Flitwick. Anyway, explain what? How are we going to tell him that we hated his stupid subject? We didn't hate it, said Hermione. Speak for yourself, I haven't forgotten the scroots, said Ron darkly. And I'm telling you now, we've had a narrow escape. You didn't hear him going on about his gormless brother. We'd have been teaching Grawp how to tie his shoelaces if we'd stayed. I hate not talking to Hagrid, said Hermione, looking upset. We'll go down after Quidditch, Harry assured her. He too was missing Hagrid, although like Ron, he thought that they were better off without Grawp in their lives. But trials might take all morning, the number of people who have applied. He felt slightly nervous at confronting the first hurdle of his captaincy. I don't know why the team's this popular all of a sudden. Oh, come on, Harry said Hermione, suddenly impatient. It's not Quidditch that's popular, it's you. You've never been more interesting, and, frankly, you've never been more fanciable. Ron gagged on a large piece of kipper. Hermione spared him one look of disdain before turning back to Harry. Everyone knows you've been telling the truth now, don't they? The whole wizarding world has had to admit that you were right about Voldemort being back, and that you really have fought him twice in the last two years, and escaped both times. And now they're calling you the Chosen One? Well, come on. Can't you see why people are fascinated by you? Harry was finding the Great Hall very hot all of a sudden, even though the ceiling still looked cold and rainy. And you've been through all that persecution from the Ministry when they were trying to make out you were unstable and a liar. You can still see the marks on the back of your hand where that evil woman made you write with your own blood. But you stuck to your story anyway. You can still see where those brains got hold of me in the Ministry. Look, said Ron, shaking back his sleeves. And it doesn't hurt that you've grown about a foot over the summer either, Hermione finished, ignoring Ron. I'm tall said Ron inconsequentially. The post-owls arrived, swooping down through rain-flecked windows, scattering everyone with droplets of water. Most people were receiving more posts than usual. Anxious parents were keen to hear from their children and to reassure them in turn that all was well at home. Harry had received no mail since the start of term. His only regular correspondent was now dead, and although he had hoped that Lupin might write occasionally, he had so far been disappointed. He was very surprised, therefore, to see the snowy white Hedwig circling amongst all the brown and grey owls. She landed in front of him, carrying a large square package, 
A moment later, an identical package landed in front of Ron, crushing beneath it his minuscule and exhausted owl, Pigwidgeon. Ah, said Harry, unwrapping the parcel to reveal a new copy of Advanced Potion Making, fresh from Flourish and Blots. Oh, good, said Hermione, delighted. Now you can give that graffitied copy back. Are you mad, said Harry. I'm keeping it. Look, I've thought it out. He pulled the old copy of Advanced Potion Making out of his bag and tapped the cover with his wand, muttering, Defindo. The cover fell off. He did the same with the brand new book. Hermione looked scandalized. He then swapped the covers, tapped each, and said, Reparo. There sat the prince's copy disguised as a new book, and there sat the fresh copy from Flourish and Blots, looking thoroughly second-hand. I'll give Slughorn back the new one. He can't complain. It costs nine galleons. Hermione pressed her lips together, looking angry and disapproving, but was distracted by a third owl landing in front of her, carrying that day's copy of the Daily Prophet. She unfolded it hastily and scanned the front page. Anyone we know dead? asked Ron in a determinedly casual voice. He posed the same question every time Hermione opened her paper. No, but there have been more Dementor attacks, said Hermione, and an arrest. Excellent. Who? said Harry, thinking of Bellatrix Lestrange. Stan Shunpike, said Hermione. What? said Harry, startled. Stanley Shunpike, conductor on the popular wizarding conveyance, the night bus, has been arrested on suspicion of Death Eater activity. Mr. Shunpike, 21, was taken into custody late last night after a raid on his Clapham home. Stan Shunpike a Death Eater, said Harry, remembering the spotty youth he had first met three years before. No way. He might have been put under the Imperious Curse said Ron reasonably. You never can tell. It doesn't look like it, said Hermione, who was still reading. It says here he was arrested after he was overheard talking about the Death Eater's secret plans in a pub. She looked up with a troubled expression on her face. If he was under the Imperious Curse, he'd hardly stand around gossiping about their plans, would he? It sounds like he was trying to make out he knew more than he did, said Ron. Isn't he the one who claimed he was going to become Minister of Magic when he was trying to chat up those Vila? Yeah, that's him, said Harry. I don't know what they're playing at, taking Stan seriously. They probably want to look as though they're doing something, said Hermione, frowning. People are terrified. You know the Patil twins' parents want them to go home, and Eloise Midgen has already been withdrawn. Her father picked her up last night. What? said Ron, goggling at Hermione. But Hogwarts is safer than their homes. Bound to be. We've got Auroras and all those extra protective spells. And we've got Dumbledore. I don't think we've got him all the time, said Hermione very quietly, glancing toward the staff table over the top of the prophet. Haven't you noticed? His seat's been empty as often as Hagrid's this past week. Harry and Ron looked up at the staff table. The headmaster's chair was indeed empty. Now Harry came to think of it, he had not seen Dumbledore since their private lesson a week ago. I think he's left the school to do something with the order, said Hermione in a low voice. I mean, it's all looking serious, isn't it? Harry and Ron did not answer. 
but Harry knew that they were all thinking the same thing. There had been a horrible incident the day before when Hannah Abbott had been taken out of Herbology to be told her mother had been found dead. They had not seen Hannah since. When they left the Gryffindor table five minutes later to head down to the Quidditch pitch, they passed Lavender Brown and Parvati Patil. Remembering what Hermione had said about the Patil twins' parents wanting them to leave Hogwarts, Harry was unsurprised to see that the two best friends were whispering together, looking distressed. What did surprise him was that when Ron drew level with them, Parvati suddenly nudged Lavender, who looked around and gave Ron a wide smile. Ron blinked at her, then returned the smile uncertainly. His walk instantly became something more like a strut. Harry resisted the temptation to laugh, remembering that Ron had refrained from doing so after Malfoy had broken Harry's nose. Hermione, however, looked cold and distant all the way down to the stadium through the cool, misty drizzle, and departed to find a place in the stands without wishing Ron good luck. As Harry had expected, the trials took most of the morning. Half of Gryffindor House seemed to have turned up, from first years who were nervously clutching a selection of the dreadful old school brooms, to seventh years who towered over the rest, looking coolly intimidating. The latter included a large, wiry-haired boy Harry recognized immediately from the Hogwarts Express. We met on the train, in all sluggish compartment, he said confidently, stepping out of the crowd to shake Harry's hand. Cormac McLagan, keeper. You didn't try out last year, did you? asked Harry, taking note of the breadth of McLagan and thinking that he would probably block all three goal hoops without even moving. I was in the hospital wing when they held the trials, said McLagan with something of a swagger. Eat a pound of doxy eggs for a bet. Right, said Harry. Well, if you wait over there, he pointed over to the edge of the pitch, close to where Hermione was sitting. He thought he saw a flicker of annoyance pass over McLagan's face and wondered whether McLagan expected preferential treatment because they were both old sluggish favorites. Harry decided to start with a basic test, asking all applicants for the team to divide into groups of ten and fly once around the pitch. This was a good decision. The first ten was made up of first years, and it could not have been plainer that they had hardly ever flown before. Only one boy managed to remain airborne for more than a few seconds, and he was so surprised he promptly crashed into one of the goalposts. The second group was comprised of ten of the silliest girls Harry had ever encountered, who, when he blew his whistle, merely fell about giggling and clutching one another. Romilda Vane was amongst them. When he told them to leave the pitch, they did so quite cheerfully and went to sit in the stands to heckle everyone else. The third group had a pile-up halfway around the pitch. Most of the fourth group had come without broomsticks. The fifth group were Hufflepuffs. If there's anyone else here who's not from Gryffindor, roared Harry, who was starting to get seriously annoyed, leave now, please. There was a pause. Then a couple of little Ravenclaws went sprinting off the pitch, snorting with laughter. After two hours, many complaints, and several tantrums, one involving a crashed Comet 260 and several broken teeth, Harry had found himself three chasers. Katie Bell returned to the team after an excellent trial, a new find called Demelza Robbins, who was particularly good at dodging bludgers, and Ginny Weasley, who had outflown all the competition and scored 17 goals to boot. Pleased though he was with his choices, 
Harry had also shouted himself hoarse at the many complainers, and was now enduring a similar battle with the rejected beaters. That's my final decision, and if you don't get out of the way for the keepers, I'll hex you, he bellowed. Neither of his chosen beaters had the old brilliance of Fred and George, but he was still reasonably pleased with them. Jimmy Peaks, a short but broad-chested third-year boy, who had managed to raise a lump the size of an egg on the back of Harry's head with a ferociously hit bludger, and Richie Coote, who looked weedy but aimed well. They now joined Katie, Demelza, and Ginny in the stands to watch the selection of their last team member. Harry had deliberately left the trial of the keepers until last, hoping for an emptier stadium and less pressure on all concerned. Unfortunately, however, all the rejected players and a number of people who had come down to watch after a lengthy breakfast had joined the crowd by now, so that it was larger than ever. As each keeper flew up to the goal hoops, the crowd roared and jeered in equal measure. Harry glanced over at Ron, who had always had a problem with nerves. Harry had hoped that winning their final match last term might have cured it, but apparently not. Ron was a delicate shade of green. None of the first five applicants saved more than two goals apiece. To Harry's great disappointment, Cormac McLagan saved four penalties out of five. On the last one, however, he shot off in completely the wrong direction. The crowd laughed and booed, and McLagan returned to the ground, grinding his teeth. Ron looked ready to pass out as he mounted his clean sweep eleven. Good luck, cried a voice from the stands. Harry looked around, expecting to see Hermione, but it was Lavender Brown. He would have quite liked to have hidden his face in his hands, as she did a moment later, but thought that as the captain he ought to show slightly more grit, and so turned to watch Ron do his trial. Yet he need not have worried. Ron saved one, two, three, four, five penalties in a row. Delighted and resisting joining in the cheers of the crowd with difficulty, Harry turned to McLagan to tell him that, most unfortunately, Ron had beaten him, only to find McLagan's red face inches from his own. He stepped back hastily. His sister didn't really try, said McLagan menacingly. There was a vein pulsing in his temple, like the one Harry had often admired in Uncle Vernon's. She gave him an easy save. Rubbish, said Harry coldly. That was the one he nearly missed. McLagan took a step nearer Harry, who stood his ground this time. Give me another go. No, said Harry. You've had your go. You saved four. Ron saved five. Ron's keeper. He won it fair and square. Get out of my way. He thought for a moment that McLagan might punch him, but he contented himself with an ugly grimace and stormed away, growling what sounded like threats to thin air. Harry turned around to find his new team beaming at him. Well done, he croaked. You flew really well. You did brilliantly, Ron. This time it really was Hermione running toward them from the stands. Harry saw Lavender walking off the pitch, arm in arm with Parvati, a rather grumpy expression on her face. Ron looked extremely pleased with himself and even taller than usual as he grinned at the team and at Hermione. After fixing the time of their first full practice for the following Thursday, Harry, Ron, and Hermione bade goodbye to the rest of the team and headed off toward Hagrid's. A watery sun was trying to break through the clouds now, and it had stopped drizzling at last. Harry felt extremely hungry. 
He hoped there would be something to eat at Hagrid's. I thought I was going to miss that fourth penalty, Ron was saying happily. Tricky shot from Demelza, did you see? Had a bit of spin on it. Yes, yes, you were magnificent, said Hermione, looking amused. I was better than that McLagan anyway, said Ron in a highly satisfied voice. Did you see him lumbering off in the wrong direction on his fifth? Looked like he'd been confounded. To Harry's surprise, Hermione turned a very deep shade of pink at these words. Ron noticed nothing. He was too busy describing each of his other penalties in loving detail. The great grey hippogriff Buckbeak was tethered in front of Hagrid's cabin. He clicked his razor-sharp beak at their approach and turned his huge head toward them. Oh, dear, said Hermione nervously. He's still a bit scary, isn't he? Come off it. You've ridden him, haven't you? said Ron. Harry stepped forward and bowed low to the hippogriff without breaking eye contact or blinking. After a few seconds, Buckbeak sank into a bow, too. How are you? Harry asked him in a low voice, moving forward to stroke the feathery head. Missing him? But you're okay here with Hagrid, aren't you? Oi! said a loud voice. Hagrid had come striding around the corner of his cabin wearing a large flowery apron and carrying a sack of potatoes. His enormous boarhound Fang was at his heels. Fang gave a booming bark and bounded forward. Get away from him! He'll have your finger... Oh, it's you lot. Fang was jumping up at Hermione and Ron, attempting to lick their ears. Hagrid stood and looked at them all for a split second, then turned and strode into his cabin, slamming the door behind him. Oh, dear, said Hermione, looking stricken. Don't worry about it, said Harry grimly. He walked over to the door and knocked loudly. Hagrid, open up. We want to talk to you. There was no sound from within. If you don't open the door, we'll blast it open, Harry said, pulling out his wand. Harry, said Hermione, sounding shocked. You can't possibly. Yeah, I can, said Harry. Stand back. But before he could say anything else, the door flew open again as Harry had known it would, and there stood Hagrid, glowering down at him and looking, despite the flowery apron, positively alarming. I'm a teacher, he roared at Harry. A teacher, Potter! How dare you threaten to break down my door! I'm sorry. Sir, said Harry, emphasizing the last word as he sewed his wand inside his robes. Hagrid looked stunned. Since when have you called me, sir? Since when have you called me, Potter? Oh, very clever, growled Hagrid. Very amusing. That's me outsmarted, isn't it? All right, come in then, young grateful little... Mumbling darkly, he stood back to let them pass. Hermione scurried in after Harry, looking rather frightened. Well, said Hagrid grumpily, as Harry, Ron, and Hermione sat down around his enormous wooden table, Fang laying his head immediately upon Harry's knee and drooling all over his robes. What's this? Feeling sorry for me? Reckon I'm lonely or summit? No, said Harry at once. We wanted to see you. We've missed you, said Hermione tremulously. Missed me, Harry, snorted Hagrid. Yeah, right. 
He stumped around, brewing up tea in his enormous copper kettle, muttering all the while. Finally, he slammed down three bucket-sized mugs of mahogany brown tea in front of them and a plate of his rock cakes. Harry was hungry enough even for Hagrid's cooking and took one at once. Hagrid, said Hermione timidly, when he joined them at the table and started peeling his potatoes with a brutality that suggested that each tuber had done him a great personal wrong. We really wanted to carry on with care of magical creatures, you know. Hagrid gave another great snort. Harry rather thought some bogies had landed on the potatoes and was inwardly thankful that they were not staying for dinner. We did, said Hermione, but none of us could fit it into our schedules. Yeah, right, said Hagrid again. There was a funny squelching sound and they all looked around. Hermione let out a tiny shriek and Ron leapt out of his seat and hurried around the table away from the large barrel standing in the corner that they had only just noticed. It was full of what looked like foot-long maggots, slimy, white, and writhing. What are they, Hagrid? asked Harry, trying to sound interested rather than revolted, but putting down his rock cake all the same. Just giant grubs, said Hagrid. And they grow into said Ron, looking apprehensive. They won't grow into nothing, said Hagrid. I got them to feed to Aragog. And without warning, he burst into tears. Hagrid, cried Hermione, leaping up, hurrying around the table the long way to avoid the barrel of maggots and putting an arm around his shaking shoulders. What is it? It's him gulped Hagrid, his beetle black eyes streaming as he mopped his face with his apron. It's Aragog. I think he's dying. He got ill over the summer, and he's not getting better. I don't know what I'll do if he, if he, we've been together so long. Hermione patted Hagrid's shoulder, looking at a complete loss for anything to say. Harry knew how she felt. He had known Hagrid to present a vicious baby dragon with a teddy bear, seen him croon over giant scorpions with suckers and stingers, attempt to reason with his brutal giant of a half-brother. But this was perhaps the most incomprehensible of all his monster fancies, the gigantic talking spider Aragog who dwelled deep in the forbidden forest and which he and Ron had only narrowly escaped four years previously. Is there, is there anything we can do? Hermione asked, ignoring Ron's frantic grimaces and head shakings. I don't think there is, Hermione, choked Hagrid, attempting to stem the flood of his tears. See, the rest of the tribe, Aragog's family, they're getting a bit funny now, Ezel, a bit restive. Yeah, I think we saw a bit of that side of them said Ron in an undertone. I don't reckon it'd be safe for anyone but me to go near the colony at the mow. Hagrid finished, blowing his nose hard on his apron and looking up. But thanks for offering, Hermione. It means a lot. After that, the atmosphere lightened considerably, for although neither Harry nor Ron had shown any inclination to go and feed giant grubs to a murderous gargantuan spider, Hagrid seemed to take it for granted that they would have liked to have done, and became his usual self once more. 
Arr, I always knew you'd find it hard to squeeze me into your timetables, he said gruffly, pouring them more tea, even if you applied for time-turners. We couldn't have done, said Hermione. We smashed the entire sock of ministry time-turners when we were there last summer. It was in the Daily Prophet. Ah, well then, said Hagrid. There's no way you could have done it. I'm sorry I've been, you know, I've just been worried about Aragog. And I did wonder whether, if Professor Grubbly Plank had been teaching you. At which all three of them stated, categorically and untruthfully, that Professor Grubbly Plank, who had substituted for Hagrid a few times, was a dreadful teacher, with the result that by the time Hagrid waved them off the premises at dusk, he looked quite cheerful. I'm starving, said Harry, once the door had closed behind them and they were hurrying through the dark and deserted grounds. He had abandoned the rock cake after an ominous cracking noise from one of his back teeth. And I've got that detention with Snape tonight. I haven't got much time for dinner. As they came into the castle, they spotted Cormac McLagan entering the Great Hall. It took him two attempts to get through the doors. He ricocheted off the frame on the first attempt. Ron merely guffawed gloatingly and strode off into the hall after him, but Harry caught Hermione's arm and held her back. What? said Hermione defensively. If you ask me, said Harry quietly, McLagan looks like he was confounded this morning, and he was standing right in front of where you were sitting. Hermione blushed. Oh, all right then, I did it, she whispered. But you should have heard the way he was talking about Ron and Ginny. Anyway, he's got a nasty temper. You saw how he reacted when he didn't get in. You wouldn't have wanted someone like that on the team. No, said Harry, no. I suppose that's true. But wasn't that dishonest, Hermione? I mean, you're a prefect, aren't you? Oh, be quiet, she snapped as he smirked. What are you two doing? demanded Ron, reappearing in the doorway to the great hall and looking suspicious. Nothing, said Harry and Hermione together, and they hurried after Ron. The smell of roast beef made Harry's stomach ache with hunger, but they had barely taken three steps toward the Gryffindor table when Professor Slughorn appeared in front of them, blocking their path. Harry, Harry, just the man I was hoping to see. He boomed genially, twiddling the ends of his walrus moustache and puffing out his enormous belly. I was hoping to catch you before dinner. What do you say to a spot of supper tonight in my rooms instead? We're having a little party. Just a few rising stars. I've got McLagan coming and Zabini, the charming Melinda Bobbin. I don't know whether you know her. Her family owns a large chain of apothecaries. And, of course, I hope very much that Miss Granger will favor me by coming, too. Slughorn made Hermione a little bow as he finished speaking. It was as though Ron was not present. Slughorn did not so much as look at him. I can't come, Professor said Harry at once. I've got a detention with Professor Snape. Oh, dear, said Slughorn, his face falling comically. Dear, dear, I was counting on you, Harry. Well, now, 
I'll just have to have a word with Severus and explain the situation. I'm sure I'll be able to persuade him to postpone your detention. Yes, I'll see you both later. He bustled away out of the hall. He's got no chance of persuading Snape, said Harry the moment Slughorn was out of earshot. This detention's already been postponed once. Snape did it for Dumbledore, but he won't do it for anyone else. Oh, I wish you could come. I don't want to go on my own, said Hermione anxiously. Harry knew that she was thinking about McLagan. I doubt you'll be alone. Ginny'll probably be invited, snapped Ron, who did not seem to have taken kindly to being ignored by Slughorn. After dinner, they made their way back to Gryffindor Tower. The common room was very crowded, as most people had finished dinner by now, but they managed to find a free table and sat down. Ron, who had been in a bad mood ever since the encounter with Slughorn, folded his arms and frowned at the ceiling. Hermione reached out for a copy of the Evening Prophet, which somebody had left abandoned on a chair. Anything new? said Harry. Not really. Hermione had opened the newspaper and was scanning the inside pages. Oh, look, your dad's in here, Ron. He's all right, she added quickly, for Ron had looked around in alarm. It just says he's been to visit the Malfoy's house. This second search of the Death Eater's residence does not seem to have yielded any results. Arthur Weasley, of the Office for the Detection and Confiscation of Counterfeit Defensive Spells and Protective Objects, said that his team had been acting upon a confidential tip-off. Yeah, mine, said Harry. I told him at King's Cross about Malfoy and that thing he was trying to get Borg in to fix. Well, if it's not at their house, he must have brought whatever it is to Hogwarts with him. But how can he have done, Harry? said Hermione, putting down the newspaper with a surprised look. We were all searched when we arrived, weren't we? Were you? said Harry, taken aback. I wasn't. Oh, no, of course you weren't. I forgot you were late. Well, Filch ran over all of us with secrecy sensors when we got into the entrance hall. Any dark object would have been found. I know for a fact Crab had a shrunken head confiscated. So, you see, Malfoy can't have brought in anything dangerous. Momentarily stymied, Harry watched Ginny Weasley playing with Arnold the Pygmy Puff for a while before seeing a way around this objection. Someone sent it to him by Owl, then, he said. His mother, or someone. All the Owls are being checked, too, said Hermione. Filch told us so when he was jabbing those secrecy sensors everywhere he could reach. Really stumped this time, Harry found nothing else to say. There did not seem to be any way Malfoy could have brought a dangerous or dark object into the school. He looked hopefully at Ron, who was sitting with his arms folded, staring over at Lavender Brown. Can you think of any way Malfoy... Oh, drop it, Harry, said Ron. Listen, it's not my fault Slughorn invited Hermione and me to his stupid party. Neither of us wanted to go, you know said Harry, firing up. Well, as I'm not invited to any parties, said Ron, getting to his feet again, I think I'll go to bed. He stomped off toward the door to the boys' dormitories, leaving Harry and Hermione staring after him. Harry, said the new chaser, Demelza Robbins, appearing suddenly at his shoulder, I've got a message for you. From Professor Slughorn? asked Harry, sitting up hopefully. No, from Professor Snape, said Demelza. 
Harry's heart sank. He says you're to come to his office at half-past eight tonight to do your detention, uh, no matter how many party invitations you've received. And he wanted you to know you'll be sorting out rotten flopper worms from good ones to use in potions, and... And he says there's no need to bring protective gloves. Right, said Harry grimly. Thanks a lot, Demelza. Chapter 12 Silver and Opals Where was Dumbledore, and what was he doing? Harry caught sight of the headmaster only twice over the next few weeks. He rarely appeared at meals anymore, and Harry was sure Hermione was right in thinking that he was leaving the school for days at a time. Had Dumbledore forgotten the lessons he was supposed to be giving Harry? Dumbledore had said that the lessons were leading to something to do with the prophecy. Harry had felt bolstered, comforted, and now he felt slightly abandoned. Halfway through October came their first trip of the term to Hogsmeade. Harry had wondered whether these trips would still be allowed, given the increasingly tight security measures around the school, but was pleased to know that they were going ahead. It was always good to get out of the castle grounds for a few hours. Harry woke early on the morning of the trip, which was proving stormy, and whiled away the time until breakfast by reading his copy of Advanced Potion Making. He did not usually lie in bed reading his textbooks. That sort of behavior, as Ron rightly said, was indecent in anybody except Hermione, who was simply weird that way. Harry felt, however, that the Half-Blood Prince's copy of Advanced Potion Making hardly qualified as a textbook. The more Harry pored over the book, the more he realized how much was in there. Not only the handy hints and shortcuts on potions that were earning him such a glowing reputation with Slughorn, but also the imaginative little jinxes and hexes scribbled in the margins, which Harry was sure, judging by the crossings out and revisions, that the prince had invented himself. Harry had already attempted a few of the prince's self-invented spells. There had been a hex that caused toenails to grow alarmingly fast. He had tried this on Crab in the corridor with very entertaining results. A jinx that glued the tongue to the roof of the mouth, which he had twice used to general applause on an unsuspecting Argus filch. And, perhaps most useful of all, Muffliato a spell that filled the ears of anyone nearby with an unidentifiable buzzing so that lengthy conversations could be held in class without being overheard. The only person who did not find these charms amusing was Hermione, who maintained a rigidly disapproving expression throughout and refused to talk at all if Harry had used the Muffliato spell on anyone in the vicinity. Sitting up in bed, Harry turned the book sideways so as to examine more closely the scribbled instructions for a spell that seemed to have caused the prince some trouble. There were many crossings out and alterations, but finally, crammed into a corner of the page, the scribble, Levicorpus, N-V-B-L. While the wind and sleet pounded relentlessly on the windows and Neville snored loudly, Harry stared at the letters in brackets. N-V-B-L. That had to mean non-verbal. Harry rather doubted he would be able to bring off this particular spell. He was still having difficulty with non-verbal spells, something Snape had been quick to comment on in every D-A-D-A -D -A class. On the other hand, 
The prince had proved a much more effective teacher than Snape so far. Pointing his wand at nothing in particular, he gave it an upward flick and said, Levicorpus, inside his head. Ah! There was a flash of light, and the room was full of voices. Everyone had woken up as Ron had let out a yell. Harry sent advanced potion-making flying in panic. Ron was dangling upside down in midair, as though an invisible hook had hoisted him up by the ankle. Sorry, yelled Harry, as Dean and Seamus roared with laughter, and Neville picked himself up from the floor, having fallen out of bed. Hang on, I'll let you down. He groped for the potion book and riffled through it in panic, trying to find the right page. At last, he located it and deciphered one cramped word underneath the spell. Praying that this was the counterjinx, Harry thought, Liberocorpus, with all his might. There was another flash of light, and Ron fell in a heap onto his mattress. Sorry, repeated Harry weakly, while Dean and Seamus continued to roar with laughter. Tomorrow, said Ron in a muffled voice, I'd rather you set the alarm clock. By the time they had got dressed, padding themselves out with several of Mrs. Weasley's hand-knitted sweaters and carrying cloaks, scarves, and gloves, Ron's shock had subsided, and he had decided that Harry's new spell was highly amusing. So amusing, in fact, that he lost no time in regaling Hermione with the story as they sat down for breakfast. And then there was another flash of light, and I landed on the bed again. Ron grinned, helping himself to sausages. Hermione had not cracked a smile during this anecdote, and now turned an expression of wintry disapproval upon Harry. Was this spell, by any chance, another one from that potion book of yours? She asked. Harry frowned at her. Always jump to the worst conclusion, don't you? Was it? Well, yeah, it was. But so what? So you just decided to try out an unknown, handwritten incantation and see what would happen? Why does it matter if it's handwritten? said Harry, preferring not to answer the rest of the question. Because it's probably not Ministry of Magic approved, said Hermione. And also, she added, as Harry and Ron rolled their eyes, because I'm starting to think this prince character was a bit dodgy. Both Harry and Ron shouted her down at once. It was a laugh, said Ron, upending a ketchup bottle over his sausages. Just a laugh, Hermione, that's all. Dangling people upside down by the ankle, said Hermione. Who puts their time and energy into making up spells like that? Fred and George, said Ron, shrugging. It's their kind of thing. And, uh, my dad, said Harry. He had only just remembered. What? said Ron and Hermione together. My dad used this spell, said Harry. I... Lupin told me. This last part was not true. In fact, Harry had seen his father use the spell on Snape, but he had never told Ron and Hermione about that particular excursion into the pensive. Now, however, a wonderful possibility occurred to him. Could the half-blood prince possibly be... Maybe your dad did use it, Harry, said Hermione, but he's not the only one. We've seen a whole bunch of people use it in case you've forgotten. Dangling people in the air, making them float along, asleep, helpless. Harry stared at her. With a sinking feeling, he too remembered the behavior of the Death Eaters at the Quidditch World Cup. Ron came to his aid. That was different, 
he said robustly. They were abusing it. Harry and his dad were just having a laugh. You don't like the prince, Hermione, he added, pointing a sausage at her sternly, because he's better than you at potions. It's got nothing to do with that, said Hermione, her cheeks reddening. I just think it's very irresponsible to start performing spells when you don't even know what they're for, and stop talking about the prince as if it's his title. I bet it's just a stupid nickname, and it doesn't seem as though he was a very nice person to me. I don't see where you get that from, said Harry heatedly. If he'd been a budding Death Eater, he wouldn't have been boasting about being half-blood, would he? Even as he said it, Harry remembered that his father had been pure blood. But he pushed the thought out of his mind. He would worry about that later. The Death Eaters can't all be pure blood. There aren't enough pure blood wizards left, said Hermione stubbornly. I expect most of them are half-bloods, pretending to be pure. It's only Muggleborns they hate. They'd be quite happy to let you and Ron join up. There's no way they'd let me be a Death Eater said Ron indignantly, a bit of sausage flying off the fork he was now brandishing at Hermione and hitting Ernie Macmillan on the head. My whole family are blood traitors. That's as bad as muggle-borns to Death Eaters. And they'd love to have me, said Harry sarcastically. We'd be best pals if they didn't keep trying to do me in. This made Ron laugh. Even Hermione gave a grudging smile, and a distraction arrived in the shape of Ginny. Hey, Harry, I'm supposed to give you this. It was a scroll of parchment with Harry's name written upon it in familiar, thin, slanting writing. Thanks, Ginny. It's Dumbledore's next lesson. Harry told Ron and Hermione, pulling open the parchment and quickly reading its contents. Monday evening. He felt suddenly light and happy. Want to join us in Hogsmeade, Ginny? he asked. I'm going with Dean. Nice see you there she replied, waving at them as she left. Filch was standing at the oak front doors as usual, checking off the names of people who had permission to go into Hogsmeade. The process took even longer than normal, as Filch was triple-checking everybody with his secrecy sensor. What does it matter if we're smuggling dark stuff out? demanded Ron, eyeing the long, thin secrecy sensor with apprehension. Surely you ought to be checking what we bring back in! His cheek earned him a few extra jabs with the sensor, and he was still wincing as they stepped out into the wind and sleet. The walk into Hogsmeade was not enjoyable. Harry wrapped his scarf over his lower face. The exposed parts soon felt both raw and numb. The road to the village was full of students bent double against the bitter wind. More than once, Harry wondered whether they might not have had a better time in the warm common room. And when they finally reached Hogsmeade and saw that Zonko's joke shop had been boarded up, Harry took it as confirmation that this trip was not destined to be fun. Ron pointed, with a thickly gloved hand, toward Honeydukes, which was mercifully open, and Harry and Hermione staggered in his wake into the crowded shop. Thank God, shivered Ron, as they were enveloped by warm, toffee-scented air. Let's stay here all afternoon. Harry, my boy! said a booming voice from behind them. Oh, no, muttered Harry. The three of them turned to see Professor Slughorn, who was wearing an enormous furry hat and an overcoat with matching fur collar, clutching a large bag of crystallized pineapple and occupying at least a quarter of the shop. 
Harry, that's three of my little suppers you've missed now, said Slughorn, poking him genially in the chest. It won't do, my boy. I'm determined to have you. Miss Granger loves them, don't you? Yes, said Hermione helplessly. They're really... So, why don't you come along, Harry? demanded Slughorn. Well, I've had Quidditch practice, Professor, said Harry, who had indeed been scheduling practices every time Slughorn had sent him a little violet ribbon adorned invitation. This strategy meant that Ron was not left out, and they usually had a laugh with Ginny, imagining Hermione shut up with McLagan and Zabini. Well, I certainly expect you to win your first match after all this hard work, said Slughorn. But a little recreation never hurt anybody. Now, how about Monday night? You can't possibly want to practice in this weather. I can't, Professor. I've got... Uh, an appointment with Professor Dumbledore that evening. Unlucky again, cried Slughorn dramatically. Ah, well, you can't evade me forever, Harry. And with a regal wave, he waddled out of the shop, taking as little notice of Ron as though he had been a display of cockroach clusters. I can't believe you've wriggled out of another one, said Hermione, shaking her head. They're not that bad, you know. They're even quite fun sometimes. But then she caught sight of Ron's expression. Oh, look, they've got deluxe sugar quills. Those would last hours. Glad that Hermione had changed the subject, Harry showed much more interest in the new extra-large sugar quills than he normally would have done, but Ron continued to look moody and merely shrugged when Hermione asked him where he wanted to go next. Let's go to the three broomsticks, said Harry. It'll be warm. They bundled their scarves back over their faces and left the sweet shop. The bitter wind was like knives on their faces after the sugary warmth of Honeydukes. The street was not very busy. Nobody was lingering to chat, just hurrying toward their destinations. The exceptions were two men, a little ahead of them, standing just outside the three broomsticks. One was very tall and thin. Squinting through his rain-washed glasses, Harry recognized the barman who worked in the other Hogsmeade pub, the Hog's Head. As Harry, Ron, and Hermione drew closer, the barman drew his cloak more tightly around his neck and walked away, leaving the shorter man to fumble with something in his arms. They were barely feet from him when Harry realized who the man was. Mundungus! The squat, bandy-legged man with long, straggly ginger hair jumped and dropped an ancient suitcase, which burst open, releasing what looked like the entire contents of a junk shop window. Oh, hello, Harry, said Mundungus Fletcher, with a most unconvincing stab at airiness. Well, don't let me keep you. And he began scrabbling on the ground to retrieve the contents of his suitcase with every appearance of a man eager to be gone. Are you selling this stuff? asked Harry, watching Mundungus grab an assortment of grubby-looking objects from the ground. Oh, well, got to escape a living, said Mundungus. Give me that. Ron had stooped down and picked up something silver. Hang on, Ron said slowly. This looks familiar. Thank you, said Mundungus, snatching the goblet out of Ron's hand and stuffing it back into the case. Well, I'll see you all. Ouch! 
Harry had pinned Mundungus against the wall of the pub by the throat. Holding him fast with one hand, he pulled out his wand. Harry, squealed Hermione. You took that from Sirius's house, said Harry, who was almost nose to nose with Mundungus and was breathing in an unpleasant smell of old tobacco and spirits. That had the Black Family crest on it. I know what, spluttered Mundungus, who was slowly turning purple. What did you do, go back the night he died and strip the place, snarled Harry. I know. Give it to me. Harry, you mustn't, shrieked Hermione as Mundungus started to turn blue. There was a bang, and Harry felt his hands fly off Mundungus's throat. Gasping and spluttering, Mundungus seized his fallen case, then, crack, he disapparated. Harry swore at the top of his voice, spinning on the spot to see where Mundungus had gone. Come back, you thieving! There's no point, Harry. Tonks had appeared out of nowhere, her mousy hair wet with sleet. Mundungus will probably be in London by now. There's no point yelling. He's nicked Sirius's stuff. Nicked it. Yes, but still, said Tonks, who seemed perfectly untroubled by this piece of information. You should get out of the cold. She watched them go through the door of the three broomsticks. The moment he was inside, Harry burst out. He was nicking Sirius's stuff. I know, Harry, but please don't shout. People are staring, whispered Hermione. Go and sit down. I'll get you a drink. Harry was still fuming when Hermione returned to their table a few minutes later, holding three bottles of butterbeer. Can't the Order control Mundungus? Harry demanded of the other two in a furious whisper. Can't they at least stop him stealing everything that's not fixed down when he's at headquarters? Shh, said Hermione desperately, looking around to make sure nobody was listening. There were a couple of warlocks sitting close by who were staring at Harry with great interest, and Zabini was lolling against a pillar not far away. Harry, I'd be annoyed too. I know it's your things he's stealing. Harry gagged on his butterbeer. He had momentarily forgotten that he owned Number 12 Grimauld Place. Yeah, it's my stuff, he said. No wonder he wasn't pleased to see me. Well, I'm going to tell Dumbledore what's going on. He's the only one who scares Mundungus. Good idea, whispered Hermione, clearly pleased that Harry was calming down. Ron, what are you staring at? Nothing, said Ron, hastily looking away from the bar. But Harry knew he was trying to catch the eye of the curvy and attractive barmaid, Madame Rosmerta, for whom he had long nursed a soft spot. I expect nothings in the back getting more fire whiskey, said Hermione waspishly. Ron ignored this jibe, sipping his drink in what he evidently considered to be a dignified silence. Harry was thinking about Sirius and how he had hated those silver goblets anyway. Hermione drummed her fingers on the table, her eyes flickering between Ron and the bar. The moment Harry drained the last drops in his bottle, she said, Shall we call it a day and go back to school then? The other two nodded. It had not been a fun trip, and the weather was getting worse the longer they stayed. Once again they drew their cloaks tightly around them, rearranged their scarves, pulled on their gloves, then followed Katie Bell and a friend out of the pub and back up the high street. Harry's thoughts strayed to Ginny as they trudged up the road to Hogwarts through the frozen slush. 
They had not met up with her, undoubtedly, thought Harry, because she and Dean were cosily closeted in Madame Puddyfoot's tea shop, that haunt of happy couples. Scowling, he bowed his head against the swirling sleet and trudged on. It was a little while before Harry became aware that the voices of Katie Bell and her friend, which were being carried back to him on the wind, had become shriller and louder. Harry squinted at their indistinct figures. The two girls were having an argument about something Katie was holding in her hand. It's nothing to do with you, Leanne, Harry heard Katie say. They rounded a corner in the lane, sleet coming thick and fast, blurring Harry's glasses. Just as he raised a gloved hand to wipe them, Leanne made to grab hold of the package Katie was holding. Katie tugged it back, and the package fell to the ground. At once, Katie rose into the air, not as Ron had done, suspended comically by the ankle, but gracefully, her arms outstretched as though she was about to fly. Yet there was something wrong, something eerie. Her hair was whipped around her by the fierce wind, but her eyes were closed and her face was quite empty of expression. Harry, Ron, Hermione, and Leanne had all halted in their tracks, watching. Then, six feet above the ground, Katie let out a terrible scream. Her eyes flew open, but whatever she could see or whatever she was feeling was clearly causing her terrible anguish. She screamed and screamed. Leanne started to scream too and seized Katie's ankles, trying to tug her back to the ground. Harry, Ron, and Hermione rushed forward to help, but even as they grabbed Katie's legs, she fell on top of them. Harry and Ron managed to catch her, but she was writhing so much they could hardly hold her. Instead, they lowered her to the ground where she thrashed and screamed, apparently unable to recognize any of them. Harry looked around. The landscape seemed deserted. Stay there, he shouted at the others over the howling wind. I'm going for help. He began to sprint toward the school. He had never seen anyone behave as Katie had just behaved and could not think what had caused it. He hurtled around a bend in the lane and collided with what seemed to be an enormous bear on its hind legs. Hagrid, he panted, disentangling himself from the hedgerow into which he had fallen. Harry, said Hagrid, who had sleet trapped in his eyebrows and beard and was wearing his great shaggy beaver-skin coat. Just been visiting Grop. He's coming on so well you wouldn't. Hagrid, someone's hurt back there, or cursed, or something. What? said Hagrid, bending lower to hear what Harry was saying over the raging wind. Someone's been cursed, bellowed Harry. Cursed? Who's been cursed? Not Ron. Hermione? No, it's not them. It's Katie Bell. This way. Together they ran back along the lane. It took them no time to find the little group of people around Katie, who was still writhing and screaming on the ground. Ron, Hermione, and Leanne were all trying to quiet her. Get back, shouted Hagrid. Let me see her. Something's happened to her, sobbed Leanne. I don't know what. Hagrid stared at Katie for a second, then without a word bent down, scooped her into his arms, and ran off toward the castle with her. Within seconds, Katie's piercing screams had died away, and the only sound was the roar of the wind. Hermione hurried over to Katie's wailing friend and put an arm around her. It's Leanne, isn't it? The girl nodded. Did it just happen all of a sudden, or... 
It was when that package tore, sobbed Leanne, pointing at the now sodden brown paper package on the ground, which had split open to reveal a greenish glitter. Ron bent down, his hand outstretched, but Harry seized his arm and pulled him back. Don't touch it! He crouched down. An ornate opal necklace was visible, poking out of the paper. I've seen that before, said Harry, staring at the thing. It was on display in Borgin and Burke's, ages ago. The label said it was cursed. Katie must have touched it. He looked up at Leanne, who had started to shake uncontrollably. How did Katie get hold of this? Well, that's why we were arguing. She came back from the bathroom in the three broomsticks holding it, said it was a surprise for somebody at Hogwarts, and she had to deliver it. She looked all funny when she said it. Oh, no, oh, no. I bet she'd been imperious, and I didn't realize. Leanne shook with renewed sobs. Hermione patted her shoulder gently. She didn't say who'd given it to her, Leanne. No, she wouldn't tell me, and I said she was being stupid and not to take it up to school. But she just wouldn't listen, and, and then I tried to grab it from her, and... and... Leanne let out a wail of despair. We'd better get up to school, said Hermione, her arms still around Leanne. We'll be able to find out how she is. Come on. Harry hesitated for a moment, then pulled his scarf from around his face and, ignoring Ron's gasp, carefully covered the necklace in it and picked it up. We'll need to show this to Madame Pomfrey, he said. As they followed Hermione and Leanne up the road, Harry was thinking furiously. They had just entered the grounds when he spoke, unable to keep his thoughts to himself any longer. Malfoy knows about this necklace. It was in a case at Borgin and Burke's four years ago. I saw him having a good look at it while I was hiding from him and his dad. This is what he was buying that day when we followed him. He remembered it, and he went back for it. I... I don't know, Harry, said Ron hesitantly. Loads of people go to Borgin and Burke's, and didn't that girl say Katie got it in the girls' bathroom? She said she came back from the bathroom with it. She didn't necessarily get it in the bathroom itself. McGonagall, said Ron warningly. Harry looked up. Sure enough, Professor McGonagall was hurrying down the stone steps through swirling sleet to meet them. Hagrid says you four saw what happened to Katie Bell. Upstairs to my office at once, please. What's that you're holding, Potter? It's the thing she touched, said Harry. Good Lord, said Professor McGonagall, looking alarmed as she took the necklace from Harry. No, no, Filch, they're with me, she added hastily, as Filch came shuffling eagerly across the entrance hall, holding his secrecy sensor aloft. Take this necklace to Professor Snape at once, but be sure not to touch it. Keep it wrapped in the scarf. Harry and the others followed Professor McGonagall upstairs and into her office. The sleet-spattered windows were rattling in their frames, and the room was chilly despite the fire crackling in the grate. Professor McGonagall closed the door and swept around her desk to face Harry, Ron, Hermione, and the still-sobbing Leanne. Well, she said sharply, what happened? Haltingly, and with many pauses while she attempted to control her crying, 
Leanne told Professor McGonagall how Katie had gone to the bathroom in the three broomsticks and returned holding the unmarked package, how Katie had seemed a little odd, and how they had argued about the advisability of agreeing to deliver unknown objects, the argument culminating in the tussle over the parcel which tore open. At this point, Leanne was so overcome there was no getting another word out of her. All right, said Professor McGonagall, not unkindly. Go up to the hospital wing, please, Leanne, and get Madame Pomfrey to give you something for shock. When she had left the room, Professor McGonagall turned back to Harry, Ron, and Hermione. What happened when Katie touched the necklace? She rose up in the air, said Harry, before either Ron or Hermione could speak, and then began to scream and collapsed. Professor, can I see Professor Dumbledore, please? The headmaster is away until Monday, Potter said Professor McGonagall, looking surprised. Away? Harry repeated angrily. Yes, Potter, away, said Professor McGonagall tartly. But anything you have to say about this horrible business can be said to me, I'm sure. For a split second, Harry hesitated. Professor McGonagall did not invite confidences. Dumbledore, though in many ways more intimidating, still seemed less likely to scorn a theory, however wild. This was a life-and-death matter, though, and no moment to worry about being laughed at. I think Draco Malfoy gave Katie that necklace, Professor. On one side of him, Ron rubbed his nose in apparent embarrassment. On the other, Hermione shuffled her feet as though quite keen to put a bit of distance between herself and Harry. That is a very serious accusation, Potter, said Professor McGonagall after a shocked pause. Do you have any proof? No, said Harry, but... And he told her about following Malfoy to Borgin and Burks and the conversation they had overheard between him and Mr. Borgin. When he had finished speaking, Professor McGonagall looked slightly confused. Malfoy took something to Borgin and Burks for repair? No, Professor. He just wanted Borgin to tell him how to mend something. He didn't have it with him. But that's not the point. The thing is that he bought something at the same time, and I think it was that necklace. You saw Malfoy leaving the shop with a similar package? No, Professor. He told Borgin to keep it in the shop for him. But Harry, Hermione interrupted, Borgin asked him if he wanted to take it with him, and Malfoy said no. Because he didn't want to touch it, obviously, said Harry angrily. What he actually said was, how would I look carrying that down the street, said Hermione. Well, he would look a bit of a prat carrying a necklace, interjected Ron. Oh, Ron, said Hermione despairingly, it would be all wrapped up, so he wouldn't have to touch it, and quite easy to hide inside a cloak so nobody would see it. I think whatever he reserved at Borgin and Burke's was noisy or bulky, something he knew would draw attention to him if he carried it down the street. And in any case, she pressed on loudly before Harry could interrupt. I asked Borgin about the necklace, don't you remember? When I went in to try and find out what Malfoy had asked him to keep, I saw it there, and Borgin just told me the price. He didn't say it was already sold or anything. Well, you were being really obvious. He realized what you were up to within about five seconds. Of course he wasn't going to tell you. Anyway, Malfoy could have sent off for it since... That's enough! said Professor McGonagall, as Hermione opened her mouth to retort, looking furious. 
Potter, I appreciate you telling me this, but we cannot point the finger of blame at Mr. Malfoy purely because he visited the shop where this necklace might have been purchased. The same is probably true of hundreds of people. That's what I said, muttered Ron. And in any case, we have put stringent security measures in place this year. I do not believe that necklace can possibly have entered this school without our knowledge. But, and what is more, said Professor McGonagall, with an air of awful finality, Mr. Malfoy was not in Hogsmeade today. Harry gaped at her, deflating. How do you know, Professor? Because he was doing detention with me. He has now failed to complete his transfiguration homework twice in a row. So thank you for telling me your suspicions, Potter, she said as she marched past them. But I need to go up to the hospital wing now to check on Katie Bell. Good day to you all. She held open her office door. They had no choice but to file past her without another word. Harry was angry with the other two for siding with McGonagall. Nevertheless, he felt compelled to join in once they started discussing what had happened. So who do you reckon Katie was supposed to give the necklace to? asked Ron as they climbed the stairs to the common room. Goodness only knows, said Hermione, but whoever it was has had a narrow escape. No one could have opened that package without touching the necklace. It could have been meant for loads of people, said Harry. Dumbledore? The Death Eaters would love to get rid of him. He must be one of their top targets. Or Slughorn? Dumbledore reckons Voldemort really wanted him. And they can't be pleased that he's sided with Dumbledore. Or... Or you, said Hermione, looking troubled. Couldn't have been, said Harry. Or Katie would have just turned around in the lane and given it to me, wouldn't she? I was behind her all the way out of the three broomsticks. It would have made much more sense to deliver the parcel outside Hogwarts, what with Filch searching everyone who goes in and out. I wonder why Malfoy told her to take it into the castle. Harry, Malfoy wasn't in Hogsmeade, said Hermione, actually stamping her foot in frustration. He must have used an accomplice then, said Harry. Crab or Goyle, or, come to think of it, another Death Eater. He'll have loads better cronies than Crab and Goyle now he's joined up. Ron and Hermione exchanged looks that plainly said, there's no point arguing with him. Dillygrout, said Hermione firmly as they reached the fat lady. The portrait swung open to admit them to the common room. It was quite full and smelled of damp clothing. Many people seemed to have returned from Hogsmeade early because of the bad weather. There was no buzz of fear or speculation, however. Clearly the news of Katie's fate had not yet spread. It wasn't a very slick attack, really, when you stop to think about it, said Ron, casually turfing a first year out of one of the good armchairs by the fire so that he could sit down. The curse didn't even make it into the castle. Not what you'd call foolproof. You're right, said Hermione, prodding Ron out of the chair with her foot and offering it to the first year again. It wasn't very well thought out at all. But since when has Malfoy been one of the world's great thinkers? asked Harry. Neither Ron nor Hermione answered him. Chapter 13 The Secret Riddle Katie was removed to St. Mungo's Hospital for magical maladies and injuries the following day, by which time the news that she had been cursed had spread all over the school. 
though the details were confused, and nobody other than Harry, Ron, Hermione, and Leanne seemed to know that Katie herself had not been the intended target. Oh, and Malfoy knows, of course, said Harry to Ron and Hermione, who continued their new policy of feigning deafness whenever Harry mentioned his Malfoy-is-a-death-eater theory. Harry had wondered whether Dumbledore would return from wherever he had been in time for Monday night's lesson, but having had no word to the contrary, he presented himself outside Dumbledore's office at eight o'clock, knocked, and was told to enter. There sat Dumbledore, looking unusually tired. His hand was as black and burned as ever, but he smiled when he gestured to Harry to sit down. The pensive was sitting on the desk again, casting silvery specks of light over the ceiling. You have had a busy time while I have been away, Dumbledore said. I believe you witnessed Katie's accident. Yes, sir. How is she? Still very unwell, although she was relatively lucky. She appears to have brushed the necklace with the smallest possible amount of skin. There was a tiny hole in her glove. Had she put it on, had she even held it in her ungloved hand, she would have died, perhaps instantly. Luckily, Professor Snape was able to do enough to prevent a rapid spread of the curse. Why him? asked Harry quickly. Why not Madame Pomfrey? Impertinent, said a soft voice from one of the portraits on the wall. And Phineas Nigellus Black, Sirius's great-great-grandfather, raised his head from his arms where he had appeared to be sleeping. I would not have permitted a student to question the way Hogwarts operated in my day. Yes, thank you, Phineas, said Dumbledore quellingly. Professor Snape knows much more about the dark arts than Madame Pomfrey, Harry. Anyway, the St. Mungo's staff are sending me hourly reports. And I am hopeful that Katie will make a full recovery in time. Where were you this weekend, sir? Harry asked, disregarding a strong feeling that he might be pushing his luck, a feeling apparently shared by Phineas Nigellus, who hissed softly. I would rather not say just now, said Dumbledore. However, I shall tell you in due course. You will? said Harry, startled. Yes, I expect so, said Dumbledore, withdrawing a fresh bottle of silver memories from inside his robes and uncorking it with a prod of his wand. Sir, said Harry tentatively, I met Mundungus in Hogsmeade. Ah, yes, I am already aware that Mundungus has been treating your inheritance with light-fingered contempt, said Dumbledore, frowning a little. He has gone to ground since you accosted him outside the three broomsticks. I rather think he dreads facing me. However, rest assured that he will not be making away with any more of Sirius's old possessions. That mangy old half-blood has been stealing black heirlooms, said Phineas Nigellus incensed, and he stalked out of his frame, undoubtedly to visit his portrait in number twelve, Grimald Place. Professor, said Harry after a short pause, did Professor McGonagall tell you what I told her after Katie got hurt, about Draco Malfoy? She told me of your suspicions, yes, said Dumbledore. And do you— I shall take all appropriate measures to investigate anyone who might have had a hand in Katie's accident, said Dumbledore. But what concerns me now, Harry, is our lesson. Harry felt slightly resentful at this, 
If their lessons were so very important, why had there been such a long gap between the first and second? However, he said no more about Draco Malfoy, but watched as Dumbledore poured the fresh memories into the pensive and began swirling the stone basin once more between his long-fingered hands. You will remember, I am sure, that we left the tale of Lord Voldemort's beginnings at the point where the handsome muggle, Tom Riddle, had abandoned his witch-wife, Merope, and returned to his family home in Little Hangleton. Merope was left alone in London, expecting the baby who would one day become Lord Voldemort. How do you know she was in London, sir? Because of the evidence of one Caractacus Burke said Dumbledore, who, by an odd coincidence, helped found the very shop whence came the necklace we have just been discussing. He swilled the contents of the pensive as Harry had seen him swill them before, much as a gold prospector sifts for gold. Up, out of the swirling silvery mass rose a little old man, revolving slowly in the pensive, silver as a ghost, but much more solid, with a thatch of hair that completely covered his eyes. Yes, we acquired it in curious circumstances. It was brought in by a young witch just before Christmas, oh, many years ago now. She said she needed the gold badly. Well, that much was obvious. Covered in rags and pretty far along. Going to have a baby, see? She said the locket had been Slytherin's. Well, we hear that sort of story all the time. Oh, this was Merlin's, this was his favorite teapot. But when I looked at it... It had his mark all right, and a few simple spells were enough to tell me the truth. Of course, that made it near enough priceless. She didn't seem to have any idea how much it was worth. Happy to get ten galleons for it. Best bargain we ever made. Dumbledore gave the pensive an extra vigorous shake, and Caractacus Burke descended back into the swirling mass of memory from whence he had come. He only gave her ten galleons? said Harry indignantly. Caractacus Burke was not famed for his generosity, said Dumbledore. So we know that near the end of her pregnancy, Merope was alone in London and in desperate need of gold, desperate enough to sell her one and only valuable possession, the locket that was one of Marvolo's treasured family heirlooms. But she could do magic, said Harry impatiently. She could have got food and everything for herself by magic, couldn't she? Ah, said Dumbledore, perhaps she could, but it is my belief, I am guessing again, but I am sure I am right, that when her husband abandoned her, Merope stopped using magic. I do not think that she wanted to be a witch any longer. Of course, it is also possible that her unrequited love and the attendant despair sapped her of her powers. That can happen. In any case, as you are about to see... Merope refused to raise her wand even to save her own life. She wouldn't even stay alive for her son? Dumbledore raised his eyebrows. Could you possibly be feeling sorry for Lord Voldemort? No, said Harry quickly. But she had a choice, didn't she? Not like my mother. Your mother had a choice too, said Dumbledore gently. Yes. Merope Riddle chose death in spite of a son who needed her, but do not judge her too harshly, Harry. She was greatly weakened by long suffering, and she never had your mother's courage. And now, if you will stand. Where are we going? Harry asked as Dumbledore joined him at the front of the desk.
This time, said Dumbledore, we are going to enter my memory. I think you will find it both rich in detail and satisfyingly accurate. After you, Harry. Harry bent over the pensive. His face broke the cool surface of the memory, and then he was falling through darkness again. Seconds later, his feet hit firm ground. He opened his eyes and found that he and Dumbledore were standing in a bustling, old-fashioned London street. There I am, said Dumbledore brightly, pointing ahead of them to a tall figure crossing the road in front of a horse-drawn milk cart. This younger Albus Dumbledore's long hair and beard were auburn. Having reached their side of the street, he strode off along the pavement, drawing many curious glances due to the flamboyantly cut suit of plum velvet that he was wearing. Nice suit, sir, said Harry before he could stop himself, but Dumbledore merely chuckled as they followed his younger self a short distance, finally passing through a set of iron gates into a bare courtyard that fronted a rather grim square building surrounded by high railings. He mounted the few steps leading to the front door and knocked once. After a moment or two, the door was opened by a scruffy girl wearing an apron. Good afternoon. I have an appointment with a Mrs. Cole, who, I believe, is the matron here. Oh, said the bewildered-looking girl, taking in Dumbledore's eccentric appearance. Um, Chasimo, Mrs. Cole! She bellowed over her shoulder. Harry heard a distant voice shouting something in response. The girl turned back to Dumbledore. Come in, she's on her way. Dumbledore stepped into a hallway tiled in black and white. The whole place was shabby but spotlessly clean. Harry and the older Dumbledore followed. Before the front door had closed behind them, a skinny, harassed-looking woman came scurrying toward them. She had a sharp-featured face that appeared more anxious than unkind, and she was talking over her shoulder to another aproned helper as she walked toward Dumbledore. And take the iodine upstairs to Martha. Billy Subs has been picking his cabs, and Eric Wall is oozing all over his sheets. Oh, chicken pox on top of everything else, she said to nobody in particular. And then her eyes fell upon Dumbledore, and she stopped dead in her tracks, looking as astonished as if a giraffe had just crossed her threshold. Good afternoon, said Dumbledore, holding out his hand. Mrs. Cole simply gaped. My name is Albus Dumbledore. I sent you a letter requesting an appointment, and you very kindly invited me here today. Mrs. Cole blinked. Apparently deciding that Dumbledore was not a hallucination, she said feebly, Oh, yes. Well, well then, you'd better come into my room, yes. She led Dumbledore into a small room that seemed part sitting room, part office. It was as shabby as the hallway, and the furniture was old and mismatched. She invited Dumbledore to sit on a rickety chair and seated herself behind a cluttered desk, eyeing him nervously. I am here, as I told you in my letter, to discuss Tom Riddle and arrangements for his future, said Dumbledore. Are you family? asked Mrs. Cole. No, I am a teacher, said Dumbledore. I have come to offer Tom a place at my school. What school's this, then? It is called Hogwarts, said Dumbledore. And how come you're interested in Tom? We believe he has qualities we're looking for. You mean he's won a scholarship? How can he have done? He's never been entered for one. 
Well, his name has been down for our school since birth. Who registered him? His parents? There was no doubt that Mrs. Cole was an inconveniently sharp woman. Apparently Dumbledore thought so too, for Harry now saw him slip his wand out of the pocket of his velvet suit, at the same time picking up a piece of perfectly blank paper from Mrs. Cole's desktop. Here, said Dumbledore, waving his wand once as he passed her the piece of paper. I think this will make everything clear. Mrs. Cole's eyes slid out of focus and back again as she gazed intently at the blank paper for a moment. That seems perfectly in order, she said placidly, handing it back. Then her eyes fell upon a bottle of gin and two glasses that had certainly not been present a few seconds before. Uh, may I offer you a glass of gin, she said in an extra refined voice. Thank you very much said Dumbledore, beaming. It soon became clear that Mrs. Cole was no novice when it came to gin-drinking. Pouring both of them a generous measure, she drained her own glass in one gulp. Smacking her lips frankly, she smiled at Dumbledore for the first time, and he didn't hesitate to press his advantage. I was wondering whether you could tell me anything of Tom Riddle's history. I think he was born here in the orphanage? That's right said Mrs. Cole, helping herself to more gin. I remember it clear as anything, because I just started here myself. New Year's Eve and bitter cold snowing, you know. Nasty night. And this girl, not much older than I was myself at the time, came staggering up the front steps. Well, she wasn't the first. We took her in, and she had the baby within the hour, and she was dead in another hour. Mrs. Cole nodded impressively and took another generous gulp of gin. Did she say anything before she died? asked Dumbledore. Anything about the boy's father, for instance? Now, as it happens, she did, said Mrs. Cole, who seemed to be rather enjoying herself now, with the gin in her hand and an eager audience for her story. I remember she said to me, I hope he looks like his papa. And I won't lie, she was right to hope it, because she was no beauty. And then she told me he was to be named Tom for his father, and Marvolo for her father. Yes, I know, a funny name, isn't it? We wondered whether she came from a circus, and she said the boy's surname was to be Riddle, and she died soon after that without another word. Well, we named him just as she'd said. It seemed so important to the poor girl. But no Tom, nor Marvolo, nor any kind of riddle ever came looking for him, nor any family at all. So he stayed in the orphanage, and he's been here ever since. Mrs. Cole helped herself almost absent-mindedly to another healthy measure of gin. Two pink spots had appeared high on her cheekbones. Then she said, He's a funny boy. Yes, said Dumbledore. I thought he might be. He was a funny baby, too. He hardly ever cried, you know, and then when he got a little older, he was odd. Odd in what way? asked Dumbledore gently. Well, he... But Mrs. Cole pulled up short and there was nothing blurry or vague about the inquisitorial glance she shot Dumbledore over her gin glass. 
He's definitely got a place at your school, you say? Definitely, said Dumbledore. And nothing I say can change that. Nothing, said Dumbledore. You'll be taking him away, whatever? Whatever, repeated Dumbledore gravely. She squinted at him as though deciding whether or not to trust him. Apparently she decided she could, because she said in a sudden rush, He scares the other children. You mean he is a bully? asked Dumbledore. I think he must be, said Mrs. Cole, frowning slightly. But it's very hard to catch him at it. There have been incidents. Nasty things. Dumbledore did not press her, though Harry could tell that he was interested. She took yet another gulp of gin, and her rosy cheeks grew rosier still. Billy Stubbs's rabbit. Well, Tom said he didn't do it, and I don't see how he could have done, but even so, it didn't hang itself from the rafters, did it? I shouldn't think so, no, said Dumbledore quietly. But I'm triggered if I know how he got up there to do it. All I know is he and Billy had argued the day before. And then... Mrs. Cole took another swig of gin, slopping a little over her chin this time. On the summer outing, we take them out, you know, once a year to the countryside or to the seaside. Well, Amy Benson and Dennis Bishop were never quite right afterwards. And all we ever got out of them was that they'd gone into a cave with Tom Riddle. He swore they'd just gone exploring, but something happened in there, I'm sure of it. And, well, there have been a lot of things, funny things. She looked around at Dumbledore again, and though her cheeks were flushed, her gaze was steady. I don't think many people will be sorry to see the back of him. You understand, I'm sure, that we will not be keeping him permanently, said Dumbledore. He will have to return here, at the very least, every summer. Oh, well, that's better than the whack on the nose with a rusty poker, said Mrs. Cole with a slight hiccup. She got to her feet, and Harry was impressed to see that she was quite steady, even though two-thirds of the gin was now gone. I suppose you'd like to see him. Very much, said Dumbledore, rising too. She led him out of her office and up the stone stairs, calling out instructions and admonitions to helpers and children as she passed. The orphans, Harry saw, were all wearing the same kind of greyish tunic. They looked reasonably well cared for, but there was no denying that this was a grim place in which to grow up. Here we are, said Mrs. Cole, as they turned off the second landing and stopped outside the first door in a long corridor. She knocked twice and entered. Tom, you've got a visitor. This is Mr. Dumburton. Sorry, Dunderbore. He's come to tell you... Well, I'll let him do it. Harry and the two Dumbledores entered the room, and Mrs. Cole closed the door on them. It was a small, bare room with nothing in it except an old wardrobe and an iron bedstead. A boy was sitting on top of the grey blankets, his legs stretched out in front of him, holding a book. 
There was no trace of the gaunts in Tom Riddle's face. Merope had got her dying wish. He was his handsome father in miniature, tall for eleven years old, dark-haired and pale. His eyes narrowed slightly as he took in Dumbledore's eccentric appearance. There was a moment's silence. How do you do, Tom? said Dumbledore, walking forward and holding out his hand. The boy hesitated, then took it, and they shook hands. Dumbledore drew up the hard wooden chair beside Riddle, so that the pair of them looked rather like a hospital patient and visitor. I am Professor Dumbledore. Professor? repeated Riddle. He looked wary. Is that like Doctor? What are you here for? Did she get you in to have a look at me? He was pointing at the door through which Mrs. Cole had just left. No, no, said Dumbledore, smiling. I don't believe you, said Riddle. She wants me looked at, doesn't she? Tell the truth! He spoke the last three words with a ringing force that was almost shocking. It was a command, and it sounded as though he had given it many times before. His eyes had widened, and he was glaring at Dumbledore, who made no response except to continue smiling pleasantly. After a few seconds, Riddle stopped glaring, though he looked, if anything, warier still. Who are you? I have told you, my name is Professor Dumbledore, and I work at a school called Hogwarts. I have come to offer you a place at my school, your new school, if you would like to come. Riddle's reaction to this was most surprising. He leapt from the bed and backed away from Dumbledore, looking furious. You can't kid me. The asylum, that's where you're from, isn't it? Professor, yes, of course. Well, I'm not going, see? That old cat's the one who should be in the asylum. I never did anything to little Amy Benson or Dennis Bishop, and you can ask them, they'll tell you. I am not from the asylum, said Dumbledore patiently. I am a teacher, and if you will sit down calmly, I shall tell you about Hogwarts. Of course, if you would rather not come to the school, nobody will force you. I'd like to see them try, sneered Riddle. Hogwarts, Dumbledore went on as though he had not heard Riddle's last words, is a school for people with special abilities. I'm not mad. I know that you are not mad. Hogwarts is not a school for mad people. It is a school of magic. There was silence. Riddle had frozen, his face expressionless, but his eyes were flickering back and forth between each of Dumbledore's, as though trying to catch one of them lying. Magic, he repeated in a whisper. That's right, said Dumbledore. It's, it's magic, what I can do. What is it that you can do? All sorts, breathed Riddle. A flush of excitement was rising up his neck into his hollow cheeks. He looked fevered. I can make things move without touching them. I can make animals do what I want them to do without training them. I can make bad things happen to people who annoy me. I can make them hurt, if I want to. His legs were trembling. He stumbled forward and sat down on the bed again, staring at his hands, his head bowed as though in prayer. I knew I was different, he whispered to his own quivering fingers. I knew I was special, always. I knew there was something. Well, you were quite right, said Dumbledore who was no longer smiling but watching Riddle intently. 
You are a wizard. Riddle lifted his head. His face was transfigured. There was a wild happiness upon it, yet for some reason it did not make him better looking. On the contrary, his finely carved features seemed somehow rougher, his expression almost bestial. Are you a wizard, too? Yes, I am. Prove it, said Riddle at once, in the same commanding tone he had used when he had said, Tell the truth! Dumbledore raised his eyebrows. If, as I take it, you are accepting your place at Hogwarts, of course I am. Then you will address me as Professor or Sir. Riddle's expression hardened for the most fleeting moment before he said in an unrecognizably polite voice, I'm sorry, sir. I meant, please, Professor, could you show me? Harry was sure that Dumbledore was going to refuse, that he would tell Riddle there would be plenty of time for practical demonstrations at Hogwarts, that they were currently in a building full of muggles and must therefore be cautious. To his great surprise, however, Dumbledore drew his wand from an inside pocket of his suit jacket, pointed it at the shabby wardrobe in the corner, and gave the wand a casual flick. The wardrobe burst into flames. Riddle jumped to his feet. Harry could hardly blame him for howling in shock and rage. All his worldly possessions must be in there. But even as Riddle rounded on Dumbledore, the flames vanished, leaving the wardrobe completely undamaged. Riddle stared from the wardrobe to Dumbledore. Then, his expression greedy, he pointed at the wand. Where can I get one of them? All in good time, said Dumbledore. I think there is something trying to get out of your wardrobe. And sure enough, a faint rattling could be heard from inside it. For the first time, Riddle looked frightened. Open the door, said Dumbledore. Riddle hesitated, then crossed the room and threw open the wardrobe door. On the topmost shelf, above a rail of threadbare clothes, a small cardboard box was shaking and rattling as though there were several frantic mice trapped inside it. Take it out, said Dumbledore. Riddle took down the quaking box. He looked unnerved. Is there anything in that box that you ought not to have? asked Dumbledore. Riddle threw Dumbledore a long, clear, calculating look. Yes, I suppose so, sir, he said finally in an expressionless voice. Open it, said Dumbledore. Riddle took off the lid and tipped the contents onto his bed without looking at them. Harry, who had expected something much more exciting, saw a mess of small, everyday objects, a yo-yo, a silver thimble, and a tarnished mouth organ among them. Once free of the box, they stopped quivering and lay quite still upon the thin blankets. You will return them to their owners with your apologies, said Dumbledore calmly, putting his wand back into his jacket. I shall know whether it has been done, and be warned. Thieving is not tolerated at Hogwarts. Riddle did not look remotely abashed. He was still staring coldly and appraisingly at Dumbledore. At last he said in a colorless voice, Yes, sir. At Hogwarts, Dumbledore went on, we teach you not only to use magic, but to control it. You have, inadvertently, I am sure, been using your powers in a way that is neither taught nor tolerated at our school. You are not the first, nor will you be the last, to allow your magic to run away with you. 
But you should know that Hogwarts can expel students. And the Ministry of Magic, yes, there is a ministry, will punish lawbreakers still more severely. All new wizards must accept that. In entering our world, they abide by our laws. Yes, sir, said Riddle again. It was impossible to tell what he was thinking. His face remained quite blank as he put the little cache of stolen objects back into the cardboard box. When he had finished, he turned to Dumbledore and said baldly, I haven't got any money. That is easily remedied, said Dumbledore, drawing a leather money pouch from his pocket. There is a fund at Hogwarts for those who require assistance to buy books and robes. You might have to buy some of your spell books and so on second hand, but where do you buy spell books? interrupted Riddle, who had taken the heavy money bag without thanking Dumbledore, and was now examining a fat gold galleon. In Diagon Alley, said Dumbledore. I have your list of books and school equipment with me. I can help you find everything. You're coming with me? asked Riddle, looking up. Certainly, if you— I don't need you, said Riddle. I'm used to doing things for myself. I go round London on my own all the time. How do you get to this diagonally, sir? He added, catching Dumbledore's eye. Harry thought that Dumbledore would insist upon accompanying Riddle, but once again he was surprised. Dumbledore handed Riddle the envelope containing his list of equipment, and after telling Riddle exactly how to get to the leaky cauldron from the orphanage, he said, You will be able to see it, although muggles around you, non-magical people, that is, will not. Ask for Tom the barman. Easy enough to remember, as he shares your name. Riddle gave an irritable twitch, as though trying to displace an irksome fly. You dislike the name, Tom? There are a lot of Toms, muttered Riddle. Then, as though he could not suppress the question, as though it burst from him in spite of himself, he asked, Was my father a wizard? He was called Tom Riddle, too, they've told me. I'm afraid I don't know, said Dumbledore, his voice gentle. My mother can't have been magic or she wouldn't have died, said Riddle, more to himself than Dumbledore. It must have been him. So, when I've got all my stuff, when do I come to this Hogwarts? All the details are on the second piece of parchment in your envelope, said Dumbledore. You will leave from King's Cross Station on the 1st of September— there is a train ticket in there, too. Riddle nodded. Dumbledore got to his feet and held out his hand again. Taking it, Riddle said, I can speak to snakes. I found out when we've been to the country on trips. They find me. They whisper to me. Is that normal for a wizard? Harry could tell that he had withheld mention of this stranger's power until that moment, determined to impress. It is... Unusual, said Dumbledore, after a moment's hesitation, but not unheard of. His tone was casual, but his eyes moved curiously over Riddle's face. They stood for a moment, man and boy, staring at each other. Then the handshake was broken. Dumbledore was at the door. Goodbye, Tom. I shall see you at Hogwarts. I think that will do, said the white-haired Dumbledore at Harry's side and seconds later they were soaring weightlessly through darkness once more before landing squarely in the present-day office.
Sit down, said Dumbledore, landing beside Harry. Harry obeyed, his mind still full of what he had just seen. He believed it much quicker than I did. I mean, when you told him he was a wizard, said Harry. I didn't believe Hagrid at first when he told me. Yes, Riddle was perfectly ready to believe that he was, to use his word, special, said Dumbledore. Did you know, then? asked Harry. Did I know that I had just met the most dangerous dark wizard of all time? said Dumbledore. No, I had no idea that he was to grow up to be what he is. However, I was certainly intrigued by him. I returned to Hogwarts intending to keep an eye upon him, something I should have done in any case given that he was alone and friendless, but which, already, I felt I ought to do for others' sake as much as his. His powers, as you heard, were surprisingly well developed for such a young wizard, and, most interestingly and ominously of all, he had already discovered that he had some measure of control over them and begun to use them consciously. And, as you saw, they were not the random experiments typical of young wizards. He was already using magic against other people, to frighten, to punish, to control. The little stories of the strangled rabbit and the young boy and girl he lured into a cave were most suggestive. I can make them hurt if I want to. And he was a parcel mouth, interjected Harry. Yes, indeed. A rare ability, and one supposedly connected with the dark arts. Although, as we know, there are parcel mouths among the great and the good, too. In fact, his ability to speak to serpents did not make me nearly as uneasy as his obvious instincts for cruelty, secrecy, and domination. Time is making fools of us again, said Dumbledore, indicating the dark sky beyond the windows. But before we part, I want to draw your attention to certain features of the scene we have just witnessed, for they have a great bearing on the matters we shall be discussing in future meetings. Firstly, I hope you noticed Riddle's reaction when I mentioned that another shared his first name, Tom. Harry nodded. There, he showed his contempt for anything that tied him to other people, anything that made him ordinary. Even then he wished to be different, separate, notorious. He shed his name, as you know, within a few short years of that conversation, and created the mask of Lord Voldemort, behind which he has been hidden for so long. I trust that you also noticed that Tom Riddle was already highly self-sufficient, secretive, and apparently friendless. He did not want help or companionship on his trip to Diagon Alley. He preferred to operate alone. The adult, Voldemort, is the same. You will hear many of his Death Eaters claiming that they are in his confidence, that they alone are close to him, even understand him. They are deluded. Lord Voldemort has never had a friend, nor do I believe that he has ever wanted one. And, lastly, I hope you are not too sleepy to pay attention to this, Harry. The young Tom Riddle liked to collect trophies. You saw the box of stolen articles he had hidden in his room. These were taken from victims of his bullying behavior, souvenirs, if you will, of particularly unpleasant bits of magic. Bear in mind this magpie-like tendency, for this particularly will be important later. And now, it really is time for bed. Harry got to his feet. 
As he walked across the room, his eyes fell upon the little table on which Marvolo Gaunt's ring had rested last time, but the ring was no longer there. Yes, Harry, said Dumbledore, for Harry had come to a halt. The ring's gone, said Harry, looking around. But I thought you might have the mouth organ, or something. Dumbledore beamed at him, peering over the top of his half-moon spectacles. Very astute, Harry. But the mouth organ was only ever a mouth organ. And on that enigmatic note, he waved to Harry, who understood himself to be dismissed. Chapter 14 Felix Felicis Harry had Herbology first thing the following morning. He had been unable to tell Ron and Hermione about his lesson with Dumbledore over breakfast for fear of being overheard, but he filled them in as they walked across the vegetable patch toward the greenhouses. The weekend's brutal wind had died out at last, the weird mist had returned, and it took them a little longer than usual to find the correct greenhouse. Wow, scary thought. The boy, you know who said Ron quietly, as they took their places around one of the gnarled Snargaluff stumps that formed this term's project, and began pulling on their protective gloves. But I still don't get why Dumbledore's showing you all this. I mean, it's really interesting and everything, but what's the point? Dunno, said Harry, inserting a gum shield. But he says it's all important, and it'll help me survive. I think it's fascinating, said Hermione earnestly. It makes absolute sense to know as much about Voldemort as possible. How else will you find out his weaknesses? So, how was Slughorn's latest party? Harry asked her thickly through the gum shield. Oh, it was quite fun, really, said Hermione, now putting on protective goggles. I mean, he drones on about famous ex-pupils a bit, and he absolutely fawns on McLagan because he's so well-connected, but he gave us some really nice food and he introduced us to Gwenog Jones. Gwenog Jones, said Ron, his eyes widening under his own goggles. The Gwenog Jones? Captain of the Holyhead Harpies? That's right, said Hermione. Personally, I thought she was a bit full of herself, but... Quite enough chat over here, said Professor Sprout briskly, bustling over and looking stern. You're lagging behind. Everybody else has started and Neville's already got his first pod. They looked around. Sure enough, there sat Neville with a bloody lip and several nasty scratches along the side of his face, but clutching an unpleasantly pulsating green object about the size of a grapefruit. Okay, Professor, we're starting now, said Ron, adding quietly when she had turned away again. Should have used Muffliato, Harry. No, we shouldn't said Hermione at once, looking, as she always did, intensely cross at the thought of the half-blood prince and his spells. Well, come on, we'd better get going. She gave the other two an apprehensive look. They all took deep breaths and then dived at the gnarled stump between them. It sprang to life at once. Long, prickly, bramble-like vines flew out of the top and whipped through the air. One tangled itself in Hermione's hair and Ron beat it back with a pair of secateurs. Harry succeeded in trapping a couple of vines and knotting them together. A hole opened in the middle of all the tentacle-like branches. Hermione plunged her arm bravely into this hole, which closed like a trap around her elbow. Harry and Ron tugged and wrenched at the vines, forcing the hole to open again, and Hermione snatched her arm free, clutching in her fingers a pod just like Neville's. 
At once, the prickly vines shot back inside, and the gnarled stump sat there, looking like an innocently dead lump of wood. You know, I don't think I'll be having any of these in my garden when I've got my own place, said Ron, pushing his goggles up onto his forehead and wiping sweat from his face. Pass me a bowl, said Hermione, holding the pulsating pod at arm's length. Harry handed one over, and she dropped the pod into it with a look of disgust on her face. Don't be squeamish. Squeeze it out. They're best when they're fresh, called Professor Sprout. Anyway, said Hermione, continuing their interrupted conversation as though a lump of wood had not just attacked them. Slughorn's going to have a Christmas party, Harry, and there's no way you'll be able to wriggle out of this one because he actually asked me to check your free evenings so he could be sure to have it on a night you can come. Harry groaned. Meanwhile, Ron, who was attempting to burst the pod in the bowl by putting both hands on it, standing up and squashing it as hard as he could, said angrily, And this is another party just for Slughorn's favorites, is it? Just for the Slug Club, yes, said Hermione. The pod flew out from under Ron's fingers and hit the greenhouse glass, rebounding onto the back of Professor Sprout's head and knocking off her old patched hat. Harry went to retrieve the pod. When he got back, Hermione was saying, Look, I didn't make up the name Slug Club. Slug Club, repeated Ron with a sneer worthy of Malfoy. It's pathetic. Well, I hope you enjoy your party. Why don't you try hooking up with McLagan? Then Slughorn can make you king and queen, Slug. We're allowed to bring guests, said Hermione, who for some reason had turned a bright boiling scarlet. And I was going to ask you to come. But if you think it's that stupid, then I won't bother. Harry suddenly wished the pod had flown a little farther so that he need not have been sitting here with a pair of them. Unnoticed by either, he seized the bowl that contained the pod and began to try and open it by the noisiest and most energetic means he could think of. Unfortunately, he could still hear every word of their conversation. You were going to ask me? asked Ron in a completely different voice. Yes, said Hermione angrily. But obviously, if you'd rather I hooked up with McLagan. There was a pause while Harry continued to pound the resilient pod with a trowel. No, I wouldn't, said Ron in a very quiet voice. Harry missed the pod, hit the bowl, and shattered it. Repero, he said hastily, poking the pieces with his wand, and the bowl sprang back together again. The crash, however, appeared to have awoken Ron and Hermione to Harry's presence. Hermione looked flustered and immediately started fussing about for her copy of Flesh-Eating Trees of the World to find out the correct way to juice Snargaluff pods. Ron, on the other hand, looked sheepish, but also rather pleased with himself. Hand that over, Harry, said Hermione hurriedly. It says we're supposed to puncture them with something sharp. Harry passed to the pod in the bowl. He and Ron both snapped their goggles back over their eyes and dived once more for the stump. It was not as though he was really surprised, thought Harry, as he wrestled with a thorny vine intent upon throttling him. He had had an inkling that this might happen sooner or later, but he was not sure how he felt about it. He and Cho were now too embarrassed to look at each other, let alone talk to each other. What if Ron and Hermione started going out together, then split up? Could their friendship survive it? Harry remembered the few weeks when they had not been talking to each other in the third year. He had not enjoyed trying to bridge the distance between them, and then, 
What if they didn't split up? What if they became like Bill and Fleur, and it became excruciatingly embarrassing to be in their presence, so that he was shut out for good? Gotcha! yelled Ron, pulling a second pod from the stump, just as Hermione managed to burst the first one open, so that the bowl was full of tubers wriggling like pale green worms. The rest of the lesson passed without further mention of Slughorn's party. Although Harry watched his two friends more closely over the next few days, Ron and Hermione did not seem any different, except that they were a little politer to each other than usual. Harry supposed he would just have to wait to see what happened under the influence of butterbeer in Slughorn's dimly lit room on the night of the party. In the meantime, however, he had more pressing worries. Katie Bell was still in St. Mungo's Hospital with no prospect of leaving, which meant that the promising Gryffindor team Harry had been training so carefully since September was one chaser short. He kept putting off replacing Katie in the hope that she would return, but their opening match against Slytherin was looming, and he finally had to accept that she would not be back in time to play. Harry did not think he could stand another full-house tryout. With a sinking feeling that had little to do with Quidditch, he cornered Dean Thomas after Transfiguration one day. Most of the class had already left, although several twittering yellow birds were still zooming around the room, all of Hermione's creation. Nobody else had succeeded in conjuring so much as a feather from thin air. Are you still interested in playing Chaser? What? Yeah, of course, said Dean excitedly. Over Dean's shoulder, Harry saw Seamus Finnegan slamming his books into his bag, looking sour. One of the reasons why Harry would have preferred not to have to ask Dean to play was that he knew Seamus would not like it. On the other hand, he had to do what was best for the team, and Dean had outflown Seamus at the tryouts. Well then, you're in, said Harry. There's a practice tonight, seven o'clock. Right, said Dean. Cheers, Harry. Blimey, I can't wait to tell Ginny. He sprinted out of the room, leaving Harry and Seamus alone together. An uncomfortable moment made no easier when a bird dropping landed on Seamus's head as one of Hermione's canaries whizzed over them. Seamus was not the only person disgruntled by the choice of Katie's substitute. There was much muttering in the common room about the fact that Harry had now chosen two of his classmates for the team. As Harry had endured much worse mutterings than this in his school career, he was not particularly bothered. But, all the same, the pressure was increasing to provide a win in the upcoming match against Slytherin. If Gryffindor won, Harry knew that the whole house would forget that they had criticized him and swear that they had always known it was a great team. If they lost, well, Harry thought wryly, he had still endured worse mutterings. Harry had no reason to regret his choice once he saw Dean fly that evening. He worked well with Ginny and Demelza. The Beaters, Peaks and Coot were getting better all the time. The only problem was Ron. Harry had known all along that Ron was an inconsistent player who suffered from nerves and a lack of confidence, and unfortunately the looming prospect of the opening game of the season seemed to have brought out all his old insecurities. After letting in half a dozen goals, most of them scored by Ginny, his technique became wilder and wilder until he finally punched an oncoming Demelza Robbins in the mouth. It was an accident, I'm sorry, Demelza, really, sorry. Ron shouted after her as she zigzagged back to the ground, dripping blood everywhere. I just panicked, Ginny said angrily, landing next to Demelza and examining her fat lip. You prat, Ron. Look at the state of her. I can fix that, 
said Harry, landing beside the two girls, pointing his wand at Demelza's mouth and saying, A pisky! And Ginny, don't call Ron a prat. You're not the captain of this team. Well, you seem too busy to call him a prat, and I thought someone should. Harry forced himself not to laugh. In the air, everyone, let's go! Overall, it was one of the worst practices they had had all term, though Harry did not feel that honesty was the best policy when they were this close to the match. Good work, everyone, I think we'll flatten Slytherin, he said bracingly, and the chasers and beaters left the changing room looking reasonably happy with themselves. I played like a sack of dragon dung, said Ron in a hollow voice when the door had swung shut behind Ginny. No, you didn't said Harry firmly. You're the best keeper I tried out, Ron. Your only problem is nerves. He kept up a relentless flow of encouragement all the way back to the castle, and by the time they reached the second floor, Ron was looking marginally more cheerful. When Harry pushed open the tapestry to take their usual shortcut up to Gryffindor Tower, however, they found themselves looking at Dean and Ginny, who were locked in a close embrace and kissing fiercely as though glued together. It was as though something large and scaly erupted into life in Harry's stomach, clawing at his insides. Hot blood seemed to flood his brain so that all thought was extinguished, replaced by a savage urge to jinx Dean into a jelly. Wrestling with this sudden madness, he heard Ron's voice as though from a great distance away. Oi! Dean and Ginny broke apart and looked around. What? said Ginny. I don't want to find my own sister snogging people in public. This was a deserted corridor till you came butting in, said Ginny. Dean was looking embarrassed. He gave Harry a shifty grin, but Harry did not return, as the newborn monster inside him was roaring for Dean's instant dismissal from the team. Uh, come on, Ginny, said Dean. Let's go back to the common room. You go, said Ginny. I want a word with my dear brother. Dean left, looking as though he was not sorry to depart the scene. Right, said Ginny, tossing her long red hair out of her face and glaring at Ron. Let's get this straight once and for all. It is none of your business who I go out with or what I do with them, Ron. Yeah, it is, said Ron, just as angrily. Do you think I want people saying my sister's a... A what? shouted Ginny, drawing her wand. A what? Exactly. He doesn't mean anything, Ginny said Harry automatically, though the monster was roaring its approval of Ron's words. Oh, yes, he does, she said, flaring up at Harry. Just because he's never snogged anyone in his life, just because the best kiss he's ever had is from our Auntie Muriel. Shut your mouth, bellowed Ron, bypassing Red and turning maroon. No, I will not, yelled Ginny beside herself. I've seen you with phlegm, hoping she'll kiss you on the cheek every time you see her. It's pathetic. If you went out and got a bit of snogging done yourself, you wouldn't mind so much that everyone else does it. Ron had pulled out his wand, too. Harry stepped swiftly between them. You don't know what you're talking about, Ron roared, trying to get a clear shot at Ginny around Harry, who was now standing in front of her with his arms outstretched. Just because I don't do it in public! Ginny screamed with derisive laughter, trying to push Harry out of the way. Been kissing Pigwidge, Jean, have you? Or have you got a picture of Auntie Muriel stashed under your pillow? You! A streak of orange light flew under Harry's left arm and missed Ginny by inches. 
Harry pushed Ron up against the wall. Don't be stupid! Harry's snogged Cho Chang! shouted Ginny, who sounded close to tears now. And Hermione's snogged Victor Crumb! It's only you who acts like it's something disgusting, Ron, and that's because you've got about as much experience as a twelve-year-old. And with that, she stormed away. Harry quickly let go of Ron. The look on his face was murderous. They both stood there, breathing heavily, until Mrs. Norris, Filch's cat, appeared around the corner, which broke the tension. Come on, said Harry, as the sound of Filch's shuffling feet reached their ears. They hurried up the stairs and along a seventh-floor corridor. Oi, out of the way! Ron barked at a small girl who jumped in fright and dropped a bottle of toadspawn. Harry hardly noticed the sound of shattering glass. He felt disoriented, dizzy. Being struck by a lightning bolt must be something like this. It's just because she's Ron's sister, he told himself. You just didn't like seeing her kissing Dean, because she's Ron's sister. But unbidden into his mind came an image of that same deserted corridor, with himself kissing Ginny instead. The monster in his chest purred. But then he saw Ron ripping open the tapestry curtain and drawing his wand on Harry, shouting things like, Betrayal of trust, supposed to be my friend. Do you think Hermione did snog Crumb? Ron asked abruptly as they approached the fat lady. Harry gave a guilty start and wrenched his imagination away from a corridor in which no Ron intruded, in which he and Ginny were quite alone. What? he said confusedly. Oh, uh... The honest answer was yes, but he did not want to give it. However, Ron seemed to gather the worst from the look on Harry's face. Dilly Grout, he said darkly to the fat lady, and they climbed through the portrait hole into the common room. Neither of them mentioned Ginny or Hermione again. Indeed, they barely spoke to each other that evening and got into bed in silence, each absorbed in his own thoughts. Harry lay awake for a long time, looking up at the canopy of his four-poster and trying to convince himself that his feelings for Ginny were entirely elder brotherly. They had lived, had they not, like brother and sister all summer, playing Quidditch, teasing Ron, and having a laugh about Bill and Flem. He had known Ginny for years now. It was natural that he should feel protective, natural that he should want to look out for her, want to rip Dean limb from limb for kissing her. No, he would have to control that particular brotherly feeling. Ron gave a great grunting snore. She's Ron's sister, Harry told himself firmly. Ron's sister! She's out of bounds! He would not risk his friendship with Ron for anything. He punched his pillow into a more comfortable shape and waited for sleep to come, trying his utmost not to allow his thoughts to stray anywhere near Ginny. Harry awoke next morning feeling slightly dazed and confused by a series of dreams in which Ron had chased him with a beater's bat. But by midday, he would have happily exchanged the dream Ron for the real one, who was not only cold-shouldering Ginny and Dean, but also treating a hurt and bewildered Hermione with an icy, sneering indifference. What was more, Ron seemed to have become, overnight, as touchy and ready to lash out as the average blast-ended scrut. Harry spent the day attempting to keep the peace between Ron and Hermione with no success. Finally, Hermione departed for bed in high dudgeon, and Ron stalked off to the boys' dormitory after swearing angrily at several frightened first years for looking at him.
To Harry's dismay, Ron's new aggression did not wear off over the next few days. Worse still, it coincided with an even deeper dip in his keeping skills, which made him still more aggressive, so that during the final Quidditch practice before Saturday's match, he failed to save every single goal the chasers aimed at him, but bellowed at everybody so much that he reduced Demelza Robbins to tears. You shut up and leave her alone, shouted Peeks, who was about two-thirds Ron's height, though admittedly carrying a heavy bat. Enough, bellowed Harry, who had seen Ginny glowering in Ron's direction and, remembering her reputation as an accomplished caster of the bat-bogey hex, soared over to intervene before things got out of hand. Peeks, go and pack up the bludgers. Demelza, pull yourself together. You played really well today. Ron, he waited until the rest of the team were out of earshot before saying it. You're my best mate, but carry on treating the rest of them like this and I'm going to kick you off the team. He really thought for a moment that Ron might hit him, but then something much worse happened. Ron seemed to sag on his broom. All the fight went out of him, and he said, I resign. I'm pathetic. You're not pathetic! And you're not resigning, said Harry fiercely, seizing Ron by the front of his robes. You can save anything when you're on form. It's a mental problem you've got. You calling me mental? Yeah, maybe I am. They glared at each other for a moment. Then Ron shook his head wearily. I know you haven't got any time to find another keeper, so I'll play tomorrow. But if we lose, and we will, I'm taking myself off the team. Nothing Harry said made any difference. He tried boosting Ron's confidence all through dinner, but Ron was too busy being grumpy and surly with Hermione to notice. Harry persisted in the common room that evening, but his assertion that the whole team would be devastated if Ron left was somewhat undermined by the fact that the rest of the team was sitting in a huddle in a distant corner, clearly muttering about Ron and casting him nasty looks. Finally, Harry tried getting angry again in the hope of provoking Ron into a defiant and hopefully goal-saving attitude, but this strategy did not appear to work any better than encouragement. Ron went to bed as dejected and hopeless as ever. Harry lay awake for a very long time in the darkness. He did not want to lose the upcoming match. Not only was it his first as captain, but he was determined to beat Draco Malfoy at Quidditch, even if he could not yet prove his suspicions about him. Yet if Ron played as he had done in the last few practices, their chances of winning were very slim. If only there was something he could do to make Ron pull himself together, make him play at the top of his form, something that would ensure that Ron had a really good day. And the answer came to Harry in one sudden glorious stroke of inspiration. Breakfast was the usual excitable affair next morning. The Slytherins hissed and booed loudly as every member of the Gryffindor team entered the Great Hall. Harry glanced at the ceiling and saw a clear, pale blue sky, a good omen. The Gryffindor table, a solid mass of red and gold, cheered as Harry and Ron approached. Harry grinned and waved. Ron grimaced weakly and shook his head. Cheer up, Ron, called Lavender. I know you'll be brilliant. Ron ignored her. Tea? Harry asked him. Coffee? Pumpkin juice? Anything, 
said Ron glumly, taking a moody bite of toast. A few minutes later, Hermione, who had become so tired of Ron's recent unpleasant behavior that she had not come down to breakfast with them, paused on her way up the table. How are you both feeling? she asked tentatively, her eyes on the back of Ron's head. Fine, said Harry, who was concentrating on handing Ron a glass of pumpkin juice. There you go, Ron. Drink up. Ron had just raised the glass to his lips when Hermione spoke sharply. Don't drink that, Ron. Both Harry and Ron looked up at her. Why not? said Ron. Hermione was now staring at Harry as though she could not believe her eyes. You just put something in that drink. Excuse me? said Harry. You heard me. I saw you. You just tipped something into Ron's drink. You've got the bottle in your hand right now. I don't know what you're talking about, said Harry, stowing the little bottle hastily in his pocket. Ron, I warn you, don't drink it, Hermione said again, alarmed. But Ron picked up the glass, drained it in one gulp, and said, Stop bossing me around, Hermione. She looked scandalized. Bending low so that only Harry could hear her, she hissed, You should be expelled for that. I'd never have believed it of you, Harry. Hark who's talking, he whispered back. Confounded anyone lately? She stormed up the table away from them. Harry watched her go without regret. Hermione had never really understood what a serious business Quidditch was. He then looked around at Ron, who was smacking his lips. Nearly time, said Harry blithely. The frosty grass crunched underfoot as they strode down to the stadium. Pretty lucky the weather's this good, eh? Harry asked Ron. Yeah, said Ron, who was pale and sick-looking. Ginny and Demelza were already wearing their Quidditch robes and waiting in the changing room. Conditions look ideal, said Ginny, ignoring Ron. And guess what? That Slytherin chaser, Vasey, he took a bludger in the head yesterday during their practice, and he's too sore to play. And even better than that, Malfoy's gone off sick too. What? said Harry, wheeling around to stare at her. He's ill? What's wrong with him? No idea. But it's great for us, said Ginny brightly. They're playing Harper instead. He's in my year and he's an idiot. Harry smiled back vaguely. But as he pulled on his scarlet robes, his mind was far from Quidditch. Malfoy had once before claimed he could not play due to injury, but on that occasion he had made sure the whole match was rescheduled for a time that suited the Slytherins better. Why was he now happy to let a substitute go on? Was he really ill, or was he faking? Fishy, isn't it? He said in an undertone to Ron, Malfoy not playing. Lucky, I call it said Ron, looking slightly more animated. And Vasey off, too. He's their best goal-scorer. I didn't fancy... Hey, he said suddenly, freezing halfway through pulling on his keeper's gloves and staring at Harry. What? I... you... Ron had dropped his voice and looked both scared and excited. My drink. My pumpkin juice. You didn't... Harry raised his eyebrows, but said nothing except... We'll be starting in about five minutes. You better get your boots on. They walked out onto the pitch to tumultuous roars and boos. One end of the stadium was solid red and gold, the other a sea of green and silver. Many Hufflepuffs and Ravenclaws had taken sides, too, 
Amidst all the yelling and clapping, Harry could distinctly hear the roar of Luna Lovegood's famous lion-topped hat. Harry stepped up to Madam Hooch, the referee, who was standing ready to release the balls from the crate. Captain's shakehands, she said, and Harry had his hand crushed by the new Slytherin captain, Urquhart. Mount your brooms, on the whistle, three, two, one. The whistle sounded. Harry and the others kicked off hard from the frozen ground, and they were away. Harry soared around the perimeter of the grounds, looking around for the snitch and keeping one eye on Harper, who was zigzagging far below him. Then a voice that was jarringly different to the usual commentators started up. Well, there they go, and I think we're all surprised to see the team that Potter's put together this year. Many thought, given Ronald Weasley's patchy performance as keeper last year, that he might be off the team. But of course, a close personal friendship with the captain does help. These words were greeted with jeers and applause from the Slytherin end of the pitch. Harry craned around on his broom to look toward the commentator's podium. A tall, skinny, blonde boy with an upturned nose was standing there, talking into the magical megaphone that had once been Lee Jordan's. Harry recognized Zacharias Smith, a Hufflepuff player whom he heartily disliked. Oh, and here comes Slytherin's first attempt on goal. It's Urquhart streaking down the pitch and... Harry's stomach turned over. Weasley saves it well. He's bound to get lucky sometimes, I suppose. That's right, Smith, he is, muttered Harry, grinning to himself as he dived amongst the chasers with his eyes searching all around for some hint of the elusive snitch. With half an hour of the game gone, Gryffindor were leading sixty points to zero. Ron having made some truly spectacular saves, some by the very tips of his gloves, and Ginny having scored four of Gryffindor's six goals. This effectively stopped Zacharias wondering loudly whether the two Weasleys were only there because Harry liked them, and he started on Peaks and Coot instead. Of course, Coot isn't really the usual build for a beater, said Zacharias loftily. They've generally got a bit more muscle. Hit a bludger at him, Harry called to Coot as he zoomed past, but Coot, grinning broadly, chose to aim the next bludger at Harper instead who was just passing Harry in the opposite direction. Harry was pleased to hear the dull thunk that meant the bludger had found its mark. It seemed as though Gryffindor could do no wrong. Again and again they scored, and again and again, at the other end of the pitch, Ron saved goals with apparent ease. He was actually smiling now, and when the crowd greeted a particularly good save with a rousing chorus of the old favorite, Weasley is our king, he pretended to conduct them from on high. Thinks he's something special today, doesn't he? said a snide voice, and Harry was nearly knocked off his broom as Harper collided with him hard and deliberately. Your blood traitor, pal! Madam Hooch's back was turned, and though Gryffindor's below shouted in anger, by the time she looked around, Harper had already sped off. His shoulder aching, Harry raced after him, determined to ram him back. And I think Harper of Slytherin's seen the snitch, said Zacharias Smith through his megaphone. Yes, he's certainly seen something Potter hasn't. Smith really was an idiot, thought Harry. Hadn't he noticed them collide? But next moment, his stomach seemed to drop out of the sky. Smith was right, and Harry was wrong. Harper had not sped upward at random. He had spotted what Harry had not. 
The snitch was speeding along high above them, glinting brightly against the clear blue sky. Harry accelerated. The wind was whistling in his ears so that it drowned all sound of Smith's commentary or the crowd. But Harper was still ahead of him, and Gryffindor was only a hundred points up. If Harper got there first, Gryffindor had lost. And now Harper was feet from it, his hand outstretched. Oi, Harper! yelled Harry in desperation. How much did Malfoy pay you to come on instead of him? He did not know what made him say it, but Harper did a double take. He fumbled the snitch, let it slip through his fingers, and shot right past it. Harry made a great swipe for the tiny fluttering ball and caught it. Yes! Harry yelled. Wheeling around, he hurtled back toward the ground, the snitch held high in his hand. As the crowd realized what had happened, a great shout went up that almost drowned the sound of the whistle that signaled the end of the game. Ginny, where are you going? yelled Harry, who had found himself trapped in the midst of a mass mid-air hug with the rest of the team. But Ginny sped right on past them until, with an almighty crash, she collided with the commentator's podium. As the crowd shrieked and laughed, the Gryffindor team landed beside the wreckage of wood under which Zacharias was feebly stirring. Harry heard Ginny saying blithely to an irate Professor McGonagall, Forgot to break, Professor. Sorry. Laughing, Harry broke free of the rest of the team and hugged Ginny, but let go very quickly. Avoiding her gaze, he clapped a cheering Ron on the back instead as, all enmity forgotten, the Gryffindor team left the pitch, arm in arm, punching the air and waving to their supporters. The atmosphere in the changing room was jubilant. Party up in the common room, Seamus said, yelled Dean exuberantly. Come on, Ginny, to Melza. Ron and Harry were the last two in the changing room. They were just about to leave when Hermione entered. She was twisting her Gryffindor scarf in her hands and looked upset but determined. I want a word with you, Harry. She took a deep breath. You shouldn't have done it. You heard Slughorn. It's illegal. What are you going to do? Turn us in? demanded Ron. What are you two talking about? asked Harry, turning away to hang up his robes so that neither of them would see him grinning. You know perfectly well what we're talking about, said Hermione shrilly. You spiked Ron's juice with lucky potion at breakfast, Felix Felicis. No, I didn't, said Harry, turning back to face them both. Yes, you did, Harry, and that's why everything went right. There were Slytherin players missing, and Ron saved everything. I didn't put it in, said Harry, grinning broadly. He slipped his hand inside his jacket pocket and drew out the tiny bottle that Hermione had seen in his hand that morning. It was full of golden potion, and the cork was still tightly sealed with wax. I wanted Ron to think I'd done it, so I faked it when I knew you were looking. He looked at Ron. You saved everything because you felt lucky. You did it all yourself. He pocketed the potion again. There really wasn't anything in my pumpkin juice, Ron said, astounded. But the weather's good, and Vasey couldn't play. I honestly haven't been given lucky potion. Harry shook his head. Ron gaped at him for a moment, then rounded on Hermione, imitating her voice. You added Felix Felicis to Ron's juice this morning. That's why he saved everything. See, I can save goals without help, Hermione. I never said you couldn't, 
Ron, you thought you'd been given it too. But Ron had already strode past her out of the door with his broomstick over his shoulder. Uh, said Harry into the sudden silence. He had not expected his plan to backfire like this. Shall, shall we go up to the party then? You go, said Hermione, blinking back tears. I'm sick of Ron at the moment. I don't know what I'm supposed to have done. And she stormed out of the changing room too. Harry walked slowly back up the grounds toward the castle through the crowd, many of whom shouted congratulations at him, but he felt a great sense of letdown. He had been sure that if Ron won the match, he and Hermione would be friends again immediately. He did not see how he could possibly explain to Hermione that what she had done to offend Ron was kiss Victor Crumb, not when the offense had occurred so long ago. Harry could not see Hermione at the Gryffindor celebration party, which was in full swing when he arrived. Renewed cheers and clapping greeted his appearance, and he was soon surrounded by a mob of people congratulating him. What with trying to shake off the Creevy brothers, who wanted a blow-by-blow -blow match analysis, and the large group of girls that encircled him, laughing at his least amusing comments and batting their eyelids, it was some time before he could try and find Ron. At last, he extricated himself from Romilda Vane, who was hinting heavily that she would like to go to Slughorn's Christmas party with him. As he was ducking toward the drinks table, he walked straight into Ginny, Arnold the pygmy puff riding on her shoulder, and Crookshanks mewing hopefully at her heels. Looking for Ron? she asked, smirking. He's over there, the filthy hypocrite. Harry looked into the corner she was indicating. There, in full view of the whole room, stood Ron, wrapped so closely around Lavender Brown, it was hard to tell whose hands were whose. It looks like he's eating her face, doesn't it? said Ginny dispassionately. But I suppose he's got to refine his technique somehow. Good game, Harry. She patted him on the arm. Harry felt a swooping sensation in his stomach, but then she walked off to help herself to more butterbeer. Crookshanks trotted after her, his yellow eyes fixed upon Arnold. Harry turned away from Ron, who did not look like he would be surfacing soon, just as the portrait hole was closing. With a sinking feeling, he thought he saw a mane of bushy brown hair whipping out of sight. He darted forward, sidestepped Romilda Vane again, and pushed open the portrait of the fat lady. The corridor outside seemed to be deserted. Hermione! He found her in the first unlocked classroom he tried. She was sitting on the teacher's desk, alone, except for a small ring of twittering yellow birds circling her head, which he had clearly just conjured out of midair. Harry could not help admiring her spellwork at a time like this. Oh, hello, Harry, she said in a brittle voice. I was just practicing. Yeah, there, uh, really good, said Harry. He had no idea what to say to her. He was just wondering whether there was any chance that she had not noticed Ron, that she had merely left the room because the party was a little too rowdy, when she said, in an unnaturally high-pitched voice, Ron seems to be enjoying the celebrations. Uh, does he? said Harry. Don't pretend you didn't see him, said Hermione. He wasn't exactly hiding it, was... The door behind them burst open. To Harry's horror, Ron came in, laughing, pulling Lavender by the hand. Oh, he said, drawing up short at the sight of Harry and Hermione. Oops, 
said Lavender, and she backed out of the room, giggling. The door swung shut behind her. There was a horrible, swelling, billowing silence. Hermione was staring at Ron, who refused to look at her, but said, with an odd mixture of bravado and awkwardness, Hi, Harry. Wondered where you'd got to. Hermione slid off the desk. The little flock of golden birds continued to twitter in circles around her head so that she looked like a strange, feathery model of the solar system. You shouldn't leave Lavender waiting outside, she said quietly. She'll wonder where you've gone. She walked very slowly and erectly toward the door. Harry glanced at Ron, who was looking relieved that nothing worse had happened. Hopagno! came a shriek from the doorway. Harry spun around to see Hermione pointing her wand at Ron, her expression wild. The little flock of birds was speeding like a hail of fat golden bullets toward Ron, who yelped and covered his face with his hands, but the birds attacked, pecking and clawing at every bit of flesh they could reach. Get him off me, he yelled, but with one last look of vindictive fury, Hermione wrenched open the door and disappeared through it. Harry thought he heard a sob before it slammed. Chapter 15 The Unbreakable Vow Snow was swirling against the icy windows once more. Christmas was approaching fast. Hagrid had already single-handedly delivered the usual twelve Christmas trees for the Great Hall. Garlands of holly and tinsel had been twisted around the banisters of the stairs. Everlasting candles glowed from inside the helmets of suits of armor and great bunches of mistletoe had been hung at intervals along the corridors. Large groups of girls tended to converge underneath the mistletoe bunches every time Harry went past, which caused blockages in the corridors. Fortunately, however, Harry's frequent nighttime wanderings had given him an unusually good knowledge of the castle's secret passageways, so that he was able, without too much difficulty, to navigate mistletoe-free routes between classes. Ron, who might once have found the necessity of these detours a cause for jealousy rather than hilarity, simply roared with laughter about it all. Although Harry much preferred this new, laughing, joking Ron to the moody, aggressive model he had been enduring for the last few weeks, the improved Ron came at a heavy price. Firstly, Harry had to put up with the frequent presence of Lavender Brown, who seemed to regard any moment that she was not kissing Ron as a moment wasted. And secondly, Harry found himself once more the best friend of two people who seemed unlikely ever to speak to each other again. Ron, whose hands and forearms still bore scratches and cuts from Hermione's bird attack, was taking a defensive and resentful tone. She can't complain, he told Harry. She snogged Crumb. So she's found out someone wants to snog me, too. Well, it's a free country. I haven't done anything wrong. Harry did not answer, but pretended to be absorbed in the book they were supposed to have read before charms next morning. Quintessence, a quest. Determined as he was to remain friends with both Ron and Hermione, he was spending a lot of time with his mouth shut tight. I never promised Hermione anything, Ron mumbled. I mean, all right. I was going to go to Slughorn's Christmas party with her, but she never said, just as friends. I'm a free agent. Harry turned a page of quintessence, aware that Ron was watching him. Ron's voice tailed away in mutters, barely audible over the loud crackling of the fire, though Harry thought he caught the words, crumb, and can't complain, again.
Hermione's schedule was so full that Harry could only talk to her properly in the evenings, when Ron was, in any case, so tightly wrapped around Lavender that he did not notice what Harry was doing. Hermione refused to sit in the common room while Ron was there, so Harry generally joined her in the library, which meant that their conversations were held in whispers. He's at perfect liberty to kiss whomever he likes, said Hermione, while the librarian, Madame Pince, prowled the shelves behind them. I really couldn't care less. She raised her quill and dotted an eye so ferociously that she punctured a hole in her parchment. Harry said nothing. He thought his voice might soon vanish from lack of use. He bent a little lower over advanced potion-making and continued to make notes on everlasting elixirs, occasionally pausing to decipher the prince's useful additions to Libatius Borridge's text. And, incidentally, said Hermione after a few moments, you need to be careful. For the last time, said Harry, speaking in a slightly hoarse whisper after three quarters of an hour of silence, I am not giving back this book. I've learnt more from the half-blood prince than Snape or Slughorn have taught me in. I'm not talking about your stupid so-called prince, said Hermione, giving his book a nasty look as though it had been rude to her. I'm talking about earlier. I went into the girls' bathroom just before I came in here, and there were about a dozen girls in there, including that Romilda Vane, trying to decide how to slip you a love potion. They're all hoping they're going to get you to take them to Slughorn's party, and they all seem to have bought Fred and George's love potions, which I'm afraid to say probably work. Why didn't you confiscate them, then? demanded Harry. It seemed extraordinary that Hermione's mania for upholding rules could have abandoned her at this crucial juncture. They didn't have the potions with them in the bathroom, said Hermione scornfully. They were just discussing tactics, as I doubt whether even the half-blood prince, she gave the book another nasty look, could dream up an antidote for a dozen different love potions at once. I'd just invite someone to go with you. That'll stop all the others thinking they've still got a chance. It's tomorrow night. They're getting desperate. There isn't anyone I want to invite, mumbled Harry, who was still trying not to think about Ginny any more than he could help, despite the fact that she kept cropping up in his dreams in ways that made him devoutly thankful that Ron could not perform legitimacy. Well, just be careful what you drink, because Romilda Vane looked like she meant business, said Hermione grimly. She hitched up the long roll of parchment on which she was writing her arithmancy essay, and continued to scratch away with her quill. Harry watched her with his mind a long way away. Hang on a moment, he said slowly. I thought Filch had banned anything brought at Weasley's Wizard Wheezes. And when has anyone ever paid attention to what Filch has banned? asked Hermione, still concentrating on her essay. But I thought all the owls were being searched. So how come these girls are able to bring love potions into school? Fred and George send them disguised as perfumes and cough potions, said Hermione. It's part of their owl order service. You know a lot about it. Hermione gave him the kind of nasty look she had just given his copy of advanced potion making. It was all on the back of the bottles they showed Ginny and me in the summer, she said coldly. I don't go around putting potions in people's drinks or pretending to either, which is just as bad. Yeah, well, never mind that, said Harry quickly. The point is, Filch is being fooled, isn't he? These girls are getting stuff into the school disguised as something else. So why couldn't Malfoy have brought the necklace into the school? 
Oh, Harry, not that again. Come on, why not? demanded Harry. Look, sighed Hermione. Secrecy sensors detect jinxes, curses, and concealment charms, don't they? They're used to find dark magic and dark objects. They'd have picked up a powerful curse, like the one on that necklace within seconds, but something that's just been put in the wrong bottle wouldn't register. And anyway, love potions aren't dark or dangerous. Easy for you to say, muttered Harry, thinking of Romilda Vane. So it would be down to Filch to realize it wasn't a cough potion, and he's not a very good wizard. I doubt he can tell one potion from... Hermione stopped dead. Harry had heard it, too. Somebody had moved close behind them among the dark bookshelves. They waited, and a moment later the vulture-like countenance of Madame Pince appeared around the corner, her sunken cheeks, her skin like parchment, and her long hooked nose illuminated unflatteringly by the lamp she was carrying. The library is now closed, she said. Mind you return anything you have borrowed to the correct. What have you been doing to that book, you depraved boy? It isn't the library's, it's mine, said Harry hastily, snatching his copy of advanced potion-making off the table as she lunged at it with a claw-like hand. Despoiled, she hissed. Desecrated. Befouled. It's just a book that's been written on, said Harry, tugging it out of her grip. She looked as though she might have a seizure. Hermione, who had hastily packed her things, grabbed Harry by the arm and frog-marched him away. She'll ban you from the library if you're not careful. Why did you have to bring that stupid book? It's not my fault she's barking mad, Hermione. Or do you think she overheard you being rude about Filch? I've always thought there might be something going on between them. Oh, ha, ha. Enjoying the fact that they could speak normally again, they made their way along the deserted, lamp-lit corridors back to the common room, arguing about whether or not Filch and Madame Pince were secretly in love with each other. Baubles, said Harry to the fat lady, this being the new festive password. Same to you, said the fat lady with a roguish grin, and she swung forward to admit them. Hi, Harry, said Romilda Vane, the moment he had climbed through the portrait hole. Fancy a gillywater? Hermione gave him a what-did-I-tell-you look over her shoulder. No thanks, said Harry quickly. I don't like it much. Well. Take these, anyway, said Romilda, thrusting a box into his hands. Chocolate cauldrons. They've got fire whiskey in them. My grand sent them to me, but I don't like them. Oh, right. Thanks a lot, said Harry, who could not think what else to say. Uh, I'm just going over here with... He hurried off behind Hermione, his voice tailing away feebly. Told you said Hermione succinctly. Sooner you are someone, sooner they'll all leave you alone, and you can... But her face suddenly turned blank. She had just spotted Ron and Lavender, who were entwined in the same armchair. Well, good night, Harry, said Hermione, though it was only seven o'clock in the evening, and she left for the girls' dormitory without another word. Harry went to bed, comforting himself that there was only one more day of lessons to struggle through, plus Slughorn's party, after which he and Ron would depart together for the burrow. It now seemed impossible that Ron and Hermione would make up with each other before the holidays began, but perhaps, somehow, the break would give them time to calm down, think better of their behavior.
But his hopes were not high, and they sank still lower after enduring a transfiguration lesson with them both next day. They had just embarked upon the immensely difficult topic of human transfiguration. Working in front of mirrors, they were supposed to be changing the color of their own eyebrows. Hermione laughed unkindly at Ron's disastrous first attempt, during which he somehow managed to give himself a spectacular handlebar mustache. Ron retaliated by doing a cruel but accurate impression of Hermione jumping up and down in her seat every time Professor McGonagall asked a question, which Lavender and Parvati found deeply amusing, and which reduced Hermione to the verge of tears again. She raced out of the classroom on the bell, leaving half her things behind. Harry, deciding that her need was greater than Ron's just now, scooped up her remaining possessions and followed her. He finally tracked her down as she emerged from a girl's bathroom on the floor below. She was accompanied by Luna Lovegood, who was patting her vaguely on the back. Oh, hello, Harry, said Luna. Did you know one of your eyebrows is bright yellow? Hi, Luna. Hermione, you left your stuff. He held out her books. Oh, yes, said Hermione in a choked voice, taking her things and turning away quickly to hide the fact that she was wiping her eyes on her pencil case. Thank you, Harry. Well, I'd better get going. And she hurried off, without giving Harry any time to offer words of comfort, though admittedly he could not think of any. She's a bit upset, said Luna. I thought at first it was moaning Myrtle in there, but it turned out to be Hermione. She said something about that Ron Weasley. Yeah, they've had a row, said Harry. He says very funny things sometimes, doesn't he? said Luna, as they set off down the corridor together. But he can be a bit unkind. I noticed that last year. I suppose, said Harry. Luna was demonstrating her usual knack of speaking uncomfortable truths. He had never met anyone quite like her. So, have you had a good term? Oh, it's been all right, said Luna. A bit lonely without the DA. Ginny's been nice, though. She stopped two boys in our transfiguration class calling me Looney the other day. How would you like to come to Slughorn's party with me tonight? The words were out of Harry's mouth before he could stop them. He heard himself say them as though it were a stranger speaking. Luna turned her protuberant eyes upon him in surprise. Slughorn's party? With you? Yeah, said Harry. We're supposed to bring guests, so I thought you might like, I mean. He was keen to make his intentions perfectly clear. I mean, just as friends, you know, but if you don't want to. He was already half hoping that she didn't want to. Oh, no, I'd love to go with you as friends, said Luna, beaming as he had never seen her beam before. Nobody's ever asked me to a party before, as a friend. Is that why you dyed your eyebrow for the party? Should I do mine, too? No, said Harry firmly. That was a mistake. I'll get Hermione to put it right for me. So, I'll meet you in the entrance hall at eight o'clock, then? Ha-ha! <laughs> screamed a voice from overhead, and both of them jumped. Unnoticed by either of them, they had just passed right underneath Peeves, who was hanging upside down from a chandelier and grinning maliciously at them. 
Potty asked Looney to go to the party. Potty loves Looney. Potty loves Looney. And he zoomed away, cackling and shrieking. Potty loves Looney. Nice to keep these things private, said Harry. And sure enough, in no time at all, the whole school seemed to know that Harry Potter was taking Luna Lovegood to Slughorn's party. You could have taken anyone, said Ron in disbelief over dinner. Anyone! And you chose Looney Lovegood? Don't call her that, Ron, snapped Ginny, pausing behind Harry on her way to join friends. I'm really glad you're taking her, Harry. She's so excited. And she moved on down the table to sit with Dean. Harry tried to feel pleased that Ginny was glad he was taking Luna to the party, but could not quite manage it. A long way along the table, Hermione was sitting alone, playing with her stew. Harry noticed Ron looking at her furtively. You could say sorry, suggested Harry bluntly. What? And get attacked by another flock of canaries? muttered Ron. What did you have to imitate her for? She laughed at my moustache. So did I. It was the stupidest thing I've ever seen. But Ron did not seem to have heard. Lavender had just arrived with Parvati. Squeezing herself in between Harry and Ron, Lavender flung her arms around Ron's neck. Hi, Harry, said Parvati, who, like him, looked faintly embarrassed and bored by the behavior of their two friends. Hi, said Harry. How are you? You're staying at Hogwarts, then. I heard your parents wanted you to leave. I managed to talk them out of it for the time being, said Parvati. That Katie thing really freaked them out, but as there hasn't been anything since. Oh, hi, Hermione. Parvati positively beamed. Harry could tell that she was feeling guilty for having laughed at Hermione in transfiguration. He looked around and saw that Hermione was beaming back, if possible even more brightly. Girls were very strange sometimes. Hi, Parvati said Hermione, ignoring Ron and Lavender completely. Are you going to Slughorn's party tonight? No invite, said Parvati gloomily. I'd love to go, though. It sounds like it's going to be really good. You're going, aren't you? Yes. I'm meeting Cormac at eight, and we're... There was a noise like a plunger being withdrawn from a block sink, and Ron surfaced. Hermione acted as though she had not seen or heard anything. We're going up to the party together. Cormac, said Parvati. Cormac McLagan, you mean? That's right, said Hermione sweetly. The one who almost, she put a great deal of emphasis on the word, became Gryffindor Keeper. Are you going out with him then? asked Parvati wide-eyed. Oh, yes, <laughs> didn't you know? said Hermione, with a most un-Hermione-ish giggle. No said Parvati, looking positively agog at this piece of gossip. Wow! You like your Quidditch players, don't you? First Crom, then McLagan. I like really good Quidditch players, Hermione corrected her, still smiling. Well, see you. Got to go and get ready for the party. She left. At once Lavender and Parvati put their heads together to discuss this new development with everything they had ever heard about McLagan and all they had ever guessed about Hermione. Ron looked strangely blank and said nothing. Harry was left to ponder in silence the depths to which girls would sink to get revenge.
When he arrived in the entrance hall at eight o'clock that night, he found an unusually large number of girls lurking there, all of whom seemed to be staring at him resentfully as he approached Luna. She was wearing a set of spangled silver robes that were attracting a certain amount of giggles from the onlookers, but otherwise she looked quite nice. Harry was glad in any case that she had left off her radish earrings, her butterbeer cork necklace, and her spectre specs. Hi, he said. Shall we get going then? Oh, yes, she said happily. Where is the party? Slughorn's office, said Harry, leading her up the marble staircase away from all the staring and muttering. Did you hear? There's supposed to be a vampire coming. Rufus Scrimjaw? asked Luna. I... what? said Harry, disconcerted. You mean the Minister of Magic? Yes, he's a vampire, said Luna matter-of-factly. Father wrote a very long article about it when Scrimgeour first took over from Cornelius Fudge, but he was forced not to publish by somebody from the Ministry. Obviously, they didn't want the truth to get out. Harry, who thought it most unlikely that Rufus Scrimgeour was a vampire, but who was used to Luna repeating her father's bizarre views as though they were fact, did not reply. They were already approaching Slughorn's office, and the sounds of laughter, music, and loud conversation were growing louder with every step they took. Whether it had been built that way, or because he had used magical trickery to make it so, Slughorn's office was much larger than the usual teacher's study. The ceiling and walls had been draped with emerald, crimson, and gold hangings, so that it looked as though they were all inside a vast tent. The room was crowded and stuffy, and bathed in the red light cast by an ornate golden lamp dangling from the center of the ceiling, in which real fairies were fluttering, each a brilliant speck of light. Loud singing accompanied by what sounded like mandolins issued from a distant corner. A haze of pipe smoke hung over several elderly warlocks deep in conversation, and a number of house-elves were negotiating their way squeakily through the forest of knees, obscured by the heavy silver platters of food they were bearing, so that they looked like little roving tables. Harry, my boy, boomed Slughorn, almost as soon as Harry and Luna had squeezed in through the door. Come in, come in, so many people I'd like you to meet. Slughorn was wearing a tasseled velvet hat to match his smoking jacket. Gripping Harry's arm so tightly he might have been hoping to disapparate with him, Slughorn led him purposefully into the party. Harry seized Luna's hand and dragged her along with him. Harry, I'd like you to meet Eldred Warple, an old student of mine, author of Blood Brothers, My Life Amongst the Vampires, and, of course, his friend Sanguini. Warple, who was a small, stout, bespectacled man, grabbed Harry's hand and shook it enthusiastically. The vampire Sanguini, who was tall and emaciated, with dark shadows under his eyes, merely nodded. He looked rather bored. A gaggle of girls was standing close to him, looking curious and excited. Harry Potter, I am simply delighted, said Warple, peering short-sightedly up into Harry's face. I was saying to Professor Slughorn only the other day, where is the biography of Harry Potter for which we have all been waiting? Uh, said Harry, were you? Just as modest as Horace described, said Warple, but seriously. His manner changed. It became suddenly businesslike. I would be delighted to write it myself. 
People are craving to know more about you, dear boy, craving. If you were prepared to grant me a few interviews, say in four or five hour sessions, why, we could have the book finished within months, and all with very little effort on your part, I assure you. Ask Sanguini here if it isn't quite. Sanguini, stay here, added Warple, suddenly stern, for the vampire had been aging toward the nearby group of girls, a rather hungry look in his eye. Here, have a pasty, said Warple, seizing one from a passing elf and stuffing it into Sanguini's hand before turning his attention back to Harry. My dear boy, the gold you could make, you have no idea. I'm definitely not interested, said Harry firmly, and I've just seen a friend of mine. Sorry. He pulled Luna after him into the crowd. He had indeed just seen a long mane of brown hair disappear between what looked like two members of the Weird Sisters. Hermione! Hermione! Harry! There you are! Thank goodness! Hi, Luna! What's happened to you? asked Harry, for Hermione looked distinctly disheveled rather as though she had just fought her way out of a thicket of devil's snare. Oh, I've just escaped. I mean, I've just left Cormac, she said, under the mistletoe, she added in explanation, as Harry continued to look questioningly at her. Serves you right for coming with him, he told her severely. I thought he'd annoy Ron most, said Hermione dispassionately. I debated for a while about Zachariah Smith, but I thought, on the whole, you considered Smith, said Harry, revolted. Yes, I did. And I'm starting to wish I'd chosen him. McLagan makes Grawp look a gentleman. Let's go this way. We'll be able to see him coming. He's so tall. The three of them made their way over to the other side of the room, scooping up goblets of mead on the way, realizing too late that Professor Trelawney was standing there alone. Hello, said Luna politely to Professor Trelawney. Good evening, my dear, said Professor Trelawney, focusing upon Luna with some difficulty. Harry could smell cooking sherry again. I haven't seen you in my classes lately. No, I've got Ferenzi this year, said Luna. Oh, of course, said Professor Trelawney with an angry, drunken titter. Or Dobbin, as I prefer to think of him. You would have thought, would you not, that now I am returned to the school. Professor Dumbledore might have got rid of the horse, but no. We share classes. It's an insult, frankly, an insult. Do you know... Professor Trelawney seemed too tipsy to have recognized Harry. Under cover of her furious criticisms of Ferenzi, Harry drew closer to Hermione and said, Let's get something straight. Are you planning to tell Ron that you interfered at Keeper tryouts? Hermione raised her eyebrows. Do you really think I'd stoop that low? Harry looked at her shrewdly. Hermione, if you can ask out McLagan, there's a difference, said Hermione with dignity. I've got no plans to tell Ron anything about what might or might not have happened at Keeper tryouts. Good said Harry fervently, because he'll just fall apart again, and we'll lose the next match. Quidditch, said Hermione angrily. Is that all boys care about? Cormac hasn't asked me one single question about myself, no. I've just been treated to a hundred great saves made by Cormac McLagan. Non-stop, ever since... Oh, no, here he comes. 
She moved so fast, it was as though she had disapparated. One moment she was there, the next she had squeezed between two guffawing witches and vanished. Seen Hermione? asked McLagan, forcing his way through the throng a minute later. No, sorry, said Harry, and he turned quickly to join in Luna's conversation, forgetting for a split second to whom she was talking. Harry Potter, said Professor Trelawney in deep, vibrant tones, noticing him for the first time. Oh, hello, said Harry unenthusiastically. My dear boy, she said in a very carrying whisper, the rumors, the stories, the chosen one. Of course, I have known for a very long time. The omens were never good, Harry. But why have you not returned to divination? For you, of all people, the subject is of the utmost importance. Ah, Sybil, we all think our subjects most important said a loud voice, and Slughorn appeared at Professor Trelawney's other side, his face very red, his velvet hat a little askew, a glass of mead in one hand and an enormous mince pie in the other. But I don't think I've ever known such a natural at potions, said Slughorn, regarding Harry with a fond, if bloodshot eye. Instinctive, you know, like his mother. I've only ever taught a few with this kind of ability. I can tell you that, Sybil, by even Severus. And to Harry's horror, Slughorn threw out an arm and seemed to scoop Snape out of thin air toward them. Sup, Skull King, and come and join us, Severus, hiccuped Slughorn happily. I was just talking about Harry's exceptional potion-making. Some credit must go to you, of course. You taught him for five years. Trapped with Slughorn's arm around his shoulders, Snape looked down his hooked nose at Harry, his black eyes narrowed. Funny, I never had the impression that I managed to teach Potter anything at all. Well, then, it's natural ability, shouted Slughorn. You should have seen what he gave me. First lesson, draft of living death. Never had a student produce finer on a first attempt. I don't think even you, Severus. Really? said Snape quietly, his eyes still boring into Harry, who felt a certain disquiet. The last thing he wanted was for Snape to start investigating the source of his newfound brilliance at potions. Remind me what other subjects you're taking, Harry, asked Slughorn. Defense against the dark arts, charms, transfiguration, herbology, all the subjects required in short for an auror, said Snape with the faintest sneer. Yeah, well, that's what I'd like to do, said Harry defiantly. And a great one you'll make, too, boomed Slughorn. I don't think you should be an Auror, Harry, said Luna unexpectedly. Everybody looked at her. The Aurors are part of the Rotfang conspiracy. I thought everyone knew that. They're working to bring down the Ministry of Magic from within using a combination of dark magic and gum disease. Harry inhaled half his mead up his nose as he started to laugh. Really, it had been worth bringing Luna just for this. Emerging from his goblet, coughing, sopping wet but still grinning, he saw something calculated to raise his spirits even higher. Draco Malfoy being dragged by the ear toward them by Argus Filch. Professor Slughorn, wheezed Filch, his jowls a quiver, and the maniacal light of mischief detection in his bulging eyes.
I discovered this boy lurking in an upstairs corridor. He claims to have been invited to your party and to have been delayed in setting out. Did you issue him with an invitation? Malfoy pulled himself free of Filch's grip, looking furious. All right. I wasn't invited, he said angrily. I was trying to gatecrash. Happy? No, I'm not, said Filch, a statement at complete odds with the glee on his face. You're in trouble, you are. Didn't the headmaster say that nighttime prowling's out? Unless you've got permission, didn't he? Hey? That's all right, Argus, that's all right, said Slughorn, waving a hand. It's Christmas, and it's not a crime to want to come to a party. Just this once, we'll forget any punishment. You may stay, Draco. Filch's expression of outraged disappointment was perfectly predictable. But why, Harry wondered, watching him, did Malfoy look almost equally unhappy? And why was Snape looking at Malfoy as though both angry and, was it possible, a little afraid? But almost before Harry had registered what he had seen, Filch had turned and shuffled away, muttering under his breath. Malfoy had composed his face into a smile and was thanking Slughorn for his generosity, and Snape's face was smoothly inscrutable again. It's nothing, nothing, said Slughorn, waving away Malfoy's thanks. I did know your grandfather after all. He always spoke very highly of you, sir, said Malfoy quickly. Said you were the best potion maker he'd ever known. Harry stared at Malfoy. It was not the sucking up that intrigued him. He had watched Malfoy do that to Snape for a long time. It was the fact that Malfoy did, after all, look a little ill. This was the first time he had seen Malfoy close up for ages. He now saw that Malfoy had dark shadows under his eyes and a distinctly grayish tinge to his skin. I'd like a word with you, Draco, said Snape suddenly. Oh, now, Severus, <coughs> said Slughorn, hiccuping again. It's Christmas. Don't be too hard. I'm his head of house, and I shall decide how hard or otherwise to be, said Snape curtly. Follow me, Draco. They left, Snape leading the way, Malfoy looking resentful. Harry stood there for a moment, irresolute, then said, I'll be back in a bit, Luna. Uh, bathroom. All right, she said cheerfully, and he thought he heard her, as he hurried off into the crowd, resume the subject of the Rutfang conspiracy with Professor Trelawney, who seemed sincerely interested. It was easy, once out of the party, to pull his invisibility cloak out of his pocket and throw it over himself, for the corridor was quite deserted. What was more difficult was finding Snape and Malfoy. Harry ran down the corridor, the noise of his feet masked by the music and loud talk still issuing from Slughorn's office behind him. Perhaps Snape had taken Malfoy to his office in the dungeons, or perhaps he was escorting him back to the slithering common room. Harry pressed his ear against door after door as he dashed down the corridor until, with a great jolt of excitement, he crouched down to the keyhole of the last classroom in the corridor and heard voices. Cannot afford mistakes, Draco, because if you are expelled... I didn't have anything to do with it, all right? I hope you are telling the truth, because it was both clumsy and foolish. Already you are suspected of having a hand in it. Who suspects me? said Malfoy angrily. 
For the last time, I didn't do it, okay? That bell girl must have had an enemy no one knows about. Don't look at me like that. I know what you're doing. I'm not stupid, but it won't work. I can stop you. There was a pause, and then Snape said quietly, Ah, Aunt Bellatrix has been teaching you occlumency, I see. What thoughts are you trying to conceal from your master, Draco? I'm not trying to conceal anything from him. I just don't want you butting in. Harry pressed his ear still more closely against the keyhole. What had happened to make Malfoy speak to Snape like this? Snape, toward whom he had always shown respect, even liking. So that is why you've been avoiding me this term. You have feared my interference. You realize that had anybody else failed to come to my office when I had told them repeatedly to be there, Traeger? So put me in detention. Report me to Dumbledore, jeered Malfoy. There was another pause. Then Snape said, You know perfectly well that I do not wish to do either of those things. You'd better stop telling me to come to your office then. Listen to me, said Snape, his voice so low now that Harry had to push his ear very hard against the keyhole to hear. I am trying to help you. I swore to your mother I would protect you. I made the unbreakable vow, Draco. Looks like you'll have to break it then, because I don't need your protection. It's my job. He gave it to me, and I'm doing it. I've got a plan, and it's going to work. It's just taking a bit longer than I thought it would. What is your plan? It's none of your business. If you tell me what you are trying to do, I can assist you. I've got all the assistance I need, thanks. I'm not alone. You were certainly alone tonight, which was foolish in the extreme, wandering the corridors without lookouts or backup. These are elementary mistakes. I would have had Crab and Goyle with me if you hadn't put them in detention. Keep your voice down! spat Snape, for Malfoy's voice had risen excitedly. If your friends, Crab and Goyle, intend to pass their defense against the Dark Arts OWL this time around, they will need to work a little harder than they are doing at press. What does it matter? said Malfoy. Defense against the Dark Arts. It's all just a joke, isn't it? An act like any of us need protecting against the Dark Arts. It is an act that is crucial to success, Draco said Snape. Where do you think I would have been all these years if I had not known how to act? Now listen to me. You are being incautious, wandering around at night, getting yourself caught. And if you are placing your reliance in assistance like Crab and Goyle, they're not the only ones. I've got other people on my side. Better people. Then why not confide in me, and I can... I know what you're up to. You want to steal my glory. There was another pause, then Snape said coldly, You are speaking like a child. I quite understand that your father's capture and imprisonment has upset you, but... Harry had barely a second's warning. He heard Malfoy's footsteps on the other side of the door and flung himself out of the way, just as it burst open. Malfoy was striding away down the corridor, past the open door of Slughorn's office, around the distant corner, and out of sight. Hardly daring to breathe, Harry remained crouched down as Snape emerged slowly from the classroom. His expression unfathomable. He returned to the party. Harry remained on the floor, hidden beneath the cloak, his mind racing.
Chapter 16 A Very Frosty Christmas So Snape was offering to help him? He was definitely offering to help him? If you ask that once more, said Harry, I'm going to stick this sprout. I'm only checking, said Ron. They were standing alone at the burrow's kitchen sink, peeling a mountain of sprouts for Mrs. Weasley. Snow was drifting past the window in front of them. Yes, Snape was offering to help him, said Harry. He said he'd promised Malfoy's mother to protect him, that he'd made an unbreakable oath or something. An unbreakable vow? said Ron, looking stunned. Nah, he can't have. Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure, said Harry. Why, what does it mean? Well, you can't break an unbreakable vow. I'd work that much out for myself, funnily enough. What happens if you break it, then? You die, said Ron, simply. Fred and George tried to get me to make one when I was about five. I nearly did, too. I was holding hands with Fred and everything when Dad found us. He went mental, said Ron, with a reminiscent gleam in his eyes. Only time I've ever seen Dad as angry as Mum. Fred reckons his left buttock has never been the same since. Yeah, well, passing over Fred's left buttock. I beg your pardon, said Fred's voice as the twins entered the kitchen. Ah, George, look at this. They're using knives and everything. Bless em. I'll be seventeen in two and a bit months' time, said Ron grumpily, and then I'll be able to do it by magic. But meanwhile, said George, sitting down at the kitchen table and putting his feet up on it, we can enjoy watching you demonstrate the correct use of a... Whoops-a-daisy! You made me do that, said Ron angrily, sucking his cut thumb. You wait. When I'm seventeen... I'm sure you'll dazzle us all with hitherto unsuspected magical skills, yawned Fred. And speaking of hitherto unsuspected skills, Ronald, said George, what is this we hear from Ginny about you and a young lady called, unless our information is faulty, Lavender Brown? Ron turned a little pink, but did not look displeased as he turned back to the sprouts. Mind your own business. What a snappy retort, said Fred. I really don't know how you think of them. Now, what we wanted to know was, how did it happen? What do you mean? Did she have an accident or something? What? Well, how did she sustain such extensive brain damage? Careful now. Mrs. Weasley entered the room just in time to see Ron throw the sprout knife at Fred, who had turned it into a paper aeroplane with one lazy flick of his wand. Ron! she said furiously. Don't you ever let me see you throwing knives again! I won't, said Ron. Let you see, he added under his breath as he turned back to the Sprout Mountain. Fred, George, I'm sorry, dears, but Remus is arriving tonight, so Bill will have to squeeze in with you two. No problem, said George. Then, as Charlie isn't coming home, that just leaves Harry and Ron in the attic. And if Fleur shares with Ginny... That'll make Ginny's Christmas, muttered Fred. Everyone should be comfortable. Well, they'll have a bed anyway, said Mrs. Weasley, sounding slightly harassed. Percy definitely not showing his ugly face, then, asked Fred. Mrs. Weasley turned away before she answered. No, he's busy, I expect, at the Ministry. Oh, he's the world's biggest prat, said Fred, as Mrs. Weasley left the kitchen. One of the two. Well, 
Let's get going then, George. What are you two up to? asked Ron. Can't you help us with these sprouts? You could just use your wand and then we'll be free too. No, I don't think we can do that, said Fred seriously. It's very character-building stuff. Learning to peel sprouts without magic makes you appreciate how difficult it is for muggles and squibs. And if you want people to help you, Ron, added George, throwing the paper aeroplane at him, I wouldn't chuck knives at them. Just a little hint? We're off to the village. There's a very pretty girl working in the paper shop who thinks my card tricks are something marvellous, almost like real magic. Gits said Ron darkly, watching Fred and George setting off across the snowy yard. Would have only taken them ten seconds, and then we could have gone, too. I couldn't, said Harry. I promised Dumbledore I wouldn't wander off while I'm staying here. Oh, yeah, said Ron. He peeled a few more sprouts, and then said, Are you going to tell Dumbledore what you heard Snape and Malfoy saying to each other? Yep, said Harry. I'm going to tell anyone who can put a stop to it, and Dumbledore's top of the list. I might have another word with your dad, too. Pity you didn't hear what Malfoy's actually doing, though. I couldn't have done, could I? That was the whole point. He was refusing to tell Snape. There was silence for a moment or two. Then Ron said, Of course, you know what they'll all say? Dad and Dumbledore and all of them. They'll say Snape isn't really trying to help Malfoy. He was just trying to find out what Malfoy's up to. They didn't hear him, said Harry flatly. No one's that good an actor, not even Snape. Yeah, I'm just saying, though, said Ron. Harry turned to face him, frowning. You think I'm right, though? Yeah, I do, said Ron hastily. Seriously, I do, but they're all convinced Snape's in the order, aren't they? Harry said nothing. It had already occurred to him that this would be the most likely objection to his new evidence. He could hear Hermione now. Obviously, Harry, he was pretending to offer help so he could trick Malfoy into telling him what he's doing. This was pure imagination, however, as he had had no opportunity to tell Hermione what he had overheard. She had disappeared from Slughorn's party before he returned to it, or so he had been informed by an irate McLagan, and she had already gone to bed by the time he returned to the common room. As he and Ron had left for the burrow early the next day, he had barely had time to wish her a happy Christmas and to tell her that he had some very important news when they got back from the holidays. He was not entirely sure that she had heard him, though. Ron and Lavender had been saying a thoroughly nonverbal goodbye just behind him at the time. Still, even Hermione would not be able to deny one thing. Malfoy was definitely up to something, and Snape knew it. So Harry felt fully justified in saying, I told you so which he had done several times to Ron already. Harry did not get the chance to speak to Mr. Weasley, who was working very long hours at the Ministry until Christmas Eve night. The Weasleys and their guests were sitting in the living room, which Ginny had decorated so lavishly that it was rather like sitting in a paper chain explosion. Fred, George, Harry, and Ron were the only ones who knew that the angel on top of the tree was actually a garden gnome that had bitten Fred on the ankle as he pulled up carrots for Christmas dinner. Stupefied, painted gold, stuffed into a miniature tutu, and with small wings glued to its back, it glowered down at them all. The ugliest angel Harry had ever seen, with a large bald head like a potato, and rather hairy feet. 
They were all supposed to be listening to a Christmas broadcast by Mrs. Weasley's favorite singer, Celestina Warbeck, whose voice was warbling out of the large wooden wireless set. Fleur, who seemed to find Celestina very dull, was talking so loudly in the corner that a scowling Mrs. Weasley kept pointing her wand at the volume control so that Celestina grew louder and louder. Under cover of a particularly jazzy number called A Cauldron Full of Hot Strong Love, Fred and George started a game of exploding snap with Ginny. Ron kept shooting Bill and Fleur covert looks, as though hoping to pick up tips. Meanwhile, Remus Lupin, who was thinner and more ragged-looking than ever, was sitting beside the fire, staring into its depths as though he could not hear Celestina's voice. Oh, come and stir my cauldron, and if you do it right, I'll boil you up some hot, strong love to keep you warm tonight. We danced to this when we were eighteen, said Mrs. Weasley, wiping her eyes on her knitting. Do you remember, Arthur? Hump, said Mr. Weasley, whose head had been nodding over the satsuma he was peeling. Oh, yes, marvellous tune. With an effort, he sat up a little straighter and looked around at Harry, who was sitting next to him. Sorry about this, he said, jerking his head toward the wireless as Celestina broke into the chorus. Be over soon. No problem, said Harry, grinning. Has it been busy at the ministry? Very, said Mr. Weasley. I wouldn't mind if we were getting anywhere. But of the three arrests we've made in the last couple of months, I doubt that one of them is a genuine Death Eater. Only don't repeat that, Harry, he added quickly, looking much more awake all of a sudden. They're not still holding Stan Shunpike, are they? asked Harry. I'm afraid so, said Mr. Weasley. I know Dumbledore's tried appealing directly to Scrimgeour about Stan. I mean, anybody who has actually interviewed him agrees that he's about as much a Death Eater as this Satsuma. But the top levels want to look as though they're making some progress, and three arrests sounds better than three mistaken arrests and releases. But again, this is all top secret. I won't say anything, said Harry. He hesitated for a moment, wondering how best to embark on what he wanted to say. As he marshaled his thoughts, Celestina Warbeck began a ballad called You Charmed the Heart Right Out of Me. Mr. Weasley, you know what I told you at the station when we were setting off for school? I checked, Harry, said Mr. Weasley at once. I went and searched the Malfoy's house. There was nothing, either broken or whole, that shouldn't have been there. Yeah, I know. I saw in the prophet that you'd looked. But this is something different. Well, something more and he told Mr. Weasley everything he had overheard between Malfoy and Snape. As Harry spoke, he saw Lupin's head turn a little toward him, taking in every word. When he had finished, there was silence, except for Celestina's crooning. Oh, my poor heart, where has it gone? It's left me for a spell. Has it occurred to you, Harry, said Mr. Weasley, that Snape was simply pretending? Pretending to offer help so that he could find out what Malfoy's up to, said Harry quickly. Yeah, I thought you'd say that. But how do we know? It isn't our business to know, said Lupin unexpectedly. He had turned his back on the fire now and faced Harry across Mr. Weasley. It's Dumbledore's business. Dumbledore trusts Severus. And that ought to be good enough for all of us. But, said Harry, 
Just say, just say Dumbledore's wrong about Snape. People have said it many times. It comes down to whether or not you trust Dumbledore's judgment. I do. Therefore, I trust Severus. But Dumbledore can make mistakes, argued Harry. He says it himself. And you, he looked Lupin straight in the eye. Do you honestly like Snape? I neither like nor dislike Severus, said Lupin. No, Harry, I'm speaking the truth, he added, as Harry pulled a skeptical expression. We shall never be bosom friends, perhaps, after all that happened between James and Sirius and Severus. There is too much bitterness there. But I do not forget that during the year I taught at Hogwarts, Severus made the Wolfsbane potion for me every month, made it perfectly so that I did not have to suffer as I usually do at the full moon. But he accidentally let it slip that you're a werewolf, so you had to leave, said Harry angrily. Lupin shrugged. The news would have leaked out anyway. We both know he wanted my job, but he could have wreaked much worse damage on me by tampering with the potion. He kept me healthy. I must be grateful. Maybe he didn't dare mess with the potion, with Dumbledore watching him, said Harry. You are determined to hate him, Harry, said Lupin with a faint smile. And I understand. With James as your father, with Sirius as your godfather, you have inherited an old prejudice. By all means, tell Dumbledore what you have told Arthur and me, but do not expect him to share your view of the matter. Do not even expect him to be surprised by what you tell him. It might have been on Dumbledore's orders that Severus questioned Draco. And now you've torn it quite apart. I'll thank you to give back my heart. Celestina ended her song on a very long, high-pitched note, and loud applause issued out of the wireless, which Mrs. Weasley joined in with enthusiastically. Is it over? said Fleur loudly. Thank goodness. What an horrible... Shall we have a nightcap, then? asked Mr. Weasley loudly, leaping to his feet. Who wants eggnog? What have you been up to lately? Harry asked Lupin, as Mr. Weasley bustled off to fetch the eggnog, and everybody else stretched and broke into conversation. Oh, I've been underground, said Lupin, almost literally. That's why I haven't been able to write, Harry. Sending letters to you would have been something of a giveaway. What do you mean? I've been living among my fellows, my equals, said Lupin. Werewolves, he added, at Harry's look of incomprehension. Nearly all of them are on Voldemort's side. Dumbledore wanted a spy, and here I was, ready-made. He sounded a little bitter, and perhaps realized it, for he smiled more warmly as he went on. I am not complaining. It is necessary work, and who can do it better than I? However, it has been difficult gaining their trust. I bear the unmistakable signs of having tried to live among wizards, you see, whereas they have shunned normal society and live on the margins, stealing and sometimes killing to eat. How come they like Voldemort? They think that, under his rule, they will have a better life, said Lupin. And it is hard to argue with Greyback out there. Who's Greyback? You haven't heard of him? Lupin's hands closed convulsively in his lap. Fenrir Greyback is perhaps the most savage werewolf alive today. 
He regards it as his mission in life to bite and to contaminate as many people as possible. He wants to create enough werewolves to overcome the wizards. Voldemort has promised him prey in return for his services. Greyback specializes in children. Bite them young, he says, and raise them away from their parents. Raise them to hate normal wizards. Voldemort has threatened to unleash him upon people's sons and daughters. It is a threat that usually produces good results. Lupin paused and then said, It was Greyback who bit me. What? said Harry, astonished. When? When you were a kid? You mean? Yes, my father had offended him. I did not know for a very long time the identity of the werewolf who had attacked me. I even felt pity for him, thinking that he had had no control, knowing by then how it felt to transform. But Greyback is not like that. At the full moon, he positions himself close to victims, ensuring that he is near enough to strike. He plans it all, and this is the man Voldemort is using to marshal the werewolves. I cannot pretend that my particular brand of reasoned argument is making much headway against Greyback's insistence that we werewolves deserve blood, that we ought to revenge ourselves on normal people. But you are normal, said Harry fiercely. You've just got a... a problem. Lupin burst out laughing. Sometimes you remind me a lot of James. He called it my furry little problem in company. Many people were under the impression that I owned a badly behaved rabbit. He accepted a glass of eggnog from Mr. Weasley with a word of thanks, looking slightly more cheerful. Harry, meanwhile, felt a rush of excitement. This last mention of his father had reminded him that there was something he had been looking forward to asking Lupin. Have you ever heard of someone called the Half-Blood Prince? The Half-Blood what? Prince, said Harry, watching him closely for signs of recognition. There are no wizarding princes, said Lupin, now smiling. Is this a title you're thinking of adopting? I should have thought being the chosen one would be enough. It's nothing to do with me, said Harry indignantly. The half-blood prince is someone who used to go to Hogwarts. I've got his old potions book. He wrote spells all over it, spells he invented. One of them was Levicorpus. Oh, that one had a great vogue during my time at Hogwarts, said Lupin reminiscently. There were a few months in my fifth year when you couldn't move for being hoisted into the air by your ankle. My dad used it, said Harry. I saw him in the pensive. He used it on Snape. He tried to sound casual, as though this was a throwaway comment of no real importance. But he was not sure he had achieved the right effect. Lupin's smile was a little too understanding. Yes, he said, but he wasn't the only one. As I say, it was very popular. You know how these spells come and go. But it sounds like it was invented while you were at school, Harry persisted. Not necessarily, said Lupin. Jinxes go in and out of fashion like everything else. He looked into Harry's face and then said quietly, James was a pure blood, Harry, and I promise you he never asked us to call him Prince. Abandoning pretense, Harry said, and it wasn't serious, or you? Definitely not. Oh, 
Harry stared into the fire. I just thought, well, he's helped me out a lot in potions classes, the prince has. How old is this book, Harry? I don't know. I've never checked. Well, perhaps that will give you some clue as to when the prince was at Hogwarts, said Lupin. Shortly after this, Fleur decided to imitate Celestina singing A Cauldron Full of Hot Strong Love, which was taken by everyone, once they had glimpsed Mrs. Weasley's expression, to be the cue to go to bed. Harry and Ron climbed all the way up to Ron's attic bedroom, where a camp bed had been added for Harry. Ron fell asleep almost immediately, but Harry delved into his trunk and pulled out his copy of Advanced Potion Making before getting into bed. There he turned its pages, searching, until he finally found, at the front of the book, the date that it had been published. It was nearly fifty years old. Neither his father nor his father's friends had been at Hogwarts fifty years ago. Feeling disappointed, Harry threw the book back into his trunk, turned off the lamp, and rolled over, thinking of werewolves and Snape, Stan Shunpike and the Half-Blood Prince, and finally falling into an uneasy sleep, full of creeping shadows and the cries of bitten children. She's got to be joking. Harry woke with a start to find a bulging stocking lying over the end of his bed. He put on his glasses and looked around. The tiny window was almost completely obscured with snow, and, in front of it, Ron was sitting bolt upright in bed and examining what appeared to be a thick gold chain. What's that? asked Harry. It's from Lavender said Ron, sounding revolted. She can't honestly think I'd wear. Harry looked more closely and let out a shout of laughter. Dangling from the chain, in large gold letters, were the words, My Sweetheart. Nice, he said. Classy. You should definitely wear it in front of Fred and George. If you tell them, said Ron, shoving the necklace out of sight under his pillow, I, I, I'll stutter at me, said Harry, grinning. Come on, would I? How could she think I'd like something like that, though? Ron demanded of thin air, looking rather shocked. Well, think back, said Harry. Have you ever let it slip that you'd like to go out in public with the words, My sweetheart, round your neck? Well, we don't really talk much, said Ron. It's mainly snogging, said Harry. Well, yeah, said Ron. He hesitated a moment, then said, Is Hermione really going out with McLagan? I don't know, said Harry. They were at Slughorn's party together, but I don't think it went that well. Ron looked slightly more cheerful as he delved deeper into his stocking. Harry's presence included a sweater with a large golden snitch worked onto the front, hand-knitted by Mrs. Weasley, a large box of Weasley's Wizard Wheezes products from the twins, and a slightly damp, moldy-smelling package that came with a label reading, To Master from Creature. Harry stared at it. Do you reckon this is safe to open? he asked. Can't be anything dangerous. All our mail's still being searched at the Ministry, replied Ron, though he was eyeing the parcel suspiciously. I didn't think of giving Creature anything. Do people usually give their house-elves Christmas presents? asked Harry, prodding the parcel cautiously. Hermione would, said Ron. But let's wait and see what it is before you start feeling guilty. A moment later, Harry had given a loud yell and leapt out of his camp bed. The package contained a large number of maggots. 
Nice, said Ron, roaring with laughter. Very thoughtful. I'd rather have them than that necklace, said Harry, which sobered Ron up at once. Everybody was wearing new sweaters when they all sat down for Christmas lunch. Everyone except Fleur, on whom it appeared Mrs. Weasley had not wanted to waste one, and Mrs. Weasley herself, who was sporting a brand new midnight blue witch's hat, glittering with what looked like tiny star-like diamonds and a spectacular golden necklace. Fred and George gave them to me. Aren't they beautiful? Well, we find we appreciate you more and more, Mum. Now we're washing our own socks, said George, waving an airy hand. Parsnips, Remus? Harry, you've got a maggot in your hair, said Ginny cheerfully, leaning across the table to pick it out. Harry felt goosebumps erupt up his neck that had nothing to do with the maggot. Ow, oh, horrible, said Fleur with an affected little shudder. Yes, isn't it, said Ron. Gravy, Fleur? In his eagerness to help her, he knocked the gravy boat flying. Bill waved his wand and the gravy soared up in the air and returned meekly to the boat. You are as bad as that tonks, said Fleur to Ron when she had finished kissing Bill in thanks. She is always knocking. I invited dear tonks to come along today, said Mrs. Weasley, setting down the carrots with unnecessary force and glaring at Fleur. But she wouldn't come. Have you spoken to her lately, Remus? No, I haven't been in contact with anybody very much, said Lupin. But Tonks has got her own family to go to, hasn't she? Hmm, said Mrs. Weasley. Maybe. I got the impression she was planning to spend Christmas alone, actually. She gave Lupin an annoyed look, as though it was all his fault she was getting Fleur for a daughter-in-law instead of Tonks, but Harry, glancing across at Fleur, who was now feeding Bill bits of turkey off her own fork, thought that Mrs. Weasley was fighting a long-lost battle. He was, however, reminded of a question he had with regard to Tonks, and who better to ask than Lupin, the man who knew all about Patronuses. Tonks's Patronus has changed its form, he told him. Snape says so anyway. I didn't know that could happen. Why would your Patronus change? Lupin took his time chewing his turkey and swallowing before saying slowly, Sometimes a great shock, an emotional upheaval. It looked big and it had four legs, said Harry, struck by a sudden thought and lowering his voice. Hey, it couldn't be. Arthur, said Mrs. Weasley suddenly. She had risen from her chair, her hand was pressed over her heart, and she was staring out of the kitchen window. Arthur, it's Percy. What? Mr. Weasley looked around. Everybody looked quickly at the window. Ginny stood up for a better look. There, sure enough, was Percy Weasley, striding across the snowy yard, his horn-rimmed glasses glinting in the sunlight. He was not, however, alone. Arthur, he's... He's with the minister. And sure enough, the man Harry had seen in the Daily Prophet was following along in Percy's wake, limping slightly, his mane of graying hair and his black cloak flecked with snow. Before any of them could say anything, before Mr. and Mrs. Weasley could do more than exchange stunned looks, the back door opened, and there stood Percy. There was a moment's painful silence, then Percy said, rather stiffly, Merry Christmas, Mother. Oh, Percy, 
said Mrs. Weasley, and she threw herself into his arms. Rufus Scrimgeour paused in the doorway, leaning on his walking stick and smiling as he observed this affecting scene. You must forgive this intrusion, he said when Mrs. Weasley looked around at him, beaming and wiping her eyes. Percy and I were in the vicinity, working, you know, and he couldn't resist dropping in and seeing you all. But Percy showed no sign of wanting to greet any of the rest of the family. He stood, poker-straight and awkward-looking, and stared over everybody else's heads. Mr. Weasley, Fred, and George were all observing him, stony-faced. Please, come in, sit down, Minister, fluttered Mrs. Weasley, straightening her hat. Have a little perky, or some tooting. I mean... No, no, my dear, Molly, said Scrimgeour. Harry guessed that he had checked her name with Percy before they entered the house. I don't want to intrude. Wouldn't be here at all if Percy hadn't wanted to see you all so badly. Oh, Perce, said Mrs. Weasley tearfully, reaching up to kiss him. We've only looked in for five minutes, so I'll have a stroll around the yard while you cash out with Percy. No, no, I assure you I don't want to butt in. Well, if anybody cared to show me your charming garden. Oh, that young man's finished. Why doesn't he take a stroll with me? The atmosphere around the table changed perceptibly. Everybody looked from Scrimgeour to Harry. Nobody seemed to find Scrimgeour's pretense that he did not know Harry's name convincing, or find it natural that he should be chosen to accompany the minister around the garden when Ginny, Fleur, and George also had clean plates. Yeah, all right, said Harry into the silence. He was not fooled. For all Scrimgeour's talk that they had just been in the area, that Percy wanted to look up his family, this must be the real reason that they had come, so that Scrimgeour could speak to Harry alone. It's fine, he said quietly, as he passed Lupin, who had half risen from his chair. Fine, he added, as Mr. Weasley opened his mouth to speak. Wonderful, said Scrimgeour, standing back to let Harry pass through the door ahead of him. We'll just take a turn around the garden, and Percy and I'll be off. Carry on, everyone. Harry walked across the yard toward the Weasley's overgrown, snow-covered garden, Scrimgeour limping slightly at his side. He had, Harry knew, been head of the Auror office. He looked tough and battle-scarred, very different from portly fudge in his bowler hat. Charming, said Scrimgeour, stopping at the garden fence and looking out over the snowy lawn and the indistinguishable plants. Charming. Harry said nothing. He could tell that Scrimgeour was watching him. I've wanted to meet you for a very long time, said Scrimgeour after a few moments. Did you know that? No, said Harry truthfully. Oh, yes, for a very long time. But Dumbledore has been very protective of you, said Scrimgeour. Natural, of course, natural after what you've been through, especially what happened at the Ministry. He waited for Harry to say something, but Harry did not oblige, so he went on. I have been hoping for an occasion to talk to you ever since I gained office, but Dumbledore has, most understandably, as I say, prevented this. Still, Harry said nothing, waiting. The rumors that have flown around, said Scrimgeour. Well, of course, we both know how these stories get distorted. All these whispers of a prophecy, of you being 
the Chosen One. They were getting near it now, Harry thought. The reason Scrimgeour was here. I assume that Dumbledore has discussed these matters with you. Harry deliberated, wondering whether he ought to lie or not. He looked at the little gnome prints all around the flower beds and the scuffed-up patch that marked the spot where Fred had caught the gnome, now wearing the tutu at the top of the Christmas tree. Finally, he decided on the truth, or a bit of it. Yeah, we've discussed it. Have you? Have you? said Scrimgeour. Harry could see out of the corner of his eye Scrimgeour squinting at him, so he pretended to be very interested in a gnome that had just poked its head out from underneath a frozen rhododendron. And what has Dumbledore told you, Harry? Sorry, but that's between us, said Harry. He kept his voice as pleasant as he could, and Scrimgeour's tone, too, was light and friendly as he said, Oh, of course. If it's a question of confidences, I wouldn't want you to divulge. No, no. And in any case, does it really matter whether you are the chosen one or not? Harry had to mull that one over for a few seconds before responding, I don't really know what you mean, Minister. Well, of course, to you it will matter enormously, said Scrimgeour with a laugh. But to the wizarding community at large, it's all perception, isn't it? It's what people believe that's important. Harry said nothing. He thought he saw dimly where they were heading, but he was not going to help Scrimgeour get there. The gnome under the rhododendron was now digging for worms at its roots, and Harry kept his eyes fixed upon it. People believe you are the chosen one, you see, said Scrimgeour. They think you quite the hero, which of course you are, Harry, chosen or not. How many times have you faced he who must not be named now? Well, anyway, he pressed on without waiting for a reply. The point is, you are a symbol of hope for many, Harry. The idea that there is somebody out there who might be able, who might even be destined to destroy he who must not be named, well, naturally, it gives people a lift. And I can't help but feel that once you realize this, you might consider it, well, almost a duty to stand alongside the ministry and give everyone a boost. The gnome had just managed to get hold of a worm. It was now tugging very hard on it, trying to get it out of the frozen ground. Harry was silent so long that Scrimgeour said, looking from Harry to the gnome, Funny little chaps, aren't they? But what say you, Harry? I don't exactly understand what you want, said Harry slowly. Stand alongside the ministry, what does that mean? Oh, well, nothing at all onerous, I assure you, said Scrimgeour. If you were to be seen popping in and out of the ministry from time to time, for instance, that would give the right impression. And, of course, while you were there, you would have ample opportunity to speak to Gawain Robards, my successor as head of the Auror office. Dolores Humbridge has told me that you cherish an ambition to become an Auror. Well, that could be arranged very easily. Harry felt anger bubbling in the pit of his stomach. So Dolores Umbridge was still at the Ministry, was she? So, basically, he said as though he just wanted to clarify a few points, you'd like to give the impression 
that I'm working for the Ministry. It would give everyone a lift to think you were more involved, Harry, said Scrimjaw, sounding relieved that Harry had cottoned on so quickly. The Chosen One, you know. It's all about giving people hope. The feeling that exciting things are happening. But if I keep running in and out of the Ministry, said Harry, still endeavouring to keep his voice friendly, won't that seem as though I approve of what the Ministry's up to? Well, said Scrimjaw, frowning slightly. Well, yes, that's partly why we'd like. No, I don't think that'll work, said Harry pleasantly. You see, I don't like some of the things the Ministry's doing. Locking up Stan Shunpike, for instance. Scrimjaw did not speak for a moment, but his expression hardened instantly. I would not expect you to understand, he said, and he was not as successful at keeping anger out of his voice as Harry had been. These are dangerous times, and certain measures need to be taken. You are sixteen years old. Dumbledore's a lot older than sixteen, and he doesn't think Stan should be in Azkaban either, said Harry. You're making Stan a scapegoat, just like you want to make me a mascot. They looked at each other, long and hard. Finally, Scrimjaw said, with no pretense at warmth, I see. You prefer, like your hero, Dumbledore, to disassociate yourself from the Ministry? I don't want to be used, said Harry. Some would say it's your duty to be used by the Ministry. Yeah. And others might say it's your duty to check that people really are Death Eaters before you chuck them in prison, said Harry, his temper rising now. You're doing what Barty Crouch did. You never get it right, you people, do you? Either we've got Fudge pretending everything's lovely while people get murdered right under his nose, or we've got you chucking the wrong people into jail and trying to pretend you've got the Chosen One working for you. So you're not the Chosen One, said Scrimjaw. I thought you said it didn't matter either way, said Harry, with a bitter laugh. Not to you, anyway. I shouldn't have said that, said Scrimjaw quickly. It was tactless. No, it was honest, said Harry. One of the only honest things you've said to me. You don't care whether I live or die, but you do care that I help you convince everyone you're winning the war against Voldemort. I haven't forgotten, Minister. He raised his right fist. There, shining white on the back of his cold hand, were the scars which Dolores Umbridge had forced him to carve into his own flesh. I must not tell lies. I don't remember you rushing to my defense when I was trying to tell everyone Voldemort was back. The Ministry wasn't so keen to be pals last year. They stood in silence, as icy as the ground beneath their feet. The gnome had finally managed to extricate his worm and was now sucking on it happily leaning against the bottommost branches of the rhododendron bush. What is Dumbledore up to? said Scrimjaw brusquely. Where does he go when he's absent from Hogwarts? No idea, said Harry. And you wouldn't tell me if you knew, said Scrimjaw. Would you? No, I wouldn't, said Harry. Well then, I shall have to see whether I can't find out by other means. You can try, said Harry indifferently but you seem cleverer than Fudge, so I'd have thought you'd have learned from his mistakes. He tried interfering at Hogwarts. You might have noticed he's not minister anymore, but Dumbledore's still headmaster. I'd leave Dumbledore alone if I were you. There was a long pause. Well, it is clear to me that he has done a very good job on you, 
said Scrimjaw, his eyes cold and hard behind his wire-rimmed glasses. Dumbledore's man, through and through, aren't you, Potter? Yeah, I am, said Harry. Glad we straightened that out. And, turning his back on the Minister of Magic, he strode back toward the house. <laughs>